what I've been asked to do basically is come up and bring a bring a workshop, bring a a big book workshop up to this group. And I'm I'm always uh, honored and privileged and and grateful uh, to be offered an opportunity uh, to do that. I I do this quite a bit. Um, around around the country and uh, and other places, so I've got some experience uh, doing uh, doing big book workshops. And uh, you know, one of the things that's very very true about a big book workshop is the learning and studying of the twelve steps and the learning and the studying of the book Alcoholics Anonymous is is near worthless without um, the motivation and the actual application of the specific instructions in it. Uh, what what the book Alcoholics Anonymous is really designed to do is to um, is to offer the individuals who are going through it and following directions an actual recovery experience, an experience that um, that brings about uh, a transformational personality change. Um, you go from being a hopeless alcoholic, which is basically someone uh, who does not have the ability uh, to, to predict uh, or have the power of choice and control to um, uh, with alcohol to be able to stay sober and uh, and move forward with their lives. You go from an, uh, a hopeless alcoholic to someone uh, in a state called recovered when you follow the... Um, uh, follow the guidelines in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I think it's very, very important for all of us to know that, but knowing it doesn't generate the experience. Doing it uh, generates the experience. One of the sad things that's, uh, that's happened in Alcoholics Anonymous today, not so much below the Mason-Dixon line as, as, I've, as I've learned, more so in, uh, in the Northeast where I come from, one of the sad things that's happened is Alcoholics Anonymous has become a place of gathering and sharing, uh, which is fine unless you're in real trouble. If you're in real trouble with alcoholism, you need a vital spiritual experience. And that's not going to happen by gathering and sharing. Uh, going to meetings does not treat alcoholism. What going to meetings does is it provides an atmosphere where someone can hopefully stay sober long enough to be able to find a recovery experience. So you find recovery in the fellowship if you're lucky today. But there are a lot of places and there are a lot of groups and there's a lot of individuals who never find recovery in the fellowship. They find fellowship in the fellowship. Um, and I believe that's why there's a huge, uh, a huge difference in recovery rates and, and long-term sobriety rates today uh, than there has, been, uh, there has been in the past. One of the things that... Um, that uh, um, I believe very, very strongly in is uh, maintaining the primacy, maintaining the importance of this book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm from the New York area, and I, I sponsor a grapevine editor. I'm personal friends with a number of trustees on the board of directors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I've, I, I, I'm invited every single year to the to the, uh, the service conference on Times Square. Uh, I know a lot of these people. Um, I've been invited to be a board member on uh, on Alcoholics Anonymous as a Class Two trustee. 
I know what goes on there, and um, and sometimes, sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. This was a statement that Bill Wilson used to uh, uh, used to say quite often. The good can sometimes be the enemy of the best. And I see that there's a lot of good that's that's coming out of New York, uh, but. When you put it up against um, this book, the transformational experience that you get when you go through the 12 steps, when you put some of their other literature up, up against it, you'll see that it's, it, it doesn't compare. You know, books like, uh, 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 books like uh, Living Sober, uh, some of the pamphlets, they're good. There's good information in them, but they do not offer a transformational experience called the state of recovered that the book Alcoholics Anonymous does. So there's a lot of things that go on. There's a lot of stuff that happens that contributes to the watering down and uh, and uh, the pulling away from some of the principles and practices that have uh, that have really really worked well in the past. Every once in a while, someone says, "You know, Chris, you you and that newfangled stuff that you're talking about." It, I, you know what? What I talk about is not newfangled. What what I basically share is first decade AA. You know, back when uh, back when they were running around and they were pulling pulling people off of bar stools and they were going into the insane asylums and and they were pulling people out of the hospital detox units and they were offering them they weren't offering them a ride to a meeting. They were offering them a ride through the steps. And back in those early days, that's when that's when this whole thing was built, and that's that's when a lot of the miracles that you know we're we're here because of uh, happened. And uh, and you know I am a traditionalist, and I, I am a I am a big book guy, and I you know, I make no uh, I make no apology for that. I've been around long enough. Um, uh, I've, I've worked with enough people. I've seen enough people go in and out of this fellowship that you can't even imagine and I know um, I know a few things one of them is is the people that pay real strict attention to what's in this book and really try to follow practice these principles those people stay around and they're here year after year after year card carrying members of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing working with other alcoholics and their quality of life gets better every single year the people who come in and believe that this is a sharing program you know I'm just going to come and share and you know I'm going to throw a dollar in the basket and you know I'm going home and get you know jump right back into the dysfunction of my life those people usually aren't around five years out ten years out and if they are, they're cranky. You know, they're the type of people who don't get better. And they, you know, the, it's, life is still, you know, a veil of tears, and it, you know, they still struggle with the same things they were struggling with five and ten years before. So that's what I see. Um, I see that we're offered not only an opportunity to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, but we're, 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 the recovery process itself brings about an incredibly in, uh, improved quality of life. You know, that's, that's really the good news. The bad news is we suffer from a progressively fatal illness. Okay, it always gets worse, it never gets better. That's the bad news. The good news is, is if you put it in remission through practicing the principles in the, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, 
year after year after month after after decade what happens is uh, spirituality becomes more important um, you start to develop a better self-esteem because you're doing esteemable acts you start to uh, you start to outgrow fear. You start to lose your resentments. You, you start to become more effective with life. You start to get out of your own way and stop shooting yourself in the foot all the time. And as this, as this happens, your life gets more valuable. It gets, it gets better. You, you, become, um, you become more of what God intended you to be and more of what you uh, the, the potential that you have. Has anybody in here ever been told back when you were drinking or in school that you had a lot of potential? You know, you, it, <laughs> we do. We've got a lot of potential, but we're shooting ourselves in the foot all the time because we're alcoholic. Another thing, um, another thing that's important as we start moving through this book is we're going to spend probably the first four weeks on step one. Why are we going to do that? Well, because Bill Wilson and, and the first 100, as they put this book together, understood that we don't get step one. We don't get it. It's, you know, instincts balk at investigation. Who among us wishes to admit complete defeat? Glass in hand, we've warped our minds to such a state that only an act of divine providence can restore us to sanity. You know, that's, that's out of the step book. Who among us really wants to go there? So what we do is, is we half measure step one. And if you look in the big book, the first 40-some pages, including the, uh, including the uh, Roman numerals, are all covering step one. And really, step one moves right up into the chapter, We Agnostics. So if you look at it, at least a third of the working part of the book Alcoholics Anonymous is concerned with step one. That's why we're going to take about four weeks on it as we move through this work. Because I'm going to, I'm going to include myself among us. Uh, we don't get it. Uh, if we had a... Alcoholism does not allow you the dignity of an accurate self-appraisal. And that's, that's long after you've gotten sober. It, it is an illness of minimization... It's an illness of rationalization, and it's an illness of spiritual laziness. That's just really what it is, inherent in the illness. So this is what we need God for. This is what we need the fellowship and, and each other for. We need to continue to try to develop enthusiasm, the enthusiasm to recover, because that enthusiasm is usually not there. That's one of the things that kills alcoholics more than anything else is a lack of enthusiasm to recover. Has anybody in here worked with people who, you know, their, their life is on fire and all you're trying to do is get them to go to some consistent meetings and they're too busy or they've got other ideas or, or you know, you know all these the steps and all these meetings, uh, you know, it's kind of an overreaction to a problem I really think I got under control. You got nothing under control. You're living in a car. You know what I mean? It's sometimes you got a hospital wristband on your, you know, on your wrist. You've got nothing under control, and you won't for years. You know? How many people really get it? 
I know. I know when I first uh, when I first wandered into Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew alcohol was killing me, but I didn't have a clue about how damaging alcoholism was. I thought my problem was drinking too much. If my problem really was drinking too much, stopping drinking too much would have solved my problem. That's not what happened with me. When you're alcoholic, uh, alcohol is a treatment for alcoholism. It's one of the reasons why we drink. It's a bad treatment. It backfires on you. It's not recommended, but it's a treatment for the spiritual malady known as alcoholism. And it talks about all of this in this book. It talks about a lot of things that you just don't hear in meetings anymore. It's become, it's become unpopular to talk about powerlessness. It's become unpopular to talk about adherence to spiritual principles. And it's become unpopular to talk about reliance on God. It's become very, very popular to share... Your whatever your your drama du jour, you know. Oh, here's what's going on in my life today. Oh, and if you were here last week, you know, let me catch you up on you know the drama in my life. Tell somebody who cares. You know what I mean? I'm dying from alcoholism. I need an experience. I need a recovery experience. I'm not interested. Okay. If you're going to complain week after month after year about the same stuff, you have work to do. There's a recovery experience that you that you're not that you're not allowing yourself. Because if you were if you went through the steps, you wouldn't be whining about that stuff week after month after year. You would be interested in helping other people. You would be you would be interested in in broadening and deepening your spiritual life. So, it's become unpopular to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is really amazing. Certainly in my area, up in North Jersey, where I got sober, you know, if somebody came into the group and said, you know, I've blown myself up, I'm really stupid, here's, all, here's a list of all the stupid things I did this week, and man, am I an idiot, thank you for letting me share. Everybody's like, yay! And then if somebody raises their hand and says, dude, you know, there's a recovery process, and if you would pay some attention and spend some time with a, an experienced sponsor and go through the steps, you wouldn't be confronted with that crap anymore. You know, you you would you would be able to outgrow all of that stupid foolishness. You know, get a clue. If somebody shared something like that, it would be like, whoa, you know, stay away from that guy. He's a Nazi. You know? So it's become it's become unpopular to to to, to talk about recovery in some areas of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I like the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I swear that you know there's half of the fellowship would really wish this would go away. You know it's not, uh, but you know it's got some inconvenient truths for 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 half measure fellowship people. But uh, but I'll tell you it's got the answer for survival for the for the real real alcoholic and the hopeless alcoholic. So you know it needs to be uh, it needs to be understood. Um, in this book, you know, I don't have a I don't have a dust jacket on this. One of the one of the crimes 
what you know one of the things that New York uh, you know did was they're really not supposed to mess with the 164. You know there's there's a policy and a procedure that you really leave the first 164 pages alone. You know, and it's been voted on, and it's 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 become very very difficult for anybody to get in there and monkey with it. That's why the the, the language is still sexist and archaic. It's because enough people who care really don't want anybody in there messing with this, especially the muttonheads from New York. You know, so so I'm glad of that. One of the things though that they allow people to do is change change the change the. Um, Change the forwards to the editions, the different editions, and the dust jacket. Okay, that's fair game. So what happened when the fourth edition came out, on the dust jacket, if anybody has a first printing of the fourth edition, you'll be able to read the dust jacket where it basically says the text Alcoholics Anonymous, which was the basis of recovery for alcoholics in the past, you know, has remained unchanged. They basically were saying, you know, those poor old alcoholics back in the day had to use this to recover. And enough of us freaked out about, you know, how stupid could you be to put that on the dust jacket that they changed it. So, you know, if you can find one of the first uh, first printings of the fourth edition, you'll see that. And that's when they allowed just somebody, whoever, to write up, the dust jacket without passing it by anybody and publish it. The same thing happened with the forward to the fourth edition where they basically said modem to modem face to face you know it's the exact same thing one alcoholic talking with another. Well I gotta tell you something modem to modem is not the same thing as working face to face with another alcoholic okay? I can I can be a 14 year old beautiful girl Modem to modem, if I wanted to be, you know what I'm saying? How do you know what what I, what I'm telling you is true if I'm modem to modem? Face to face is how we engage the alcoholic. Face to face is how we convince them that we we understand how you feel and where you've been. We 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 were there. We've experienced what you're going through right now, and we're recovered. You know, we found a way out, and we would love to show you that way out. You know, that's what you do face to face. So enough of, enough of us who cared freaked out about that, that forward to the fourth edition that they changed it. You know, so again... In Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fundamentalist. I'm a conservative. I believe in uh, in this book uh, because there's magic in the first 164. You go through the first 164 and you do it like a textbook because it is our basic text. When you get to an exercise, you stop and you take it before you move on. You will have a recovery experience that will rocket you into the fourth dimension of reality. It happens with everyone who does it. That does not happen with the step book. That does not happen with the book Living Sober. It does not happen with the pamphlets. You know, this is our basic text. This is what what transforms us. If we pay enough of attention to it and we're rigorous about practicing the principles in it. Now I'm going to get um, I'm going to get started reading it. The title page. I don't know about down here. Like I say, 
I, I am well pleased. I, show, I showed up about a month and a half ago in Statesville, you know, about 45 miles um, southwest uh, of here. And I came from um, an area in North Jersey where the big book meetings were few and far between and the experienced sponsors were few and far between and everything was just, you know, going and share like it was a bad Bob Newhart, you know, uh, therapy group, you know, without, without a trained counselor, you know. Um, so we would, we would literally we'd have to drive 45 minutes, you know, to go to go to a big book meeting, and and we'd show up at the other meetings, and that we we weren't the most popular people in the room because we'd be talking about recovery. You know, I come from that area. I, I moved down here. I start going to meetings in Statesville, and everything's a solution-based meeting. I'm like, I'm like, you know, this is what I've been. This is a fellowship I've been craving for my whole life. You know, so I really, I really don't know what what goes on. This is really my first meeting in Winston-Salem. You know, so if I sound a little condescending, and you, you know, you all get it. You, you know, you're all big book people. Please, uh, you know, I apologize. Uh, I'm just used to doing it uh, the, the way I do it because there's just uh, such a lack of experience and understanding where I, where I come from. Anyway. There is a controversy about uh, recovered or recovering up where I come from. You're looked, you're looked, looked on as very, very ar- arrogant if you, sh- if you share you're a recovered alcoholic. You're, we're supposed to be recovering, people say. Now, uh, on, the, on the title page here, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Fourth edition. Okay, That's what the book says. The book uses the term recovered. And here's here's how I justify that, and here here's how I can I can accept that pretty much a hundred percent. If you're cured of an illness, the illness is removed. If you're recovered from an illness, the symptoms of the illness are removed. The best we can have with alcoholism is is to have the symptoms removed. We're always going to have alcoholism with us. Anyone in, anyone in here who's been sober a long period of time and went back to drinking experienced one thing. And that was, you didn't go back to where you were when you stopped. You went back to where you would have been if you kept going with the progression. Okay, I'm seeing some heads nod in here. That's because over any considerable period of time, alcoholism gets worse. It doesn't get better. It gets worse, whether you're drinking or not. And the science behind that is basically your liver and your pancreas get to a point where they start to deteriorate in their ability to process alcohol. So... What happens is, even though you've been sober 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, your liver and your pancreas are still deteriorating in their ability to be able to process alcohol. That's why when you pick up a drink after 10, 20, or 30 years, you're rocketed back into you know, uh, acute alcoholism like you've never experienced before. And that's true with most, most alcoholics. So we'll always have... The physical part of alcoholism. There's two things. There's two things that can happen. One is you can die with alcoholism. The other is you can die from alcoholism. 
All right, I, I want to die with alcoholism. I don't want to die from alcoholism. So, yes, I am an alcoholic, but I'm a recovered alcoholic. The symptoms of active alcoholism don't manifest in me today. Uh, because I've gone through the steps and had a spiritual awakening, my spirit has been awakened. I don't suffer emotionally, mentally, or spiritually from the things that I suffered from prior to a recovery experience. So, recovering. Here's another way to look at it. Let's say you're in the hospital and you're in the recovery room. What does that mean? That means that you know you're better, but you're still you still need to be observed. You you still need to be in the hospital. You're in the recovery room. Um, when you're recovered, that means you've taken up your bed and you're walking again. That's the way they talk about in the book. All right, you can leave the hospital and you can go about your business and your daily affairs. So that's why I think we're recovered and we're not slowly recovering or whatever. What I've seen is the people who, who share their slowly recovering usually aren't. You know, that's just kind of what I've seen. Uh, let's see what else we've got in here. The preface. Um. Alright, this, um, this is from the preface in the fourth edition. This is the fourth edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the first edition appeared in April 39. And in the following 16 years, more than 300,000 copies went into circulation. The second edition, published in 1955, reached a total of more than 1,150,000 copies. The third edition, which came off the press in 1976, achieved a circulation of approximately 19 million in all of its formats. Um, the book Alcoholics Anonymous is a real good seller. There's a lot of money to be made off of uh, the publishing of this book. As a matter of fact, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous basically um, basically uses this as a stopgap. Uh, the, the, the sales of literature as a stopgap. Uh, if they're not doing good with uh, with group contributions, they'll raise the price on literature a little, and that's how that's how they they, they manage to to do their break even stuff. Because this book has become the basic text of our society and has helped such a large number of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third, and fourth editions. That's not entirely true. Uh, most of the changes were minor, uh, but I've, I've, seen, uh, I've seen reports on all the changes. There's a whole ton of them. You know, there's like been a hundred changes, but they've all been very, very small and usually, usually grammatical. Um, the second edition added the appendices, the 12 traditions, and the directions for getting in touch with AA. Uh, but the chief change was in the section of personal stories. Um, you know, on the dust jacket, on the dust jacket uh, of the fourth edition, you know, you, some people have it right now. They basically spend about a third of that dust jacket explaining why the personal stories are so much more important than most people give them credit for. All right. Um, I see the personal stories as being great for identification. I think if you're wondering if you're an alcoholic or you're first being exposed to AA, I think reading the stories are great. 
Okay, but very few of the stories, there's some exceptions, very few of the stories talk about a recovery experience. They talk about how drunk they were and how they were exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous and how life is pretty good today. But they don't really explain, uh, explain the details of how they had that experience. And I'm not a huge fan of, of, uh, of the stories. There was a story, there still is a story in this book, um, that, that in the third edition was called Dr. Alcoholic Addict. And it became a favorite among uh, among people in the fellowship. It's a great story, you know. It's uh, Doctor Doctor Paul uh, was was the guy who wrote it, and he was you know three or five years sober when he wrote it. And it was a great story, and it was all about his narcotics addiction and his alcoholism, and and you know what what it did was it 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 brought uh, it brought a uh, kind of a holistic look at you know addiction uh, into the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And it also talked about acceptance. You know, acceptance is the key. Was in, was in, uh, was in a you know um, a story, and people really kind of went to these things because they they felt all warm and fuzzy. But when the book, when the fourth edition of the book was was being hammered out, when they were making decisions on what stories to to keep and what stories to get rid of, they were trying to get rid of Doctor Alcoholic Addict in a big way. Uh, and that's basically because they saw it as uh, a threat to the primary uh, primary purpose. Um, I think the stories are important. I think they they should be in the book, but I don't think the dust jacket should say that's you know that they're that important. They're important for identification. After we've identified, after it's ali ali oxen free, okay, I'm all in. You know, tell me what to do. Then you don't need them anymore. What you need is the first 164. Now I've been to uh, up in New Jersey. There was one big book meeting when I first got sober um, back in the late 80s. There was one big book meeting, and I had to drive four towns away to get to it. And in that big book meeting, what they did was they read every word in this book. And they would read a paragraph and share, read a paragraph and share. What that meant was, because uh, because of the length of the third edition, it meant that three quarters of the time we were reading a story, and we weren't paying attention to the recovery uh, instructions in the first 164. We were reading, page, you know, some story on page 438. So. Um, so, you know, I, I believe that the stories are important. I think that a lot of us have found identification there. Sometimes we've even found little tips and, and help uh, for, you know, staying sober a day at a time. Uh, but they're not the heart of the book. The heart of the book is, uh, is the first 164. And what they do in, in the different editions is they try to put together stories that newer, you know, newer Alcoholics Anonymous members can identify with. Um, uh, and, you know, to one degree or another, they're successful. Who knows? You know, it happens. Uh, you know, I, I don't really even know what the process is for, for choosing, the, choosing the story. Forward to the first edition. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Um, That's something that's really good to remember. The main purpose of the book Alcoholics Anonymous is to show you precisely how to recover. Precisely. 
so much so much time is spent in meetings these days without uh, without covering the exact mechanics of that recovery process. You know, um, I sponsor a grapevine editor, and I love this guy. Um, uh, he's he's really my first sponsor. I've been sponsoring him for 20 years, um, and he's he's a he's a grapevine editor. And the grapevine's pretty much in trouble right now, uh, and it's and it's in a catch-22 situation. What's going on with it is that uh, every year um, its cir- circulation drops a little bit. Uh, really, more and more groups are trying to help by you know groups subscribing to multiple copies and things, and that that's helping a little bit. What's happening is it's, it's becoming less and less relevant. Uh, when you look at some of the studies that's being done on the grapevine, you find that the median age of, the, of a, a grapevine reader is getting older and older. It's basically up in the 60s now. Uh, the median age of a grapevine reader is in the 60s. And uh, it hasn't changed in a long time. The way it lays out stories, you know, uh, it's, it's formulaic. It's really, you know, if you pick up a grapevine from 1962 and then one from last month, you're going to see that there's not really a, a whole lot of change in it. And this is making it less and less relevant to the newer members who, who are coming in. Um, but the grapevine board don't want to make any significant changes in format because they're afraid they're going to lose the subscription base that they have. And if they lose anybody else, you know, it's going to become an AA decision to close it down. So, you know, I get, I get this from, from my guy who, uh, who sits on the board at the grapevine all the time. And, uh, and, one of the things that drives me crazy about the magazine is, it, is when, you, when you read the statement of purpose in there, it basically says that the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is basically anything anybody wants it to be. The, the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is anything any group wants it to be. We're so... We're so concerned about freedom of speech. We're so concerned about personal freedoms in Alcoholics Anonymous that we're that, that we're making statements that go contrary to the recovery process in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, I see that as divisive. I see that as really a threat to unity. If if you know one book is saying this and another book is saying that, that that really goes against unity. Anyway. Um, for them we hope that these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary we think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person and besides we are sure that our way of living has its advantages for all one of the things I know about Bill Wilson you know, he's not, not a perfect person you know, one of the great sayings is we are not saints and, uh, and Bill certainly wasn't but what he was was he was a visionary he could see problems coming before anybody else could he, he had the best perspective on the alcoholic personality and was able to, to basically put the architecture together for the recovery process he was the principal architect for this book and uh, there was some amazing work being done when he was about four years sober that is amazing to me today that, that, that when this book was published there really wasn't anybody with five years of sobriety
for some of the older members in here, some of the people who have been sponsoring for years and years and years, you kind of understand what that means. I still have, have problems, you know, uh, uh, leaving people alone in the house, you know, with less than two or three years. You know, in my, you know what I'm saying? And, and, uh, and these people put together the architecture of a, of a recovery program. It is important that we remain anonymous because we are too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal appeals which may result from this publication. One of the things that they got wrong was they thought with publication of this book that this book would spread like wildfire and all of a sudden they, they would be inundated with requests for help and they just weren't going to be able... To, to provide it because there are only a hundred people. They thought tens of thousands of people would be would be instantly asking for help because they figured there had to be millions of alcoholics in America. But what really happened was they put some ads out. They threw some ads out there to doctors and you know mailed a bunch of uh, uh, of postcards and really tried to sell this book. They, there was like a, a direct mail campaign. Uh, and they sent out all these postcards to prob- practically every doctor that they could find an address on, you know, in, in America. And, and they gave it about a week, and then they figured, okay, by now, all those requests for books have to be in the, the post office. And what we should go down there, we should go down there with three big gunny sacks, because there's just going to be absolutely tons of these, of these uh, return postcards requesting the book. And they went down there, and there was three. They went down there with gunny sacks, expecting, you know, that this was going to sell off the wall. And there was three cards written by doctors who were so drunk they couldn't even, they couldn't even tell what the address was. The, the, you know, the, the writing was so bad. So it was, they got it wrong. This did not become a mail-order sobriety, mail-order recovery thing that they expected it to. Yes, there were people who got this book and were able to put it into application just by reading it, but that was really few and far between. What, what they found happened was one alcoholic needed to carry the message to another. This is a textbook, and as such, it needs to be taught. Uh, let's say I gave you a textbook on how to fly, uh, how, how to fly one of the Blue Angel jets, okay? And it's this thick, and I give it to you, and I go, okay, read it, you know? And you read the whole manual, and uh, and okay, okay, let's sit in the cockpit now, fire this baby up, and let's take it around the block. You're going to be whoa, 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 you know? You need to, you need to be ta- textbooks need to be taught. There are, there are examples and instructions and questions that need to be asked and things that need to be uh, elucidated a little bit and explained a little bit. So this is a textbook, and they found it really did need to be taught. For uh, one alcoholic really did need to be carrying the message to another for, the, for, for Alcoholics Anonymous to spread. And that really is what happened. So you have to remember that anonymity in the beginning was designed to keep these, keep these guys from, from you know, having no life. They figured if there was 10,000 people that needed help, you know, we're not going to be able to sleep. That was one of the main reasons for anonymity. There's other reasons for anonymity, uh, and they're all valid reasons. But we have to understand anonymity today. In this day and age... 
Uh, nothing is hurting alcoholics more out there in the world than a mis- misunderstandings about anonymity. People think anonymity means secrecy. I'm sober. I need to stick my head in the sand. I need to be below the radar. I, you know, I don't want anybody seeing my car in the in, in the parking lot out here. You know, uh, you know. Uh, uh, yes, they've seen me projectile vomit up and down the supermarket aisle, but but I don't want them to see my car. You know, in the clubhouse parking lot. You know, there's a misunderstanding about what anonymity is. What what anonymity is is we we do not. Uh, we do not identify ourselves as members of Alcoholics Anonymous with a picture of our face or our last name if we're saying we are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? We also do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. This is really the principle of anonymity. Should we be telling people we're in, you know, we're, we're recovered alcoholics that, that, you know, that we went through treatment and you know we we've we've uh, done some support group work, or yeah, you know we've you know we've uh, we've participated in our own sobriety and recovery. Should we be saying that? Yes, we we should, because we want to put ourselves, place ourselves at a at a place where we're of maximum benefit to our fellow men, especially alcoholics. And if we're hiding the fact that we're in AA or that we're sober alcoholics, how are we really doing that? You, you know what I mean? So, so this anonymity thing really needs to be looked at. Now, each of us has to come to terms with what it means. Uh, how do we apply the principles of anonymity to our own lives and still be effective carriers of the message out there in the world? Look, we can all come to meetings. Uh, you know, we can all come to meetings with the same twelve people every single week, and you know, we can we can uh, we can heal the healed. And we can save the saved if we want to. But what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be carrying the message to the still suffering alcoholics. So we need to somehow internalize our relationship with anonymity to include, you know, being of service, being able to, to help other people. Um, we are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. Uh, there are no dues or fees whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. Okay. Here's another piece of very controversial, uh, very controversial thing. Um, there's been times up in our area. I was the uh, the treatment facilities chair uh, for a while uh, with our with our inner group uh, with our general service office. And one of the big complaints from meetings was uh, the places were putting people on the bus and sending them to the meetings, and they were drug addicts, and they, they were being coached by the, by the treatment facilities to identify themselves as having, an, having a desire to stop drinking. I'm Harry. I have a desire to stop drinking. And this was causing a lot of controversy, and there were group members that were really pissed off, and you know they, they, they wanted, they wanted the, this to stop, and, and you know all kinds of controversy. Groups exploded over it. You know, uh, I've seen hostile group conscience meetings. You know, where where there's half the room is on one side. You know, let's help everybody. Half the room is on the other side. The primary purpose, and you know, it just it just got really really ugly. Um, 
my personal belief is, and and I don't think any of us should be AA police. I, I, I really don't. To be able to look into someone's soul and make a decision on whether they really should be here or not is playing God, and and uh, and we're really not supposed to play God anymore. That's that's one of the requirements of the third step. Now, h- how I feel about it is this. Um, if you have a drinking problem and uh, a drinking history uh, or you abuse alcohol and you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you may not be what this book would describe as a real alcoholic. You may not have lost all power, choice, and control in drink. You may not have gone down the scale like some people have. But is it right, is it good for you to be addressing your alcohol problem with a support group? You know, I have to believe that it is. I have to believe that it is. If it takes one more drunk driver off the road, you know, I'm I'm all for it. But what we need to do, what we need to see, and it comes from studying the first step in this book, is we have to see what the scale of alcoholism is. When it says no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll find that our experience can benefit others. There's another section in here that says our ability to quit drinking on a non-spiritual basis will depend upon how much choice in drink we've lost, how much power in drink we have lost. So there's a scale. One of the things that you hear all the time, some are sicker than others, that's absolutely true. We get everybody from alcohol abusers to hopeless, real, low-bottom alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous today. And again, I'm all for that. I, I, I think it would be foolish and it would be selfish to you know try to carve out a pure alcoholic you know from from the the milieu of people that show up here. You know who am I? But what we need to understand is we need to understand that if if we've gone down the scale further than some of the other people, we're going to have to be about the business of recovery a little bit more strenuous than others. I don't know about anybody else, but when I first got sober, I was going to some meetings where people were not, they did not go down the scale as far as I went. There there was a meeting I went to, it was called a Duffer meeting, where they'd talk about golf. These, these were a bunch of white, uh, upper middle class, you know, Republican kind of guys who all got together, you know, and, and had their little clique and they didn't like a bunch of outsiders and they came and, you know, they, had, they put their dollar in the basket and they drank their coffee and they talked about the country clubs and I'm, I'm going to these groups shaken like a leaf and they didn't need to do the work that I needed to do to recover. They could talk about golf and they were okay. We need to understand that there's a scale of alcoholism. We need to personally understand where we are because that is going to determine how much effort we need to put into our own recovery process. We can't get sober the way he does or she does. We can't, we'll die if we've gone down the scale further than they have. And this is another thing that they don't talk about a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it needs to be said because people are dying behind it. 
They're going to groups where, you know, people are trying to love them back to health. They're not taking them through the steps. They're not giving them service commitments. They're patting them on the head and telling them, just keep coming back. And they're dying. So we need to understand the scale of alcoholism. We need to understand that for the people we work with, you know, people who ask us to sponsor them or for us to be their spiritual advisors or whatever, other mentors, however you want to put it, we need to understand where they are on the scale and we need to understand where we are on the scale. And we need, not, we need to not be prejudiced about where anybody else is on the scale. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. It talks about Bill's uh, trip out to Akron in here. Uh, you know, it's, it's a funny story. <laughs> when you think about where we come from, okay, sometimes we get up on our high horse about our Alcoholics Anonymous membership. Understand that the two co-founders, one of them was a stock shyster speculator. What his job was was to convince you he knew a good stock, have you give him money, he would put money on that stock and take a percentage of it. That's total hustle, folks. Okay, I don't know how much you know about Wall Street, but that's that's pathetic hustle. So we got a, sh- a shyster stockbroker speculator and a failed proctologist, a guy who couldn't couldn't find any more proctors to work on because he had these big hands and he shook like a leaf. And when he was heading for your proctor, you were you were asking for a second opinion. You know what I'm saying? That's where we come from. Those are our two co-founders. Now, some other some other interesting things. Uh, some other interesting things is Bill Wilson is sober about six months. Okay. And he's still trying these hustles. You, you, you ever sponsor somebody in their first six months and they got a, they got a new idea? You know, you know. I just I just figured something out. I, I'm not doing drugs anymore. So if I sold cocaine, I'd really make some money. You know, that's that's one of the buttes. You know, as far as newcomer ideas, that's one of the buttes. So so his his idea was I'll get all these investors together and I'll go to Akron and I'll t- and we'll have a proxy battle and we'll take over this rubber company. It was like one of the, one of the tire companies out in Akron. And so he was going to go there and he was going to take it over and he was going to be the president. You know, is that beautiful? He was he was you know he's talked all these guys into getting on the train with him and they're going to they, you know they're going to take this company over. They're all going to make a million dollars. And he gets out there and the whole thing falls apart. The whole thing falls apart. And everybody is so pissed off at him that they just leave him there. And they get back on the train to go back to New York. He's got no money. He's got no place to stay. His whole plans and designs have blown up. And he wanders into the Mayflower Hotel. And over here is the bar... And over here is the church directory. Now, we are here by seconds and inches, folks. Picture, picture this. He's sober six months. You know, his world is just blown up. There's a bar where everybody's having a really good time over here. And there's a church directory over there, you know. Which way is he going to go? Now, what he does is he goes over to the church directory. He, he's got like a dollar left. He gets a bunch of nickels for the phone calls. 
And he starts calling the people on the church directory. And this is basically what he's saying. Hey, my name's uh, Bill Wilson. I'm a rummy from New York, and I need to talk to another rummy. And, you know, nine out of the ten phone calls, here's what you heard. Click. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, I don't know about you guys, but I'd be hanging up on somebody like that. He gets to this one reverend called Walter Tunks. And the reason why Walter entertains his phone call is because Walter Tonks has been exposed to the Oxford group. What happened, this is a beautiful story, uh, Bill Wilson got sober uh, by being 12-step by Ebby Thatcher. He was brought into the Oxford group, and in the Oxford group they had, uh, they had procedures and they had spiritual principles and, and uh, spiritual exercises that basically were our 12 steps, and it helped, helped Bill to get sober. Uh, what happened in Akron was there was a there was a, a beautiful drunk named Bud Firestone. He was from the Firestone Tire Company, okay? And Bud was like anybody ever ever see that movie Arthur? You know, with Dudley Moore. All right, th- that's what Bud Firestone was like. He was like a complete embarrassment to his, you know, to his billionaire family. And uh, you know, they'd ship him off just to try to get him out of the way. Now, one of the times they shipped him off to New York, and he got exposed to the Oxford Group people, uh, Frank Buchman and Sam Shoemaker, and a bunch of the Oxford Group people, and he got sober. He got sober and he recovered. He, he got a spiritual awakening because it was like a religious conversion experience. Is basically what he had. Which is very akin to the spiritual awakening that we get in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he came back to Akron, and the whole family was, you know, oh my, oh my God, you know, Bud, what happened? You're, 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 you're a different person. You know, you've, you've been healed. And he said, well, it was the Oxford Group people. So the Firestone family was so grateful to these Oxford Groupers that they brought the whole contingent from New York out to Akron, like like a hundred, couple of hundred of them. And they took over the churches for, for like about a month where all they were doing was witnessing and getting people fired up about the spiritual recovery process, the, the, spiritual, the spiritual tenets of the Oxford Group. And... Uh, and, and what happened was Ann Smith was basically one of those people who got dragged into this. She was bringing Dr. Bob along to these Oxford group meetings. Now, what we need to kind of kind of see some of the lessons from these early days. I think need to be need to be told. Bill Wilson, when he was exposed to the Oxford group, got busy. He went early. He stayed late, and he asked everybody if there's anything else he can do. When they said, Bill, we need you to witness down on 42nd Street, he jumped up on the soapbox and he witnessed. He was dragging people out of the bars and bringing them to the meeting. So he, so he, was, he was bringing people in. He was doing the steps. He was, he was making his apologies and his amends to his business people. He was, he was about the business of spiritual living. And he stayed sober. Dr. Bob, on the other hand, for three years or so, was being dragged into the Oxford Group meetings by his wife. And he was, he was a reluctant participant. He came late, he left early, and he kept his mouth shut and didn't get involved. And guess what? 
he he was drunk the whole time. Okay, does that does that ring a bell for anybody in here that sponsors people? You know, our level of participation is directly proportional to our chances of recovery. God will not render us white as snow without our cooperation. So how then shall I cooperate? You know, and no one is more uh, uh, is more uh, defensive. No one is more evasive than the alcoholic as far as doing the things that will save their own life. And it's because you know uh, who among us wishes to admit complete defeat. Alcoholism doesn't allow us uh, an accurate self appraisal on, on most occasions. Anyway, when Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson got together, now think about this. Dr. Bob is a surgeon. He's not just a doctor. He's a surgeon. Anybody in here know any surgeons? You ever hear them say they don't know something? They are the I know everything people of the entire world. They're surgeons. They've been trained to know. They've been trained to have no doubt about anything. Okay? Bill Wilson is a stockbroker, shyster guy who's blown his life up. He goes and he talks to Dr. Bob at the Cyberling Estate, and he brings Dr. Bob the medical estimate of alcoholism. So here a surgeon is learning about the medical estimate of alcoholism from a shyster stockbroker, and he's paying attention. As a matter of fact, he becomes convinced Folks, we are here by seconds and inches. You know what I mean? That could have gone the other way. That could have gone the other way. Not only was Dr. Bob a surgeon, but he was a very hungover surgeon during that first visit. He could have had enough real quick. What happens is he becomes convinced. He has a relapse, but he becomes convinced that, the, that yes, uh, there's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. He now gets why he can't stay away from alcohol. He gets it now because Bill explains it to him the way it's explained in the doctor's opinion. Another thing that you hear in Alcoholics, a lot, Alcoholics Anonymous a lot, which I think can be damaging to the classification of alcoholics that's classified as hopeless or low bottom in this book. Okay, And that is, kid, just don't drink no matter what. If I could do that... You know, would I be asking a 60-year-old plumber to help me with my life? You, you know what I mean? Uh, you, you know, I, you know, I can't. I can't not drink. I've known for 10 years that putting alcohol in my body is a bad idea. The milkman knows it's a bad idea. I know it's a bad idea. What happens is alcohol ends up in my body anyway. I'm not even there for the decision. It talks in this book about, the, about uh, suddenly. Has anybody ever had suddenly hit you? Suddenly the thought crosses your mind that a, a, little, a little bit of vodka in the milk it won't hurt you on a full stomach. So here's how. You know, 
Listen, when suddenly hits you, you ain't got time to take a coffee commitment. You don't have time to call your sponsor. You don't. You don't have time to take. You know. You don't have. You don't have time to do the steps. Suddenly is on you, and you're drinking. You know. Uh, that that is what was explained to Doctor Bob, and that's the problem. That's the first step problem, that you have no power, choice, and control, and your life is unmanageable on every level. That's the first step uh, truth, and it's not a fun one to uh, internalize. Uh, the second step that, that Bill basically convinced Dr. Bob was, uh, of was, all those things they're asking you to do in that meeting, Bob, just do them. Don't complain about them. Don't don't dodge and weave. Don't avoid them. Get in there and do. And he started to do those things, and he got and stayed sober. It has so much to do with our participation. Is God involved in all this? You all know. You all know God is. Without without the grace of God, without the power of God, we can't take our next breath, let alone recover from alcoholism. But if God alone kept us sober, this would be a very short book. There would be one page where it says, God keeps you sober. Ask Him. Okay? And then we'd all be recovered. But that's not, that's not the case. There's a participation process. There's, there's work that we have to do. There's a commitment we have to make. There, there's there's, there's uh, uh, our participation in this recovery process. And that's what, uh, that's what this book talks about. Um, there's great information uh, on uh, in the second uh, the the forward to the second edition here. Uh, in this forward, it basically talks about some of uh, the expectations for long-term sobriety. Now, when you talk about statistics in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you know you're you're you have to understand that you're. Uh, it's not an exact science. Statistics in 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 a, a anonymous fellowship are not not going to be scientific. But what we can do is we can observe some patterns and we can observe uh, you know uh, some truth about uh, about what goes on ourselves. And what they observed and what they put in this book was <clears throat> for people who really tried the program. For people who really tried the program, 50% of them sobered up at once. 25% sobered up after some relapse. 25% showed some improvement. And that's some of the observations that they, uh, uh, they came up with. I've found that that's true today. It's how, how do you define people who really tried? I don't define people who really tried by people who do 90 and 90. I define people who really tried by the people who do the fourth and the fifth step, who become as honest as they can be, who, you know, humbly on their knees ask God to remove the character defects, who go out and actually make direct amends to the people in the institutions whose, who their character defects have caused harm to, and then who develop disciplines of prayer and meditation and then actually go out and work with other alcoholics. Those are people, I believe, who really try. And 
I think the statistics are even better than 75% for people that do that. Um, so there's good information in some of, this, some of these earlier writings, and it's a good idea to, uh, to cover it. I'm going to stop uh, tonight and pretend that I covered the forward to the second edition. What I really don't want to do, guys, is sit here and read word for word out of the big book. I don't want to read your big book for you. You need to read your big book yourself. I can share my experience, strength, and hope, some ob- observations that I've come up with, you know, some, uh, from, from, uh, uh, from the different experiences that I've had. But please understand that you need your own experience with this. Um, this is not something that, uh, that can be learned intellectually. It needs to be learned experientially. This is an experiential recovery program. And each of us needs to do the things that we need to do uh, to be able to, uh, to get it. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. I think this meeting goes till, uh, till 9.30 or so. And, uh, you know, I'll call on hands if anybody, if anybody wants to share. Uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, I love this. This this is a clubhouse. Is that what this is? It's just a home. This is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, a group of alcoholics uh, this size and a place like this. Uh, I'm really enjoying myself in North Carolina, and uh, you know I want to I want to thank uh, everybody for being so welcoming uh, to me uh, when I came down here. The last couple of weeks, we did like a little bit of an intro. Um, you know, we, uh, we we talked uh, we talked about a few things. Um, doctor's opinion last week. This week, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about uh, about Bill's story. Now, just uh, just to qualify uh, a little bit about my knowledge of. Uh, of Bill Wilson, you know, I became very, very interested in Alcoholics Anonymous history, and uh, especially the co-founders and the early groups, and what was going on in the first, say, decade of the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was very, very interesting for me. Um, I, I truly believed that my life had been saved because of AA, the fellowship, and the recovery principles. I really believed that. So, uh, so it interested me to see where this came from. Uh, and I paid attention for several years at least. Uh, I paid real strict attention to some of the historical studies that were going on. There's been a number of books written about Bill Wilson. There's probably at least half a dozen uh, that, that uh, you know, are, are easily available. And I've read all those. Uh, there's some conference-approved history that uh, I've certainly read. And then there's some non-conference-approved history that, that's, that's out there. And I find the non Non-conference approved history, very, very interesting. the more you you compare the two, the conference approved from the non-conference approved, the more you see that you know they're telling you uh, they're telling you the good stuff in the conference approved literature, and you know there's some there's there's some dark sides of uh, of AA history too, and I for one 
you know, have no problem with with our co-founders not being saints. It actually makes me feel a little bit more comfortable being in Alcoholics Anonymous to know uh, to know that you know our, our, some of some of the earlier uh, founders of Alcoholics Anonymous had had uh, had feet of clay because uh, uh, you know I, I don't know about anybody else. I was talking about this with somebody before the meeting. Uh, you know, I, I didn't come in here to be perfect, and uh, you know I don't even know that I like perfect people. Uh, think about it. Do you know anybody that's perfect? You know, you don't even want to be around some somebody. Like sometimes it's our imperfections that make us lovable. You know, and uh, and certainly I think that's the that's the way it is with my perception of the earlier um, you know the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, now Bill Wilson, um, basically Bill Wilson's story was that he was a World War One vet. He came back from World War One. He moved to New York City. And, you know, he went to law school. He was going to be a lawyer. But this is very alcoholic. He gets right to the last exam and stops and decides, the law's not for me. <laughs> is anybody else in here relate to, you know, changing your mind, you know, right? You know, like, like, well, yeah, you know, I went to school for four years, but, you know, that last week, yeah, I mean, that, that's so perfectly alcoholic uh, to, to change his mind like that. And, you know, he was meeting people from Wall Street, <clears throat> Uh, I, I spent the first 20 years of my sobriety uh, less than an hour away from Manhattan. I've sponsored a lot of people who were money managers in New York City, uh, you know, and I understand I understand the uh, the mentality and the, the climate pretty well from being that close to it. There are good times in the financial industries, and there are bad times in the financial industries. We're we're going through a bad time right now. Uh, I'd say a third of the money managers in Manhattan have been laid off, downsized, pushed out. And it's a really, it's a down time. But during up times, idiots can make a fortune. You, you know what I mean? You can, be, you can be dumb as a bag of hammers, and you can make a million dollars, you know, during the good times. And Bill kind of landed in Manhattan uh, during one of the good times. There was money moving around, and, you know, he got caught up in this, and, and uh, he, you know, he, he loved to do a lot of his business in the bars. Does that ring a bell with anybody? I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I got a lot lot of business stuff not really done but thought about in the bar. I started a lot of businesses, you know, sitting on the bar stool that I never started. I came up with a lot of great ideas on the bar stool that I never implemented, you know. Uh, that's kind of the way it was with, with Bill. But he came up with a couple of ways to part you with your money. And one of them was that he would tell you about really good stock deals. And if you were to give him the money, he would invest it for you, pretty much guaranteeing you're going to make a lot of money, and he'll take a percentage of what you what you make. He was like he was a stock speculator. And during good times, you know, nine stocks out of ten were going up in value. So he was he was making some decent money. Now, uh, and that's okay during a good time. Uh, 
but his drinking was catching up with him. I'll read. I'll read a little bit. A uh, little bit out of the story. Uh, the things that I relate to. There's a Bill's story exercise that I'd like to share with everybody tonight. One of my uh, one of my spiritual advisors had me do this, and I I got a lot of value out of it. The first eight pages of Bill's story is basically you know what it was like. What his drinking was like. So what you do is you highlight anything in the first eight pages that you relate to as far as drinking, thinking, or behavior. This is the Bill's story exercise. And it's a way of identifying a little bit with Bill. When I first read Bill's story, I read it in a treatment center. And the first thing I thought was, what a loser. You know what I mean? Like, like the, the guy's wife is working. It doesn't even look like he's back to work yet. You know, I mean, I was reading, I was reading this with, you know, very prejudiced uh, eyes. Uh, I didn't know how to read this story. What Bill's story really is, and one of the reasons why I think it's in the beginning of the book is, it's a beautiful example of a 12-step call in print. It talks about what it's like, what happened, and what it's like today in a very well-balanced way. And it's a beautiful example of what they would do when they would do 12-step calls at the hospitals and stuff. They would tell their story in much the same way that Bill's story is laid out. So anyway, you highlight anything that you personally relate to from your own experience, drinking, thinking, behavior, in the first eight pages. The second eight pages, you look at what Bill did to recover. It's pretty specific, like what he did to recover. And you highlight anything that you have resistance to. This is a good first step exercise. It's a good um, identification exercise. But anyway, I'm going I'm to read uh, just bits and pieces from this. This is on page three. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. Um, The complaints of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife. Helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. Most of the stuff in this book is true. You know, most of the statements that Bill makes are are accurate. I have an issue with this one. I think... I think... uh, (laughs) I think maybe extreme drunkenness kept him out of some scrapes. Uh, when he got sober, it was a whole different, uh, a whole different ball game. Unfortunately, uh, liquor ceased to be a luxury; it became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Does anybody know what bathtub gin is? Uh, it, it's basically, disti- it's it's basically uh, grain alcohol with distilled water and. What the heck did they put in it? Um, God, I, f- I forget. It, it's uh, it's like pine. It's like pine needles. Um, pine salt. I, I, uh, yeah, pine salt. Anyway, it's it's god awful stuff. It, it will take it will take it'll take the the, the tar off the bumpers of your car. Um, that stuff, but uh, it, you know, this is during prohibition and stuff. And you could get you could get alcohol, you could get straight alcohol for different purposes. It's just kind of tough to drink the straight alcohol. So he'd make the bathtub, make the bathtub gin. Uh, um, 
Sometimes a, a small deal would net me a few hundred dollars and I would pay my bills uh, at the bars and the delicatessens. This went on endlessly and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I was to eat any breakfast. Now, again, in this book, uh, in this book, you, you hear about very low-bottom alcoholics. Bill was a real low-bottom alcoholic. And most of the first 100 were really low-bottom alcoholics. And low-bottom alcoholic, I, you know, uh, what I mean by that is they went down the scale really far. They'd lost practically all power, choice, and control over, over the drink, and they were really physically addicted. And they would get so drunk that they would go into withdrawals. Only about 15% of alcoholics um, experience delirium tremens, like Bill experienced. Only about 15% get that bad, because there is a progression in alcoholism. Uh, most, most of these first 100 were people who had experienced the delirium tremens, because he was pulling them out of hospitals, and they were in the hospitals to detox. So, um, another warning... If you're an alcoholic that's gotten to the point where you experience this really violent withdrawal, the delirium tremens, understand that you need to be medically detoxed because 15% of the people that experience DTs die from them. So you don't want to be one of those, uh, one of those statistics. Now, it talks about things that get worse. Things that get worse and worse and worse. Um, I don't know that I was... I was as low bottom an alcoholic as Bill. Now, I needed to be medically detoxed, but that was relatively late. That was in the last several years of my drinking. I think Bill went through about 10 years of drinking where he was experiencing the DTs. Uh, that's, that's a horrific, horrific um, uh, on, on one's physical condition. Now... It says here, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. This happened to Bill all the time. He was through forever. He saw that the first drink would get him drunk. Okay? That slogan, that advice, that wisdom teaching that you hear in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is very, very true. But it is not a defense against getting drunk. Knowing that you shouldn't get drunk is not a defense against getting drunk. Knowing that the first drink will get you drunk is not a defense against taking that first drink and getting drunk. Unfortunately, it's one of the most misunderstood parts of alcoholism. So many people think we're making a conscious choice to get drunk one more time. We even think it. But it's not true. Okay, it's an obsession. An obsession is a thought that overrides all other thoughts. It goes to the front of the line, and there's nothing we can really say about it until we have what's known as a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism, that, that, uh, that complete rearrangement of ideas, thoughts, and attitudes that they talk about in this book. So Bill is learning this hard lesson on step one. He is deciding not to drink. He's writing, he's writing pledges in his Bible. 
he's he's pledging to his wonderful wife Lois. Lois, I swear on you know on on my you know on my soul, I will never do this again. I'm finished for good. You can see his Bible if you go up uh, to Stepping Stones or the Wilson House. You'll you'll see a copy of the Bible with you know these promises in there. But they never they never they never were promises that he could keep. He couldn't keep them because he didn't have the power, the choice, or control over whether he put alcohol back in his body again because he was in a place called powerless. And he's learning this lesson uh, in his story here. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. You know, I've I've listened to a lot of Bill Wilson tapes. Uh, In his tapes, he tells his story. It was called the bedtime story. Everybody joked about Bill. You know, whenever Bill would show up in an AA meeting that he normally didn't go to, everybody would go, Bill, Bill, tell the bedtime story. And they all wanted him to tell the story of the foundation of AA and meeting Ebby and, you know, the whole thing. And and it was called the bedtime story because he, it, it, toward the end of, you know, end of Bill's life, it would take him about two and a half hours to tell it, and everybody would be asleep by the end. Listen, every word out of his mouth was phenomenal, but he talked like this. Well, you know, my name is Bill. And he just would put you to sleep. There we go. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. You know, this is when this is one of the last drunks. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. Anybody ever have that sense of impending calamity? It's usually because calamity is impending. You know, you drank anything like me. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely he was afraid to cross the street he was in such such delirium an all night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale my reading nerves were stilled at last and then he talks about how the stock market crashed okay he's in the middle of the stock market now he went from maybe putting a deal together that would net him a couple of hundred dollars every few months to nothing his literally the last several years, uh, his wife worked at a department store, making maybe ten bucks a week or whatever you, you made back then, and that kind of kept them going. Uh, all right, he's 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 going in and out of town's hospital, and <clears throat> he, he's learning some stuff. Uh, he's getting involved with hydrotherapy and mild exercise and, and belladonna treatments and all this stuff in Towns Hospital. Uh, but he's learning some things from, from, uh, from Dr. Silkworth. And here he says, It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. This again is... This, this is the thing that so many people misunderstand. People in Alcoholics Anonymous misunderstand it. Especially in the treatment industry, for addiction treatment, they misunderstand it. 
counselors that counsel you for alcoholism misunderstand it. Certainly our families and neighbors and everybody misunderstand it. They don't understand that there's a that this is a lack of power, choice, and control. It's very, very difficult to understand powerlessness unless you have experienced it. If you've personally experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you don't. And a lot of times in AA, there are people who've experienced this desperate hopelessness. I absolutely want to stop drinking. I'll do anything to stop drinking. I'll sign myself into treatment. You know, I'll take the pledge. I'll go back to the AA group. I'll do whatever I need to do. I absolutely want to separate from booze. And you find you can't. Once you've experienced that, you know what powerless means. There, there, are, there are people who treat us for alcoholism. There are people who counsel us for alcoholism. There are sponsors who sponsor us in AA who don't understand powerlessness experientially. And they expect you to just toe the line. <laughs> you know? How could you have drank on me? You, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? How could you have not? I, you know, I work, I, work, I work with a lot of treatment centers. It's one of the things that I do for a living. And I remember sending this, I remember sending somebody to this treatment center, and the individual drank while in treatment and got thrown out. Now think about this, okay? Think about this for a minute. I'm sending somebody who is powerless over alcohol to a treatment center that's going to charge them 15 grand a month to treat their alcoholism. And because they manifest the exact symptom I'm asking this treatment center to, to treat them for, they get thrown out. Think about that. If you were going to a cancer, you're going to to cancer treatment, and your cancer flared back up. What do you think you'd do if they said, "Oh, your cancer's back. You're going to mess with our numbers. You got to go." You know what I mean? So I got back a hold with this treatment center. I go, "What the hell is the matter with you? You want me to send you people that are well?" You know what I mean? Is that what you want? You want want me to send you alcoholics that aren't drinking anymore? I thought you were going to treat this guy. And they they, they, they didn't understand what I was saying. But he drank. Of course he drank. He's an alcoholic. Maybe Maybe I'll just send you, you know, disco drunks from now on. You know what I mean? God. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. Okay, he, it was now explained to him that he's got a very, his willpower doesn't work really well with alcohol. So now, now like a lot of newcomers or a lot of people that you sponsor early on, they're like, "Well, thanks for the information. I got it now. You know, I'm powerless. Okay, now that I know I'm powerless, I won't drink." I, that ain't how it works. <laughs> Knowing is the booby prize in AA. You know what I mean? The only thing that's going to help you is a spiritual recovery process that will lead to a, ch- a complete transformation in your personality and spiritual condition. 
So, again, knowing that the first drink will get you drunk and knowing that you're powerless over alcohol is not a defense against the next drink. And Bill finds that out. It was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. <coughs> and then it was really, really bad. Um, um, Bill basically knew that he was going to die soon. Uh, most of the time at Towns Hospital, they, they were. it says that they're loath to tell you the truth. Like, you're a hopeless alcoholic and you're going you're gonna to drink yourself to death. So, you know, pick out a coffin, make sure that the, make sure, you know, make sure that the life insurance is paid up and, you know, Good luck, you know. I mean, that's a lot of times the the what you what you would get from towns. So he was at that point where he could tell by the looks of the doctors that, you know, he was one of those guys that just wasn't going to make it. Now the great thing about Bill was, you know, he he, he just didn't want to give up. He didn't want to give up. He 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 was hanging on to life. He was looking. He you know he desperately wanted to find a solution. Now. Um, it says in here, then came the insidious insanity of the first drink on Armistice Day. Here's what happened with Bill on Armistice Day. I've heard this from his story on tape. He had been sober a while, but one of the last drunks just scared the hell out of him. And like some of us, we can stay sober for a period of time. A couple of months, you know, six months, sometimes a year, sometimes more. Well, he was on like a two-month uh, two sober, uh, sober period where he just was so scared that he was able to stay away from booze. And he decided that there was no work, but, you know, he was, he, he was going to go play golf. So he went down to the golf course and he went into a bar. He wasn't going to have a drink. And he sat in the, sat in the bar and he's going to have going to have some food or something. And he he chats up the bartender. And he starts telling the bartender about his story. He goes, "You know, you know bartender, I'm an alcoholic." And let me tell you a little bit about my life. And he tells him a little bit about his story, about how awful it was, about how he would go through these horrific detoxes, about the suffering and the, and the pain that he would go through, and, his, and how he couldn't get away, couldn't separate from this alcohol, and how it just tore him to hell. And he, you know, he was explaining of the times that he's been in treatment and all this, and you know how horrible it is. And the bartender's like looking at him like, whoa, that's really bad. And then Bill goes, uh, double bourbon. <laughs> and the bartender looked at him like, are you crazy? After what you just told me, you're going to put alcohol back in your body? And Bill goes, yeah, I, uh, I guess I'm crazy. Make that a triple. You, you know, and he started drinking. Now think about that. Think about that. He was very, very aware of what alcohol did to him. He kept his memory green. He was sharing his story with a bartender about how awful it was. And at the end of that story, he ordered a triple bourbon. Now, if that isn't an example of powerlessness, I don't know what is. You know, if, if, we, if we can't make a decision to stay away from booze and have that mean anything, that's what a hopeless alcoholic is. And that's where Bill Wilson was at at this point in time. Uh, now, that's the first eight pages. 
Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen with a certain satisfaction. I, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of the bed. I would need it before daylight. This guy had to drink pretty much round the clock because he would go into withdrawals. Um, all of a sudden, the telephone rang, and it's Ebby Thatcher. Ebby, Ebby was exposed to the Osher group through Roland Hazard and this guy Shep Cornell. He had a choice of going to jail or going with the Osher groupers. So he said, I'll go, to, I'll go with the Osher groupers. And uh, I talked a little bit about the Osher group uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks. They were an evangelical Christian organization where, uh, where they got you really busy. They, they were strong fellowship. They dragged you in, and every single night they had something for you to do. And there was a lot of spiritual activity. There was a lot of personal work that you did with other Oxford Group members that brought about spiritual growth. And if you participated in this at a certain level, what it did was it apparently offered you protection from the first drink. It changed you in such a fundamental way that you now had access to the power, the choice, and the control that you didn't have if you didn't participate in the Oxford group. So all of a sudden, Ebby Thatcher shows up. Uh, Bill and Ebby had been drinking buddies. He basically, he basically sits down and he does a 12-step number on Bill. Now, Bill is drinking. He's not really happy about, you know, uh, about this religious thing, you know, because Ebby basically says to him, Bill, I got religion. I don't know about anybody else, but, but that, that wasn't my, my favorite uh, uh, three words, you know, when, when I was drinking. If somebody came by, you know, I've got religion. Well, I've got the door for you. You know, you know what I mean? It's basically what, 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 I, what I would say. But, uh, but anyway, you know, they were old buddies, so, so Bill, Bill, let him, uh, Bill let him rant on. But he started to see, he started to glimpse a little bit of the freedom a little bit of the spiritual condition of his buddy. Hey, Ebby was a worse drunk than Bill was at certain periods of time. And Bill is looking at this guy. And you know how when the lights are on with somebody, like like if you sponsor, you know, you'll get somebody through a fist step or they'll they'll just they'll go out and they'll do a whole bunch of amends and all of a sudden the lights on. You know, there's somebody home upstairs for the first time in a very long time. Well, that's what that's what Bill was Bill was looking at Ebby and he's saying, you know, this guy's different, man. This guy's healed. There's something really going on. He's got self-confidence. He looks really healthy. You know, he, there, there, there's no manifestation of fear or, or, or uncomfortability in this guy. And that caught his attention. That made him wonder what the heck was going on. Now, now Bill drank again. But Ebby had kind of placed himself into Bill's life. Remember this as Alcoholics Anonymous members. In the early days, they went after people who they saw needed this. It, you know, one of, one of the things that you hear in AA a lot 
that gets misunderstood is it's a program of attraction, not promotion. It's not a program of attraction, not promotion. Our public relations policy is attraction, not promotion. We are very much about promotion. Okay, we're supposed to be out there promoting the hell out of this thing. We're supposed to be going to the detoxes, the treatment centers, the rehabs, the insane asylums, the prisons. We're supposed to be promoting this like crazy. Our public relations policy is attraction, not promotion. So anyway, anyway, what happens was um, he came to pass along his experience if I cared to have it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. Um, he talks about, I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Okay, but what what he didn't believe is he didn't he was agnostic. Now I believe what the difference between an atheist and agnostic. This is my own personal opinion. Um, an atheist is somebody that absolutely denies the existence of God. You know that you know this this is science. You know this is all a cosmic accident. There you know there's no God. That's an atheist. An agnostic is somebody that doesn't know for sure. They can believe very much in a God. They just, they just don't have the knowledge to be able to say absolutely for sure anything. And that's really what an agnostic is. Ag meaning no. Uh, gnosis meaning knowledge. Agnostic. Now, Bill was an agnostic. He had had spiritual experiences before. He had one in the Winchester Cathedral one time while, while he was over in Europe uh, uh, during the war. He had had those feelings. We, I think we've all had those feelings. It's a feeling of connection with the world at a deep level. You know, it's a spiritual experience. And he, he had had those. And I think we've all had those. I had some of them when I was doing LSD. I don't know about anybody else. But, you know, just being right with the world, you know. And, uh, wow! Does anybody remember? Wow! Uh, so, so, you know... So he, he wasn't an atheist. He just didn't, he just did, you know, he didn't take absolutely for granted what the religious people were saying. He, he couldn't buy into that. He couldn't buy into any of the party line. But he knew that something was going on. Now, um, my, my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Now Bill understood that at a deep level. Bill understood that lack of power, choice, and control. And he knew Ebby was an alcoholic too. Now Ebby had found something. He had found power, choice, and control and he had found it somehow. That's what got Bill's attention. That's what that's what allowed Bill to say, I think I want this thing. Tell me a little bit more. And as 12-steppers, that's what we need to do too when we're talking with alcoholics, when we're trying to draw alcoholics in to the Alcoholics Anonymous process. You know, what we want to do is we want to identify with them so that they know we have felt and been where they are. And we're not there anymore. 
You know, that's the best message that we can have as 12-steppers. And that's what Ebby did with Bill. Um, had this power originated in him obviously it had not there had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute and that was none at all I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized he was on a different footing his roots grasped new soil now still Bill had a little bit of resistance you understand that alcoholic resistance I mean you know how many years did we suffer pretty much because of our resistance to this thing. You know, nobody nobody goes, hey, here's the number for AA in the phone book. I think I'll go in and, you know, do my best in there. I mean, that's just not what happens. We come in here fussing and, and pushing and fighting and, and, you know, arguing. We're, you know, we're really not happy to be here. That's really, that's really what happens with us. Um... So Bill is still a little bit, you know, this God thing. I understand the power. I understand there's some power. You have some power. But this God thing. And Ebby got mad. Now, there's two stories. There's Bill's story. And you got to remember, he's drinking bathtub gin. So he may not be remembering this really well. And then there's Ebby's story. And I've heard, I've heard Ebby's story. There's tapes of Ebby telling this story. And he tells a different story. He tells a story that he got pissed off at Bill and started yelling at him. Okay, okay. You know, you know, you know, you know, you've got all these problems with God. Why don't you just make up your own conception of God? Make God into whatever the hell you want it to be. And, and that's basically what he did. And that opened the door for Bill to be able to accept a spiritual recovery process. Now, it talks in this book about what, what's definitely going to defeat us. What will defeat us is belligerent denial. Uh, what will defeat us is, is unreasoning prejudice. What will defeat us is an absolute refusal to have an open mind on spiritual matters. That will defeat us in Alcoholics Anonymous if we're an alcoholic. So there needs to be an open mind on these. What opened Bill's mind was the conception that he could make up his own conception of God. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required to make my beginning. And that's the way it is with us too. I really believe that. We just need to be willing. I saw that growth could start from that point upon a foundation of complete willingness. I might build what I saw in my friend. Thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want Him enough. Now... I'm absolutely convinced. I've had, spirit, I've had spiritual teachers who have ripped away every vestige of me thinking I've done this myself. You know, if I'm going up to get a, if I'm going up to get a shift and somebody yells out, "How'd you do it?" My first thought is, I didn't. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, without the power of God, I, I would not be standing here sober. However, we need to cooperate. We need to participate in in our own recovery, because there's certain things God will do, uh, and there's but there's but there's certain things that we have to turn our self will over. The story I, the story I like to tell about self will is this. Uh, 
It goes back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are running around there. They're partying it up. There's food everywhere. They're running around naked. They're having an absolute blast, okay? And God just tells them, look, I just got one rule for you. There's, there's a tree over there, a tree of self-knowledge, a tree of self-centeredness. And I don't want you to go near there because that's just going to blow your whole, your whole worldview up. And that's just going to be a really bad thing. So, you know, I want you to enjoy paradise, so stay away from that tree. What happens? You know, <laughs> maybe Adam was an alcoholic. Who knows? Uh, wow, if God doesn't want me to have that, it's got to be really good, you know? So they eat of the apple. They both eat of the apple. Now God shows back up in the garden and sees them, and they've covered themselves with fig leaves. They've got all kinds. Of, now they've now they've got self-centered fear, and they you know they have anxiety, and, and you know they're they're like all shy and uncomfortable. And God figures it out. He goes, you, you, ate of the, you ate of the tree, didn't you? I told you not to do that. Now, God loved them so much that he said, okay, if you want self-will that much, you can have it. You know, you've shown yourself to want to, to be self-centered and to have self-will. That's fine. You can have that. But you can't stay in Eden. You can't stay in paradise. You've got to go east of Eden to the land of Nod. Anybody in here ever been to the land and nod? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you can do whatever you want in the land and nod. But it gets it gets pretty bleak after a while, okay? You start drooling on yourself and you start calling people on the phone drunk and you start you start get piling up the DUIs and being misunderstood by everybody. That's that's the land and nod. Now, here's the thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. We can get back into paradise. We just have to come back and turn our self-will in at the door. And we need to now have a will to align ourselves with what God would have us be and what God would have us do. And we can get back into paradise. I think recovery is paradise. It's shown itself to be that for me. Now, now, but this doesn't come easy. We are, we are a tough crowd. You know, we, we got some resistance. You, you ever work with like newcomers? You know, I was working with, I was working, working with one. You know, really trying. Hey, if you do this, there'll, there'll be a good outcome. If you do this, there'll be a good outcome. If you do this, there'll be a good outcome. Well, um, you know, I think I'll hook up with a chick and go across the country. <laughs> All right. (laughs) Okay. Let me know how that works for you. Uh, How how long are you sober? Eighty-four days. Uh, Okay. Maybe she's the one that really understands you. <laughs> maybe she's Mrs. Right. Maybe she's God's will for you. you know, maybe she's got relapse tattooed on her forehead. What's the matter with you? Anyway. Uh. 
Okay, here is a great thing. This is page 13. And I want to go over this because it's so important. And we miss this when we go over this. It's so important. At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise for I showed signs of delirium tremens. This is when they start shoving belladonna down his throat and some other, you know, some other psychoactive ingredients that helped with detox. Nowadays, you get Librium, you get Ativan, and you get, you get, some, you get some decent you know, detox medication. Back then, all they had was, was belladonna, which is like a weed that you get like, in the backyard that's like poisonous. So, you know, it was really a tough... It was really really a tough detox. Uh, basically, the belladonna was given to you so that you would vomit continuously. They thought, well, if, they, if he vomits continuously, he'll get rid of all that poison in it. You know, you know, so for about three days, you know, retching and vomiting. So... You got under. You got to take in context what's what's going on, where he was at. Uh, in treatment, in treatment, Ebby uh, uh, came back and visited him. It says here, there I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood Him to do with me as He would. I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing. That without Him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced the sin, my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Let's, let's look at that. That really is a great surrender. That's a, that's a great first, second, and third step. And it's also also a good six and seven step when you look at it you know being being facing your sins facing your character defects and being willing to have god remove them my schoolmate visited me Evie thatcher shows up and i fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies this is a fifth step this is a confessional well the oxford group confessional process we made a list of people that i had hurt or toward whom i felt resentment i expressed my entire entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong never was i to be critical of them i was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability this is him doing an eighth step list preparing to when he leaves the hospital do a ninth step now I'll tell you what, the treatment centers, most of them aren't even called treatment centers. They're called recovery centers. The places that I support really strongly, personally out there, that are, uh, that are taking us in uh, for, for treatment uh, of alcoholism, the places I really support are the recovery centers that really try to do a lot of this step work with you. The good ones... The good ones, when you leave, you have, a, you have a list or you have index cards with all of your amends, and they are going to help you through the aftercare process go out and actually make direct amends to the people you've harmed. This is right after treatment or the, 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 the recovery process. Those are the places I support. They have the highest outcomes of any treatment centers, those recovery centers that get you to do that. Here's a statistic for you. Five years after alcoholism treatment, 5% of the people are going to still be sober. Five years after doing a fifth step, 60% of the people will still be sober. 
Think about that. Think about that. So I support the people who help you through this process. We a lot of times, yeah, we can we can, we need some counseling, we need some therapy, we need to have a little bit of our head shrunk, you know, sure. We need to d- deal with our issues, we need to deal with some issues. But the thing that ke- the thing that offers us protection from the next drink is the spiritual awakening. The spiritual awakening we have to work for that. It can't be taught to us. We can't pick it up in a lecture. You know, what we need to do is we need to work for it. And this is what Bill is doing and preparing to do on his, on his detox bed in the hospital. Think about that. He's gone through the first eight steps and he, ha- he isn't even out of his detox bed. You know, th- think, think about Think about that. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. This is great 10th and 11th step stuff. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. You know how newcomers have problems and issues? I mean, it's like constant drama. Sometimes as a sponsor, you feel like a drama coach. You know, because you get a phone call. Oh, I blew my life up this way today. You know, you, you know what I mean? Well, you're, when, you're, when you're agitated, when you're doubtful, when you don't know which way you should go, you don't just do something, you stand there. Okay, it's the opposite of what we're programmed to do. Don't just do something. Stand there. Pause when agitated or doubtful. Ask for the direction and strength to meet your problems as God would have you meet them. These are really extraordinarily powerful exercises for us to use, for us to teach our sponsees, our protégés, our prospects how to use them. You know, one of the things that I see in Alcoholics Anonymous today that I think is very hurtful is there are groups that demand group loyalty and sponsors that demand sponsor authority. So the sponsor is absolutely in charge of every single thing in your life. Whether you go back to college, who you date, who you marry, you know, what kind of car you drive, when you buy a car. I mean, you know, they're, in, they're involved in, in the minutia of your life. That's not what this book is pointing us toward. This book is pointing us toward having direction from God, not from human power, from divine power. This is not a self-help program. This is a divine help program. It's much bigger than so many of us give it credit for. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive. But that would be in great measure. My friend promised that when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Okay, let's look at that sentence. Ebby told him that when these things were done, when these steps were done, he would enter upon a new relationship with his Creator and that he would have a way of living that answered all of his problems, not just his alcohol problem. That's an incredible promise. That's really talking about some serious power. 
And, you know, so, so often we settle for relief instead of the freedom and the power that's available in this program. What has happened in Alcoholics Anonymous is in a lot of areas, I'm not talking about here, this is a pocket of enthusiasm. I'm, I'm, you know, this is choir practice, I understand that. But there are places, there are places in Alcoholics Anonymous where it's become a fellowship-based sobriety. And they've gotten away from a program-based recovery. The real freedom, the real power, the real change, the real quality of life comes from a program-based recovery and not a fellowship-based sobriety. Uh, Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Let's all remember what those simple requirements were. Simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. Remember I said that we're coming back to Eden and we're turning our self-will in at the door because we're tired of the land of Nod? I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of the mountaintop blew through and through. I mean, the wind of the Spirit was blowing up the sky's butt. You know what I mean? This was a serious spiritual awakening for him. It happened sudden and profound. It talks about in the spiritual appendix in here that the spiritual awakening, spiritual experience can happen in a sudden and profound way like it did with Bill or it can happen slowly through the educational variety. Slowly through the educational variety is usually... Usually that happens to most of us because we slowly, you know, integrate these these uh, spiritual exercises into our life. We don't want to jump into anything that's going to heal us too quick, you know. In a way, I got to get my head out of my butt before I do those steps, you know. Uh. My friend emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. Listen to this sentence, okay? Anybody in here ever heard, it's a selfish program? I gotta be selfish. Sign me up! You know, it's a selfish program. Sign me up! Listen to this sentence. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Alright. If we don't put the welfare of others ahead of ourselves at certain times in our life, if we don't develop an attitude of charity, an attitude of service, a service ethic trying to help out people who are a little bit less off than us. If we don't develop that, we are not going to make it through the trials and the low spots ahead. There's an article that was just written in the Wired magazine. And, you know, that's been going around through emails. Anybody here read it? Um, Google it. Uh, you know, it's a pretty good article. Anyway, it talks about the success rates in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're terrible. 
They're terrible. You know, 80% of the people that walk through the door of AA aren't here a year later. I mean, you know, that's a terrible success rate. And it really does reflect on us. Now, there's a lot of reason for that. A lot of non-alcoholics come through. A lot of people who still have some power, choice, and control. And they find that just with a little encouragement, with a little self-knowledge, they can not drink. And they don't really need all these meetings and all this intensity. You know, that's fine. There are a lot, there are a lot of those people, and they cycle through. But, but, the, but the alcoholics who come in here and relapse... You ask them, you know, did you work and did you self-sacrifice for others while you were trying to get sober? No. They told me it was a selfish program. I never did nothing for nobody, you know. Well, you're not supposed to stay sober then. You're supposed to get drunk. There's a lot of things that if you don't do, you're supposed to get drunk. Another thing you hear all the time is that, you know, there's no musts in AA. There's a ton of musts if you want to recover. There's a lot of musts. And if you don't do the musts, you know, your chances are less than average. What is less than average? That's less than 50%. Uh, and that's what I've seen. Uh, that's what I've seen true. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. Uh, with us, it is just like that. <clears throat> an alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. Bill, Bill Wilson, you know. <laughs> Bill learned a lot of lessons about how to 12-step. You know, he, he didn't immediately know exactly how to do this. He made a huge amount of mistakes. He was pulling people off of bar stools who didn't even want to quit drinking. You, you know? Has anybody ever done that? I mean, when I first got into AA and I got evangelical, I went back after a bunch of my drinking buddies and, oh, you should, you should try AA. It's, it's really great. There's cookies and coffee. Uh, we don't drink and we hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, a lunacy commission was appointed. Anyway, um, anyway, Bill got busy. He dedicated his entire life to this. Lois was working at the department store. You know, she was making the money, so he was running around, running around, hooking, hooking up with drunks and doing twelve-step work. He was, he was a twelve-step working fool. You know, and then he, then he meets up with Doctor Bob, who, who also became a twelve-step working fool. Doctor Bob, uh, a conservative estimate on how many people he took through the steps, either at the hospital, at his office, or at his house, is about 5,000 people. Okay, He only lived 15 years into AA. So do the math. Does, how many times does 5,000 go into 365 times 15? It'll figure out that he, he was taking about three people through the steps every day. You know, Dr. Bob didn't fool around. 
He brought you into his office and he said, Kid, do you believe in God? Well, get out on your knees! And he'd get you down and yeah, now, turn your will and your life over to God! And you'd go, oh God, turn my will. That, that's not good enough! Let me hear it again! You know, and he would push you through the steps in an afternoon. There was a, there's a story in here of a guy he did that to. I, I forget, I forget which, which story it is, but it's just, it's in the first, it's in the first, uh, first series of stories. And he goes through the whole thing, exactly what Dr. Bob did with him, you know? There was a guy, there was a guy, this wonderful drunk, Clarence Snyder, who was such a character. He's the individual who started the, uh, started the Cleveland group. AA group number three. And he was a very charismatic, very high power individual. And he actually turned, uh, turned, uh, the, uh, the Cleveland AA group into the biggest AA group in a very short period of time. Just because he was just a powerful individual. And he was sent from New York to Dr. Bob in Akron, Ohio, to, to, to be cured of alcoholism. Somebody had heard that Dr. Bob was curing alcoholics. So they gave, they gave Clarence Snyder a one-way ticket to Dr. Bob. And as he's walking up to Dr. Bob's office, he sees the sign. Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith, proctologist. Okay? He goes, well, that's something I haven't tried yet. <laughs> and, and, and he tells the story. He tells the story of going in and you know and having Dr. Bob uh, uh, brutalize him through through the steps and and then immediately get him working with others. There were some periods of time in AA where there was huge growth spurts. Um, Publication of certain articles all of a sudden exposed the world to this Alcoholics Anonymous thing. Um, uh, the Saturday Evening Post article, uh, uh, the Liberty Magazine article, and what happened was all of a sudden AA gets this really positive PR, and there were groups with like ten people who got hundreds of phone calls of people who wanted to be new members. So what would happen is there would be ten people in a group, and they would have to take two hundred people through the steps and they started to learn how to do it that's where some beginners meetings started to become developed uh, that's that's where some structure to taking people through the steps started to happen in early Alcoholics Anonymous make no mistake about it in early AA it was a program with a support fellowship it was not a fellowship with maybe a support program here's what it would look like in the first decade of AA there would be a meeting, say, on Monday night where all the alcoholics would get together and they would strategize about where they were going to go to find prospects. And what they would do is they would strategize and some people would go to the hospital on Monday, some people would go to the insane asylum on Monday. On Tuesday, some people would go to the prison, some people would go to some doctors and some clinics. You know, all through the week they would go and they would get prospects. They would get prospects to take through the steps. Over the weekend they'd take them through the steps. And then Monday night they'd meet with, we'd meet with them and the people who had gone through the steps are strategizing about where they're going to go to look for new members for Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a very powerful, very intense process. It's not how we do it today. And you know, there's some wisdom. There's some wisdom in taking a little bit of time. 
But that's how they, there was a sense of urgency back in those days about getting through the steps and getting to the place where you were helping other alcoholics because they were absolutely convinced that their sobriety was 100% contingent on how much work with other alcoholics they were going to be doing. And it showed, because the people that backed off, the people that, that said, you know, I've been doing a lot of work lately, you know, i really got to get some balance back in my life, you know, those are the people who ended up relapsing. So, anyway, uh, that's all for tonight. Next, uh, next week, we're going to really start getting into it. We're going to start getting into the chapters on step one. That's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun with those, uh, with those chapters. So I hope, I hope I'll see you all back here next week. It was, uh, it was really great being here last week. Uh, there's, looks like there's more people tonight. Uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, we talked a little bit about some history. Uh, we talked a little bit about an introduction to the big book and Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I talked about some current topics, some things that as uh, informed, um, experienced uh, AA members, we... You know, it's kind of our responsibility to be paying attention to, um, uh, keeping an eye on. And tonight, tonight, what I'd like to do is, uh, you know, start moving right in, right into the book. Um, we went over a little bit of the forwards and uh, the preface last week. I want to start on the doctor's opinion. Before I do that, though, I want to set, I want to set the context of the doctor's uh, opinion. Bill Wilson had been going into Towns Hospital to get detoxed. Um, Bill was what what would be described in this book as a low-bottom, hopeless alcoholic. And what a low-bottom, hopeless alcoholic is, it's somebody that's lost the power, choice, and control to stay away from alcohol, and someone who's lost the power, choice, and control to moderate alcohol once they start drinking. Um, if you, if you don't have the ability to stay away from booze, you'll continue to keep drinking it. You'll find ways to drink it. You'll end up drunk uh, uh, even if you don't want to. And when you start to drink, if you have that, that craving uh, that alcoholics have, you won't be able to just have a couple. You won't, you won't be able to moderately drink. You'll get tongue-chewing, knee-walking, not able to operate your own pants zipper drunk every single time. You know what I mean? You ever get that, get that drunk? Yeah. Um, so Bill Wilson was one of those alcoholics, and... What would happen is he would go on a run, he'd go on a bender, and he would need to be hospitalized. I mean, he would, he would just go through really, really bad delirium tremens. It talks in his story one time that he was on the fourth floor or something of his brownstone, and he started to go into the DTs, and he dragged his, his mattress down the stairs all the way to a lower floor because he was afraid he was going to run and jump through the window. At, you know, and go four stories down on, onto the onto the pavement. You know, that's the DTs. So he when he when he started when he when he was coming off these runs, he would need to be detoxed like many of us. Um, and he would show up at Towns Hospital. Uh, he had a relative that had connections at Towns Hospital, so he'd walk in, you know, and they'd say, "Oh, Bill, you know, your bed's over here," and. 
and he you know he'd lay down and he, and he'd start he'd start the treatments. Now in his story, they talk a little bit about the belladonna treatments, the hydrotherapy treatments. There's a very very interesting book out there um, uh, uh, called uh, uh, called Slaying the Dragon. It's written by. Uh, uh, written by uh, a wonderful historian who, who basically uh, did, a, did a historical study on alcoholism treatment uh, over the course of the last uh, 400 years. And he talks a little bit about belladonna treatment. He talks a little bit about hydrotherapy in this book. And, uh, you know, hydrotherapy is basically they'll strap you to a cot, uh, roll you into a shower cubicle with multiple heads, and hit you with hot water and cold water and hot water and cold water. And, you know, I don't know how much that really does for your alcoholism, but at least it cleans you up. And, uh, and belladonna treatment, I, you know, I got, I've got some personal experience with belladonna. Uh, there was the smoking area at high school. I don't know if anybody relates to this. And you'd gather there before high school would start, and you'd pass around the drugs or, you know, whatever to, to get through the rest of the day. And this one day, this guy brought in a big sack of weeds, and we're all like, well, what is that stuff? And he goes, it's Belladonna, man. You know, try some. It's like $5. And so a bunch of us bought this Belladonna, you know, not knowing what it was or what it was going to do, and ate it. That's just kind of how we were. We'd, we'd, you know, if you had a pill in your hand, we'd grab it and we'd eat it, and then we'd say, what was that, by the way, you know? I mean, that's just, I don't know how you were in high school, but that's how I was. So we ate this Belladonna, and it, it's, it's a poison. It's, it's a horrible, poisonous weed with some hallucinogenic speed-like like qualities. And I went partially blind because I would, you know, over-serve myself with whatever you had. And I remember the next day going into school, you know, my vision had returned, and, and you know, I, I was saying, hey, man, did you go blind too? You know, that was really, really, really cool. Just insane, insane. And so I can't imagine how they would use belladonna as an alcoholism treatment. You know, um, they, they used crazy stuff uh, 75, 100 years ago. One of the jobs I had uh, was I worked at Rutgers University for many years, and we were breaking up some of the Quonset Hut buildings there that were staging areas for World War II. This was an area where you know they would they would move a lot of supplies through and then ship them over over to Europe for World War II, and we broke up the floor of this place and we found what was what was the remnants of uh, of a drugstore. It was like where they stored the drugs, and I found a full bottle of bronchitis medication. All right, it was a full bottle of bronchitis medication. You want to know what the three main ingredients in this bronchitis medication were? Heroin, strychnine, and creosote. Can you imagine taking that for your cough? (laughs) For anybody that doesn't know what those are, you know, creosote is what you use to warmanize lumber. You know, you you soak the two-by-fours in creosote, and now you have weatherproof lumber. And strychnine is is another poison. So they really didn't know what they were doing is basically my point here. And they were treating these people with whatever they could treat them with. Dr. Bob would use a really high-power sedative. He used this stuff that would knock you unconscious for two or three days. You know, he would just knock you out. It was like a knockout formula. 
Um, so they really didn't know how to handle these people, but Bill was showing up in Towns Hospital time and time again to get detoxed. And they would detox him, and they would basically say to him, you know, Bill, you really should stop drinking. It's a good idea for you to stop drinking. And Bill say, yeah, you know, I'm done this time. And I'll go home, and I'll, I'll, put, I'll swear, you know, I'll write a statement in the family Bible saying I'm done this time, and, you know, I'll, I'll be okay. And he never was. You know, he never was. Now, what happened was he got 12-stepped by Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher had become... Um, had become involved with a group known as the Oxford Group. What the Oxford Group would do is basically they were an evangelical uh, society, kind of non-denominational society, who were interested in re-examining and practicing first century Christian principles. A lot of the principles that they found in the book of Acts and the four Gospels as far as operational methodology for for, uh, for us, they tried to to, uh, practice it. And some of the things that they practiced, and see if this doesn't ring a little bit like the steps, some of the things they practiced was uh, uh, deflation. Okay, that would be like surrender. They practiced um, uh, they practiced restitution, which would be kind of like our making amends. They practiced confession, which would be a little bit like our our fifth step. And they they practiced prayer and meditation, obviously. And then they practiced witnessing, which would be trying to trying to talk somebody else into having a conversion experience, you know, a religious conversion experience. So they had these basic practices in the group. And every once in a while someone would a drunk would stumble into the Oxford group and they would get sober because it because if they started to practice these spiritual principles it resulted in sobriety and sometimes recovery. It just did. It, it's it's you know, it's not what we know. It's not what we think. It's not what we say. It's not what we believe. It's what we do that brings about a recovery. It's how we act. So they weren't trying to sober up drunks, the Oxford group. They were, they, were try, they were trying to save people's souls. But when a drunk would stumble in there and actually practice these principles, the, the drunks would get sober. And there was, you know, the Oxford group wasn't the only uh, organization. There was the Emanuel Movement, the Jacoby Club. You know, I think most of us have heard of the Washingtonians. There were a lot of these groups that if you became involved enough, if you participated in them enough, you would get sober and your life would start to to fall into place. Now, Ebby Thatcher shows up at at Bill Wilson's and... uh, and sits down and basically says, you know, you know, Bill, I, I think I have a solution here. And the solution basically is, um, it's a spiritual solution. Now, up until that point in time, in Towns Hospital, there was a classification of alcoholics that these doctors knew they couldn't touch. They knew these alcoholics were hopeless. Because they could detox them, they could fix some of the chronic physical conditions, they could, they could get them to eat and take vitamins and maybe a little bit of exercise, but they knew as soon as they let them go and they went back out into the real world, they would get drunk. 
and they knew that there, this was the classification of the hopeless alcoholic. And the people at Towns, uh, Charlie Towns and uh, William Silkworth, just hated dealing with them. Because, you know, it's, you know, you just know that it's, no matter what you do, it's not going to be sufficient to be able to help this person. And when you're dealing with their families, too, it's very, very hard to, to say to a family member, look, you know, Uncle Harry here is hopeless. He's going to drink himself to death, you know. Protect the finances. I mean, you know, it's really hard to, to carry that type of a message to, to the family. So, so they, they were, you know, they didn't really like the, uh, the, the hopeless alcoholics. Nobody really wanted to deal with them. Normal hospitals, remember, Towns is a hospital specializing in drug and alcohol treatment. There weren't a lot of those back in the mid-30s. And if you went to a regular hospital, the regular hospitals didn't want to take you at this point in time. You know, if you were a chronic alcoholic and you, sh- you show up for medical treatment all the time, they, if they could find a way not to take you, they would. Because what we do is we show up in treatment, you know, begging to get in. A day or so later, we start to realize that, hey, they're not doing it right here. You know, that, you know they should do it my way, and, and, you know, this is wrong, and that's wrong, and I'm going to talk to, who's the boss? I need to talk to, and, and, and they leave with a resentment, you know, and, and don't pay their bill. Okay, and a week later they're back. You know, oh, you gotta help me, you gotta help me. I mean, who would want who would want to deal with somebody like that? And that's how we show up. You know, so uh, so basically, what happens is Bill Wilson gets twelve step by Ebby Thatcher. He participates in the in the spiritual uh, renewal process that the Osser group had set up. Uh, basically the tenets and the practices of the Osser group. He said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm out of plans. I'll, I'll give this a shot. And he gets sober. And part of, uh, part of the, the thing, that the, the reason I think that we're all here tonight is on his detox bed, the thought crosses his mind that there are a lot of alcoholics out there. This this news that Ebby Thatcher brought me, I know that this is a message of depth and weight. I know that this this will uh, this will uh, if if I really dive into this, I'll recover from alcoholism. On his detox bed, he decides to spend the rest of his life carrying the message to alcoholics that still suffer. Now, there was a lot of people that got sober in the Oxford group. There's books out there that were written by Oxford group alcoholic members who got sober way before AA. You know, one of, one of my favorites is called I Was a Pagan. You know, that's an old book that was written by an Oxford group member who was an alcoholic who got sober. And there was one called The Big Bender. That's another one. You know, you can, you can research these old Oxford group books and see that, you know, there were conversions. There were recoveries way before Bill Wilson. Now, Bill gets about the business of carrying the message to other alcoholics. And one of the things he does is he goes back into Towns Hospital and basically says, uh, Silky, you know, I, I think I've got it. I think I've got an answer to alcoholism. Let me, you know, let me practice on some of the patients in here. And it says in here, with some misgivings, you know, we allowed him to. And that's basically where, uh, where the relationship developed between 
William D. Silkworth, the chief physician at Towns Hospital, and Bill Wilson. Now, when this book was being written, Bill said, "Would you please write, uh, please, please write something for me? You know, we we need we need a medical estimate of our plan of recovery." Now, now Silkworth writing this letter is pretty amazing that he even did it. Because you have to understand, he's from the medical, the scientific part of this whole thing. Everything has to be uh, provable. You know, uh, it, it has. You know, uh, scientific tests must be repeatable. It needs to be peer reviewed. I mean, you don't just make something up. If you're a scientist, you follow best practices that you know come about through a lot of trials and a lot of tribulations. And all of a sudden. All of a sudden, Bill Wilson, with this religious angle, because you got to remember, the Oxford Group was religious, and there was no AA until this book was was published. There was only Oxford Group alcoholic members. Um, for him to basically say, "Okay, this guy over here." who's helping drunks get sober, there's something really significant going on here. There's something that's really working, and we need to pay attention to it. It's amazing, because it's like a sci- it would be like a scientist saying, hey, you know, yeah, we've, we've got you know, Beth Israel Hospital behind us, but there's some guys down the street with an Ouija board that are doing better than we are. Let's let's pay attention to the people with the Ouija board. I mean, it you know, it would have been it would have been it would have been a professional suicide for him to do something like that. So he didn't sign the letter. He wrote it, but he didn't sign it. Because it was an opinion. Because there, there was no science behind a spiritual awakening and there is none today. There's no science behind a spiritual awakening. It's something that is that is observable, but it's not quantifiable. You know what I mean? And that's one of the reasons why AA and professional treatment have such a distance between each other. Because it, because it's you know it's very very difficult for the scientific community to really understand what the hell goes on in these meetings. You know we've sent you to to the forty thousand dollar treatment centers. We've sent you to twenty of them, and and you meet a plumber named Harry in AA and you get sober. You know what the hell's going on? So you know there's a, there's a there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of uh, you know, a friendly distance. Let's let's just say that. But the fact that Silkworth wrote this letter is amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna start reading a little bit in here, and I'm gonna read what I think is you know the the important parts, and just share a little bit on it. We have Alcoholics Anonymous. This is Bill. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. Because Bill would go in there and the people that Towns Hospital couldn't help, he would help. If they would participate in the things that he asked them to participate in, they would get sober. A well-known doctor 
chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Now, Silkworth, it was estimated that he treated over 20,000... You know, I'm really bad with numbers. I'm numerically dyslexic, so if I ever quote a number, you know, don't take that to the bank. But, you know, I know it was in the tens of thousands of alcoholics that this guy, uh, this guy worked with. That'll give you a clue about what's going on. You'll, you'll start to see patterns. You'll start to see classifications. You'll start to see, uh, uh, see the scale of alcoholism. You'll start to get a clue about, you know, um, what type of chances certain people have and what type of chances other people uh, don't have. Now, uh, I've got a copy of this original letter. What Bill did, he, Bill took a little bit of art, artistic license and took the letter that Silkworth wrote and chopped it up a little bit. And I think he improved on it. He made a lot of sense out of it. But it's very, very interesting to read the original letter, you know, which you can find online if, if you're so inclined. Uh, anyway, he, he identifies himself uh, by just saying, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 34, I attended a patient who, though he had, had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of the type I had come to regard as hopeless. <clears throat> now, there's still hopeless alcoholics out there. There still are. And a hopeless alcoholic is just someone that self-knowledge is not going to help them. It's not going to recover them. Uh, 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 teaching them relapse prevention techniques is not going to be a long-lasting solution. Showing them where their triggers are is not really going to help them very much when they're on the way to the bar. You know, we're, 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 dealing, with, we're dealing with somebody you know, right now who we're very, very close to who decided after going you know, through like three days of outpatient that, that you know, all this outpatient really is you know, a drag. I need to go to the bar and you know, have, a, have a drink you know, just to relax from all this outpatient. You know? I, mean, I mean, think about it. You know? and, and it made perfect sense to them. Now, in the course of his third treatment, it actually wasn't his third treatment, it was about his twelfth. Because they found they found records of Bill being admitted to Towns Hospital about twelve times. He acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. Those certain ideas came from Ebby, who shared with him the Osher Group's spiritual practices. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. Now this is very very important. My war cry for the year is, as responsible members of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing, we need to start paying more and more attention to the chapter working with others. Uh, AA as a whole has moved so far away from the 12-step work that's described in the chapter working with others that we should all be ashamed of ourselves, myself included. But what it's, what it's stating in here is Bill Wilson's means of recovery was basically sharing that means of recovery with other people. 
it was very, very important to carry the message to other people in the hospital. And this is something that's, that Silkworth noticed. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. We're going to look back in 50 years, we're going to look back on addiction and alcoholism treatment, and we're going to think that it was unbelievably barbaric. The type of the type of the 28-day programs and and uh, uh, the out, outpatients and all the stuff that's going on now. We're going to look back in 50 years and say, "My God, how barbaric that treatment was!" Because it it did not include the families. The families of alcoholics are made so gravely ill, and then we as alcoholics, you know, saunter into AA, you know, get a sponsor, go through the steps, you know, start start carrying commitments to to, to, to detoxes and rehabs and jails, and start to put our lives together. And a lot of times, what we're doing is we're moving away from the family who really doesn't understand how ill they are. They're so ill they don't know they're ill, and they don't. And not knowing they're ill, they're not motivated to get any better. You know, so more and more today, really responsible treatment practitioners and hopefully really responsible AA members are recognizing that the family really needs to not be ignored. Now, sometimes they want nothing to do with Al-Anon or any of that other stuff or the family programs, and you know, you can't force uh, you can't force somebody to do it. But more and more, as responsible and compassionate people, we need to be understanding that, the, that, that some form of help should be available. If it's possible for us to help, we should be helping. Uh, because in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, the families were included in the meetings. Uh, if, if you showed up to one of Dr. Bob's meetings by yourself, he'd say, where the hell's your wife? Let's go get her. You know, I mean, it, it, they were that serious about including the family. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. There's that word again, recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. That's strong talk. What Silkworth is basically saying is, we charge $2,000 a week you know, for our treatment. These guys that are coming in and doing it for fun and for free are going to mark a new era in the, in the epoch of alcoholism. Pay attention to what they're doing. It took a lot of guts for him to do this. You, and then he says, uh, these men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. That's very, very powerful. Then Bill is back at it. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. 
In this statement, he confirms what we have suffered from alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or we were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Body, mind, spirit. If you're an alcoholic, you are, you are ill, both of the body, of the mind, and the spirit. It's an illness that affects the body, mind, and the spirit. Alcoholism is an unorthodox illness. All right. Uh, I, I happen to have just been convinced in the last two months by uh, an addictions doctor uh, about uh, that alcoholism is a disease. I was 95% there. Okay, and I've I've gone over the hump, and I now am convinced because of the scientific evidence that this doctor presented that alcoholism is a, is a disease. It, 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 is, it is most definitely a disease, but it's an unorthodox disease. There's not a lot of other diseases that affect you mentally, that affect you spiritually. Certainly, diseases affect you physically. But when you think about having a disease, you think about going to a doctor, going to some specialists, and getting treated for that disease. And there may be an operation, there may be, you know, antibiotics, who knows. But if you follow that program, you'll be able to get better. You don't have to get a sponsor. You don't have to get a home group. You don't have to put a dollar in the basket every Thursday night. You go to a doctor and you get treated and you get better. Alcoholism being an unorthodox illness affecting us both both uh, physically, mentally, and spiritually, needs to be treated in an unorthodox—excuse uh, me—in an unorthodox manner. This is another area that really freaks out a lot of the medical establishment, a lot of the psychiatric establishment. That sometimes, sometimes, even the people who are treating us for alcoholism in a professional capacity do not understand this. They don't understand the spiritual part. They don't understand that we need to start to become rigorously honest. There are things that make no sense to them. Yet it made a lot of sense to Bill Wilson because he came from a spiritual program that led to his recovery. Um, The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As layman, our opinion to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Allergy. You know, allergy is not really uh, the best way to, uh, to describe what happens to us when we put alcohol in our body. <clears throat> that's, that's one thing that's, that's kind of been, become clear in the last 20 or 30 years. It's not the best way to describe it. However, if you think of an allergy as an abnormal reaction to a food or a beverage... You can say our abnormal reaction is the phenomenon of craving. 
when we drink alcohol, what it does is it, it creates a craving for more alcohol. What happens with the alcoholic is when they take a drink, it, the drink asks for a second drink, demands another drink, insists on the drink after that, and you end up, you end up getting drunk. And how many times have we been out there drinking with normal people and you know they can have two or three and they've had enough but once we've started drinking we got to finish the deal that's that's the craving okay that's what they call the allergy i don't know that allergy is the best way to describe it it's a, but it's a craving it's a phenomenon of craving it's a it's a physical compulsion actually our liver and our pancreas and our whole digestion system and cardiovascular system is is crying out for more of that alcohol and this is why nine times out of ten when we drink we get drunk and we pass out but we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is jittery or befogged but we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane. The spiritual basically is the 12-step process. The 12-step process is how to be spiritual 101. Altruism is, is basically doing things for fun and for free. That's really what altruism is. It's being compassionate. It's being charitable. It's giving of your time. It's having a service ethic. So that's how we work out our problem. We work it out spiritually, and we work it out altruistically. We find ways to be of service. And each one of us needs to do that. Every single time I see somebody that relapses, they've fallen short somewhere. And almost invariably, it's, what were you doing every day to help other people? Nothing. Well, you know, why would you expect to stay sober if you're not doing anything for anybody else? It says in this book twelve places that we have we have to we have to give back what 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 we what we what we have uh, that we have to put the the welfare of other people ahead of our own. I mean, these are instructions in this book. You know, why would you expect to stay sober if if you're not living altruistically. Um, hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery and befogged. Jittery or befogged, that's, that's a 1938 way of saying somebody that ha- is going into alcohol withdrawal or the delirium tremens. We, you, you know, one of the things is, is I believe in, in uh, wet drunk work. You know, I've done a lot of wet drunk work. I've done enough wet drunk work to know that you keep airline bottles of booze around for the 12-step call and big garbage bags in the back of your car. You know, I mean, I've been around the block enough to know the tools that you need for wet drunk work. Uh, don't try, don't try to detox somebody at your house if they go into alcohol withdrawal. One of the things that happens in alcohol withdrawal is, um, is your, your pulse rate, your, your blood pressure, goes up to really, really high levels. And we stroke out, or our, our, our aorta pops like a garden hose. And there goes your warranty if that happens. You, you know what I mean? And you don't, you don't want 
you don't you don't want your you don't want somebody in the back of your car you know who, who's just died. So you need to get them to a detox. Now I'm not saying our 12 step work has to be put them in a 28 day rehab. You know, put them in long term rehab. Put them in an IOP. I'm not saying that at all. But when somebody is jittery or befogged, we favor hospitalization. You need to get them safe, physically safe. And a lot of times, a lot of times, what I have those airline bottles of booze for is for in between me getting them at their house and getting them to the hospital, you know, I don't want them going into alcohol withdrawal, you know, on me. So sometimes you, sometimes you have to feed them the booze while you get them to the detox. Uh, more often than not, uh, what Dr. Bob would do is he would give you peraldehyde. Peraldehyde is the knockout stuff I was talking about earlier. You know, that just, that just flattens you out for a couple of days. Um, today, what they'll do is they'll give you Ativan, they'll give you Librium or whatever, just so that, just so that you're safe while you detox. <laughs> Uh, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached. And he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So, has anybody in here ever done 12-step work, like, you know, carrying the message to somebody who's in a blackout? You know, I, I've wasted my time doing that a couple of times. You know, I, I gave my best pitch. And when I called them in the morning to see how they were doing, I said, who the hell are you? <laughs> you know, I didn't remember any of it. It's we need to let them. We need to let them. Uh, the best possible time to do twelve step work is when they're actually sober. <clears throat> Here's the second part of the letter. The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those affl- affected with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We, here's, an important, here's an important paragraph, but it's, it, it was very hard for me to understand when I first read it. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but it's its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. He's basically stating what his problem is with the hopeless alcoholic. Now, and he's writing it like a doctor. I heard somebody many years ago explain it to me from a spiritual angle and not a medical one. And this is how they did it. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual awakening was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. It's very difficult for a doctor to help you have a spiritual awakening or a conversion experience. It's not, it's not in their bag of tricks. You can't, you can't put it in a needle and push it into their arm. It's something that, it's something that takes, takes, takes time. It takes one alcoholic really working with another alcoholic. 
Many years ago, one of uh, the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgivings, we consented. This was, this was basically when Bill started to learn how to do a 12-step call. The original 12-step call is basically going and sitting with somebody and asking them, can I talk to you? You know, it, will, it would help me if I could share some stuff about myself. And then you sit with the alcoholic and you tell them your story. When, when, I was, when I first showed up in Alcoholics Anonymous, there was this wonderful old timer. He got sober in 1959. You know, he'd been around a long time. And he asked me to come over to his house and help him with some stuff. You know, I was out of work, and, you know, if I helped him, he'd, he'd pay me to, to do some stuff. And, you know, I helped him with some work, and then, then he goes, let's sit down at the table. And he sat me down at his kitchen table, and he told me his story. He, told, he, he shared what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. He not only talked about his, his alcoholism and how that presented and how that manifested, but he talked about his AA experience and how he found a recovery process in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was, it was a powerful experience for me. That was an old-fashioned 12-step call. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Our, our problem is powerlessness. You know, we admit we're powerless over alcohol. If we admit that's our problem, then it's a logical assumption that power is the solution to our problem. And what Dr. Silkworth saw is he saw this power that would bring these alcoholics, chronic alcoholics, back from the gates of death. He saw it happening. He's doing everything he can you know, in this prominent hospital uh, specializing in drug and alcohol treatment. But Bill and the boys are, are actually, the people who are participating with Bill and the boys are having trans, transformational recovery experiences. And, you know, Silkworth is just looking at this you know, saying basically, great. I'm I'm so glad that that there's there's something that may be of help, because 99 times out of 100, these guys die. These chronic alcoholics die. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological methods can be of maximum benefit. Again, he's saying you need to detox these people. They, They need to get rid of that physical craving. I'm someone who believes in you know, accurate terminology. Uh, so often we, we hear things in Alcoholics Anonymous used the wrong way. Someone will, come out, someone will raise their hand and they'll be sharing and they'll say, you know, uh, you know, when I came into the program, okay, well, right there, you don't come into the program. You come into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and you work a 12-step program. 
Um, the same thing happens. The same thing happens with the term craving. You'll hear somebody who's sober six months going, "Man, I was I was craving a drink last night." Well, you don't crave unless alcohol's in your body. You may be you 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 know you you may be preoccupied with drinking, but you're not craving because if you were craving, you'd be drunk. <laughs> craving is not something that is very easy to beat. <clears throat> We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, what is losing your self-confidence? That's being able to make a decision to stay away from booze and have that mean anything. Once they've lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Anybody in here ever sponsor a newcomer? They've got some problems that are astonishingly difficult for them to solve, right? It's because they're trying to solve them. That's why. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Anybody in here ever get the frothy emotional appeal aimed at you? Oh, you know what? Please, you gotta stop drinking for me. I promise. <laughs> oh God. Uh, or else the judge. The judge will give you some frothy emotional appeal. You're, you're going away for ten years. I won't. I'm not drinking anymore. I promise. But none of that works. None of those threats. You know, the family begging you. None of that works. That's not a sufficient defense against the first drink, unfortunately, if you're a, a chronic alcoholic. And, you know, we're, the whole big book assumes that you're, you're a chronic, low-bottom, hopeless alcoholic. Many people in AA today are not. And that's actually a good thing. If you're not a chronic, low-bottom alcoholic, and you do this stuff, you're going to have the same spiritual awakening and the same shot, you know, shot in the arm as far as quality of life that everybody else gets. You know, uh, but the chronic alcoholic has to do this stuff, or they're going to die. Now, that's the difference. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. A message of depth and weight. <clears throat> um, I believe in carrying a message of depth and weight. <clears throat> um, my, I, I want to I want to tell you about my first experience with AA. This is about 1984. And alcohol consumption was getting my attention, okay? Very, very few things were, were, was I able to participate in because, because drinking was a full-time job. I was barely hanging on to some employment, but the second I got out of work, I started drinking hard liquor, and, you know, I was in a blackout every night, and that takes a lot of energy to drink like that. You don't have time to, like, run around and do other stuff. So, so I decide, man, you know, this guy comes and he, he doesn't have a place to stay and I, I'm in the house by myself for a couple months and I say, you can stay with me for a while and I talk him into taking me to an Amy. You know, I basically say, you know, I, my drinking is really, really, I, I can't not drink. And that's got me concerned and, and I feel ill every morning and, and I, just, I just would like to figure out how to control this thing so would you take me to an AA meeting? 
I said, sure. So we went up to the AA meeting uh, uh, in town, and I, I got drunk to go to it. I figured, I figured, doesn't that make sense? You know, it's an AA meeting. Aren't you supposed to drink, you know, when you, especially your first time? So I got a little drunk. Not too drunk, you know, but a little drunk. And I remember walking in, and somebody spotted me from across the room, you know, the new guy, you know, and heads for me, and starts talking to me about sponsorship. You know, yeah, you know, I sponsor, and I sponsor, and I sponsor. And I'm thinking, thinking I, don't, I don't know what this guy is talking about. I, I used to race motorcycles, and, and Suzuki sponsored me. And if I rode their motorcycle and wore their shirt, they would give me gas money to get to the race. So I'm thinking, this guy wants to give me gas money to get to the meeting. So I don't have a driver's license, you know? So this guy's wasting his time. I didn't know what he was doing. And then I sat down in a chair, and they, you know, everybody's getting coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a bourbon drinker, you know? Uh, They go around the room. Everybody introduces themselves. And then they say the serenity prayer. And, you know... You know, the chills kind of go up my spine during that. And then the basket gets passed. And, you know, the last time I saw a basket gets passed, you know, I was getting married in the Catholic Church. You know, so another chill goes up my spine, you know. And, uh, and I'm thinking, I, I must be in the wrong place. And then all of a sudden they start to share. And this was one of those one of those dysfunctional sharing meetings. Uh, that, that, you know, and somebody like, I, I got this problem, you know, and I'm the fan belt on my Mercedes, and you know, I go to the I go to the dealership, and he's really rude to me, and you know, and and, and, and then you know somebody else shared some other thing, uh, you know, about well, you know, I I, I I can't sell my house, and I you know I've got another I bought another house, and now I'm stuck with two mortgages. I don't know what to do. And I'm thinking, how the hell do you get a house? You know what I mean? I'd, I'd love to have that problem, you know? How do you get a house? I've got like four bucks. And, uh, and you know, they're, they, they're, and at the end, everybody stands up and they get in a big circle, you know, and I'm really paranoid this time. Now they, they hold my hand. Okay, they grab my hand, they hold my hand. Last time somebody held my hand was in kindergarten. You know what I mean? And they, and they start saying the Lord's Prayer, and I am the hell out of there. And I didn't come back for like seven years, you know? Because that won't work. That won't work on me. Saying the Lord's Prayer won't work on me. I'm in real trouble. You know, it may work for you. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know that we work out our problems on the spiritual plane. I thought that there was some kind of information or some, you know, some trick or something that you could learn where you could control your drinking. I just didn't know. So I left because I didn't see an answer there for me. And so often that's what happens to us as alcoholics. You know, if there was a flag we could wave, it would be a flag that says, you don't understand, I'm different. You know, every one of us thinks that when we first come in here. It won't work for me. You need to understand my problems, you know. Uh, If any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. (laughs) 
Let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder why we have accepted and encouraged this movement. He's basically saying, why, why are you asking me that, I, that I'm promoting this spiritual thing that has no scientific validity, whatever? Why am I doing it? It's because I'm, I am dreaming about these people I'm working with and how they're dying and, and, the, and the pain and the suffering in their family. That's why I, I'd do anything to help with that suffering. And that's really what made Dr. Silkworth such a saint. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. There's that word, altruism again. That's the one thing that's that's slowly deteriorated and eroded from Alcoholics Anonymous is that altruism. You know, um, uh, and again... um, if you're really in trouble with alcoholism, you better really get altruistic. It's going to be incredibly important how much you give in this program. Because you have to give enough in Alcoholics Anonymous to get enough back from Alcoholics Anonymous to be able to stay. What will happen is you'll just wander off, you know, we'll see you for three or four or eight months and then slowly you're just gone and we're, we're not even thinking about you. You're just gone. You know what I mean? You're not that important, unfortunately, uh, to us. And, and all of a sudden you're gone. I remember that happened to me the first time I came in and, and I went back out for about six months. It was really horrible. I contacted my, my AA contact who became my sponsor. And I said, I, I said, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I went back out. It was, it was really horrible. And he goes, because I didn't even notice you were gone. You know, you know, it was like, it was very humbling. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. We certainly do. Alcohol gives us gives us an antidote to our spiritual malady. I don't know about anybody else, but prior to a spiritual awakening in Alcoholics Anonymous, what would happen to me was I was uncomfortable with myself and my environment on a continuing basis. I had a level of anxiety. I just wasn't good. I didn't want to be here with these people doing this stuff. Okay, I just didn't feel right. Now, when I drank a little bit of alcohol, everything was cool. All of a sudden, all right, you know, this is fun. I love these people. You know, what it did was it was an antidote. It was an antidote for my spiritual condition. So I liked the effect that alcohol produced. It gave me freedom. It gave me comfortability in my own skin. And I needed, I needed to use it. If I was, if I was going to go to a dance or something, I needed ballast. If I was going to go to traffic court or something with all the fluorescent lights and cops, I needed a couple of drinks. You know, otherwise I'm going to be really uncomfortable. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And this is something that kills us. We are so sick, we don't even think we're sick. And then we come into AA for a while, and we're so sick that we think, you're sicker than us. (laughs) All right? 
And then, and then we finally get to the point where we're, we're, we're sick enough that we can recognize we're sick. And we need to get to that point. We need to stay around to be able to get to that point. Otherwise, we're going to die. And we're going to not believe that we're in real trouble and we need this AA stuff. We're just not going to be convinced. So we need to hang in there until the miracle happens. And what the miracle is, is coming to the realization that you need this miracle. You know? We're dealing with somebody right now that is in so much trouble, but they cannot believe they're in trouble. Instead of going to an AA meeting, it's more important to go to to the gym. I mean, you know, think about that. If you had clarity, if you had clarity, it would be die an alcoholic death and go to the gym. Go to AA. You know, it would be that clear. But it's not that clear with us. It's not that clear at all. We just don't believe it. We're in way more trouble than we think we are when we, when we first get here. Every single one of us. This is great. They're restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can uh, again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. That's the thing that really got me. You know, everybody else can drink and I can't drink. There's, that's unfair. There's a, there's a serious miscarriage of justice somewhere in this. You know, I just can't even believe it. And uh, that was very, very difficult to get past. <clears throat> After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless a person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. This is a doctor. This is a doctor saying this. What happens is we, we make a firm resolution. I swear I'm not going to drink again, and we end up drunk. This, is, this would happen to me every single morning. I would come to in the morning, and I would say, I can't believe how sick I feel. You know, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to do this again. And I meant it. I was telling the truth. But what would happen is that, that, um, that mental obsession would come on me somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, and I would be driving to a liquor store to start the whole thing out all over again that day after I made a firm resolution not to drink this is the lack of power choice and control that the alcoholic has this is, this is one of the reasons why we die on the other hand and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand once a psychic change has occurred the very same person who seemed doomed who had, uh, had so many problems that he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. An entire psychic change. We need a psychic change. That's the treatment for alcoholism. It's not something that a treatment center can give you. It's not something that a detox can give you. There's very, very few places where you can be exposed to, um, uh, to a program of action sufficient to give you a psychic change. Alcoholics Anonymous is, is one of those places. Um, if you're new, if you're just coming back, or, or if you've never gone through the steps, 
and you're alcoholic, <clears throat> there's two truths that are so true in your case, but you're not going to believe them. The first we talked about, you're in way more trouble than you think. The second truth is, there's more of an answer for your life and its problems in Alcoholics Anonymous than you're giving AA credit for. When I first walked into AA and I heard people sharing about their Mercedes stand belt, I said, this is nuts. Okay, this, that, there's nothing here for me. These people are lame. It's, it's a church basement. It's primetime TV night. You know, this is the lo- these are the losers of, of all loserdom. I'm out of here. You know what I mean? A, a happening, stepping guy like me. I can't end up here. Now that was that was such a mistaken perception. That was that was seeing things so wrong. There actually was an unbelievable answer to my life and its problems and its and its quality. And the problems I was having with relationships and the problems I was having with consistency that would lead to success in my life. All of those problems were answered in Alcoholics Anonymous by a spiritual program. But try to convince me that I was in the right place early on. You know? So if you're new, if you're coming back, you're in way more trouble than you think. But this is the right place to be in trouble at. You know, that's all I have for tonight. Thanks. I'm really having fun with this commitment. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, for asking me to come up here and coming out and listening. We've uh, we've spent about six weeks on the first four chapters. We spent about four of those weeks, five of those weeks on step one. Um, again, just to recap, step one. Step one is uh, difficult for us to fully internalize. Uh, it says in the step book, who among us wishes to admit complete defeat? Uh, it says in the step book, instincts balk at investigation. Uh, we, we don't want to be uh, hopeless. We don't want to be powerless. Uh, we want there to be another option besides uh, spiritual living. You know, we want to uh, we, we want to figure this thing out and somehow beat it. Uh, uh, and that's just the way almost every alcoholic personality is. So there's a ton of material in the beginning of this book that paints a very, very dark picture for us. Uh, it describes the alcoholic, and then it says that we suffer from an obsession of the mind. And how that presents is, is it presents in us drinking. We pick up a drink. And we almost always do it from a place of sobriety. You know, I never took the first drink drunk. So what that means is, is it means if we're admitting to powerlessness, we're admitting that we can't protect ourselves from the next drink. We, we don't have that power. Uh, it's, it's almost not up to us. It's up to the booze. And the second part of step one is that once we start drinking, we lose control over the amount we take. We may plan on only having two beers at the bar, but we close the the place. And once we start drinking, we create an actual physical craving for more alcohol. It's mental and physical, and it's very, very hard to stop. It's very, very, I mean, how many many times have you had like three drinks and said, that's enough? 
I don't think I'll have any more. Now, I used to drink with people that would do that, and it would be like, enough isn't even something that computes to me. You know, you've had enough. Are you crazy? How, how do you have enough? How do you, how do, you do that? I, I know more, you know, and I know not done yet, and I know all those. I don't know I've had enough. Because of that craving, I drink, usually I drink until I pass out. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I have to drink until um, unconsciousness stops me from, uh, from continuing. And if that's not bad enough, you know, that I've got a mind that's going to bring me back to drink no matter what, and a body that's going to ensure I poison myself drinking, if that's not bad enough, there's a dash, and then it says that our lives have become unmanageable. And then you start to look into the material in this book to see what that unmanageability looks like. What is that unmanageability? How does it manifest in our lives? And it manifests emotionally, mentally, spiritually. We, it, it manifests in defective relationships with other people, in, in self-pity and remorse and guilt and self-centered fear and, and just being totally uncomfortable with ourselves and totally uncomfortable with our environment. Wherever we are, that's not where we want to be. And there's just massive amounts of emotional un unmanageability. We're not in control of our emotional natures. We suffer from, from self-pity. We suffer from depression. We have huge amounts of anxiety. We have an utter lack of dealage most of the time. You know, I'm sorry, I'm, I can't make it. I'm going to stay home. You know, I don't feel, you know, I don't really feel like doing that right now. You know. I, you know when you can start to tell somebody's recovering from alcoholism? They'll actually tell you what they're going to do and then do what they tell you you're gonna, they're going to do. You know, then you, you know they're on the path to recovery. Because how many broken promises, how many times did we tell people, you know, we were going to show up and we, and we just couldn't. We were drunk or we were hungover or, or we, just, we just were so shattered we didn't, we didn't want to deal. That's the first step. Then... Okay, that paints a really bad picture. But we then move into the second step. And the second step basically states that there is a power that we can access. We can actually gain access to a power greater than ourselves which will solve our problems, relieve us of our, our, our burden of self, and, and relieve us of our, our, our symptoms of alcoholism. So this power... You know, who among us wishes to, you know, give ourselves over this power on, like, day two in AA? You know, it's not great news to look up on the wall and see, you know, the, the power that's going to help us is going to be God. You, you know, that's not what most of us want to hear when we're brand new in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're figuring that's not going to work. You know, I've got real problems, is, is, what, is what we're saying. You know what I mean? But the only thing aggressive enough to be able to go after alcoholism is a spiritual awakening, is a, is a spiritual conversion experience. That's really your only hope if you've gone down the scale far enough. If you're what this book describes as a hopeless alcoholic, it's a spiritual awakening or it's death or insanity. That's what they're offering you here. Now, we're moving into chapter 5. 
I've gone to, I think I figured it out one time, at around 6,000 meetings I've been to. About 6,000 AA meetings, you know, over the course of my, my, my AA history. And practically at every meeting you hear this read, how it works. Well, when something is read that many times, uh, at least for me, it can become redundant. It can, be, it can become that thing that they read that, you know, identifies the group as an AA group. And, you know, would they please hurry up and get it done so we can get to the meeting? And, you know, who's going to read how it works? I'll, I'll read how it works. And, you know, you, you get somebody to go up there and read how it works. And somebody will read how it works. And then somebody will raise their hand in the, in the same discussion meeting where how it works was read and go and say something like, well, I don't know how it works. It just works. You, you know? Have you listened to anything? You know what I mean? You don't know how it works. They just read how it works. How it works is how it works. You know? There was an article, uh, you know, because because I'm, uh, I, I'm, I work in the media, i got to pay attention to some of these things. And, and there was an article on Alcoholics Anonymous that made, made Wire, Wired magazine. And, and, you know, it was sent out all over the place. Everybody's probably read it. And in that article it says, you know, we still don't know why AA works. Well, speak for yourself, okay? I know why AA works. Because these spiritual exercises lead to a spiritual awakening. That's why AA works, you know? There's been, there's been such a deterioration in certain areas. You know, you thank your lucky stars that AA is so good in North Carolina. I'm all over the place in AA groups. And I've got to tell you that there are, there are areas that have so deteriorated that, that you, you, they would be unrecognizable as AA meetings to our co-founders if they, were, if they, if they came back to life and went to one of these meetings. It would be unrecognizable. Uh, it, it's, it's almost like an anger management, uh, 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 you know, a group therapy session in, in some of these groups. There was, a, there was a movie that was done, and again, I've got to pay attention to all this stuff. There was a movie done, and Richard Lewis was in, involved in this. He's one of those sober uh, actors out, out, in, out in Hollywood, doesn't mind uh, breaking his anonymity as far as, you know, being sober. But he did a film called Drunks. And the whole film revolves around AA meetings, okay? I mean, the whole film is, is, is people interacting in these AA meetings. And it is the absolute worst stuff I've ever seen in my life. I would, I would last two and a half seconds in one of these groups, you know? Everyone is, is massively, insanely untreated alcoholism, you know? They're just crazed. And like everybody in the group is like that, and you're, and you know, this is this is what a lot of times this is what is portrayed as Alcoholics Anonymous in the movies, in the media. You know, if you watch Rescue Me, uh, Dennis Leary's always going into the AA groups and talking to everybody into going out drinking. You know, like, like it's just it's un, it's unbelievable what what some people think Alcoholics Anonymous is like or should be. How does it work? This is how it works. I'm, I'm going to read this. This is, this is how it works. And, you know, I would, I would really like 
our public relations people in Alcoholics Anonymous to remember this because they're doing a horrible job when all you see coming out of Hollywood is the absolute worst kind of AA meetings that there are being portrayed as AA. Because there's people watching those TV sets going, you know, I, I, I might have to do something about my drinking problem someday, but I ain't going to that, you know. And, and you know, we need to be just a little bit more responsible. How, how does it work? How does it work? Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Okay, what's the path? Because I'm interested in, in you know, not failing. I, I want to be. I want to be one of those people who actually succeed. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. So it says it right there. If you don't completely give yourself to this simple program of twelve steps, you can be in that statistic of people who fail. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. What they mean by that is, remember, this comes after some material in the book. Being honest with yourself is admitting you're a real alcoholic or not. If you can be honest with yourself with the material that they put in this book, whether or not you're a real alcoholic, if you're going to be honest with yourself, then you're going to realize you don't have any other way out. There, there ain't no door number three. It's, it's a spiritual awakening or it's death or insanity. So that's what they're talking about with being honest with them. They're not talking about, you know, did you give the right change back at the cash register. They're talking about something much more fundamentally important. They're talking about are you being honest with yourself about your alcoholism. There are such unfortunates, they're not at fault. I love the way Bill Wilson uh, basically says this. He says it a number of times in this book. They either cannot or will not. He doesn't say they're losers. You know, one of the first things they told me when I, when I came in up in, uh, up in North Jersey was, was, kids, stick with the winners. Well, if you think about that, you know, stick with the winners, that means there's got to be losers. Who are the losers? And, and why should I stick with the winners? This book is telling me to stick with the losers, is what this book is telling me to do. This book is telling me to work with the people who are desperate and who need help. It doesn't tell me to go hang with the saved. It tells me to try to help save the people who need to be saved. You know, so stick with the winners. Only a loser would stick with the winners. Anyway. I don't know if that made any sense. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. What's going on today a lot of times is they're called, um, they're called comorbidities or co-occurring disorders. Like if you go to a treatment center and you know, uh, or or you get um, uh, you, you go to get uh, assessed, clinically assessed for what's going on with you. This happens to a lot of us when we show up at hospitals or treatment centers. They'll 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 try to assess what's going on with you, and more and more the diagnoses are coming in with comorbidities or co-occurring disorders. Uh, a lot of us are being put on medication right out of the gate because of 
how we're showing up while we're being assessed or, or you know, clinically uh, analyzed. Now, what this book is basically saying is, is if you, if you can be honest with yourself about your alcoholism, and that would mean accepting step two and accepting step three and moving forward with the program of recovery, you too can recover, even if you have grave emotional difficulties. So that's really, really good news. And, and I have seen that time and time again. I've seen that time and time again. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. I like to use that as an as uh, an instruction in how to tell my story. If I'm if I'm asked to get behind a podium and tell my story, I'm supposed to tell you what it used to be like. You know, maybe 30% drinking career. What happened? Talk about what was going on and what happened that led me to make a decision to get involved in a recovery process, and then what I'm like now. You know, what that recovery process has done for me. This is experience, strength, and hope. So often people get behind a, a, behind a microphone and a podium and talk about what it was like, what it was like, what it was like, what it was like. We want them to get sober more than their family members do. You know what I mean? You know, please, let's, let's move on and talk, you know, talk how, you know, how did you get sober? How did you recover? I want to hear that too. I don't want to hear about how you ran yourself over with your car while you were driving it, you know, five or six times. I was up um, if you have decided what you want, uh, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. This is something that I ask people that I'm working with. Uh, I'll go through and I'll make sure they're clear on the first two steps, and then I'll ask them, "Are you are you willing to go to any length?" You hear it a lot of times. Are you willing to do anything in AA? And people will ask you that before you know what any length looks like. <laughs> has, has, has that ever happened to you? Kid, are you willing to go to any length? And you're thinking, what does this guy want me to do? You know, if I say yes, what am I? What am I locking myself into? Well. Well, what I like to do is, when I'm about to ask somebody this, I like to make sure that I've shown them what any lengths looks like. Any lengths is going to be to do the, what's required in this book for a spiritual awakening. That's what any lengths is. Any lengths isn't, isn't a lot of the crazy stuff they have you do in AA today. You know, there's a... There's a uh, there's a form of, uh, of AA that believes very, very strongly in sponsorship authority and home group loyalty. And those are the two most important things to those groups. And this book goes contrary to both of those. All right? Our loyalty must be to God, okay? And, our, and, the, and, and the authority must come from God. And we can be loyal to AA, that's fine, but what this book, this book points us in, uh, in a different direction. So if we're willing to go to any length to get it, then we're ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. Let's think about what's an easier, softer way. How about don't drink and go to meetings? That's an easier, softer way. Okay, That's not going to work for a real alcoholic. How about you know uh, two or three meetings a week and you know do a step a year? Okay, that's not going to work for a real alcoholic. They're going to be drunk as a goat in five minutes. 
you know, how, how about, well, you know, I'm going to go to two meetings a week, then I'm going to do therapy, then I'm going to do primal scream, I'm going to take some yoga, you know, and uh, I don't, you know, well, that's not going not gonna to work if you're a real alcoholic. What, what you're going to need to do if you're a real alcoholic is meeting consistency, absolutely, consistency, not like five meetings this week, no meetings next week, two meetings a week after, 17 meetings because you got you know, you got to do a jackpot, you know, and then no meetings for a month. I, you know, that kind of stuff will get you drunk too. But consistent meetings and working the steps with a sponsor or a spiritual advisor, you know, be, being accountable to participation in your own spiritual condition by going through these steps when, uh, when, it's, when it's time to do so. <clears throat> With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. This book rarely begs us to do anything. But it's telling us that when we start to go through these, these steps, step 3 through 12, they're begging us to be fearless and thorough. Uh, that, that's a lot, you know. I, I mean, we're, we really should, we shouldn't be called Alcoholics Anonymous. We should be called Half Measures Anonymous. You know, because so many of us really, you know, really, you know, the first resentment I had was when somebody said, have you gone through the work yet? I'm like, the work? Work? I didn't come here for work. If I knew there was work here, you know, I never would have come to AA. Well, kid, you're assuming we care whether or not you're here, you know. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. It does not say some of us have tried to hold on to our bad old ideas. It says our old ideas. We We need to be willing to let go of all of our ideas. Our ideas are really what got us where we are. I, I used to hate it when my sponsor said, how's that working for you? You know? Not very, not very well, thank you, you know? Well, how's it working for you? How's your life look? How's everything going? You know? Is everything roses? Or, or are you mad at half the world? Or, or do you have a laundry list of, of, of bad breaks and misunderstandings that have come your way in the last month or two? You know, how's it working for you? Sometimes we need to let go of our old ideas. I had really bad ideas. But even my good ideas weren't that great, you know? We need a clean slate sometimes for, for God to be able to rebuild us. You know, sometimes we have to help with erasing the crap that's already on there. Um, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. They're telling us what the answer is. The answer is um, a significant relationship with the power greater than ourselves, with God. Uh, Rightly relating ourselves to God. Clearing away as much of the wreckage uh, that blocks us off from the sunlight of the Spirit as we can. We need to participate in this. There's a there's a place in the in the book uh, the twelve and twelve where it says God will not render us white as snow without our cooperation. And what I take that to mean is is God is not going to heal us without our cooperation. 
how then shall we cooperate would be the question we would need to ask. And how we answer that is this. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection with care and complete abandon. So moving through the steps, what are we supposed to do? There's a prayer directive here. We ask for God's protection and care. Now have a care for us. Protect me as I start to do these steps. Especially in step four where I'm listing every single bad thing I've ever done. Every problem with somebody I've ever had. Every time I've ever been angry or hurt somebody. I'm, I'm listing it all. You know, protect me during that. Because that's not a great, that, that can be very overwhelming to put all that down on paper. Protect me when I start to go out and make direct amends to people because that, I'm scared of that. I have a lot of fear behind that. I don't want to call up, you know, Harry, you know, a uh, uh, hook hand Harry, and you know, you know, and tell him that uh, you know I'm going to pay him back that that loan that I ran out of town on ten years ago with the fifty percent Vic every week. You know, I'm, you know, I mean, I don't want to do that. Well, you know, God is going to need to keep me safe and protected while, while, I'm, while I'm doing that. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. Okay. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, that's very, very clear. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics. What message? The message of what the steps have done for us. Our experience going through the steps. That's what we're supposed to carry to other people. Now, you know, to simply encourage somebody to stay sober is good. That's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. But remember, the good is sometimes the enemy of the best. The best thing we can do is offer them a path, a kit of tools, to allow them to become free. What would you rather do? What would you rather do? Have somebody encourage you to just stay sober a day at a time or offer you a recovery process that will allow you to be free? You know, that's the type of message that we need to carry, a message with depth and weight, like the doctor's opinion says. You know, um, so often in the earlier groups that I went to, you know, they were very encouraging. Oh, Chris, it was great to see you. You know, please come back. You know, here's my phone number. I'll, you know, I'll see you Tuesday night. Just keep coming. Just keep coming. You know, if somebody shared something stupid, somebody would yell, just keep coming. You know, just keep coming. Well, encouraging me to keep coming is good. Offering me a plan of action that will lead to my recovery is best. So that's what we need to try to do. Uh, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Um, it's a good thing that we're not graded on perfection in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're graded on effort and willingness. We stay sober on effort and willingness. I sponsored this guy. He came out of the inner cities of Newark and Elizabeth. And I sponsored this guy. And this guy was murderous, okay? The first time he was brought out to a diner after a meeting, somebody started to tell him about how much trouble he's in with the first step. And he took a fork and he jammed it into the guy's forehead. And the fork was going like this. He didn't like to hear bad. 
bad news, okay? You know, and uh, I mean, I, I've literally seen this guy pick people up by the neck in AA meetings and take them outside and lump them up proper. You know what I mean? Now, now everybody's going, this guy's going to get drunk. This guy's going to get drunk. Chris, your guy's out of control. Well, they didn't realize he was trying as hard as he could. He's got 18 years now sober, okay? He was trying as hard as he could. He came from way, way behind where most of these people uh, came from. And, and he was doing the best he could. And if you look at his progress, you know, he, 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 he beat up about seven people the first year, about four people the next year, about three people the year after that. He was getting better, you know what I mean? And, and he hasn't beaten anybody up in about seven years now. And, you know, hasn't, take, hasn't dragged anybody out of an AA meeting in a long time. So we're graded or, or you know, we, our pass-fail grade is basically how much willingness and how much effort we, we put into this stuff. So, you know, there's two things your, your, your four-step is never going to be. One of them is finished and the other is perfect. We have to just do the abs- we could we have to be fearless and thorough and we have to do the best the best we can. But there's always room for improvement. There's always the next time or there's always the action we can take now, you know, that's gonna keep us safe and protected. Uh, many have ex- exclaimed, but in order I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We all fall short in word, thought, and deed every single day. We do. And, you know, um, that's part of being human. It's about having a willingness to move forward and try a little bit harder the next time. That's what we that's the attitude that we need to have. We're not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. And knowing Bill Wilson, you know, it's a good thing that uh, that he wasn't claiming uh, uh spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, that's, that's the chapter more about alcoholism, and there is a solution. Um, the chapter to the agnostic, we did that last week. And our personal adventures before and after, that's the stories in the back, our personal adventures before when we were drinking, prior to a spiritual awakening, and after when we've recovered after having a spiritual awakening, make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. All right. That's a summation of the first two steps. We're alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. And probably no human power could have relieved us of our alcoholism. What are some human powers? Let's look at this. Is a sponsor a human power? Absolutely. Is a home group a human power? I think God is in the home group, but it's filled. It's filled with, with human beings. Uh, is a therapist or a psychiatrist a human power? Abs- absolutely. 
we uh, <laughs> we have to understand we have to understand that we need to access the spirit we need to access the power to be able to to, to get out of this you know um, God could and would if he were sought being convinced of these three ideas we were at step three which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood Him. Just what do we mean by that, and just what do we do? You know, how many times in early AA was I told, Kid, just turn it over. You know, if you ask them, if if they keep saying that to you, ask them, how do you turn it over? More than likely, they're not going to be able to tell you. Kid, you just got to let go. Well, how do you let go? You just got to hang on. You know? One day at a time, easy does it. Do some upside-down thinking. You know? How do you turn it over? You turn it over by taking the spiritual exercises of steps 4 through 12. That's how you turn your will and your life over to the care of God. In AA... If you've not done that, then you haven't turned your will and your life over, and you're still hanging on. Um, The first requirement for step three is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. How's that working for you? You know, how's it working for you, your your life on self-will? So many times we're desperately unhappy. We're desperately lonely. We, 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 we have emotional... Our, our emotions are tortured when we get in here. And we can, be, we can be making a ton of money. We can have a great family. We can have a lot of stuff going on in our lives and still be completely tortured. Well, I was watching this thing on Eric Clapton uh, this morning. And Eric Clapton, at his height, 1971, 72, I mean, this guy had the women, he had the money, you know, everybody on the planet wanted to be him, and he was suicidal, you know. It's because he, he suffered from alcoholism and drug addiction. He was suicidal. I'll bet you any any man you know between 15 and 30 would have traded places with him you know in a heartbeat, and he was suicidal. Um, we're almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Here's another thing: we spend our whole lives expecting the world to judge us on our intentions. Okay, my intentions are good. Yeah, but you just ran over Grandma. You know, we don't care about your intentions. We don't care that you were coming over here to visit. You ran Grandma over. You shouldn't be driving. You know, we're judged on our actions, not our intentions. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. Is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. If you all would just do what I think you should do, not only will I be happy, but you'll all be happy too. Chris, you're living at home with your mother. You're 32. You know, why, why in the world would I why be remotely interested in doing what you think I should be doing. 
You know what I mean? In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. I'll, I'll try to move you around the chessboard. I'll try flowers. I'll try handguns. You know, whatever it takes to move you around the stage. You know, because you need to be moving around the stage. Because this is not pleasing me right now, the way this is going. You know, uh, this, this, is, this is alcoholism. This is how alcoholism presents. It presents in this crazy, self-centered, self-obsessed worldview where, where we think we're the center of the universe. And every, everybody else is, is asteroids orbiting, you know, planet Chris. You know what I mean? And every once in a while, you know, you'll come in for a landing. And as long as, you know, it's, it's something good for me, you know, you're, you're welcome here, you know. It's just absolutely insane. That's, what, that's the way we are. What happens? The show doesn't come off very well. Chris begins to think that life doesn't treat him right. You, you know? Oh, man, life didn't treat me right. You have no idea. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, you know, okay, okay, I'll admit, you know, I showed up, and maybe I shouldn't have been there. You know, what we'll, we'll admit to like 5%. He's sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Absolutely. Defective relationships are almost always the cause of our immediate woes, including our alcoholism. That's a line from the 12 and 12. The first thing we need to do is start to look at how we're treating other people. And we don't see how sick we are. We are so sick... We don't think we're sick. And as we start to get better, we're so sick that we think that these other people are sicker than us. You know, we need we need to start to get we need to start to get perspective and the genius of the fourth step really is that if you do the fourth step the way this book asks you to do it, you are going to see 100% that your problems are of your own making. Your problems are not coming at you. They're coming from you. And this is a, this is a quantum shift in perspective. Okay, when you, when you see this after you write enough inventory, you, you go, holy shit. I caused this whole thing. My whole life. And it's a quantum shift. And that's when healing can really start. Because if we think it's you, it's you, it's not me, it's you, then you have to get better for me to heal. 
And we all know that ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? People aren't going to change just because Chris wants them to. My whole problem is people aren't doing what I want them to. So this is big. This is what we need to start to look at. We need to start to look at our relationships. Um, Playing God. Playing God. Is it possible that playing God is bossing your family around? You know, bringing up every bit of minutia about the house and how the house system should work. And you didn't put the can on the garbage right. And, you know, you, you know your sock is in the hallway. I mean, can, can playing God be trying to direct all the other players? Is it possible? One of the greatest things I think I ever heard in an AA talk was from Chuck Chamberlain out, out in California. He was like this beloved AA guy, you know, who, who his funeral was twice the size of Bill Wilson's. I mean, I mean he, was, he was beloved out there. He's telling his story and he's basically saying it's time to go make amends to his family. And how he made his amends was this. He went up to them and he said, look. You know, I'm wrong about this, 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 and this. And I need to let you know, I will never, ever, ever ask you to do anything, ever again, except for one thing. And that is, if there's anything I can ever do to help you, will you please ask me? And then he followed that, okay? He never, ever asked anybody in his family ever to do anything ever again. Now, that's a little bit too close to perfection for me, okay? You know what I'm saying? But it's a beautiful example of understanding what this stuff is about. We are bossy, controlling, codependent, you know, insanely sensitive morons. You know, and the family puts up with us because we're so defective, we're lovable. You know what I mean? Our actor, now we're the actor, okay? Our actor, we are self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. We're like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining about how awful everything is. Now he gives a bunch of examples here. And then he nails us, okay? Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. It does not say drinking a quart of vodka every day, that is the root of our troubles. It doesn't say that. It says selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. It's what feeds the whole defective system. Selfishness and self-centeredness. Now, we're so selfish and so self-centered, we think we're generous. You know what I mean? We have to start writing inventory to see just how defective we are. I thought I thought I was the sweetest guy in the world because I would lend you bail money to get you out of jail or something like like the the friends that I had left that didn't have any names. They were like Bear Man and Weezer, you know. And, and this one guy Rat, you know, he spelled it with two T's, you know, R A T T. And I'd have to bail these guys out every once in a while, and then they they dis disappear because they didn't want to give me my 400 bucks and I'd, I'd have to go search them out and beat them up and steal their guitars or something. I mean, it was just insane. It was insane. But I thought, you know, here I am, you know, being a nice guy. Poor me. 
Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Let's look at the word driven, okay? Because I don't want anybody in here having the guilt and the remorse that you didn't do a better job. How can you be responsible for doing a better job when you were asleep? The spiritual awakening will waken you up. You, you probably did the best you could under the circumstances being spiritually asleep and asleep to this stuff. Driven. This one time I was drinking with this guy, Bob Rademacher. He's dead now. Most of my old drinking buddies are. But we were coming back from the shore, the New Jersey shore, and he was in a Toyota Celica. And he was so drunk, he was like this close to passing out. And I was strapped in, and I was along for the ride. And he, he just he put it in, in fourth gear, and he put his foot down on the gas pedal, and we were going flat out. As fast as this car would go, we were going up the turnpike. When we came to toll booths, we would just go through the toll booth at 150. 15 miles an hour. No! Right? Now, now, I am being driven, okay, by this guy. I'm going, hey, do you think we should pull over? Hey, you, you, how about if I drive? Hey, hey, let, let's, let's stop at the next rest area. Hey, you know, and no, it's just, you know, finally he spun out on a corner and, and, you know, we ended up in a ditch. Thank God, you know, nobody was hurt and because he had passed out. I was being driven by a maniac, okay? Now, think about that when I read this sentence again. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. If we're being driven by something, are we fully responsible? You know, I don't think so. I think, I think we were doing about the best we could, but we need to do better. Because, you know, we're not ignorant of this stuff anymore. Now we need to take responsibility and we need to start working a program and we need to start moving forward. Uh, Sometimes other people hurt us, seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. At at best, we co-create the problems in our life. At worst, we cause them. But only extremely rare circumstances are we not to blame at all. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. Why do you think we ask you to do service commitments? Why do we think we, you know, we, we ask you to do certain things? We're asking you to do unselfish acts because we know you're dying of selfishness. Selfishness is going to kill you. So you get these sponsors that ask you to do good things. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. So if you think, oh, okay, I've just figured it out. Chris just told me what the problem is. I'm selfish. All right, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. Starting right now, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. You know, come back next week and tell us how that worked for you. (laughs) You know? 
I make it about five minutes before I'm like, give me that. That's mine. <laughs> Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. The steps really do reduce our selfishness. They, they, they get us in touch with the power that can heal. That's really what they're designed to do. This is the how and the why of it. Now, everybody in here is probably familiar with the third step prayer, okay? The third step prayer is not taking the third step. The third step prayer is an affirmation prayer. You're affirming a decision that you've already made. Okay? So what I want to do is I want to make very, very clear the, de- the decision that we need to make prior to doing that affirmation prayer. <clears throat> this is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. So number one, we have to quit playing God. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. Okay, then we need to figure out how we can get direction from God. If he's going to be the director, I need to fire myself as director. I've been letting an idiot run my life. (laughs) He's the principal, and we are his agents. Okay, what does that mean? If If you're a life insurance agent, that means that you've been empowered to run around and sell policies. And 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 if it's if it's done right, if you're following the rules of the home office, if someone gets in an accident or dies or whatever, uh, they can collect on that insurance. You're a trusted agent. The same thing is with our relationship with God. We're agents of God's ever-expanding universe. We are. We're agents of God. That's what this book promises us. But we have to live by the rules so that we can get the backing of the home office. God's the principal. We're going to be his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Everybody in here understands what, it's, what it is to be a parent. Most good, good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. Remember, Alcoholics uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in the step process is about freedom. It's not about bondage. It's about freedom. Um, Many people today... Many people today are trapped in Alcoholics Anonymous. They're trapped in a meeting-based sobriety. God forbid they miss three or four meetings. And, you know, they'll come back, oh, I missed three or four meetings. You know, I'm doubling up. I'm a basket case. That's not, that's not what this is about. This is about offering us freedom. And then we don't come to the meetings to get. We come to the meetings to give. And that's a whole other shift in perception that shows that you're, you're in recovery. You know, you're, you have a recovered spirit because you're there to help. It's not like you need to fill up like AA's a spiritual gas station. You know, that, that foolishness never works. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Remember, each action step in here has promises. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. So God will provide what we need if we stay close to him and perform his work well. That's a promise. (laughs) 
Established on such footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. These are serious promises. There are a lot of meanings read the 12 promises. And they're really, what they are is the ninth step promises. And there are some good promises. But how about, how about this? How about we begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter? This is saying we're not going to fear death. You know, that's one hell of a promise. It says that we're going to face life successfully. You know, not maybe monetarily, maybe in relationships, maybe as a family member, maybe as a community member. We're going to face life successfully. These are serious promises. We are now at step three. Many of us said to our Maker, as we understood Him, if you understand what I said and you'd like to join me in this affirmation prayer, I think most of us know it. Let's go ahead and say it together. Anybody that would care to join me. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Thank you for that. Then it says, we thought well before taking this step. (laughs) They tell you afterwards. Making sure we were ready. But, you know, you need to be ready. You need to understand everything up to this point. You need to understand everything from page 1 to page 62 to be able to take this, this prayer. Um, we can at last abandon ourselves utterly to Him. <clears throat> We found it very desirable to take the spiritual step with an understanding person, such as a wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. Uh, Okay, it says, Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. I don't know about anybody else, but when I was sitting around drinking, I, I never decided to put a list together of all the people that, you know, I, I owed amends to and, you know, all the things I was afraid of and, you know, all my sexual misconduct. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list that where I can be found. Uh, um, many of us had never uh, attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. All right, let's, let's pretend for a moment this sentence actually means what it says. Though our decision, which is basically you know what we came up with in the affirmation prayer, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourself which have been blocking us. So what do you need to do at once after doing the third step prayer? You, start, you need to start on the fourth step. It's a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Blocking us off from God. Blocking us off from our fellow man. Blocking us off from ourselves. Blocking us off from a really high quality of life. <clears throat> 
Okay, therefore we started upon a personal inventory, and this was step four. I'm going to stop here for tonight. We've basically covered step three. Uh, Next week, uh, I am going to be up in New Jersey, uh, attending to some business, and uh, my buddy Ronnie is going to uh, to take take this commitment uh, for the week and do a topic, uh, you know, story, you know, whatever, whatever he decides to do. Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you all for, uh, for staying and listening. This has become a really fun commitment for me. Um, we came early tonight, and we did a little sightseeing around Winston-Salem. What a wonderful town you guys have. Well, well, I don't know where the heck we were, but we were driving by golf courses and incredible houses. Just really, a, really a beautiful town. And... Uh, I'm having a great time here. You're, you're all uh, very hospitable too. We've been we've been talking about uh, some history. We've been talking about some background information, uh, where the book Alcoholics Anonymous comes from, why it was written. Uh, but mainly we've been uh, we've been focusing in, focusing in on on step one. I'm hoping to 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 move us through step one tonight and uh, and get on to uh, step two next week. Uh, but where we are where we are tonight is uh, on the top of page 25. Uh, I love the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love it because it is it has clear cut directions for uh, uh, for a recovery plan. It explains alcoholism really, really well, and it makes clear at least three times uh, anything that we really need to do. You know, they tell us they tell us at least three times in this book how important it is. Uh, one of the things, that, one of the aspects of the alcoholic illness or addictive illness uh, uh, itself is an almost utter inability to, to have an accurate self-appraisal, to form a, an accurate self-appraisal. Like, okay, here's how much trouble I'm in. You know, that's usually not what happens. What we do is we minimize. And we think, you know, we've re- we really we got this, okay? Yeah, I know that I've been in the hospital 12 times and I've wrecked 35 cars and I'm on my fifth family, but, but you know... <laughs> I got this. You, you, you know, I don't really need a lot of your help. Uh, I I can figure this out. Well, well, you can't figure it out, and you do need a lot of help. And the book explains 15 different ways uh, how much how much help you need and how how much trouble you're really in. Now it's become uh, it's become fashionable um, in uh, in a lot of groups around the country to not pay much attention to this. You know, that's the stuff the old low bottoms you know had to had to deal with. That's the way the program was back when. You know, today we've got a fellowship sharing type of a type of a program, and and you know, and that's okay. Unless you're in real trouble with alcoholism. Let let me tell you, alcoholism was the same in 1939 that it is now. And and spiritual recovery processes are the same uh, now that they were in 1939. We don't need a new book. We don't need, you know, somebody to rewrite this thing. We, We really don't because this worked so well. 
you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous itself, one of the smartest things they ever decided was to not mess with the first 164 pages in this book. For for the first 164 pages to be changed, it would take 75% group approval, you know, throughout the world or some crazy thing like that, and you'll never get 75% of anybody showing up anywhere. So it's a given that that, that this is not going to be changed, hopefully. You know, you never know with New York, but uh, but hopefully. Uh, anyway, I'm going to start. It says there is a solution. It's been talking about graphic detail. It's been talking about how alcoholism shows up, how it presents. Okay, uh, it, it's been showing in graphic de- detail, and it's going to continue to do that. But right here, it talks about a solution. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. So the self-searching, that really is kind of step four. The leveling of pride and confession of shortcomings really is step five. Step four and step five are required for recovery, okay? There are no musts in Alcoholics Anonymous and to sit in a chair in AA. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. But if you want to recover, the fourth and the fifth step are required. Uh, But we saw that it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved... There was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. When we see wholesale recovery, when we see multiple recoveries, when we see people who were just like us, and we see them recover, we, it has to get our attention. That's what got Bill's attention when Ebby came over and did that 12-step call on him. Bill saw the lights were on in, in Ebby's eyes. He hadn't seen the lights on in Ebby's eyes ever. So something is going on. There's, there's, there's a big-time shift in this individual. And when we come into AA, or we come into any of the 12-step fellowships, hopefully we see that in somebody. We we see we see the recoveries, and you know it's it's hard to say it doesn't work, or I shouldn't bother with this when you see so many so many recoveries. Uh, we found much of heaven, and we've been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. You want to uh, you want to stall out a discussion meeting sometime when they ask for a topic? <laughs> Say, would everyone in here please share about their experience with the fourth dimension? And uh, you'll you'll quickly see the meeting that the topic will change to fear or something. You know? <laughs> The reason for that, because not everybody gets to the fourth dimension. Not everybody does this work. The great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. What does a spiritual awakening look like? You know, let's jump to the end of the steps. A spiritual awakening is the solution or the answer or the treatment for alcoholism. What does it look like? How does it manifest? It manifests in your whole attitude toward life, toward your fellows, and towards God's universe changing. 
you it's a shift in perception. It's a deep, deep shift in perception. You no longer see out of the same pair of glasses. And and that's what a, that's part of what a spiritual awakening is. It happens to to many of us in many different ways. But the things that are common to spiritual awakenings are those. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. This 12-step program is about accessing the direct power of God. That's what this 12-step program is about. This is not a self-help program. When you go into a, when you go into a bookstore and you see the you see the book Alcoholics Anonymous in the in the self-help section, they got it in the wrong section because this is not self-help. This this is this is God help. This is accessing the direct power of God because that's what these early members recognized and called. The, that extra power that they got from doing this work was added to them so they could recover, so they could remain abstinent, so they could their problems would become solved. They'd be able to go back to work. You know, they grew healthy. Uh, there's, there's a million promises in this book. It, if you want to do an exercise sometime, go through this book and highlight every single statement of hope or every single promise. You'll find somewhere between 150 and 250 promises in this book. And they always materialize if we work for them. Now, the biggest promise I see is that we, if we do this work, what we do is we move enough of our self-will and our self-centeredness aside that God's power can come into our lives and, and heal us. You know, the healing power comes from God. Think about this. A physician doesn't really heal. What a physician does is... Is creates a, 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 an, a, an environment where healing can take place. They they'll set a bone or they'll they'll uh, they'll create an antiseptic type of environment, and then they got to stand back and they have to allow healing to happen. You know, the, that's kind of what we're looking at in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have to create the spiritual environment. For God to be able to do God's job. And that's what the steps, and that's what the meetings, and that's what the service ethic and all that is about. Creating that that spiritual environment where the power of God can come in. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I was real doubtful that there was an interventionary deity out there that was going to be helping me. I had gone through more problems and and I had shot myself in the foot more times and I had looked stupid more times than you can imagine with my drinking. And I thought, if there is a God up there who's pulling strings, he's like a cosmic Alan Funt. You know what I mean? Because what he's doing is he's going, hey, let's watch Chris crash into the wall outside the, the, the police station on Quaaludes and ask the cops for directions, you know? St. Peter, won't that be a 
riot. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, because if there is a God, you know, He was really not helping me. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is I see things in a, in a much clearer, a much clearer way now. I wasn't helping. You know, God in His infinite love has given us free will, and we and we have an inalienable right to screw our lives up if we so choose. We do. You know, so what we need to do is, you know, sometimes we need to turn our self-will in at the door and, and become willing to, to follow spiritual principles. And when we do that, you know, we, we really can recover. And that's what these early AAs discovered. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. The other was to accept spiritual help. Okay? Door number A. <laughs> Try to blot out the, with the consciousness of your intolerable situation while you go all the way down the scale to an alcoholic death. Door number B. Accept spiritual help. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that intolerable situation. You know? <laughs> What, what does that look like? Yeah. Because this is not an easy decision to make. Not for alcoholics. Spiritual help. Oh, my God. You know, is there a door number C? You know? Can I go to a therapist? Primal screen therapy, you know? There's got to be something. No, there's not. There's, there's dying alcoholic death. Except spiritual help. When you get that clear on what you're on your problem, there's a lot less resistance moving through the rest of this work. What kills alcoholics is the resistance to this work. I do a lot of uh, I do a lot of stuff online, and uh, I'm part of a lot of uh, addiction groups on LinkedIn and stuff. And this one guy, this one guy uh, was was pretty much slamming AA and 12-step fellowships the other day, and he was citing statistics. And this is the this, this is the statistic that he cited. He goes, he goes, people that go into AA as a whole, the recoveries are in the single digits. Somewhere around 6% of the people who are exposed to AA get sober and stay sober permanently. And he goes, that's about the same amount of people who, if you gave them a placebo, would stay sober for the rest of their life. And that was a statement this guy made. Now, he, he's got a lot of money to make. You know, off of alcoholics out there doing clinical and psychiatric and all that type of stuff. Okay, so it's not in his best interest for people to run off to AA and actually get get sober and recover. But if you're looking at people who walk through that door, he's probably right. Probably somewhere around six percent of the people will will end up plugging in enough that they'll be able to stay sober for good and for all. But the fact of the matter is, is somebody who walks through the door and sits in some meetings, that's not the recovery process. The recovery process is outlined in this book. 
The recovery, the recovery process is not attending a bunch of meetings. And that's what those statistics are based on. Because they stand outside the door with a clipboard and they ask you, you know, how long you've been sober, blah, blah, blah. And they do their, they do their, their thing and they think they're, they're assessing the success of Alcoholics Anonymous that way. And all they're doing is they're, they're, uh, uh, you know, they're questioning meeting attenders. And you know as well as I do that a lot of people blow through here. See, see this whole thing as an overreaction to a problem that they've really got under control. <laughs> you know? Or else they get it, they have an issue with it. You know, everybody in there just complains. You know? I, I can't, you know. Or, or they come in and they just don't understand why it would help them. There's a lot of people that blow through here. Rarely have we seen a person fail who thoroughly follows the recovery process. And that is still true. Every once in a while someone, uh, someone shows the, the absence of, uh, of intelligence enough to ask me to sponsor them. Okay? And, and you know what that means is you're coming over to my house and you're going to the steps. You know, well, should I call you every night? No! No! You know, do I have to go to 90 and 90? No! What you have to do is you have to come over to my house and you have to go to the steps. And the people that make it, the people that make it, every single one of them who got through step nine that I've ever worked with is still in Alcoholics Anonymous or, or another 12-step fellowship and they're working with other people, they're still sober, and their lives are incredibly, you know, over the top. Their, their quality of life is over the top. Every single one. Now, I've seen a million people come in and hang out in the meetings, you know, and share. Okay? Well, here's what happened to me today. Thank you for letting me share. You know, okay. I'm going to go over to page 28. The distinguished American psychologist William James in his book Varieties of Religious Experience indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by faith uh, by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Um, that really is an important statement. Uh, I know many, many people in Alcoholics Anonymous who are religious, as well as Alcoholics Anonymous members, and they do great. And then I know a lot of people who are non-religious, however, they're very, very spiritual. They're about the business of helping God's world out. You know, they're really out there uh, on the firing lines. And they do great. You know, these are just people who have learned the spiritual principles. That's what will bring about recovery. You know, and recovery is really saving one's ass, not necessarily saving one's soul. There's two there's two different things to look at there if uh, if you are someone uh, of religion. However, I highly recommend getting your ass saved. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
That's, that's kind of important. <laughs> then over on page 29 it says, further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we have recovered with an ED. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. So, the book is going to lay out how these early members recovered. And the great thing about this is, and you know, it took me a long time to really get into this stuff, because when I first was exposed to it, like a lot of people, I saw it as a 1939 book written by some stockbroker loser, and, and you know, it wasn't well written, and, you know, and you know, they're trying to fool you about this God thing, and you know, they're asking you to do all this crazy stuff, and none of it, none of it really flows very well, and yeah, you know, I like the step book, and I like to go to meetings, you know, and and that really was my my approach. Well, uh, after suffering in Alcoholics Anonymous for many many months, uh, I was exposed to this recovery process, and it and it saved my life. The difference between uh, sobriety and recovery is like the difference between night and day. It's like the difference between black and white. It's the difference between life and death for many of us. Um, sobriety, although it's, it's a really good idea, if it's not followed up by a recovery program, if you really suffer from addictive illness, you're not going to be able to escape that addictive illness. This recovery process makes you comfortable moving through your life Without help from sedatives or 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 uh, alcohol or whatever happens to be your drug of choice, <laughs> I think we're special. I think you know I've done a lot of studies on uh, on ancient uh, uh, um, uh, religions and spiritual traditions, and there's a mystical tradition in the three uh, in, in the three monotheistic uh, religions. Uh, that's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. There are people that they call mystics. And these mystics are people who go very, very deep into the tradition. There are people like Thomas Merton, and you know, there's there's a whole bunch of them. And what they'll do is they'll go on silent retreats for months and months and months. I mean, they go deep into this stuff. They pray, and they, you know, and they do these devotions. And I, I, you know, it is insane how much intensity they, they put into this because they want to seek a direct connection with God. And they're giving it everything they have. Those are the mystics. They want more out of a spiritual experience than, uh, than, than a normal person who's just you know, going to church on Sunday. I think we are mystics. I think the people that go after the booze and the drugs, we're mystics. We are seeking a connection with God when we do that. We are not comfortable unless we are using we 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 constantly think about you know if i only had a little bit of this or if i only had a little bit of that that would bring me to a place where i feel one you know and i truly think that alcoholics and addicts are uh, are misplaced mystics what we need to do is we need to channel that intensity going after those substances and the alcohol. We need to channel that into going after a direct connection with God. Because that is what is going to finally make us feel okay. We've been looking to feel okay for a long time. And 
and the the final the final destination is recovery and a connection with God as you understand God. You know, AA is very, very uh, specific about that. They are not about to start telling you how you need to worship, how you, you know, you know what what attributes your God has to have, you know, where where you have to to, uh, uh, you know, what what religions you should be in. Uh, the twelve step programs are not about that. They're not about telling you what kind of a God you need to have. They're about telling you if you don't get a relationship with God, you're going to die. That's what they tell you. I'm going to jump over to more about alcoholism. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, Chris will control and enjoy his drinking is his great obsession. You know, uh, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Um, That is our obsession. Why in the world would you pick up booze after going to AA meetings for two or four years or whatever? Why would you relapse? Why, you know, why would you do that? The great obsession is, is that you know this time, this time it's going to work for me. You know, this time it'll be okay. If we even think about it at all, you know, we're thinking that we're going to be able to figure out how to control this, and it's because sobriety is untenable to us. You know, we're not happy unless we have a spiritual conversion experience. We're not going to be happy in in our own skin just being sober. It's just not going to be good enough for us. We learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. So the steps are up on the wall. You know how how you have the long form and the short form of the traditions? Well, the short form of the steps is up on the wall. To figure out what they really mean, you've got to go into the book. So admitting you're an alcoholic, that's not really step one. Step one is fully conceding to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic. And they've explained and are, and are explaining what an alcoholic is. Uh, the delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. We, are alcohol- we, are, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Anybody ever felt pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization? You ever come to like you know like, like Monday morning with the DUI summons in your back pocket or something, or you you know. You're out in the doghouse, or, or I, I mean, I used to do I used to do the craziest things. Uh, you know, I, I was constantly pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized. I was uh, I was an electrician, 
uh, during the 80s. I, I don't know how that happened. One day I woke up, you know, and I was, I was an electrician. And it was a really, really bad trade to be in, you know, when you shook every, every, every morning. Because you know, I was constantly blowing things up. And, and I was constantly sick. Now, this, uh, this, this, once, this once, I was working with this guy who really thought I was lame. You know, he was in the truck. We were, you know, we were, we were uh, buddies. And the, the boss would send us out together. And we'd go wire something, you know. I was always, you know, electrocuting him by mistake or something. So he was, uh, he was not real happy with me. And, uh, and this one time, you know how you're, you're really thirsty in the morning if you drank like a quart of whiskey? And you have to rehydrate? Okay. Well, I bought, I bought a half a gallon of grape drink this morning, uh, that, this, this one morning. And I drank it down, and then I went to work. And, you know, we're, we're on the side of this house. I'm, uh, you know, we're putting a new service on. So that's the electrical meter and the panel. And I'm messing around in the truck, and all of a sudden, my stomach starts going, like this, and I go, uh-oh, I've got 6.4 seconds to get somewhere because I am going to lose this, this lunch. Now, I didn't want him to see me vomiting because it would have made me look small. So, so what I did was I, you know, you know, I tore around the back of this house that we were working on, and I just get around the back of the house, and I, whoa! I mean, it was, it was like, it was like opening up a fire hydrant. I, I, I stuccoed the back of this house with purple vomit. I mean, just stuccoed this house, and. Uh, I thought I was alone, you know. Um, but what had happened was I, I, I looked over, and not not 15 feet away is the back deck on the you know, the adjoining property with a family sitting there having ice tea. It's like a mother and father and three kids sitting there having ice tea, and every one of them had the same look on their face. It was like, you know, mommy, mommy, the purple puke monster from hell, mommy. Oh God. You know, I you know I was for I was forever blowing things up and wiring things wrong and you know my in my boss my boss was I mean this would go on and on and on and then you know I'd even this one time I even called up in a drunken blackout and threatened my boss's life I was going to kill him I'm going to kill you and uh, and didn't remember it because it was in a blackout and went into work the next day you know uh, I mean. Talk about, like, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And then there were times when I just couldn't go to work. And I had to just call my boss up and say, I- I- I'm shattered. I'm shattered. I, you know, I- I'm-, I'm losing my mind. You know, I-, I, can't- I can't come in. And, you know, being this way, being, you know, deteriorating like this, uh, then I would, I-, I would start to get really violent. And uh, uh, the, the, the last drunk I was on, I ended up threatening my family with a handgun. Uh, the last time I was drunk. Now, when you come out of something like that and you realize what you've done, you know, that's pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I have never met an alcoholic who's evil. I haven't. I've met people that are evil in AA. I mean, they'll slide their butts in here, you know, for one reason or another to, to, to you know, to prey on the, on, the, on the weak and helpless, you know, be predators. I've met evil in these rooms, but I've never met an alcoholic who is evil. We're not evil people. You know, we do bad things. We're not really bad people. We suffer incredibly from the bad things that we do because we have a conscience, you know, and... Uh, 
and and we, we we get to a point where we suffer. Mother Teresa was asked one time, "What's the saddest thing you ever seen?" And remember, she's she's feeding the starving children in Bangladesh and stuff. She goes, "The saddest thing I've ever seen is the loneliness of an alcoholic." You know, I mean, think about that. Uh, we are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period of time, we get worse, never better. If somebody comes up to you, uh, you know, in, in an AA meeting, if you're new, and they shake your hand, they say, "Keep coming, it gets better." Understand, they're lying to you. Okay, it doesn't get better. Al- your alcoholism is always going to get worse, but you can put it in remission. Now, here's what I mean by that: the liver and the pancreas of an alcoholic metabolize alcohol differently than Aunt Fanny and Uncle Fudge. Okay, they can have two or three glasses of wine and they don't get the craving. They don't go into the city to get cocaine. You know what I mean? They're, they're fine with like a couple of glasses of wine. Now, uh, now what, you know, what, what happens, you know, what happens with us is, we, you know, it's a completely different experience. We get the phenomenon of craving and we're, we're off to the race. And we have very little control over that. Now, the liver and the pancreas are really uh, the are really the cause of that. What happens is it breaks down alcohol differently, and and it throws this stuff back into the bloodstream that creates an actual craving, a physiological craving. And the the more alcohol you have, the more the craving. And this is never going to get better. So if I, I knew a guy, he was doing a lot of talks all over the country, and man, this guy was on the money. I love, even to this day, I love listening to him. But he was, he, he got to the point where he was 20 years sober, and he read some, read some statistics that every seven years or so, or every 14 years, every single cell in your body regenerates. So you're an entirely new person every 14 years because every cell dies off and every cell is reborn. So he came to the conclusion that he can't possibly be alcoholic anymore because he's a completely different person. Every cell in his body is different. And he went off and he tried some controlled drinking, which he's not come back from yet. You know? Uh, If you cross the line to the point where you experience the phenomenon of craving with alcohol you've crossed the line you can never drink alcohol safely again ever 50 years from now you can't drink alcohol again safely you need to stay abstinent and understand the problem is staying abstinent you can't do it is what this book is saying if you could do it you know they'd hand out a pamphlet at every detox saying don't drink and you'd be fine but you know that's not what happens with us. We, we, we figure out every kind of way we possibly can to figure out how to start drinking again. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that they are in this class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. So I'll tell you what, you know, there's gonna, I'm going to go over a couple of tests here. This book actually has tests for whether or not you have the allergy of the body, 
and whether or not you have the obsession of the mind. So if you're unclear on step one, this book is going to have some directions for you. Not the type of directions that you're going to hear shared you know, in, in the next uh, discussion meeting, most likely. But it's got some directions in here. Because it's important to be able to get to your truth in step one. Um, we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters if you get full knowledge of your condition. Now understand, I am not telling anybody in here to go over to the bar and try some controlled drinking. It's in this book, and it's in the book because they believe that without an accurate understanding of step one, there's going to be little motivation for you to go through the rest of the recovery process. Only if you know you are painted into a corner will you move forward with this stuff. Marty Mann was, uh, was the first woman to stay sober in AA. And she started the National Council on Alcoholism and got very, very involved uh, with, uh, with, drug, with alcohol and drug policy and stuff. She did it an enormous amount of good for us. And, and her, her good works are still carrying on today. But one of the things was the Marty Mann test. And the Marty Mann test was this. Take two ounces of alcohol, okay, Every single day for six months. Now that would be that would be like a tum, two tumblers of bourbon or two tumblers of whiskey or or two two beers or two big glasses of wine every single day for six months. You know exactly two. You can't save them up. You know. And, just two. Now, what will happen is, if you're alcoholic, nine times out of ten, what will happen is, you'll, you'll think to yourself, this is kind of a stupid test, you know. I made it two days already. You know, what's with the six months? You know, I've proved I'm not an alcoholic, so I think I'll celebrate that, you know. And, I mean, you know, all of a sudden you'll be, you'll be drinking like a fish. And you'll, you'll outsmart the test. So if there's any reason why you don't you don't you, you don't do it exactly the way it's explained, you know you've blown the test, and you're probably alcoholic. Now now rarely will I will I use this on somebody. Only if someone is so clueless about their own drinking. A lot, a lot of times somebody will be somebody will be shot to me because you know they had a DUI or their parents caught them token a joint or something, you know, and they'll end up, and, you know, we, we just don't know if, if they're an alcoholic or, or they have, they're powerless over drugs at that point in time. And, you know, sometimes I'll, 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 I'll point them to this, but rarely. Most of the time you can find from digging into someone's experience, you can come up with example after example after example of the decisions they made that they didn't follow through with where it concerns alcohol. All right, how many times did you did you stop off from work? You're just going to have two with the boys. You know you need to be home for dinner with the wife. You stop and you're going to have two for the boys, and, and, and you close the place down, and you, you wake up and wee-hawking with one shoe. All right? And 
you think oh, I just kind of changed my mind and I decided to blow my whole paycheck, close the bar down, wake up and we hawk it with one show? No. No, you, you, you weren't even there for that decision. What happened was you started drinking and you lost all control. You didn't have any control. You know, we hawking here, you came. And, and you, you, know, you know, you were being driven by that, 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 that physiological craving for more alcohol. Now, they talk about a man of 30... This is the example they use for people who think that because they've been sober 20 years, they can start drinking again. It's a great example of why you can't do that. I, I explained the reason your liver and your pancreas are never going to heal to the point where you will not experience that physical craving. And there's been no drugs that I'm aware of that will stop that craving either. Uh, over on page 34 as we look back we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower if anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area this is the test for the obsession of the mind if you think you can keep you sober and you don't really need this AA you don't need this 12 steps I don't need a sponsor telling me what to do you know I'm not going to make coffee for anybody I don't drink coffee you know if you have if you have that type of belligerent attitude and you think you got this I got this I read the pamphlets okay I got this you know, is AA for you I got it you know here's the test let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. I just stop drinking. Don't go to meetings. Don't call your sponsor. Don't read, you know, alcoholism books. Just quit drinking. Okay, if you got a drinking problem, stop drinking. Problem over, okay? Stop drinking. Now, very few alcoholics are going to make it a year because what will happen again? You'll say to yourself, man, you know, a year? I've already made it a week and a half. <laughs> that, that proves, what's the, what's the additional 11 and a half months going to prove? <laughs> I got this. I, I'm on, you know, uh, going to the bar. That's what will happen. If you're alcoholic, you'll, you'll mysteriously change your mind. And your ego will want to take ownership of that, like you really had any say at all, being powerless. So that's the test. That's the test on whether you have the obsession of the mind. Now, now there's many people here tonight who, 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 if they thought about having two beers every single day for six months, no more, no less, you can't save them up. That would horrify them. Because I never wanted two beers. You want a beer? Not if all you have is two beers. I don't. Are you crazy? Now, if you got two cases, you know, we can talk. Now, you know, uh, so these are the tests. These are the tests to see if we're an alcoholic. If we can't use our own experience... 99 out of 100 of us can use our own experience. You know, how many, how many times did I say I was not going to drink anymore? I'm never going to drink again, ever. I mean it, you know. And I, you know, and, and I, will, I, will, you know, I will celebrate that decision to not drink with a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> you know. 
If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there's scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remain sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period of time, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. Now, here's where here's where it starts to talk about you know what we need to we need to start looking at. It says for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We're assuming, of course, the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. All right, this is one of the most important sentences in this book. Whether such a person can quit. You know, any type of addiction, any type of obsessive compulsive disorder, you can, you can plug into this. If you're a drug addict, if you're an alcoholic, if you have a process addiction like gambling or sex or food, okay, you can plug this in here. It says, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Um... Over on page 35, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasons with him after a spree have, have brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into his saloon. Why, why does he? Uh, uh, what is he thinking? Then they give the example of Jim. Jim is a, a really, really great example. Uh, down at the bottom, he's agreed. He's met up with the AA boys, you know, and he, and he sees them as like an overreaction to a problem that he really has some control over, okay? He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for with which he had a deep affection, yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell, tell us exactly how it happened. Um, and it goes down here. Now, when they use the squiggly font in this book, I have to assume that they really want us to pay attention to it. It's, this is him explaining taking that first drink. Because that's the insanity. We are insane to take that, that first drink. So, here's, how, here's what he says. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. He'd been to the asylum, okay? He was going to lose his family. He was going to lose his job, his home, everything. He had every reason in the world not to drink. He knew what the consequences were going to be. But suddenly the thought crossed his mind that he could put some whiskey in some milk. Okay? I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is a beautiful snapshot of powerlessness. All right? If suddenly hits you, do you you got time to call your sponsor? Do you got time to pick up a coffee commitment down at the club? No. If suddenly hits you, you're drinking milk and whiskey. You know what I mean? And that's it. You don't even think about it. You vaguely sense this might not be such a good idea. And, and all of a sudden you're banging on the bar going, how the hell could I have got drunk again? This is nuts. This is a beautiful example of powerlessness. This happened to me. 
I signed myself into a 28-day treatment. I went off to Happy Hills. Okay, I got out of the 28-day treatment and I joined up with the outpatient process. I was going to AA meetings two a week and I was going to two outpatient a week. And I was telling everybody, everybody, I'm done drinking forever. This is it. You know, I'm going in for the cure. I'm done. As I'm going to an AA meeting, the thought crosses my mind that it's been almost three months since I've been drunk. I don't even remember what it's like to be drunk. I don't see how I can possibly do this stuff without really understanding what the heck is going on. I'll bet you if I bought a a gallon of vodka and I drank it, it would make me feel so bad I would zoom back in to that AA and outpatient and everything, and I'd really do a bang-up job on it. And so I went and I bought a gallon of vodka, and I started drinking it, and one drink... Good idea. Sounds like a good idea. Two drinks. Yes, a good idea. Good idea. Starting to feel it. Third drink. Oh, my God. What have I done? I've opened up the cage door to the beast, and I'm going to be dragged around like a rag doll. Now, think about this. Think about this. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that buying a gallon of vodka would improve my sobriety. Okay? That's what happened to me. And, and three drinks into this vodka, I realized I'd made a horrible mistake. Because I opened it up. I'm in. I'm back in now. And I'm physically back addicted. Physically uh, back with the craving. And it was, it was seven months before I could get sober again. So I understand this stuff. I know what powerlessness looks like. <clears throat> Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. It's my favorite line in the book. I have a t-shirt that says that. (laughs) Here was a threat of commitment, the loss of family and position to say nothing of the intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Okay, He'd been with the AAs. Yet Yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he had mixed it with milk. Alright. Well, kid, all you really need to do is keep your memory green. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think suddenly you'll go right over that green. It'll go right through that green light. You know what I mean? Whatever the precise definition of the word wave may be, we, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? And then they they say, you may think this is an extreme case to us. It is not far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. Every single one of us has approached alcohol in an insane state of mind. Like, this will be great. Uh, I'm on the way to, to DUI court. You know, I'll stop off at the bar on the way to DUI court. I mean, I did that. <laughs> you know... We've sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first prank. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day we'd ask ourselves in all earnest and sincerity, how could it have happened? 
Now, there's a lot of brain chemistry work that's being done, brain science work that's being done that's explaining this. This is beautiful. This is a, a near clinical in its, in its explanation of the obsession of the mind. And the science that they're doing on alcoholics and drug addicts at this point in time is, is lining right up with this. Okay, it's, it's, it's real proofs for this theorem that, that those guys wrote back in 1939. Then they talk about the jaywalker. One of my favorite treatment centers is the jaywalker lodge. It's, uh, it's out west. The jaywalker is the guy who really enjoys jumping, you know, running in front of cars and just missing, you know, just getting missed. And he gets a real thrill out of it, but he starts to get hit. He starts to get run over, and his legs start to get broken. He, everybody's saying, look, man, you're nuts. You've got to stop jumping in front of cars. No, no, you know, I'll be careful. I'll be careful, you know. And then he, he get, finally gets his back broken, okay. And everybody's, like, looking at this guy like, what an idiot. What an idiot. How does he not know how dangerous it is? How does he not know how much trouble he's in? When I first read this, I thought, this has nothing to do with me. <laughs> Every single night, I got drunk out of my mind, and I, you know, I would land on the floor. And I, I don't know about anybody else, but I would wake up with contusions. And, you, know, you ever wake up with like injuries that you have absolutely no idea how you got? You know, you know like stitches. And, and, you know, and that was, you know, I'm the jaywalker. I'm the jaywalker and it's getting worse you know a trolley cars on the way you know um, that's that's me now they talk about Fred um, they talk about Fred's a partner and you know uh, um, he was interested when they talked to him he was interested and concluded that he had some of the symptoms but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself how many how many people how many newcomers have you gone up to who've got this kind of an attitude? Yeah, I've got some of these symptoms, but you know, I really I really got this. You know, well, you know, I'd like you to come over to my house, and you know, every and, you know every Tuesday to start going through the steps. There's uh, three home group meetings I want you to be at. You know, you know, here's my phone number. I want to call at least a couple of times a week to see what's going on with you. Uh, I'd like you to take on a coffee commitment as soon as you can. And it's like, oh wow, man. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I, I hook up with all that, but, but uh, the Grateful Dead are touring and. I always take the summer off to tour with the dead. And, uh, you know, they're a long way from admitting that they can do nothing about it themselves. They don't get it. They don't get it. Uh, Fred's, Fred's example, Fred's explanation of drinking again is this. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all. Nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. This is another guy that's been in the asylum. He's just going to have a, a little cocktail. You know, a little drinky-poo. And uh, then back to the asylum, you know. Uh, I, I mean, you know, this, this, really, this, really, this really is. And not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first trend. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. 
I'm going to read the last the last paragraph in uh, in the chapter more about alcoholism. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, and that's absolutely true. Mental defense against the first drink is problematic. Now, I want to close tonight. Um, with uh, with one of my one of my favorite one of my favorite stories. This story comes from uh, comes from a friend of mine who's no longer with us, Scott Redman from 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 Sherman Oaks, California. And this is the my favorite story that he told. This, is, this happened to to somebody in his home group. Uh, newcomer, and you know he's new about like like three months or something, and uh, uh, and and he's just kind of like moping around. And his sponsor goes up to him and says, "You know what's the matter with you?" And he goes, I'm bored. And the sponsor goes, you know why you're bored? And he goes, no. The sponsor goes, because you're boring. And, you know, he goes like, whoa, like, wow. You know, what a, what a great, what a great answer. And he, he thought, he thought to himself, I can't wait to use that on somebody. You know, now. Eight years it takes. Eight years it takes for for this to happen. But he's standing at the coffee pot, and a newcomer, a good-looking newcomer uh, woman, co- you know, comes up and she's pouring coffee, and she lets out a big sigh, like, ah. and he's thinking, all right. He, he goes, uh, he goes, uh, anything wrong? And she goes, yeah, I'm bored. And the light bulb goes off, and he goes, "You know why you're bored?" And she looks at me. Go, she goes, "Yeah, because I'm with you." <laughs> Thanks a lot. Great to be back here in Winston Salem. <clears throat> great town, great people, great AA. Really, I consider myself very lucky. Um, Sometimes when you move from an area that you're you're real used to your AA and uh, you're kind of worried about uh, how it's going to go in another area, and we lose a lot of people who move. Uh, we lose a lot of the people who retire to a different area, and AA is not the same. And you know they just they go for a while, and then they just kind of lose interest. And uh, there was actually a panel at the uh, uh, at the Akron. Uh, uh, they have a um, I, I forget what it's actually called, but in Akron, Ohio, uh, they have uh, like a, an event there every year, uh, Founders Day it's called. And they had an old-timers panel, and uh, they asked the old-timers to basically come up with uh, a topic. And the topic was moving and losing touch with uh, fellowship and program. And it seems like it really is a, a very, very common thing. And I'm incredibly grateful that when I moved, uh, I moved into a hotbed of great AA. And uh, I thank you all for that. Uh, it's been a, an absolute pleasure for me to, uh, to come down and integrate into this uh, really good AA. All right, tonight we're going to be going over fears, and we're going to be going over uh, uh, the sex inventory and the sex ideal. We're going to be finishing up the chapter, how it works. But I want to sum up just real quickly for anybody that hasn't been here. We talked for weeks about step one. Uh, Why? Because step one is the most misunderstood step uh, 
in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are people that are here 20 years uh, in AA that don't understand what step one is because they haven't done a detailed study of the first chapters in the book Alcoholics Anonymous to see what Alcoholics Anonymous considers step one. And to to make it very, very simple, uh, they see step one as... uh, uh, Fully conceding to your innermost self that you have the obsession of the mind that leads you back to a drink, even though you really don't want to drink. The allergy of the body that ensures that once you drink, you have little or no control over the amount you take. And also that there's unmanageability in your life. Dash, that your life has become unmanageable. Now, what does that unmanageability look like? It can be external. DUIs, getting thrown out of the house, losing jobs. But mainly what they talk about is the internal unmanageability, the emotional unmanageability that we have. Um, our inability to, uh, to be consistent with personal relationships. Our trouble you know, that we have with our families. Uh, the, the, the depression that we suffer from. Uh, the anxiety and self-centered fear that we suffer from. Just being uncomfortable with ourselves and our environment. You know, this really is step one. Um, And to fully concede to this, you're basically saying that, you know, I'm powerless. Uh, I am powerless. Uh, It's not going to be up to me whether I take a drink uh, of alcohol. It's not going to be up to me whether I survive alcoholism. If you're powerless, you're powerless. Um, That does not mean you're going to go the rest of your life without power. One of the things that these steps are about and that that Alcoholics Anonymous is about is about getting the power to keep you safe and protected from from the next drink or the next drug. Uh, Getting the power to help you recreate your life. Getting the power to uh, enable you to move away from your grosser handicaps or your defects of character, the things that are blocking you off from God, your fellow man, and an effective life. You know, so in step two, we come to believe that uh, there is a power that we can access. You know, and how we access that is going to be through spiritual living. Uh, in step three, we say, okay, you know, uh, I understand I'm in real trouble with alcoholism. I, I, I've internalized step one. I've come to believe that there's a power greater than myself that I, that I can access, you know, that, uh, that I can come in contact with who can solve my problems. I, I believe that that's possible. You know, uh, I'm not absolutely sure that it's possible, but I believe that it's possible. And in step three, we make the decision to access that power. Uh, if there is a power that can save my life, uh, that can help me recover from alcoholism, uh, recreate my life, uh, move away from the, the grosser handicaps that are causing my failure at life, you know, yes, I'm in. Uh, tell me what I need to do. And that's basically step three. Uh, in step four, the first thing we're asked to do is inventory uh, the things that have caused our failure at life. 
The first thing is our anger or our resentment. Resentment really is holding on to anger and allowing it to build a home within us. And, you know, this anger. And I've never met an alcoholic who didn't have this gut-level resentment going on about something. Sometimes we fool ourselves. You know, I have had people sit down with me uh, and I'm explaining the four-step and they'll say to me something like, well, I don't have any resentments. I'm okay with everything. And, you know, that really uh, that really is not true. I'll start asking him, oh, oh so, so you're okay with all the police in your county? You know, they're on your Christmas card list, I would, I would guess. No, you know, oh, you're okay with all the teachers you had at school. And every one of your family members is absolutely wonderful, right? None of them have any problems. And, and you'll start to be able to pull out of, out of these people their resentments, the things that they've held on to, sometimes for decades. Well, we need to be free of this. We need to be free of this to, to be able to access the power greater than ourselves that can help us recreate our lives, we need to be free of some of these grosser defects of character, certainly resentment. It says in this book that resentment kills more alcoholics than anything else, and that would have to include alcohol. So we have to take this seriously. We cannot harbor these resentments. We can't do it. Um, every once in a while I'll see an old timer in AA who really has never done this work, never done the step work, and they've, they've been able to maintain a tentative sobriety for sometimes decades, and they are a cranky lot. You know what I mean? I think we've all met some of them. They are pissed off at anything and everything, and at newcomers. Uh, you know, it's I took their parking space, or you're sitting in my seat, you know, or or whatever. And and you know, what it says is, even if we can survive these resentments, they steal from our quality of life. They rob us of a quality of life. So even if we can survive, even if we can not drink and still have them, you know, it's in our best interest to move away from them because they, they, are, they are ruining our quality of life. That's basically what we went over uh, last week. Uh, column number one, uh, person, place, or institution we are resentful at. Column number two, why we have the resentment. Column number three, the seven areas of self that can be affected. Because um, it's usually money, power, and sex. If our instincts or our ambitions are harmed, threatened, or interfered with, with money, power, or sex, we get, we get angry. Um, instincts would be what is ours and that we're going to protect. Ambitions are the things that we want out there that you're getting in, our, getting in the way of. You know, move out of the way, I, you know, I want that. So, money, power, sex, uh, instincts and ambitions, harm, threatened, or interfered with. We look at this and we start to realize why we have anger and why we have resentment. And through understanding that, we start to get into a position where we can be free of it. There's more work to do, but we have to understand the problem before we can, uh, we can move away from it. Um, nothing is so damaging to the alcoholic than resentments. Um, I think I shared here last week how resentments almost killed me was I didn't like people when I came into AA. 
Alright, I looked around and I wasn't real pleased with, you know, the individuals I saw. I, I had a, an acute ability to, to see the defects of character in other people and an almost utter inability to see them in me. So I'm sitting in these rooms and I'm listening to somebody share and I, I'm like, oh God, I can't, you know. And then I started to get into the politics of the meeting, you know, the, the, the hostile, painful, root canal type group consciences and business meetings that they would have, you know, and I, I'd, I'd be like, oh, oh you know, and, and I, what, what happened was I, I was driven out of a home group. I was driven out of a home group by my resentments. Luckily, I, I joined another one, and I was driven out of that home group because of my resentments, and luckily, I joined another one. The only thing that saved my life was joining another home group and trying again, but I have seen so many people resent themselves right out of Alcoholics Anonymous and back to the bottle that, you know, you can't shake a stick without hitting somebody that that has happened to. And that's why it says, resentment is the number one offender. It kills more alcoholics than anything else. Now we're going to move into fear. Um, for anybody with a big book, bottom paragraph on page 67. Uh, notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. Let's just turn back a page to the example of the inventory. And there's only three columns here, but this is the, the, the column one, two, and three of a resentment inventory. And if you look, fear is bracketed around, in the third column, fear is bracketed around everything. And it's because you cannot be angry at somebody unless you are afraid they're going to take something away from you that you have or keep you from getting something that you want. So fear is operative in every single resentment. So we need to look at fear. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. Now, I, I want to give you an example out of my own life. Uh, the more recovery work that you do, the more inventory that you write, the more meetings that you go to, the more people that you sponsor, the more you start to understand uh, this process and what it means to you as an individual. Now, I was doing a fear inventory one time, and the person who was taking me through this said, Chris, I want you to do something extra. The big book doesn't say to do this, but I want you to do something extra. Alongside every fear that you list, you have, I want you to give me an example of the first time you felt that fear. And one of the fears was uh, large crowds of people. You know, this was one of my earlier inventories. Uh, you, you never would have gotten me behind a podium, you know, back in my first two or three years. I was way, I had way too much anxiety about that. So I'm, I'm inventorying this, and fear of people was basically the fear. And my first recollection of that fear was when my mother was driving me across town to drop me off for kindergarten. Okay? I'm five years old. 
I've been hanging around the house a lot, you know, with one woman. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I'm told that, you know, i got to go do with other people. And, you know, this is okay for some kids. Some kids are like, ooh, ooh, kindergarten, you know, like some like well-adjusted people. But what happened with me was uh, she took me, drove me across town, uh, opened up the car door, Told me to get out. I'm standing on a hill. She closes the door. She takes off. And I'm standing on a hill looking down at the kindergarten building, okay? And the kids are outside playing kickball and tag. They've already assimilated. They're already all best friends. I can tell from the top of the hill. (laughs) And I'm standing up there feeling like a complete idiot, all right? I'm thinking, you know... This this kindergarten thing. Who the hell thought of this? This is this is a bad idea. You know, I, I don't know if I can do. I don't know if I can walk down this hill. What if those kids make fun of me? What if they don't like me? You know, what if what if I get into a fight? What you know? What if I'm ostracized? I mean, that's not exactly how I put it, but that's how I felt. I felt I felt apart from. I felt less than. You know, I I had an amazing amount of anxiety and self-centered fear. But I knew I had to do this thing. I couldn't, like, run away home, you know. Uh, So I sucked it up. I acted as if I was cool about this whole thing. And I went down there and I did the kindergarten thing. Now, you know what would have really helped me at that point in time? be a pint of vodka. I would have been able to walk down that hill with confidence. You know what I mean? But the problem was they weren't serving five-year-olds. So I had to go another eight years with that anxiety, going to school, thinking that it was absolutely ridiculous that I had to do this, thinking I was so different than everybody else because I had this anxiety and this fear. And nobody else could have possibly had this. Because you I could see that they didn't because of their demeanor. So I felt completely apart from. Now, fear is an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence is shot through with it. I understand what that means now. I based decisions on how comfortable I was because of how much anxiety or fear I had. I based decisions on whether or not to go to college, whether or not to take certain jobs, whether or not to ask certain women out on dates. It all revolved around a level of comfortability that was in direct proportion to my anxiety and my self-centered fear. So is fear an evil and corroding thread that shoots through your entire life? Absolutely. But we recognize it sometimes as anxiety disorder. Or we recognize it as, I just don't feel like doing that. You know, I'm, you know, I'm going to take a pass and pull the covers over my head today, thank you. You know, does anybody understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, th- this is a damaging emotion. Now... Some types of fear, like like fear of crossing the highway with you know semis doing 80 miles an hour, that that's an appropriate fear. That's an instinct that is has been put into us for our self-preservation. But what happens with alcoholics is our instincts go awry. We have too much of them, or we have too little of them. We don't have a balanced emotional state. And that's part of the unmanageability of step one. 
So what do we do? We take a vacation from that stuff with drugs and alcohol. Because we just don't feel like feeling uncomfortable all the time. You know, you want me to go out to a party tonight? You know, well, I would get drunk before I went to the party. I, you know, I always needed a little ballast. So I would show up at the party where everybody's getting going to get drunk at, drunk. And that would cause problems, you know. Um, I would, I, you know, this one time... I was going out on a date. I finally got a date with somebody I was so attracted to. I thought this girl was the coolest girl in the world. But I had to, I had to be cool. I couldn't be like shaken in, in fear. So I started drinking, what was it, Miller malt liquor in the red cans. Does anybody remember that from the 70s? You drink a six-pack of that, man, and I'll tell you what. It had like wood alcohol in it or something. It was it was horrible. And I got so drunk I was in a blackout. I vomited on her. You know. I mean. I mean really. And uh, I did. Now that was all caused by fear. You know. I had to. I had to get rid of that fear and I had to use the booze. You know. Um, so let's look at what they're what they're telling us here. Did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Why would they say that? Why would they say fear should be classed with stealing? Isn't stealing a conscious act? I mean, unless you're like some crazed kleptomaniac. I mean, if you're going to steal something, don't you make a decision to steal it? Well, I think they're saying we're making a decision to have fear. Why? Because we're, rely, we're making a decision to rely on self and not rely on God. That's why we have these fears. Uh, in step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand Him. If we really mean that, we're placing ourselves in God's protection. He's going to have a care for us. Care and protection. What is He going to let get through to us if we're doing His work well? What is He going to let get through to us that's not going to be in our best interest? So you start to think about this stuff. You start to put yourself on a different plane when you're not operating from self all the time. You're operating through spiritual principles. You start to outgrow fear. So fear should be classed with stealing. Maybe it's because we're choosing in our life to have it. Because we've chosen to take the, take the reins ourselves and run our lives ourselves without any spiritual guidance or help. You know, I went to kindergarten. I, I'm sorry, I went, to, I went to Sunday school. Anybody in here go to Sunday school? They taught us a lot of good stuff. Don't steal. You know, don't lie. You know, share your toys. You know, don't tattletale. You know, all of these, all these things that I chose to like ignore. Um, I was being prepared to live a spiritual life. I, I believe I actually chose to go the other direction. You know, I'm running this thing. So, so fear a lot of times is our own fault, but it still drives us. If we've allowed it to embed itself in us, it still drives us. We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. We asked ourselves why we had them. So column number one is the fear. Column number two is why do you have the fear? 
And then they ask you a couple of questions, which is all, they're almost always going to be yes. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? You know, you're running your own life. You've been managing your own life. How's that been working for you? You know, that's the great question. Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Perhaps there's a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. Remember, we've made a third step decision. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role He assigns. How do we do that? Well, further on in this book, it gives us exercises, spiritual exercises, that that puts us in tune with the consciousness of the presence of God. And we we start to be able to access that that level of intuition where we know right and we know wrong intuitively. Intuitively means you know without conscious thought. And once we get to that place, they call it sometimes the sixth sense or the fourth dimension in here. Once we get to that place, we know what we're supposed to do. We're guided through that intuition toward right and toward wrong. And when we have the power to move in the right direction, we're placing ourselves in, uh, in the place where we believe God would have us. So then we would be playing the role that God assigns. Just to the extent that we do as, uh, as we think He would have us and humbly rely upon Him, does He enable us to match calamity with serenity? So let's look at that sentence really carefully because it's, it's a key sentence in this book. To the extent that we do as we think God would have us. So again, as we develop this, sen- this sixth sense, this intuition, we'll more and more be able to understand at a closer level what God would have us, would have us uh, do, what He would assign. When we humbly rely upon Him... Uh, He enables us to match calamity with serenity. Matching calamity with serenity is something that we've not been very good at as alcoholics. We usually met calamity with with violent anger or a bender. You know, that's the way we would would handle it. Um, Humbly relying upon God is something that we have to practice. It, It takes a lot of practice. The best possible atmosphere to be in to get to the point where you can humbly rely upon God uh, and do as we think He would have us is to finish these steps. These steps place you in, um, in the spiritual atmosphere where you can do this stuff. Whereas if we're operating on our own, if we're making all of our own decisions, uh, if we're not seeking guidance, uh, if we're not trying to become disciplined about these spiritual exercises, we're, we can probably be fooling ourselves as far as our spiritual growth is concerned. And, and you know, nobody's going to punish us for doing this wrong. Alcohol is what punishes us if we do this stuff wrong or if we don't do enough of it, or if we're not sincere, or if we're not painstaking, or if we're not willing to grow along spiritual lines. 
We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. <laughs> I, I used to, back in like 1988 or so. Well, I'd just gotten my license back for like a third DUI, and I'd go out drinking, and uh, I'd be using some cocaine uh, because the cocaine would enable me to stay awake longer. You know, I I usually drank myself into unconsciousness in about four hours, and that was cutting down on my social life. So, uh, so I was using cocaine at, at, as an embellishment to prolong my ability to drink like I wanted to drink, and you know, uh, to some degree, it would work for. For two or three minutes until I became insane. Uh, but I would be driving home. I would be driving home about eight in the morning on Sunday. I'd be out all night long, partying all night long, up all night long, you know, with with my buddies Rat and Green Man, you know. And and I'd be driving home in my 1976 Ford Granada with busted up quarter panels and you know white walls, no muffler, no clutch, you know, no registration, no windshield wipers no heater, you know, no emergency brake because I was busy and I couldn't couldn't fix it. And I'd be I'd be rolling through town with this loud smoking piece of crap, and I'd be behind the wheel. And I'd drive by a couple, you know, dressed up real nice for for church, and they'd have the two or three little kids with the sailor suits on, you know, and they they'd be walking off the church. And I'd roll down my window, and I'd go, "You losers! You know, you know, you don't know what life is all about." And, uh, I mean, think about how insane this is. These are probably homeowners, you know. I never knew how you, how do you get a house, you know. I had no idea. These are homeowners. They probably have good jobs. They're raising their children right. You know, they, they, they're affluent, making the right decision. And here's me, you know. I'm, I'm, li- I'm, going, I'm living with mom, you know. I'm driving like a $50 car, and, and I'm calling them losers. You know, sometimes we are so far off the mark with our with our perspectives, you know? So paradoxically, spirituality is the way of strength. It really is. You want to be able to do what you want to do? Grow spiritually, and the power will come to you. Usually you're your own worst enemy, because you've got resentment, and you've got fear, and these things are interfering with your ability to do the things you really, really want to do, that, that you, know, you really can do, that God gave you the abilities to do. You know, what we do is we shoot ourselves in the foot every five minutes somehow. Uh, and, and I didn't believe that when I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I didn't believe it. I thought that by growing spiritually, I was going to become a wimp. You know what I mean? And it's the exact opposite. It really is. It's the exact opposite. Uh, You gain an amazing level of power. Uh, as long as, as long as you know you're, you, you have the right motives uh, and you're really practicing these principles, you get stronger every day. You, you get to be uh, a better employer, a better uh, husband, a better wife, a better, better father, a better mother, a better friend. You're, you're just more consistent. And, uh, and again, I didn't think that when I came in here. I really thought my life was over. Uh, I'm going to be in church basements, you know, talking about God the rest of my life. Just shoot me now and get it over with. And it's, it's the exact opposite. 
Um, the verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. I used to think I had courage because I did crazy things. I, I raced motorcycles, go-karts, snowmobiles. You know, I, I would do bridge diving. You know, into the Delaware River. I, I would just I would pick on the the biggest guy at the bar. I, I, I was nuts, is what I was, and I, I, I mistook nuts for courage. And uh, I think what courage is is courage is the ability to walk through the fear, to be able to face that fear and move through it anyway, because you're trusting and relying upon. God. Uh, That really is what courage is. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let Him demonstrate through us what He can do. Here's a prayer directive. Uh, I'm going to try to highlight all of these prayer directives so that we don't miss them. It's one of the things that we do when we go through these steps. We forget these prayer directives. And I think they're essential. We ask Him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what He would have us be. At once we commence to outgrow fear. So as you're inventorying the fear, fear, why do I have the fear? You answer the redundant questions like, isn't it because self-reliance failed you? And then you do the fear prayer. Okay, God, please remove my, my fear of you know my boss and direct my attention to what you would have me be. And at once we commence to outgrow fear. I don't think fear is going to ever disappear completely, but but we're going to become more courageous about whatever we're afraid of. We're going to grow bigger than the fear. All right, that's fear. Now about sex. Here's another area we totally fouled up. <laughs> I love it. I love it here. It says that we need an overhauling here. Now th- think about what an you know a lot. Of, there's a lot of Harley Davidson riders in here. If you're going to overhaul your Harley, what does that mean? That means you strip it right down to to bare metal, right? I mean the engine off, new, you know, new piston rings, the whole deal. Well, it doesn't say that we need a, a mere tune-up with our sex life. It says we need an overhauling. You know, Bill had us pinned down. Uh, he really he really knew what. Listen, if we're if we're operating from a place of selfishness and self-centeredness, that's our that's our platform, our operational platform. Of course, we're going to screw up our intimate relationships. You know, we're going to have motives that don't belong in intimate relationships. We're going to have behavior that doesn't belong in intimate relationships. Uh, we just will. Let's see what he has to say about it. Many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we try to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cries that sex is the lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. Remember, Freud was was doing a lot of his theories right about this time. You know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was... um, was, Influenced greatly by Carl Jung. Jung believed in God. Freud was basically an atheist. Freud believed that you wanted to kill your father and and have sex with your mother. I mean, that was like one of his main things. Thank God, Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't uh, wasn't wasn't influenced by Freud, and it was influenced by Jung, who believed in God. Just a little observation there. Uh, 
They think that we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. What is an arbiter? An arbiter is basically a, a judge. Someone who, may, who uh, renders a decision. You know, I believe that this is true. I believe that this is true with one exception. And, th- and this is not from the big book. This is my own personal, uh, personal exemption to this rule. And that is... Uh, you know, I've seen predatorial behavior in, in Alcoholics Anonymous for many, many years. Somebody brand new will come in, and before they have a chance to get on their feet, you know, get a sponsor, start working the steps, somebody, you know, wants to come up and be Mr. Good Daddy to them, or you know, or something, you know what I'm saying, and, and hustle them off into a sexual relationship. Uh, that, can, that can be a killing thing. And so, so I'm I'm not real happy when when I see that go on. But as far as what type of sex and you know, uh, that, what he's basically saying is is that, you know this is between us and God, the type of uh, the, the the type of uh, sex ideal we come up with really is between us and God. And what we do, you know, with consenting adults, uh, you know, as long as the, as long as we follow some of these principles, which are about you know uh, keeping the levels of harm uh, as slight as possible, uh, it really shouldn't. You know, we really shouldn't, as Alcoholics Anonymous members, go around you know uh, and, and be telling everybody what what their sex life should look like. Uh, we all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? All right, here's the inventory for sex harms. We review our own conduct over the years past. What I like to do is take one piece of paper for each uh, each relationship that meets this criteria. So review the relationship. I'll write a paragraph on you know where I met this person, you know how long I was with them, what a little bit about what happened, you know just a little review of the relationship. So when I'm doing a, a fifth step with somebody, I can I can paint the picture a little bit of, about what what happened. Then. It asks us three wheres. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate? Okay, note this it doesn't say were we. It says where were we. Because if we're, if we're an alcoholic and we were in a relationship, it's a given that we were selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate. We need to list out where where we were. I don't like the inventories where there's a check mark. Uh, I make my guys uh, write at least a sentence on where they were uh, selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate. Whom had we hurt? Now, obviously, the person we're inventorying, but there may be collateral damage. Uh, you know, there may be a husband or a wife that was affected on our side. There may be a husband or a wife affected on the other side. There may be children or families or mothers and fathers who got hurt. There can be all kinds of collateral damage. This is a question where we, we fill out the other people uh, who we may have hurt uh, as well. Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Um, we can do this because we manipulate. We use our affections or our, or, our, uh, uh, or, or our offering of sex sometimes as uh, manipulators, or to, or, to, or to punish, we'll pull it back. You know, there, there, there's a lot of ways we use uh, sex in a wrong way. So we need to we need to answer this. Um, you know, did we uh, arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? You know, uh, 
I'm, I'm almost always guilty of this, even if it's at a very subtle level. You know, I, the levels were extreme when I was out there drinking, but now that uh, I'm in recovery, I'm certainly not a perfect person. So these things can be a little bit below the horizon. They can be hard to pick up on. Uh, but I, I need to be honest and I need to be searching and fearless and try to see where am I uh, arousing jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What, what should we have done instead? Not what could we have done instead. What should we have done instead? We probably couldn't have done any better because we were driven by a hundred forms of fear and resentment and our whole life system was based on a foundation of selfishness and self-centeredness. We probably did the best we could. But it says here, what should we, what should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. So again, one piece of paper for every single, uh, every single instance that I need to inventory and answer all these questions. And I like to do it in sentence form. In this way, we try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. So after you've done all of your inventories, you now know what doesn't work. I mean, if, you know, you're going to have example after example after example of defective intimate relationship uh, uh, behavior. You know what doesn't work. So it's now asking you to shape a sane and sound ideal for future sex life. And what that means is you need, to, you need to develop the attributes that you would like to bring in to the next party. How would you like to be showing up at the next party? What would you like to bring in to the next relationship? Because it's a given you attract what you are. So if you're very healthy, you're going to attract the same type of thing in a partner. Or you can, or you'll develop it. Let's let's say you're you've been married an alcoholic, and you start to develop this this uh, this sex ideal, and you start to ask God to help mold you and direct you into it. A lot of times, the rest of the family, uh, or your wife or husband, start to get better because you're getting better. So this is this is very very important uh, that uh, that you do this. We su- we subjected each relationship to this test. Was it selfish or not? Here's another prayer directive. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. So again, for at least a while, what you want to do is, in your, in your morning prayer uh, and, and evening review, you need to look at this. You need to ask for the power to mold your ideals into what you would like to be, how you would like to be showing up. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loved. I believe that God gave us uh, instincts in this department, uh, and I believe two things about that. One of them is, I believe we have it so that there's a continuation of the human race, so we have a sex drive, and it's instinctual. And He also made it fun, so that we would do it. So think about this. God made sex fun and wants you to do it. Okay? And that's true. It's just He doesn't want, I don't think God wants us to use it in the wrong way where it will cause harm. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. 
In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. Here's another. Uh, here's, this is actually a meditation directive. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. So after you've got this inventory done, you're going to have to be thinking about whether there's possible amends that need to be made. We're supposed to ask God in meditation about how we should handle these amends or the change in behavior if we're still you know, with somebody. Um, remember, meditation, as far as Bill Wilson was concerned, was deep, concentrated thought. It wasn't the type of meditation that you see Kung Fu doing. You know, emptying his mind in a lotus position with the incense burning. That's not how they meditated back then. What they did is they concentrated on specific subjects and they went into a deep, uh, 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 guided meditative state where, the, where it was really contemplation more than it was meditation. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with with other persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. That is, we let our intuitive self be the final judge. Is this right or is this wrong? We need to be true to ourselves and answer this very honestly because we could be in big trouble if we continue to be selfish. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. All right, we are not perfect. Uh, Bill Wilson was a great example of not being perfect with uh, with his sex drive. Okay, and uh, and uh, uh, I don't think any of us can claim to be perfectly pure as the driven snow in this area. So, so this is this is important. We need to look at we need to look at this because this is a warning. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Suppose if we step out on the missus or the old man. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends upon us and on our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. So this is the operative this is the operative thing. I have seen people in Alcoholics Anonymous absolutely refuse to subject their self their, their sex life to spiritual principles. It was nobody's business and they were gonna they were gonna have they were gonna have relations with whoever the hell they wanted to and, and you better stay out of their way while they're doing it. And every single case where those people were alcoholic, they got drunk. And many of them died. You know, so when there's a warning in this book, we need to pay attention to it because it, it really does happen. These guys knew what they were talking about. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. Now, the people that are predators that last in AA, you know, year after year they're they're doing the same shit. They're not alcoholic. Okay, what they're what they're doing is they're here for other motives. Because if they were alcoholic, they would be drunk. We are not theorizing, these are facts out of our experience. To sum up about sex, here's another prayer directive. We earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. 
Two people, two of my closest and dearest friends, in the last two weeks, had their husbands come to them and say, I've been seeing somebody, I'm separating, I'm looking for a divorce. Two of my closest friends for ten years, they've been married to the same, same, same guys, and they, they looked like they had the perfect relationship, you know, the perfect AA relationship. Two of them. Now, both of them, you know what they did because they were good AA members? They, they, went, they headed straight for their sponsees. They headed straight for the beginners meetings. They started doing 12-step work like crazy because they understood that that is the way to get out of the horrible emotions that come from defective uh, intimate relationships. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot. We've listed and analyzed our resentments. We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality, how they can kill us, and how futile it is to have them. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look upon them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith for us, um, that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from Him. If you have already made a decision, the third step, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, what we just covered in the last two weeks, step four, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And we need to do that. We need to, we need to see what the truth is about, uh, about us. And we've only made a beginning. Um, I've seen a lot of people get up to step four and then do a fifth step and really, really stop there. Really stop there. I know up in my area uh, there was a real lack of attention to detail when it came to steps eight and nine. Ten and eleven. And twelve. Um, I think we only, always must remember that rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed the path. And, uh, and we're, we're, we're looking in a very detailed fashion uh, in, these work, in, this, in this workshop here uh, about what following the path is. What does it look like? How do you do it? And, um, you know, I can't tell you how much my life has changed because of multiple fourth and fifth steps, multiple eight and ninth steps, uh, and working with other people. Um, I was pathetic in the late 80s. Uh, I was pathetic. As, as my, my alcoholism was so bad. You know, uh, my world was so small because of my alcoholism and the way I behaved. Um, all I can tell you is from my own personal experience, uh, adherence to these principles, to, to whatever ability you know I, I've been capable, has led to incredible things in my life. And uh, um, I want to thank everybody for, for listening tonight. And next week we're going to move into step five. It's good to be back. 
in North Carolina. I had a little trip last weekend up uh, back up to New Jersey, and that was good too. But we were really glad to get back. Uh, we're considering North Carolina home now, and uh, um, I'm enjoying uh, my time here, and especially at this meeting. Uh, there was a, a piece of paper that was passed around. I hope everybody has a copy of it. Um, what it is is it's a, a four-step resentment sheet, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but if you don't have uh, a copy, I think there's, they're probably somewhere around here. Now, in the, in the weeks previous to this, we've covered the first step. We, it took us five or six weeks to cover the first step. And hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone understands what it means, as far as Alcoholics Anonymous is concerned, to be an alcoholic. Um, the, the, chapter, um, the chapter we agnostics basically lays it out. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot give up uh, alcohol in, uh, entirely. Or if when drinking you have little or no control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. That's, that's very, very simple. And if you're, if you're a drug addict uh, or a food addict or anything like that, uh, you, can, you can use that same uh, defining uh, terminology. If when you honestly want to, you can't stay away from it, and when using it you have little or no control over the amount you take, that's what, that's what turns it into uh, alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever. And when that happens, um, there's a scale. And no matter how far down the scale you've gone, you'll find your experience can benefit others. Um, your ability to quit drinking on a non-spiritual basis will depend on the amount of control you've lost in drink, it says. And then in chapter to wives, there's a, the different type of heavy drinkers, alcoholics, going down the scale. There's very definitely um, a scale. And so, um, depending on how far down the scale you've gone, you'll find that you have less and less control as you go down that scale. I think we've all seen people in here who, uh, who've gone to treatment, you know, 28-day treatment and drank on the way home. Uh, I think, you know, how crazy, you know, when you think about that, how crazy is that? You've just spent $14,000 to figure out how to not drink and be encouraged to not drink and be taught to not drink and why you shouldn't drink and on the way home you drink. It's nuts. Uh, that has to be a lack of sanity. And I think we've all seen uh, chronic relapsers in these rooms. Uh, we've, we've probably seen chronic relapsers in these rooms. You know, it's my belief uh, uh, for most of the chronic relapsers is they've gone down the scale to the point where simple meeting attendance is not going to be able to keep them sober. So, um, and a lot of times they're misunderstood. You know, in, in my earlier days up in New Jersey, the chronic relapser, after a certain point, was shunned. You know, they tell you, stick with the winners. And so those chronic relapsers were the losers. But really, what this book says, this book doesn't tell you to stick with the winners. It tells you to stick with the losers, the people who need you. You know, so so once once I got a hold of, of these principles, I started to see that Alcoholics Anonymous, at least up in that up in my area, had changed significantly from what it was meant to be to what it was, you know, at that current time. And that's kind of a shame. So we understand the first step. In the second step we come to believe that there's a power greater than ourselves, that we can somehow 
get a hold of, get in touch with. This this power we need, the first thing we need from this power is the ability to stay separated from alcohol or separated from the substances which we have little or no power over. That's the first thing we need. Uh, But we also need help managing our lives. Dash, that our lives have become unmanageable. Here's the thing, and, and very very few people really want to admit this. When you're, when you're new, you know, you, it's very difficult to get to this truth. But the truth of the matter is, is whoever's been managing your life should be fired. <laughs> because they've done such a bad job with it. And the person who was managing your life was usually you. Yeah. So, you know, nobody likes to fire themselves. But that really is needed. Uh, Sam Shoemaker, who basically was, was one of Bill Wilson's spiritual advisors. Sam Shoemaker ran the Oxford Group in New York City where Bill Wilson spun dry and got sober. Okay, he wrote a book called Life Under New Management. You know, you can find it on eBay still for a couple of bucks. And basically in that book, it lays out the step process. That's how you turn your management over to God, is basically the steps. Anybody in here, has, has anybody in here been told to turn it over? You know, you're screwing something up and you raise your hand and you share a bunch of stuff in the meeting and somebody goes, kid, you got to turn it over. Well, a lot of times, a lot of times they'll tell you to turn it over, but they won't explain how exactly to do that. I've been told to turn things over for a long time until I actually learned how you're supposed to do that. You turn things over by, by applying steps 3 through 12. That's how you turn something over. You practice, you practice steps and principles that go against your, your, your nature as an alcoholic and against your ego and against your, your, uh, your incessant need to continue to run your life. You take these steps, and and these steps basically shift your whole perception and your whole behavior patterns uh, to the point where you know you you start to be able to to do some things that you couldn't do before. The most important of which is to stay separated from alcohol. So you come to believe this in step three. You know we did uh, we did step three two weeks ago. That's basically. Uh, Making a decision that you're in. Okay, you know, okay, I, I admit I'm an alcoholic. I, you know, I concede that I can't run my own life. I know that there's a power greater than myself out there uh, because I see it working in so many people in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can see this power at work in, in our rooms more so than I think anywhere else on the planet. You know, uh, you know, uh, the transformational power of God is at work in these rooms, and you just can't deny it when you see it enough. So, okay, okay, I, 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 I'm willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself. You know, you, the next step is you're in. You know, you're in. You, you, I, I'll do what you guys say. I, I've run out of plans. You know, if, if, if I need to make a decision to turn the management of my life over uh, to something that's going to help it run better, then, then, I, then I, that's what I need to do. 
And it's not an easy decision to make. The third sentence is not an easy decision to make. You know, uh, we don't want to admit failure. We don't want to admit that we're, you know, we're, we're doing a lousy job running our lives. None of us want to admit that. But the, the fact of the matter is, is you've got, you got to look and see what's going on and uh, be honest and true with yourself about that. So in, in step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. But that decision, unless it's followed by some action, won't, won't mean anything. Um, the, the great story that you hear all the time is there's, there's three frogs uh, uh, sitting on a log, and two of them decide to jump into the pond. How many of them are on the log? Three, because the two frogs just decided they didn't do it. And so many times we're caught sitting on the log still. There was, a, there was a couple of meetings up in my area that were one, two, and three meetings. Step one, two, and three meetings. And I went in there one time and I said, I said that's all you do? You just do step one, two, one, two and three? So, so you realize that everything is totally screwed up in your life. And that, that there is an answer to, to that big problem, and you're going to access that answer, and then you go back to your life is all screwed up. You, you know, it's it's a circle, and you never you never get out of that. How about we start looking at some of the steps that actually are uh, offer a solution to that problem? You know, and it's happened before that people didn't agree with me. Uh, <laughs> Next, we launched out uh, on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. I think I said this last week. I'm really good friends with an aerospace engineer. Uh, he was in town this last weekend and did a little speaking uh, down, at, down in uh, Statesville. And I asked him one time, I go, I go, Doug, what does launch mean? What, what do you think about when you think about launch? And he goes, Chris, launch means going from zero to 300 miles an hour in a matter of feet. You know, so when you think of launch, that means if we're going to launch into a course of vigorous action, that doesn't mean, you know, like I'm going on vacation in a couple months, I'll bring a pad and pencil with me then, you know. Launch means like right then, nothing, nothing gets in the way of that. So you make your third step decision and then you start on your fourth step right away. At that moment is really what this book is telling us. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. So the third step decision is a vital and crucial step, but it can have little permanent effect unless it's followed up by a fourth step. Um, That's why I had problems with the one, two, and three meeting. You know, they they were bringing a lot of beginners into this one, two, and three, and it was one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Uh, the book is basically saying that it's great to understand you're an alcoholic. It's really good to come to the conclusion that there's a power greater than yourself, and it's it's also a really good thing to make a decision to turn your will in your life over to the power of God, apply spiritual practices in your life so that you can overcome alcoholism, but. But that's that's just a you know that's just the very very beginning. You have to do some things after that. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to the causes and conditions. One of the most revolutionary things about the book Alcoholics Anonymous is it it, it doesn't blame a lot of things on alcohol. It basically says our drinking was a symptom 
And there's a lot of uh, a lot of statements in this book and in the 12 and 12 that back that up. Bottles are just a symbol. Um, my drinking is my drinking is part of alcoholism. Alcoholism is my defective relationships. It's the emotional bondage of self, the the, the, the terminal self-centeredness that that uh, that I have, the perspective the perspective that's based on self-centeredness that I have, the the worldview that's based on self-seeking and selfishness. Uh, the the uh, that's really what my alcoholism is, and the drinking is a symptom of that. It's a bad symptom. It's a symptom that needs to be taken care of and gotten under control. But if it's just a symptom, you know, treating doctors understand this. They either treat the illness or they treat the symptoms of the illness. And if a doctor has the choice to be able to do either one, he's going to treat the illness first. Because treating the symptoms, all you're, you're leaving the underlying illness alone and all you're doing is treating the symptoms. So the real answer is to treat the illness. And that's what we're doing as we move into step four. It's the beginning of a treatment for alcoholism. We had to get down to causes and conditions. Causes and conditions of what? Of our alcoholism. Of our failure at life. The things that are... uh, Why we haven't been good managers of our own lives. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Um... Bill Wilson was a businessman, kind of a failed businessman, but when he told stories or or he used examples, he tried to use examples that he thought the people he was working with knew. Most of the first 100 were failed businessmen. So he says, a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. So he's saying we're going to take stock. We're going to take a, a... an inventory of ourselves. And we're going to see what has been working, what hasn't been working. We're going to see the causes and conditions. We're going to try to identify the causes and conditions of our inability to manage our own life. And we're going to start to take actions that are going to, going to help, uh, help us help place ourselves in the atmosphere where God can remove these defects of character and take a little bit of control of the management of our lives. Ultimately, when we start working steps 10 and 11, we want to more and more allow God in to manage our lives. But in the beginning, it's it's a little tough. It's it's not something we're used to. Um, So he says... The business image, we do exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. 
Remember earlier in step three, we realized, we recognized that selfishness, self-centeredness, that is the root of our trouble. If you haven't gotten that, there's still some work to do in the first three steps. Uh, when I first read this book, I was in a treatment center in early 1989, and I read about the selfish person. And I thought to myself, you know, that really makes a lot of sense for my roommate, you know? <laughs> selfish bastard, you know? Uh, he took all the drawers and the dresser and keeps me awake at night, moving all around and everything. Um, I couldn't see it for myself. I, you couldn't have convinced me I was selfish and self-centered because I did, I did what I thought were acts of selflessness. I would lend you money. I'd share my drugs. You, you know what I mean? I, I do. I, I'd give you a ride into the city, you know, for for court or something. I mean, I would do. Th- I would do things like this, you know, with my best buddies, Weezer and Bearman. You know, the guys who didn't even have any names. And uh, so I thought, like, I was, I was like a really loyal friend and all this. And you know, I look back on it; it was completely insane. <laughs> but it was hard for me to pin. You know, it's it's really hard to look in the mirror and admit all this stuff. It really is. We take this in chunks. We take this in pieces sometimes. Uh, but I understand today, absolutely every single problem in my life is caused at root. The root cause is selfishness and self-centeredness. Um, Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Notice that it doesn't say alcohol destroys more alcoholics than anything else. It's basically saying resentment does. Bill understood the alcoholic. We we are so angry at so many things it's unbelievable even if that anger is below the horizon and it's not blatant we're still really really unhappy with a lot of people a lot of institutions a lot of principles or the way the world works we're unhappy with them and the more alcoholic we are, the more pissed off we are at somebody. I mean, I have never met an alcoholic who couldn't tell me who they're mad at, you know. Every once in a while, somebody will come over and they'll be doing their four-step with me and they'll have like eight resentments on their on their four-step list. And I'll say, eight resentments? That's a bad day. You know, that's not a lifetime inventory. You know, and you have to help them see. You have to help them understand what resentment is. When you look at the word resentment, you know, if you look at the Latin root where it came from, re means again, and sentiment means to feel. So what happens if if we're angry, we re-feel that anger and re-feel that anger. That's really what resentment is. Is anger appropriate? Sometimes, of course it is. Sometimes it's absolutely unavoidable. But what happens is we, we grab that anger and we nestle it to our bosom and we feed it and take care of it and nurture it. And ten years later we're still mad 
at somebody for something they did. We're still looking to get even with them or something, you know? Like what they did to us. Uh, and... And one of the things that I heard that made so much sense to me one time in a meeting was, resentment is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. You know? And it really is. We're going to be, ang- we're going to be angry about it, but what it's doing is it's corroding our spiritual condition. From resentment stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. That's a great line. So the people who get sober and run off to the gym eight nights a week and skip the meetings because they're they're doing powerlifting or something, they got the cart before the horse. The people who run off and and are dealing with the the mental stuff, going to counselors seven nights a week and and group therapy the the other seven nights and psychiatrists the other seven nights and they're missing out on meetings or 12-step processes, they've got the cart before the horse. We need to straighten out spiritually and then we start to straighten out mentally and physically. And I've, I've seen that time and again. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed the people, institutions, or principles with whom we are angry. This is number one. If you look at your sheet, um, on that sheet, uh, at the, the top line, should be the people, institutions, and principles. You just list that. Now, the sheet that I gave out, I, I, I want everybody to understand, I'm not, um, I'm not a slave to certain mechanics. Um, there are a lot of different forms. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Ultimately, what I'd like people to be able to do is just to be able to do these four steps with a big book and a piece of paper. You know, that, ultimately, that's the best thing. But, you know, I have done the Hazleton Guide. You know, I've, I've, every treatment center out there writes their own four step. There's the Joe and Charlie fours where you check stuff off. And I found that that's, that's just not the way to do it. You know, check the boxes. This book asks you to put it down in black and white. Uh, So I don't really care how you do it. I don't care if you go across or you go up and down. What, what, What I'm interested in is that you comply with the instructions in the book. That's what's really necessary. So I don't care what it looks like. This form is something that I'm working with currently. Something may come up next week that makes a little bit more sense to me. You know, I'm, I'm open-minded with, with that stuff and, and not, not a slave to uh, the actual mechanics. But they ask you to put down on paper the institutions, people, and principles with whom we were angry. So if it's your first four-step, that's going to cover a lot of ground. How many people, institutions, or principles were you angry at? You know, uh, I'm, I'm also a believer in multiple inventories. I, I, uh, it says in the step book, many of us go in for annual or semi-annual house cleanings. And basically, what a house cleaning is is steps three through nine. You know, clean house, then help others. Uh, that let that lets me know that not everybody, but many AAs do multiple four steps, multiple fifth steps, uh, annual or semi-annual, or in my case, every four years or so. Um, I believe I believe to do that is a, a very uh, a very powerful experience. Um, 
the second question. We asked ourselves why we were angry. And, you know, be, be brutally honest. Why were you angry? Uh, write it down. I was angry because of. And just, just put it down there. Now, if there's more than one resentment, so let's say you're, you're writing the, the resentment, I resent my father, okay? If there's more than one resentment, I use more than one piece of paper. But you'll see in here that you don't necessarily have to do that. Bill gave us two ways to write resentment inventory. One is to list out each resentment, and the other was to list all the resentments. And there's two different examples in here, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. But the second question is, why were we angry? And try to be as accurate as possible. What I don't like to see is things like, well, I was, I'm, I'm resentful of my father because he was never there. Okay, that's a, this is an example. He was uh, okay. Oh, he was never there. I mean, I, I mean, you know, he got your mother pregnant, and you never saw him again the rest of your life. He was never there. No, no, that's not what I mean. Well, what do you mean? Well, he never went to my baseball games. Well, then write down he never went to your baseball games. Let's try to get to the truth here and not use these absolute statements. You know, he was a jerk. Well, don't, don't write that down. Write down specifically why you resent the, resent the person. This is about discovering the truth about our stock and trade, and we should be as truthful as possible in it. Uh, now we start to go into um, the third column a little bit, the seven areas of self. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, our sex relationships were hurt or threatened. So we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. So here's column three. I, I, I want to explain column three and, and why we need to, to understand it and apply it to the four-step resentment inventory. If you're mad at somebody... Something you have needs to be threatened or something you want to get needs to be threatened, harm, threatened, or interfered with. I look at it like this. Instincts are protect what I have. Ambitions are the things that I don't have yet but I want to get. So if you harm, threaten, or interfere with my instincts, which is the stuff that I have, or you harm, threaten, or interfere with the things I want to get, which are my ambitions, that's what leads to me getting pissed off at you. And it's usually money, power, sex. Those are the big three. When you start messing with those, whether I have it or whether I want to get it, you rile me up. And... We need to look at this. So the seven areas of self, basically, uh, our self-esteem, this is how we feel about ourselves. Our pocketbooks, that's our financial security. Our ambitions, the things that we want to get. Our personal relationships. Our sex relationships. Um, If these are interfered with in any way, if they're harmed, threatened, or interfered with, they cause us to be angry. So we need to list these down. Let me use as an example uh, a basic 
a basic example, the IRS. Okay? Column number one. I'm mad at, you know, the IRS. Column number two, why am I angry at the IRS? Because they're auditing me on Thursday. Okay? Well, now I've got to look at the seven areas of of self. Is it affecting my self-esteem? Yeah, it, it's harming my self-esteem. It's you know, the, my self-esteem is how I feel about myself, and I feel pretty crappy about myself right now because I got caught cheating on my income taxes. All right. Does it affect your pocketbook? You're damn right it affects my pocketbook. They're probably going to attach my paychecks for the next two years. Does it affect your ambitions? Yes, it affects my ambitions because I want to use that money. It may be the IRS's money, but I want want that money. I got plans for it. You know what I mean? I don't want them taking it. They take it off. Does it affect my personal relationships? Well, it could. It could. Because if it gets out that, you know, I'm being audited and there's going to be criminal charges or something like that, uh, you know, some of my personal relationships might be harmed. Is it gonna is it gonna harm my my sex relationship? Well, the wife might not be too happy about you know me not letting her know I was cheating on the income tax, and and it absolutely could affect uh, my intimate relationships. Um, you go over it like this: a sentence, a short sentence for each of those that apply. If it doesn't apply. Fine. Don't put don't put it down. But if if it applies, let's look at it. Because what we want to do is we want to see how we operate. We want to see emotionally how we operate with these resentments. And I'll show you why when we get to the fourth column. Now, when we look at Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, my employer, and my wife, let's just look at Mr. Brown. The cause is his attentions to my wife, told my wife of his mistress, Brown may get my job at the office. Okay? Now, if you look at this, each one of these gets a different column for for the seven areas of self. Sex relations and self-esteem for the first one. Sex relations, self-esteem, fear. Security, self-esteem, fear. Those are what's affected in those three resentments for Mr. Brown. The greatest shirt I ever saw at an AA convention was, Mr. Brown needs his ass kicked. I love that. Okay, now let's look at how he does Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones, she's a nut. She snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend. She's a gossip. Okay, he, he grouped them all together. And if you look, there's only one column for the seven areas of self. Personal relationship, self-esteem, fear. You know, I don't care how you can do it either way. But what we really want to do is we want to look at we want to look at what's going on with these resentments. All right, he did the same thing with, uh, with my employer and my wife. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was, was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. The first three columns, they're still wrong. You know what I mean? The first three columns, you're still pissed at them. There's really been not a lot of revelation here in the first three columns. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. 
Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sort ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. You know, if you're going to be grumpy and cranky in Alcoholics Anonymous, decade after decade after decade, you, you know that's that's really your choice. There's a way out. There's an inventory process, and there's amends, and there's everything else that can get you from, you know, a cranky person to somebody who is pretty free. And it's available. And uh, I really don't want to waste my life being mad all the time. I, you know, I used... The craziest thing was, is I was a resentment machine in my last years of drinking. You know, they talk about an immense list. I had a list of people I wanted to get even with. That was my list. And I would wake up in the morning, and this is what would happen. I would, I would wake up... And the first thoughts to come into my mind was this. Those bastards. That's the first thing I would think of in the morning. You know, hey, that's really setting the tone for a good day, you know. Oh, but I really thought they did it to me, you know. Oh, my life is in shambles. It can't possibly be because it's my fault. To the precise extent that we permit these resentments, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, that's what our hope is, and that's what's necessary. If you're an alcoholic, you need to maintain and grow your spiritual experience or you're in trouble. This business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the Spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. So to be free of these resentments is really one of the main purposes of the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth step. To be free of this anger. Because if we don't get rid of this anger, we're not going to be placed in the sunlight of the Spirit where God can shine down and protect us. Keep us safe and protected. We're in the clouds. We're in the dark. We're always angry. We can't access the power that can keep us safe, protected, sound, sober, and help us recreate our lives. So we need to be free of these resentments. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. Now, period dictionaries are helpful sometimes when studying this book because brainstorm has a whole new meaning today than it did back in 1939. Today, a brainstorm is you get a brainstorm, it's like three or four people sit around and they come up with a, an idea for a better mousetrap or something. A brainstorm, if you, if you read the definition in a 1939 or so dictionary, it means to completely lose your mind. It means punching holes in the walls and ripping the keys off of pianos and kicking the cats and busting the windows in the car. It means just completely losing your mind. Has anybody in here ever completely lost their mind now? <laughs> Let the record show all 600 people raised their hand. Uh, these tapes are going to go to my home group in New Jersey. <laughs> okay, the grouch and the brainstorm are not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, for al- but for alcoholics, these things are poison. 
We turned our back to the list. Now, there, we understand the first three columns, but there needs to be a line of demarcation. This is, this is a big separator here. Okay, We've listed out who we were angry, why we were angry, and how it affected us. Now we need to look at the fourth column. But there's some work we need to do first. It says, here's what it says. We turn back to the list, for it held the key to the future. If this list holds the key to our future, should we be paying attention to it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Bring that up at the next discussion meeting. Let's talk about the key to the future, our, our four-step list. You'll see the meeting turn to fear or resentment really quick. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, because sometimes we have resentments that there's no basis for, uh, had the power to actually kill. Who wants to be dominated? Does anybody in here want to be dominated by the people you hate? No way. How can we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. We realized that the people (coughs) who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Spiritual sickness. Um, you know, resentment is a spiritual sickness. Fear is a spiritual sickness. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that uh, affect our spirit. And to some extent, all of us are spiritually sick in one way or another. Um, so though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Here's a prayer directive. Whenever there's a directive like this, we're supposed to pray. So what I ask my guys do is, after they've written the first three columns and they're about to do the fourth column, they need to do the resentment prayer. And the resentment prayer is basically this. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person uh, offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man, how can I be helpful to him? God save me from from being angry, thy will, not mine, be done. And that's the resentment prayer. And we really should say that before we start filling out the fourth column. We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Now here's, here's the instructions for the fourth column. Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? So you write a sentence on each of those that are uh, applicable. Let's go back to the IRS example. All right, where had I been selfish? I was selfish because I wanted to hold on to my money even though it was not my money. It was the IRS's money. Uh, Where was I dishonest? I cheated on my income taxes. That's illegal. Where was I self-seeking? I had plans for that money. I need a bass boat. Because without a bass boat, I'm not going to be happy. Where was I frightened? I was frightened that if I didn't get the bass boat, I wouldn't be happy. I was frightened if I didn't have that money, you know, I'd lose it. Okay, so that's a four-banger. You know, when I start to look at this, when I write it out, 
Is, is the IRS coming after me, or did I ask them to come after me? You know what I mean? They're just doing their job. They just want their money. And when I start to see this, this takes the wind out of my anger. When I see the truth about the resentment, it takes the wind out of my anger. I'll say that probably three out of five resentments disappear just when you inventory them. But for the other two out of five, you know, the rest of the work is, is absolutely necessary. The amends and all that other stuff. But most of the resentments will disappear just when you start looking at, you know, why you even have them. The truth about, uh, about your, your stock and trade. Though a situation had not been entirely out for it, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. So in step four, we, uh, in the fourth column, we forget what they did to us and we just look at our part. Uh, where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Why were we willing to set these matters straight? Because we became willing to go to any lengths in step three. That was part of step three. The decision to go through the rest of the steps was part of the third step decision. Um, You know, I've really had some resentments in my day. Uh, I'm going to finish up just telling telling a few uh, a few of my own personal experiences with, with this step. I was uh, I was running around uh, with with this guy. We we're doing a lot of AA work. Uh, this is around 1999, and we were doing workshops and we were doing a whole bunch of stuff together and. Uh, um, and for one reason or another, you know, I, I'm sure that I played a part in this. Uh, for one reason or another, this guy kind of turned on me. And he started talking behind my back. And, and I found that out because people were coming up to me and saying, Chris, so-and-so, you know, was telling us to stay away from you that you're going to get drunk. And, uh, and, and, you know, what it was actually was I shared a fist step with this guy. And... And he started telling everybody all the stuff that I had shared on the fist step. Um, and he was saying, you know, he was saying, you know, Chris said all this stuff, and he's 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 going to get drunk. And I confronted him. I, you know, when I go, hey, you know, guys are coming to me saying that you're 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 talking crap about me. What what's what is that? And he's like, nope, nope, not saying anything. Nope, nope. And, you know, I mean, this went on and on and on. And it got, it got to the point where it really started to drive me crazy. It started to eat my lunch. I mean, this, 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 this guy who's supposed to be my spiritual brother is sharing all this stuff from my fist step. He's telling everybody to stay away from me who, who are my support group. He's telling my sponsees to fire me. And he's not admitting this to my face. I, I was pissed. You know what I mean? And I started to gather the troops. Now, here's my part in it. What happened was I started to gather the troops. I started to get my team up against his team. You know, my half AA against his half AA. And, and, and this, is, this, this comes out of a, a, a misperception of being under attack. You know, I, I mean, I really misperceived. This was him acting out the way he was acting out. And I was reacting really, really poorly because I was bringing a lot of other people into it. Now, it got 
got to the point where I couldn't sleep. You know, so, some meetings I didn't feel comfortable in. And, I, you know, I recognize the fact I'm t- I've got a lot of sponsees. I've gone through the steps a number of times. I know I need to do a step four through a step nine on this guy. I know I do, but I don't want to. Because I, I'm justified with this. You know, he did. You know, I didn't do it. He did all this stuff. And uh, for the longest time, the longest time, I, I, I held out. I held out on this. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do what I needed to do. And finally, it became apparent that I was getting so emotionally ill that I could drink over this. You know, I could drink over this. So I bit the bullet. I did a four-step on it. Okay, I shared it with somebody. Uh, step six, step seven, prayed for you know the willingness to have these defects of character removed, the things that, that made me think I was so certain that it was all this guy's fault, that I had no part in this. And then I, you know, I put the A-step card together. And in the A-step card, I did. I played some role in this. I did not treat him uh, the way I would have liked to be treated. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I, I talked bad about this guy. Uh, I gathered troops against this guy. And I put all this stuff down uh, on my A-step card, and I gave him a call. And I met with him. And it was like drinking salt water. It was awful. I hated every minute of this. You know, getting in front of this guy who I really perceived hurt me so badly, was attacking me so viciously, to stand in front of this guy and to take responsibility for my part in this was not something that was fun. But But it's important for me to tell you what the outcome was. I did this because... People were expecting me to, you know, my sponsees. Uh, I was expecting myself to do it. It was the right thing to do. If I wanted to be saying that I'm working a 12-step program, damn it, I should be, I should be working that 12-step program and not think, thinking I'm above it. You know, so, so I got down to business and I did it and I stood in front of this guy. And I, you know, I want to tell you that when I was done, and he got in his car and he left. I was free. I was free from that bondage of emotion that the guy had caused me. I couldn't care less about him anymore. I don't wish him harm. I don't. I don't. I don't care. You know. I mean, we've actually we've actually been friendly in the years since. A little bit friendly. But it's not something that preoccupies me anymore. And sometimes it's those resentments that we feel are justified that will get us drunk. Sometimes it's the resentments that build up with people in Alcoholics Anonymous that forces us out of the rooms. When you're new, you are incredibly susceptible to resentments. Because what can happen is you can, just, you can just not like the people in your AA group. And, and you've you got to get yourself to some kind of spiritual safety because sometimes sometimes that makes sense you know so sometimes there's some some real knuckleheads in some of the meetings that that I've gone to uh, but but you don't want to be controlled or dominated by those individuals by holding a resentment against them um, I almost died because of resentment in my first year I was part of a home group for about 90 days, and then I got mad at people in the home group, and I went to another home group, 
And I was with that home group for about six months, and then I got pissed off at that. I came there. You wouldn't believe how they're they're doing this and they're doing that. And so and so's in there. And oh, if I hear if I hear this guy share one more time, I'll kill myself. You know, I got I got to get out of here. You know, this is there's, there's no recovery here. You know, and uh, and so so I switched to another home group. You know, you know what I was doing was I was bringing the problem with me every time. The only thing I did right was get another home group when I left one. You know, at least I kept coming. But you know how many people don't do that? You know how how many people just get mad and then just give up on AA entirely? And without the help of AA, cannot overcome drinking? There's there's so many people that that go through that. And, And it's sad. So... I believe in I believe in what this book says. This book has some time limits in it, folks. Uh, launch next now then. You know these are these these are the words that they use in between the steps. And I still heard things up in New Jersey like, well, you know, my sponsor told me to do a step a year. So it'll take you all year to figure out your problem. It'll take the whole second year to believe that there's a solution for it. The whole third year you'll be deciding to do something about the problem. You know? Does that make any sense to anybody? Oh. But you would hear that. So I believe I believe in addressing these steps the way the book asks us to, with a sense of urgency. If resentments are going to destroy us, then shouldn't there be a sense of urgency about the fourth step? If nothing kills alcoholics more than resentment, shouldn't there be a sense of urgency about getting to a fourth step? So often, so often people think that you have to get better to be able to do the steps. And they don't remember that these steps were, were put into place in this book for low bottom, pull them off the bowery, they're still pissing their pants alcoholics. You know what I mean? They're homeless and, 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 and they're going through the DTs and they're pulling them out of hospitals and booby hatches. You know, these steps are simple enough to be able to address rather quickly. You know, and uh, <clears throat> my belief is that when we seriously want to, when we're desperate, to separate from alcohol, we get a grace period. That's the grace of God. We get a grace period. And we have a period of sobriety. And for some people, that's a matter of days. For some people, it's a matter of years. But that grace lasts only as long as ignorance and inattention to spiritual detail. Um... I think so I think a lot of people that relapse out of Alcoholics Anonymous do so because there was no sense of urgency to move through these steps. They were basically they were, they were basically allowed to languish in the fellowship, not being held accountable to the solution and working the solution. You know, one of the things uh one of the things that I deal with in uh, in my my professional life is um, alerting 
treatment facilities to the efficacy of the 12-step process. They all see that observable, the people who they release, if they become really involved with a 12-step fellowship, there's a higher rate of recovery with those people. But it's very, very difficult for them to quantify it. It's very, very difficult for them to understand it because it's not scientific. A, A spiritual awakening is not really that Scientific. It's very difficult to uh, to observe. And another thing that a lot of these treatment centers think, and they really do think this, is that attendance at AA meetings is being in AA, doing AA. Now our statistics are awful for recovery. They're around six to eight percent of the people who go come through the doors of AA who are still sober five years later. Okay, six eight percent, maybe less. But the fact of the matter is, those statistics are based on the people who walk through the door. They're not based on who has gone through the steps. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed the path. So by allowing somebody to think they're in AA or they're doing AA because they're showing up at meetings is a real disservice to those individuals. Because your chances of just coming to AA and not drinking are about 6%. However, your chances of coming into AA and working through the 12 steps are, rarely have we seen a person fail. You know, that's the difference between night and day, uh, black and white. That's the difference between life and death for some of us. So, again, there should be a sense of urgency. Um, I think that this should be addressed quickly. Um, how soon should somebody be starting on their fourth step? Some people will say when when they stop vomiting. Some people will say, you know, let them let them get detoxed, let them get a, a week or two to clear their head, let them get let them get some treatment. You know, I'm okay. I'm okay with all that stuff. But remember that there's a grace period. And if you're not about the business of the steps before that grace period is over, you relapse. And that's what, that's what I've seen. And, uh, uh, again, I hope everybody in here has done a four-step. If you haven't, uh, please get with somebody with some experience and do it. Uh, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. Uh, this whole program is about freedom, folks. You know, freedom from alcohol, but also freedom from the bondage of self. That's all I got tonight. Thanks. It is really good to be here tonight. Um, I think it's been about seven weeks. I don't know. I've, I've lost. I've lost track. But we spent a lot of time on the first step. We've gone over steps two, three, and four in detail. Uh, a very, very brief synopsis of that material for anybody that ha- hasn't been here the whole time. Um, step one is uh, an admission, a full concession to our innermost selves that we have a brain that will take us back to alcohol. And if we're a drug addict, we've got a brain that will take us back to drugs. No matter how strong the desire to stay separated from that is, no matter, no matter how many reasons we have uh, for not drinking or not using, uh, no, 
no matter how strong our decision is to stay away from alcohol uh, or drugs, we end up back with the alcohol. Uh, we also have a, a body that is, is sickened as well. And how that works is once we start drinking, there are times when we have little or no control over the amount we take. It creates an actual physical craving in our bodies. And uh, the first drink uh, always asks for the second drink, the second drink insists on the third, the third drink demands the fourth. And many, many times we get tongue-chewing, knee-walking, drunk. And that's not what we plant. That would be bad enough uh, if it wasn't for the fact that there's a dash and it says that our lives are unmanageable. And we found that there's both external and internal unmanageability. The externals is all the DUIs and the lost families and and all the problems, the jobs and uh, not being able to manage your money and all the other things that happen uh, with active alcoholism. But there's also the internal unmanageability, which is emotional, basically, and mental and spiritual. And how that works is that on a good day, you're restless, irritable, discontented. Most of the time, you're prey to misery, depression. You're full of fear. Uh, you've got guilt and remorse about the things that went on in the past and anxiety about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and you get to a place sometimes in sobriety, you get to a place where uh, you're just pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized. Uh, and many, many times we, uh, we relapse over that, uh, we take our own life over that, or we get locked up over that. And uh, you take the alcohol away from an alcoholic and don't give them something, uh, a, a spiritual answer. You just take away their alcohol and you're, you're, not, you're not doing them any favors. What, what, you know, the more you learn about alcoholism, the more you see that it's really spiritual in nature. Alcohol is a symptom. And we learned, uh, we learned that, uh, I believe, uh, in the last couple of weeks here. Step two is... Okay, you know, I buy this. I'm in real trouble. I'm in way more trouble than I thought I was. Thanks a lot, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. You've painted me into a corner. Okay, uh, there's a way out. I believe that there's a way out. I believe that there's a power that I can access through practicing spiritual living, which will afford me um, survival from alcoholism. Uh, uh, that That power will enable me to stay separated from alcohol, from drugs, uh, and if, and if I if I practice spiritual living by you know maintaining uh, my spiritual condition, uh, I'll be safe and protected in, in the sunlight of the spirit where I'm safe and protected from the next drink or drug, and the problems in my life uh, start to get solved because I need to fire my manager and get new management. Uh, because me managing my own life didn't work very well. So that manager has to go, and, uh, uh, and the power greater than myself has to come in. And there's many ways that we learn further on in the steps where, where we, uh, we find that we actually do get guidance from the Spirit. Um, I believe that there's a solution. Uh, I'm not real happy about it, but I believe there's a solution. Uh, there's just, you know, it, it, it says these are not easy alternatives to face. Die an alcoholic death, live life along spiritual lines. It's not an easy alternative to face. You, would, you know, if you were sane, it would be an easy alternative to face. You know, you're going to die a horrible death, or you're going to, you know, go to some meetings, practice some steps, help some people out. You know, somebody that's not insane would say, you know, where do I sign up? 
But but we go we go you know tell us a little bit more about that dying an alcoholic death. How exactly do, how exactly does that happen and how much time do I have you know you, you know. Uh, so we're not real happy about step two, but we we need to move you know we need to move forward we need to move forward. So in step three we make a decision to go through these steps to live life along spiritual lines uh, because we are out of plans. This is a plan that has worked for a lot of people. Uh, we reluctantly agree to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God to, to practice these principles uh, in, in all of our affairs. And we move forward. And the first thing they ask us to do is to do an inventory. Uh, what, are our gross, what are our grosser handicaps? What, what are the real problems in our life? And they manifest basically in anger. They manifest in fear. And they manifest in that horrible, uncomfortable, emotional uh, feelings of guilt, shame, and remorse. Those are the things that cripple us. They keep us in the bondage of self, as the book talks about. And we need to inventory these things because we need, we need to gain mastery over them. Now, we're not going to be able to take care of these things on a frontal assault. We can't just say to ourselves, okay, I'm never going to be resentful again. Okay? Done. Next, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, the next time somebody takes your parking space at the grocery store, you're freaking out. You know, we, we don't have, like we don't have the power to stay separated from alcohol, we don't have the power to stay separated from our character defects. We just don't. You know, we can't wish our character defects away. But there's a process that they, the early AAs found uh, for moving past these character defects, outgrowing these character defects, bringing these character defects into you know, a, a manageable area. You know, normal, normal people uh, have normal emotions. Alcoholics are prey to you know, extremes of all kinds. So we need, we need to inventory these things in, steps, uh, in step four. And that's what we went over in the last two weeks. We looked at resentments uh, two weeks ago when we looked at fears. And our conduct, especially our sex conduct, we looked at that last week. And that brings us <clears throat> to chapter six. <clears throat> into action. Now, I, I will mention that <clears throat> being being a, a pseudo intellectual, you know, I always always <laughs> saw myself as an, an intellectual, even though I really had no education to back that up. Um, uh, I wanted to figure this out. Didn't there, didn't everybody in here want to figure this out? Give me, give me the Cliff Note versions. Tell me what I need to know here to get out of this jackpot. You know, so show me how to drink normally, or, or you know, or at least show me how to how to be happy not drinking, uh, and let me get the hell out of here. You know, I mean, that was really that was really my my uh, my first impression. Uh, you know, this chapter doesn't say into thinking. It doesn't say, you know, into understanding. It doesn't say into figuring this thing out. It says into action because they found that action is really the only hope that we have for changing ourselves so fundamentally that we can overcome alcoholism. Uh, one of the reasons why therapeutics don't seem to work very well on alcoholics, like if an alcoholic wants to treat their alcoholism by going to a therapist, um, therapy helps 
a lot of outside issues, and it helps us gain perspective on what's going on in our life. And I'm a I'm a huge supporter of therapy. Uh, my sponsor happens to be a clinical psychologist, and and uh, he does counseling and therapy all day long. I'm all for it, but it. You know, in single-handed combat against alcoholism, therapy is going to get its ass kicked. And the reason is, is because in therapy, they try to help you change your thinking. You know, well, why did you do that, Chris? You know, you know, why did you vomit on that nun? You know, I mean, you know, and so, so I'll go. Sometimes I'll go all the way back to childhood. You know, like, like why I did that, and and I'll start to gain a real perspective in what the heck is going on with my life. But I won't be able to stop drinking. You know, I'll know, I'll know why I'm drinking, but I won't be able to stop. You know, uh, what they found out in Alcoholics Anonymous is is, is is we want to help help you change your behavior. We almost don't care what you think. Have you ever had a sponsor that you, you know you're trying to explain to the sponsor like how you feel about something? Well, 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 I think you know, and your sponsor tells you, look, if I cared what you thought, you know, I'd come to the booby hatch where you live and ask you. I'm, I don't care what you think. I, I, I want to know what you're gonna do. And and uh, you know, I think we've all had people uh, come out us like that. And there's a reason. We, you know, we want your feet. We don't care what you think a lot of times. Okay? Your, your brain is what got you into this mess. You, you know, the, 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 the illness centers in the mind. So a, a sick mind is not going to unsick its own mind. You know, there, there has to be a process where we'll regain perspective. And that happens through behavior modification. The stuff that they ask you to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And here's a, here's a real big action. This is, this is a very, very big action step. Step five. It says, having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our Creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. Steps three and steps four. We have admitted certain defects. We have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. That's a hell of a promise. Think about that. The the things that you have inventoried in your fourth step are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part, which, when completed, will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. Now, for the longest time before I was exposed to a four-step, I knew what I did wrong. But I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a clue about how that manifests in me. When we look at the fourth step, we look at you know who we're angry at, we look at why we're angry, but then we see how it affects our areas of self. Uh, the only way for us to really have a resentment is to have our money, our power, our sex harmed or interfered with. Uh, that's what gets us every single time. So we now know that. But then we do something that we've never done before. We look at our faults in the resentment inventory. In the fear inventory, we look at, uh, we look at the fact that don't we have these fears because self-reliance has failed us. We've been running the show and we're filled with fear. Isn't the reason we're filled with fear because we've been running the whole show? 
And we start to change a little bit of our perception with that. And then in the harms to others inventory, we, we, review the, we review the relationship, we ask ourselves the nine questions, and then we try to put together uh, a sane and sound ideal for our future relationships, for our future sex life. When we see it all like that, it starts to become clearer. Now we have to admit it to somebody. Now, this was difficult for me. Uh, I was always told, never admit anything, even if they've got you on video. You know, I mean, that's the way, that's the way I grew up, you know. And, and so, so put together every single thing in this four step and, you know, meet with somebody and tell them just what kind of a schmuck I am. You know, I, I wasn't really looking forward to this. Now, the first time I did a four step and the first, t- first time I did a fifth step, it, it basically went like this. I didn't have the benefit of a, a big book sponsor. They, they were not available in North Jersey at this time. They, there wasn't such a thing. Um, the book Alcoholics Anonymous had grown so out of favor that it was pretty much replaced with Living Sober and the 12 and 12. So when, 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 you know, when, I, had, uh, when I was up against the four-step, I didn't get any direction. You know, you would you'd raise your hand in a meeting and you'd ask like, uh, "Would anybody in here tell me how I can do a four step?" You know, some old timer would go, "Kid, you do a four step with a pencil." You know, and that's about that's about the best you would get. So, so what do you do? What I did was I went to the twelve and twelve. I went to a bunch of step meetings. You know, I I tried. I got Hazelton guides. I grabbed anything and everything I could find, and I started to put what I thought a four step was together. And basically, it was a life story because I'd been in treatment, and you know they had you do a life story. So I did like a an expanded life story. I listed out some character defects. I listed out some of the things that I did that I never told anybody, and I put this all together, and I met with my sponsor. Uh, we met out in a, out in a park, um, and you know I later real I, th- I thought maybe he wanted to bring me back to nature like like a Yoda kind of experience or something. You know he just wanted to walk his dogs while he was doing the fist step. You know like do, you know kill two birds with one stone. So anyway. Um, Anyway, when I got done reading this thing, I mean, I mean, I was reading it like I am such a scumbag. Oh, you know, and I finally get done with this thing, and two things happened. One was he looked at me and he goes, Chris, you know, that's really not that bad. Like, like every single thing, you know, that really was not that bad. And I want to tell you something. I believe that you were an alcoholic before you put alcohol in your body. You were like a campfire with the coals just just red and when you started drinking it was like throwing gasoline on that campfire and it flared up and it burnt you and everybody around you and and now you know you're doing something about this you're one of the very very few there's a small percentage of people who recognize this problem and really work toward the solution so you should lighten up on yourself a little bit and I started for that exact moment I started to feel like I might be part of this human condition, part of humanity. I felt I felt outside of. I, I felt smaller than. You know, I had the I had the the big ego with the lack of self esteem that a lot of us have, and I just felt apart from. And after finishing that botched up fist step, I started to feel like I was part of 
the human race again. Now, my second time doing a fifth step, I actually had some instruction on how to do the fourth step. So I went to my sponsor with a four-column resentment inventory, you know, uh, an expanded two-column fear inventory, the harm to, the harms to others, emphasis on sex with the nine questions answered and all that. And I went to him and he looked at it and he goes, what the hell is all this? Where's your story? You know, I mean, I mean, it was the first time him or probably anybody else saw it the way the book asks you to do it. And I said, I said, let me just let me just read this. You know, I tried to do it from the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and let me just read it. So he goes, fine, go ahead and read it now. Now, this was a whole different experience for me because I had discovered the exact nature of my defects by doing the four-step inventory. And by sharing that, that was a different experience than my first fifth step. My first fifth step was confessional. I wrote down everything that I already knew. There wasn't any discovering any truth about you know my stock and trade. I wrote down the stuff that I already thought. So it was confessional. It was like going to, to confession if you were a Catholic. It wasn't the same experience as a fist step. And I learned that by doing, doing both of these. When I did the fist step as at using the right inventories, I got, um, I got really clear on what was going on in my life and what I needed to do, the actions I needed to take to be able to truly recover from alcoholism and move forward with my life. Um, This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapters. Uh, This is is perhaps difficult, especially discussing our defects with another person. We think we have done well enough in admitting these things to ourselves. There is doubt about that. In actual practice, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. So, if we've come to all these conclusions and we're not ready or willing to share this, holding nothing back, what they found, their experience was it was insufficient. And you didn't stay sober. Insufficiency means you're going to go back to drinking, usually. But even if you don't go back to drinking, you're going to have untreated alcoholism out the wazoo. That's usually, that's usually what happens. Many of us thought it necessary to go much further. We will be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. The best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. That's the first time they say about, they give you about eight warnings in here. That if you don't do this, you're not going to stay sober and you're certainly not going to recover. There's like eight places in here. You, you think they're, they're serious about this. If they give us like eight warnings right in a row. And I'll show you them. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their life. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they've turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the pro- program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory, all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egotism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves. They had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. I heard heard a fist step the other day. And in it, the individual came over with his resentment inventory, he came over with his fear inventory, he came over with his sex harms inventory, and we read all that. And in the middle of hearing all of these things, I got background. 
You know how that happens. Somebody will go, well, I'm, gonna, I'm about to read you a resentment. Let me just tell you a little bit about this situation. And there'll be some background. Okay? That painted the whole life story picture. So this individual read me the inventories and along with it gave me enough background to get an accurate picture of what his life was like. His life story. And it was an alcoholic life story, let me tell you. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the past, but there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of positive things in the future as we go through this. I I deal a lot with the... uh, the, the, the medical and the treatment uh, uh, world out there for addiction and alcoholism uh, treatment. Uh, I'm involved with it. T- today I, I interviewed an addiction psychiatrist down in New Orleans. And we, you know, we talked for about an hour on all, all the current topics. And I can hold my own with, with these, uh, these kind of guys. I, I can. I've learned enough, uh, I've learned enough about uh, the treatment processes to be able to hold my own. And, uh, and you know, the one thing... Uh, the one thing that's made very, very clear uh, from statistical studies is that nothing is more efficacious for recovery from addiction than the 12-step process. I'll give you a statistic. Treatment, regular 28-day rehab treatment, you know, the run-of-the-mill kind of treatment. There's good treatment centers, there's bad treatment centers, and there's, there's you know, average treatment centers. Uh, aggregate all of these statistics together, and you'll find that 5% of the people that go through treatment are sober five years down the road. There's other studies that have been done uh, within Alcoholics Anonymous where um, for people who have done the fourth and the fifth step, 60% of them are sober five years out. Now, that's pretty significant. That means that it's something like six times more powerful to do a fourth and a fifth step than it is to go to treatment for 28 days. This stuff is powerful. Why aren't the other 40% sober out of that 60%? Because they didn't finish their amends. And they, they weren't praying and meditating on a daily basis, and they weren't working with others. That's usually the reason. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, and that's still true today. The problem is very few people thoroughly follow the path. That's why when somebody says, AA statistics are only 5 to 10%, a lot of times those statistics are based on people who walk through that door. We all know that everybody that walks through that door does not get through all the 12 steps. If they did, our statistics would be be way better. But a lot of times they just come in, take up a chair, you know, uh, uh, weasel around for a while, and, you know, they don't find enough power to stay because they're not doing anything, and they leave and they get drunk and they tell everybody that AA doesn't work. And we get a, we get one more black eye from some moron that that, that, that you know uh, the twelve steps doesn't doesn't take those seriously. More than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. Um, to the outer world, he presents his stage character. We went over this when we were looking at the third step. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. Has anybody ever seen the movie Zelig? It's a Woody Allen movie. This guy's a human chameleon. 
And if he's with Hasidic Jews, he grows a beard and he looks like a Hasidic Jew. If he's with Nazis, all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's like saluting like a Nazi. This guy's a human chameleon. Well, when I saw that movie, it, it touched me a little bit because that's what I did. I tried to fit in so much that if I was over with the Republicans, I was talking Republican stuff. If I was over with the Democrats, I was talking Democratic stuff. You know, I, wa- I, needed, I needed so desperately to be accepted and, and to fit in. Uh, so I have a stage character that I've been using. The inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He's under constant fear and tension, and that makes for more drinking. You know, sometimes I've got to say, thank God for blackouts. You, you know, you know, I, 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 there, there are, I'm sure, things that, uh, that were unbelievably disturbing that I did during blackouts because some of the things that I remember were, were pretty horrific. Um, I, was, I suffered from such shame and such remorse because of the way I acted when I was drinking that I would have to get drunk again to get past it. Does that make any sense? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like you wake up in the morning and you, you vaguely remember some, you know, you, 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 you were grabbing the boss's wife's ass, you know, at the party, really drunk, and you know, you're like, oh my God, you know, I, I've got to go into work today, you know, I, you know, and I think I'll take the day off and, uh, and get drunk. I mean, because you just, you just can't face yourself. You can't face what you've done. Um, and, and, you know, this makes for more drinking. We get caught in a cycle. Psychologists are inclined to agree with us. We've sent thousands of dollars for examinations. Uh, how many people in here paid $100 an hour to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and then lied to them? <laughs> Let the record show 200 of the 600 hands went up. How insane is that? And, and then you complain that they're not doing anything for you. They don't even know you drink. Because when, you, when they ask you, you said, yeah, I have a couple. I just have a couple. You know, you don't tell them you're, you're, you're sucking down four gallons of gallo every day. You know, just had a couple. So they're wondering, they're thinking you're, you're, a, you're a psycho or you got split personality. They don't know what to do with you. We have seldom told them the whole truth, nor we have, have we followed their advice. Um, unwilling to be honest with these sympathetic men, we were honest with no one else. Small wonder many in the medical profession have a low opinion of alcoholics and their chances for recovery. They still have a low opinion of us, folks. Um, there was a study done... Uh, and it was basically a study showing how much compassion the medical doctors have for us. And they, they did this study from first-year interns all the way through third-year residents for doctors. Okay? And they found the first-year intern had a whole lot of compassion for us. And by the time they're third-year residents in a hospital, they can't stand this and want to avoid treating the alcoholic like the plague. And it's because they see us at our most horrific. We come in there and we're begging for help. You know, we're completely out of our minds. And, you know, we get some Librium or something. We start to calm down. And the first thing we think of is, they ain't running things right around here. You know, this is unfair. These other people are unfair. 
and uh, we, we run out of the place with a resentment, you know, and we don't pay our bill. And then two weeks later, we're back. Help me, help me, help me. You, you know, it's, it's hard. Of course they can't stand us. Here's another warning. It says we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long or happily in this world. Do you think they mean we have to be completely honest with somebody if we want to live long or happily in this world? Do you think that's what they mean? Rightly and naturally, we think well before we choose the person or persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. Now, here's where the book shows a little of its dating. Remember, this book was written to be uh, a mail-order recovery process for alcoholism. That's really one of the main points of, of writing this book. They wanted to mail this out. Uh, across the country to as many doctors as they could find. The doctors who were alcoholic would do this stuff, they'd get sober, and they'd start Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. That was really the point. So when they talk about who we should, who we should look for, there are some really good descriptions in here that we should pay, pay mind to. But you've got to also understand that they're expecting this book to land in somebody's hands where there is no Alcoholics Anonymous. There is no sponsors. There are no people who understand what a fifth step is. So... Nowadays, you can't shake a stick without hitting somebody qualified to listen to a fist step. But back when this book was written, there were really only two groups, uh, Akron and New York City. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must, and of course will want, to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. Okay, this is, uh, this is if you're Catholic, you're really... They're really saying in this book that it's your obligation to do this with a priest. But it also says person or persons with whom you're going to take this confidential step. So if you are Catholic, I would recommend doing it with a priest and doing it with a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you're going to get something different from the sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. Very rarely... Are you, are you sharing inventory with a priest? And the priest says something like, Oh, you play with yourself like that? I do that too. You know? It's, it's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? Now, now in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, uh, you're going to get some identification probably. So it's a different experience. Though we have no religious connection, we may still do well to talk with someone ordained by by an established religion. You know, do it with a sponsor and then, then go do it with the priest. Many of the people that I've sponsored have done these, these with priests. You know, you, you, you know it's, it's a good experience. I, th- I think the more of this stuff that you share, the freer you get. See, while we got this stuff all bottled up inside us, and you know, it's it's taken it's taken hold in us, and it you know, negative emotions are coming out of us holding the stuff. That when we share it, we can let it go. This is about freedom, freedom from the bondage of self. So I, I believe I believe in uh, I believe in doing inventory, like it says in this book. And, and sometimes going further, I have experience doing multiple uh, fist steps. In other words, it says, we think well before we, before we decide the person or persons with whom to share this confidential step. So this one time I picked three guys. I, I picked one of my sponsees, I picked, I picked a really good friend of mine and one of his sponsees, and I did a fist step in front of three people, reading it to three people. Now, 
I'm not recommending this. You know, I'm just saying that this was my personal experience. I had an unbelievable experience with this. My ego was stomped down like you wouldn't believe. I was I was so right size. You, you know, you could have put me on a mantle after after this 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 step. I mean, I walked I walked out of there humble. You know, like sometimes sometimes we can fool one person, but when three people are looking at you, you know, it was it was a different story for me. Now, do I do that all the time? No. Uh, it was it was an experience I wanted to have. We often find such a person quick to see and understand our problem. Of course, we will want. We sometimes encounter people who do not understand alcoholics. If we cannot or would rather not do this, we search our acquaintance. If we don't want to go to a priest, we search out our acquaintance or a closed-mouthed, understanding friend. Perhaps our doctor or psychologist will be the person. It may be one of our own family, but we cannot disclose anything to our wives or parents which will hurt them or make them unhappy. I would recommend against doing a fifth step with your parents. You know, and, uh, and, and, and be very careful about doing one with your spouse, too. You know? um, we're trying to get free. We're, we're not trying to alienate. We have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. So if the information that we share is going to harm them, that's, that's not part of what this is supposed to be about. Such parts of our story we tell to someone who will understand yet be unaffected. All right, if you've got, if you've got a murder or something, okay, tell that, tell that to a priest. You know, uh, you know sometimes, sometimes you have to have some tact and you have to have some common sense. There was a lawsuit... Um, there was, an, there was a, a law action that happened up around our area in New Jersey. It was basically this individual, you know, shared something with 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 somebody about um, uh, about a murder, and it was found that um, it was found in this one case. Uh, there's a couple of cases that went either way. It was found in this one case that you don't have the same rights as a priest if you're a sponsor. You don't have the same rights uh, of, of confidentiality if you're called into court and asked to testify under subpoena. You know, a priest can say, you know, priestly confidentiality, and, and that's cool. As a sponsor, you may or may not, depending on what court system you're in, have that. So sometimes you just you need to be, you need to be smart about it. About this stuff, uh, you know, you might be you might be dragging somebody into something that they may not want to be dragged into. The rule is that we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. Notwithstanding the great necessity for discussing ourselves with someone, it may be that someone is so situated that there's no suitable person available. And this can happen, you know, if you're a lighthouse keeper in Greenland or something. I mean, you know, listen, anybody that's been to the international conventions has seen the tables for the loners, okay? You ever heard of loners in AA? They stay sober by writing letters back and forth to each other. There are no meetings where they are. They cannot get to meetings because there aren't any. There's like 10,000 of them that show up every five years at the International Convention. And that's their first meeting in five years. You know, you, 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 know, you, can, you can be in a position where, there, where you're not going to have an AA member available. It says, if that is so, the step must may be postponed. Only, however, if we hold ourselves in complete readiness to go through with it at the first opportunity. We say this because we're very anxious that we talk to the right person. It is important that he be able to keep a confidence... 
that he fully understand and approve what we're driving at, and that he will not try to change our plan. Those are three specifics that the other person that's going to be listening to your fifth step needs to understand. And it's okay to tell that person. It's okay to, if you're doing a fifth step with somebody, go, you know, you, you do understand that this is confidential. You know, you do understand that you're not going to you're not going to be trying to change my plan, and you know what I'm doing here, right? This is a life and death errand. You understand that, right? It's okay to ask somebody that, um, but we must not use this as a mere excuse to postpone. Now, here's our instructions. When we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. We have a written inventory, and we're prepared for a long talk. Uh, we explain to our partner what we're about to do and why we have to do it. He should realize that we are engaged upon a life and death errand. Most people approached in this way will be glad to help. They will be honored by our confidence. Notice that it says we are prepared for a long talk. One of the things that I've seen a lot of my contemporaries do is try to edit down your fifth step. In other words, they see you coming over with a stack of papers like this and they go, Oh my God, <laughs> this is going to be ten hours. And, and what they try to do is say, Just read the first few. You know, I, I get it, I get it. It says in here that they need to be prepared for a long talk. So if they're going to try to edit you down, you may be picking the wrong person. Find somebody who's going to give you enough time. Now, on some occasions, I've had to do this on multiple days. Uh, you know, the, the longest inventory I ever, I ever heard was 22 hours. Now, that's not normal, but that's the longest one I heard. And that had to be done on multiple days. I couldn't stay awake that long. And, you know, people get really, you know, they get real attitude when you fall asleep on them when they're doing their fist step with you. That has happened to me. Uh, I'll, sh I'll share a really good one. Uh, there was a period of time in the late 90s where it was just step people going through the steps at the Schroeder house, like, you know, in and out all weekend long, you know, two or three nights a week, step work going on. And, and I thought to myself, there's this guy, this guy Gene, and I know I gave him, I gave him the instruction to be ready for the fist step. I'm going to call him up. So I call him up and I say, Gene, get over here. We've we got to do your fist step and we're going to do it tonight. The guy comes over, he's got, his, he's got his inventory, and he sits down, and he starts to read. And by the fourth or fifth uh, resentment, I start, to, I start to get a feeling of deja vu. Okay, I start to realize that I've already heard all this. I'd forgotten he did a fist step with me two weeks earlier, and I dragged him over and made him do it again. So he's sitting there, and he's doing this whole thing again. Now, you know, I'm, I'm always honest. I'm always up front. So basically what I told him was, you know, Gene, in cases like yours, I like to go over this stuff twice, just in case we don't, we don't, we don't miss anything. You know, you know. So I didn't want to look stupid. Well... I am not kidding. I'm not kidding you when I say this. He moved to Florida, and he's known as as as, as two fist step Gene, because <laughs> he makes everybody do it. Uh, oh God. <laughs> Uh, I saw no real harm in it, so. You know. oh, God. All right, he's going to hear this tape and want to kill me. Uh, all right, here's some more instructions for us. This is what we need to do. 
We pocket our pride and go to it. Okay, forget about your ego. Forget about your pride. This is read what's down on the paper. Just read. You know, ask God for the strength and the courage to read this stuff, and do not edit. Uh, we need to illuminate every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Now, here are some of the fifth step promises. You know, we're always and forever hearing about the promises of AA. And, and when you hear somebody say the promises of AA, what they mean is the ninth step promises. If you've been painstaking about the ninth step, you know, you'll know a new freedom and a new happiness, etc., etc. They leave out the part that you have to get halfway through the, ni- you know, the, the first nine steps. You've got to be halfway through the ninth step before those promises are guaranteed to start to materialize. Well, every single one of these action steps has promises. And here's some of the fifth step promises, and they're awesome. Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We don't have to hang our heads anymore walking up the street or walking through the mall because we're afraid we're going to you know, bump into somebody. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. That's an incredible promise. Back when I was drinking, I would have a big bottle of bourbon in front of me. I'd have the TV on. I'd have the stereo playing. I'd have a guitar in my lap, and I'd be reading a magazine. And I'd be talking on the phone. I mean, you know, I couldn't be alone at perfect peace and ease. I was out of my mind. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We start to feel the presence of God. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Now understand that the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will come strongly. It doesn't disappear until step 10. We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Those are great promises. Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. This is the returning home part of the fifth step, and it's important. Taking this book down from our shelf, we, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. And uh, that, that page basically is, uh, uh, let's see, is page 58, 59, and 60. Uh, <clears throat> Carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we've omitted anything, for we're building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. So in this hour, we need to start learning how to meditate. And again, I think I mentioned last week that when they talked about meditation in this book, they really meant more contemplation, really, than meditation. They didn't want you to just sit there with an empty head like like the Eastern mystics do. They wanted you to think about something at a deep level. So in our meditation, in our hour quiet time, we're asking ourselves, did we leave anything out of the first five steps? Is there any part of this process that we haven't done completely? And it's very, very important that you know we are able to answer truly to ourselves, yes. Now, when I'm doing fifth steps with someone, I always tell them, I'm going to be home. You, you go do your quiet hour. You need to go home. You need to go to a church. If, if you have a crazy household, go to a church. Go someplace where you can be quiet for an hour, and I will be by my phone. If in meditation you come up with anything that you need to share with me that you left off of your inventory, I'm available. And every once in a while, someone will call. Something will come to them. But most of, the, most of the time, they get through the quiet hour, and they're able to say, yes, I've done the best I can with these first five steps. 
Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? Again, Bill uses construction references because he's telling us we're building an arch through our actions, through the, through the spiritual exercises of the steps. We're building an arch through which when we go through, we're going to be free. The step process is about freedom. It's not about staying sober a day at a time, no matter what. Even if my ass falls off, I'm going to stay sober. That's not what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. It's about showing a way that you can be free. You can be free of, uh, of uh, the, the damaging symptoms of alcoholism. You're always going to have alcoholism, but the symptoms, the stuff that affects your quality of life, can be, uh, can be put in remission. And that's really what this is about. Um, it's great news. You know, I, I always sold myself short in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know, for a long, long time, I sold myself short. I was looking at AA as a way to stay sober. I wasn't giving it credit for being a way to recover from alcoholism. I really thought that what I needed to do was come to AA and be encouraged on a daily basis to stay sober. Because you're all going to tell me, just stay sober one day at a time. You know, Chris, we need you. Please keep coming. You know, let's, let's not drink. And, and that's what I thought Alcoholics Anonymous was offering. And I was selling myself short. I don't know, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing a couple of things, so I might have shared this story somewhere, but, uh, you know, I'm going to share it again, and if I've shared it here, uh, I apologize. But I want to I talk about the difference between uh, a fellowship of sobriety and a program of recovery. And this is, a, this is a story my friend Charlie Parker shares. Charlie's a really good friend of mine, and he lives, uh, he lives in Texas. And he has been a Dallas Cowboy fan forever, his whole life. I mean, you know, you walk into his office, and all there are is, like, Dallas Cowboy posters. I mean, this guy is a fan. And he's gone to every single home game for the past, like, 40 years. And he starts to sponsor this, this rich kid. Okay, this the, this kid who's just out of rehab, and he's got a lot, his family's got a lot of money, big Dallas money, and the kid goes, "Hey, Charlie, I know that you're a fan of the Cowboys. Would you like to? You know, we've got a skybox. Would you like to go watch the game up in the skybox with my family?" And Charlie goes, "Sure. You know, why not?" And he says, you drive to this really nice parking lot. It's not the main parking lot where everybody's tailgating. It's a special private parking lot. And then you go in and there's these beautiful escalators and everybody's handing you cheese and, and, and sparkling water. And you go up this escalator and there's beautiful music playing and you walk out and you go out and you sit in this skybox and there's waiters and waitresses just ready to give you anything. And it's really civilized and you can see the field really well, and it's quiet because there's no crowd noise, and it's a whole other experience for him. And what Charlie said to himself was, he didn't know whether he should, be, he should be pissed off that he was sitting in the cheap seats for 40 years, or be grateful that he found a better way. 
And a lot of times that's how we are in Alcoholics Anonymous, when we perceive the fact that this really isn't just a fellowship about sobriety, it's a program of recovery, we start to see that there really is a lot more to offer than what we've, uh, you know, what we've, uh, what we've gone after. You know, we have shortchanged ourselves. Now, there's two schools of thought for doing a fourth and a fifth step. The one school of thought is, is you do a fourth and a fifth step once, and then you live in 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of your life. And that comes from, uh, that school basically was started by Clarence Snyder and some other people that go way, way back. But there's another school of thought. If you read in the 12 and 12, there's a, there's a statement that says, many of us go in for annual or semi-annual house cleanings. Now what a house cleaning is, is it's basically from step 3 through step 9. That really is what a house cleaning is. So Bill was saying, many of us, he didn't, he didn't say all of us or we have to, he said many of us go in for annual or semi-annual house cleanings. Now I've done that. I've done that. There are periods of time where I've done, you know, gone through the steps two times in a year. Uh, I haven't been through the steps in, in a while now, but there was a period of time where I went through them uh, quite often. Uh, between 1995 and probably 2000, I went through them five or six times. And each time I went through them, there was a new benefit. There was a new place. Uh, there was a new place where I stood. Um, there was there was more stuff that I got free of. So often, so often, this stuff is like an onion. You can only peel so many layers back. You don't become aware of all of your character defects in one shot. Sometimes it's a lifetime process. Yeah, our glaring character defects are above the horizon where we can see them and everybody else can see them. But sometimes after some years in AA, some years working a program, really trying to change and apply these things in our life, sometimes our character defects are now a little bit below the horizon. They're harder for us to see. They don't manifest themselves in, 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 you know, in, in major ways where they get our attention. And sometimes when we do a, a fourth and a fifth step at year 10 or year 20, we're dealing with different stuff than at year 1. Now, if you're the type of person who lives in 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis and has only done the fourth and the fifth step once, and that's working for you, that's what you should do. Um, I have experienced multiple um, inventories. I've experienced multiple times through the steps. And I'm glad that I did. Because, again, each time it took me to a new place. And I have to admit, I am not an expert on you know, maintaining everything through 10, 11, and 12. Stuff gets past me. And with the annual or semi-annual house cleaning, you can, get, you can catch the stuff that got past you. And if you're a person who lives in 10, 11, and 12, you can deal with it in 10, 11, and 12 when you catch up with it. Uh, either way is fine. As long as we're applying ourselves, as long as our, we're, we're applying ourselves to the, to the best of our any given ability at any given time. Now... Being that we're going after freedom, um, there's two sets of steps that really get us to that freedom. I believe four and five, and I believe eight and nine. 
Now we're going to be talking, next week we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, steps 6 and 7. There's only two paragraphs in our book on 6 and 7. In the step book, uh, Bill uh, expands his ideas on step 6 and 7, and there's some good information in there. But I understand steps 6 and 7 today. They're very appropriate for right after you've done an inventory. Right after you've done an inventory, you become willing to have the defects of character that you've seen in that inventory removed, and you ask God to remove them. You know, those are very, very logical steps. We want to move away from the things that have been blocking us off from God and the things that have been roadblocks to our quality of life. We, you know, we want to move away from our handicaps. These are the things that hurt us. Now, a lot of times in a, in a four-step meeting, you'll hear somebody say, well, I inventory my, you know, my good points, too. I don't just inventory my bad, I inventory my good points, too. And I don't really see a problem with that either. But understand, it's not, it's not the good things that are going to get you drunk. It's not the good things that are going to kill you. So really the important thing is to see the character defects. See the things that are blocking you off from the sunlight of the Spirit and keeping you, uh, keeping you in, uh, in active uh, alcoholism. It's very, very hard to describe what goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous because it's a spiritual program. Uh, it's not a theory. We have to live it. So it's very, very difficult to explain to somebody who doesn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, how does it work? How does it really work? And you know, the, the, only, the only way uh, I think I can get my hands around this is if I participate in the maintenance of my spiritual condition, I will be placed in the spiritual atmosphere where the sunlight of the Spirit can can beam down on me and keep me safe and protected and keep me going in the right direction and help me move away from my character defects and start to become the type of person that that God would want me to be. Now, how exactly does that work? You know, it, it's it's difficult to quantify, but it but it's observable. We see it happening all the time. And the person who's on the debating society that just can't get to these steps because they just don't understand why they work. Uh, You have to explain to me how and why this works before I do it. Those people are like the people on the Titanic who won't get in the lifeboat until they find out who the hell was in charge of looking for icebergs. You know what I mean? I ain't going nowhere until I figure out what the hell happened here. Who cares? You know, we've got a lifeboat that keeps you afloat. Jump. Jump in the boat. Get in the boat with us and, and, you know, get off of the debating society because you can be so smart in here that you, that you kill yourself. You know, uh, sometimes, sometimes, it, sometimes it's the dumb guy that's just too stupid to argue with his sponsor that gets sober. And the intellectual who's got to figure it all out, who, who you know, it never gets sober. So, you know... Understand that it's the actions that bring about the recovery. And if we, if we do to the best of our ability what it's asking us to do in this book, we've got a real good chance of never drinking again. And we've got a really good chance of having every year be better 
as far as our quality of life is concerned. Uh, that's all I got tonight, guys. Uh, it's great to be here tonight. I have really enjoyed this uh, this commitment and uh, and the people uh, in the Winston Salem area. The, the, this particular group, um, I've been to AA in a lot of different places, and uh, you know this is good AA, good warm, friendly clubhouse type AA, and uh, uh, I uh, I so appreciate it. I want to I want to start off tonight reading something from the pamphlet. Uh, problems other than alcohol. This, pla- this pamphlet was uh, was written by Bill W. It had, it's been changed over the years, but um, but he basically wrote this himself to address certain issues. But what I want to read is just a couple of sentences from it. This is on like page two of the pamphlet. Uh, problems other than alcohol. Sobriety. Freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of an AA group. Groups have repeatedly tried other activities and they have always failed. Uh, The teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of any AA group. This is probably an area where uh, a lot of contemporary Alcoholics Anonymous groups fall short. Uh, they're not teaching uh, and they're not practicing uh, the the twelve steps the way um, the way maybe some of the earlier members back in the day would have uh, would have done it. Um, if if to thoroughly follow the path allows us to rarely fail, then teaching and practicing that path should be very, very important to us. Uh, yet Alcoholics Anonymous, a, a, a lot of meetings that I've gone to, especially up around the Northeast, really fail to um, you know, even use the recovery process as a topic sometimes. A lot of times the topics are things that are kind of irrelevant uh, to a solution. Uh, to alcoholism. And again, you know, when I showed up in North Carolina, I was really, really pleased. Uh, practically every meeting I've gone to has been solution-based. And, um, and I think you've got a higher degree of survivability if you're an alcoholic and you land at a meeting in North Carolina than in a lot of other places. You know, I've been to, I've been to AA in many other countries, and uh, there are countries that are actually hostile to the book Alcoholics Anonymous. A few European countries basically make the statement that the big book movement so prevalent in America is for our particular, uh, uh, our particular case outside the scope of RAA. You know, there's two, there's two countries that I know of that actually make that statement. And when you think about it, how do you, how do you take the basic text out of uh, a society uh, that's based on it Uh, It doesn't make any sense. It would be like saying, you know, you can come into this calculus class, but don't be bringing your textbook with you. You know, we don't want you quoting any uh, any facts and figures. We just want your opinion on calculus. You you know, it wouldn't make any sense. And uh, you know, so there there are some countries that really need to need to uh, uh, gain a little bit of maturity to get to the point where uh, they're going to be efficacious for alcoholics that show up. Uh, They're going to be a place where the alcoholics can can really uh, really find a solution now 
Last week we went over, basically went over step five. I'm going to pick it up down here uh, on the bottom of page 75 into action. Uh, returning home, uh, this is what I stopped with. There's, a, there's an exercise after you do the fifth step, and it's called the returning home exercise. And that's basically where uh, we, we, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, and we do a guided meditation. And what that guided meditation is about is we need to ask ourselves, are, are we covering everything? Are we being thorough with this recovery process? Did we leave anything out of step four or step five? You know, do we really do we really believe that we're an alcoholic? Do we really believe that there's a solution uh, and that, that there's a power greater than ourselves that we can hook into? Did we really make a decision? Uh, to go after the connection with that higher power. Um, and when I'm working the steps with somebody, what I'll usually do is I'll usually say, look, uh, if during your meditation you come up with anything um, that, that you were... You know, you didn't put in your fourth step. You didn't tell me in the fifth step. If there's anything that you have any questions with, I'll, I'll be available on the phone. Uh, because sometimes, it's rare, but sometimes in the, in the uh, quiet hour, some people will come up with something that, you know, they had left out. Or they'll, they'll get the courage to finally share the thing. You know, a lot of us have in our fifth step the thing, you know. And that's, that's the thing that we just really are going to have a hard time uh, admitting. And, uh, um, you know, to get past that is really, really a good thing. I'm going to move on to page top of page 76. If we can answer to our satisfaction that we've done the absolute best we can with the first five steps, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. In other words, in the third step, we really became willing to go to any lengths. We were shown what any lengths were by this book. One of the things that uh, I, I, I have a problem with is before I knew what was going on, people were asking me, are you willing to go to any lengths? And I didn't know what any lengths looked like. Uh, you know, I'm wondering, well, what does that mean? Am I going to have to sell flowers at the airport, you know? Well, what, what is that? Am I going to have to be celibate for the next 50 years? What exactly does that mean? And again, a lot of times what we need to do is we need to offer our, our prospects or the people that we're working with, offer them the dignity of understanding what any length means. And that's, that's, uh, that's covered in, uh, in the next chapter, which is basically working with others. Before we start taking people through the steps, we're to have them read this volume. Uh, and then we can ask them, are you willing to go to any length? Because they're going to then know what any length looks like. Uh, are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things that, which we have admitted are objectionable? This is a question. This is a step six question. Now, it's pretty easy to say yes to this, especially when we've just gone through step four and step five. In step four, we li- we've listed out every character defect, every problem, every issue that we have. We've, we've you know, filled that out in step four, and then we've shared it in step five. It's right in front of our face, these things that caused our failure at life, the things that we're ashamed of, the things that we really wish we, we, we hadn't done. They're all staring us right in the face because we've just done a step four and a step five. So when we ask ourselves, are, are we... Uh, 
uh, you know, are we ready to 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 let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable, it's easy to say yes. But like a lot of steps, we can only take it where we can take it now. Uh, Can He now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. This is basically step six. If we're hanging on to anything... That's okay, we can continue to move forward, but we need to start to ask God for the willingness to let that particular thing go. I want to tell a story that kind of illustrates illustrates this. Um, at, at a certain level, we are, we are ready to let God remove defects of character from us. Okay, the, the things that cause us harm, we're ready to let go of. But there's some other things that we may not be completely willing to deal with right now. And I'm going to tell a story that kind of illustrates this. Uh, Little Joey, he's maybe about six years old, okay, he starts to get a toothache. Now, he knows if he goes to his mother and says, Mom, I've got a toothache, what will happen is he'll get the, he'll get the aspirin crushed up, um, you know, uh, uh, he'll, he'll be given the aspirin, he'll be maybe put to bed early, and the toothache will go away. He understands that. But he doesn't go to his mother and tell his mother that he's got a toothache. What happens is he tries to keep it to himself. He tries to just, you know, hopefully it'll go away. And it's about 10 o'clock at night and he's in bed and he still can't sleep. And now he's finally got to go up and he's, he's got to get out of bed and go tell his mother he's got a toothache and it hurts. Now, why didn't he tell her right away? He knows that he would get the aspirin that would take away the toothache. Well, the reason he didn't go to his mother right away, because he knows that, yes, the toothache will go away, but tomorrow morning there'll be a call made to Dr. Mengele, the dentist. And he's going to be shuffled off to the dentist, and he's going to go in there, and he's going to be strapped down in the seat, and you know, there's going to be drills and suction and, and pokers and smoke and blood. And you know, finally, after two or three hours, he's going to get out of that dentist chair, and he's going to have perfect teeth. Okay, he knows he's going to have perfect teeth. But that's why he doesn't tell his mother, because he doesn't want perfect teeth. He just wants the toothache to go away. And a lot of times that's us. We don't want to be perfect people. We just don't want to have problems anymore. You know what I mean? So so we can take this step at a certain level, yes. But we need to remember that the things that we're not willing to let go of, we need to pray for the willingness to let go of them. Agnosticism. Agnosticism is basically this. Ag means none, and gnosis means knowledge. So basically, agnosticism means we we just don't have any knowledge of. Current agnosticism, as it can be applied in Alcoholics Anonymous, is basically not believing that God will work in this specific area of your life. God will not bring you to a better place in this specific area of your life. In other words, if I let God in and start to get, try to get direction from God about my job, They'll step all over me because it's you know because it's a it's a battlefield out there. I'm in sales. I can't be a wuss. You know I've got I've got to be an animal out there. You know so I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna follow spiritual principles at work. 
You know, that's agnosticism. Not believing that God is going to take you to a better place. How about your sex life? I don't know about you, but I wasn't real happy to say, okay, you know, God's going to now be in charge of my sex life. I was worried I'd never get laid again if God was, if God was going to be in charge of my sex life, you know? Hold on a minute here. Let's, um, let's not go crazy with this stuff. You know what I mean? But that's current agnosticism. How, how do I know? You know what? what if, I, if, not, if I'm not willing to let God direct me in that area, how do I know? How do you know what you don't know? So if I'm not willing to let let God in on my work or, or my sex life or whatever, family life, whatever, then I need to be willing to ask to be willing, and that's really uh, that's really step six. When ready, we say something like this. My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. Understand, we're moving through this stuff pretty quickly. Now, now... Do you just go right through step six and seven and take about a minute and a half with it and and never look back on it? I don't believe so. I believe step six and step seven are part of a lifetime process. I think I get put in front of my character defects. I get put in front of the the selfishness and the self-centeredness that I still have because it's not completely removed. I get put in front of that all the time. So I am going to be facing these character defects, and I'm going to be facing becoming willing to have God remove them and then humbly asking God to remove them for quite, quite some time. But initially, as I go through the steps, I can move through these fairly quickly. A mistake I made uh, early on, a mistake I made when I was going through the steps the first time, and I, I just I didn't have any clear guidance um, in my area. That you, you just kind of you winged it when it was when it was time for you to go through the steps. You just kind of kind of winged it because there really nobody knew what what, what they were doing. Uh, AA in my area had devolved into a fellowship of sobriety and forgotten that it's actually a program of recovery. It just had, and so. I decided after I did my first fifth step that I would work on my character defects. Has anybody in here ever done that? Worked on your character defects? How'd that work out for you? <laughs> you know, I believe I'm powerless over my character defects, just like I'm powerless over alcohol. If I could just decide to be unselfish, I would have probably tried it a long time ago. If I could have gotten rid of my anger or my anxiety or or any other number of character defects or issues that I had, I probably would have done so a long time ago. I'm not stupid. I knew that these character defects were causing me problems in my life, but I couldn't seem to get away from them. You know, has anybody in here ever seen the game Whack-A-Mole? Yeah. You take a mallet and a mole's head will stick up and you'll, you'll try to whack that mole, but the mole will drop down and another one will pop over you. You go over here, trying to, another one's popping up over here. 
that's that's what it was like with me trying to work on my character defects. You know, one day I'd say, I'm not going to be selfish today. You know, I'd make it about an hour and a half until I got in front of somebody, and then I'd be selfish. You know, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And I was struggling to try to become better become a better person and it just didn't work what I was doing was I was just whacking the mole and my sponsor told me one time Chris if you keep whacking the mole you could go blind (laughs) (laughs) so understand understand that um, you don't have you don't have the power to recreate yourself. This is not a self-help program. This is a God-help program. When you see this book in the self-help section, you know that's the wrong place for it. Because if we could, if we could have helped ourselves, we would have done so a whole lot longer ago than now. You know what I mean? What, what this is is we, we lack the power. We don't lack the intelligence. We don't lack the fortitude. You know, we don't lack we don't we don't lack the desire. We lack the power. Lack of power is our dilemma. So we need to we need to we need to capture that power. We need to get close to that power. We need to align ourselves with that power so that the recreation of our life can start to take place. And if you if you read the if you read the twelve and twelve, the twelve and twelve is very, very good with um uh, with steps 6 and 7. There's a lot of expanded ideas in the 12 and 12. Uh, I still think it's, it's very simple to take these steps. But I like what Bill writes in there. He writes a lot about humility. Humility really being defined for what, what we see it as in Alcoholics Anonymous. Humility being an accurate self-appraisal. Not not seeing yourself as less than what you are, not seeing yourself as more than what you are, inaccurate self-appraisal. Now, my last drunk started somewhere around December 24th, 1989. And it lasted till somewhere around December 28th. 1989. It was like a five-day drunken blackout, and it was absolutely horrible. And what happened? To, what happened to me was when I was going through the DTs, I got to a point where I couldn't live with alcohol anymore. I couldn't live without it. I, I had to stop drinking. If you're alcoholic, you understand what I mean. There comes times when you just have to sober up. And I'm in the process of, of, of separating from alcohol and going through all the DTs and everything that, in, that that involved. And I remember laying back on a couch and, and, you know, I'm hallucinating and I saw a demon come out of the ceiling. This demon was coming down to eat my face. It was like a big bull head. You know, I could, I could see the snot coming out of its nose. I mean, this was real, you know. I'm, I'm sitting there hallucinating. And I screamed. I screamed, God, help me! Like, you know, like, like just from the depths of my soul, you know, this, this, this moved me. It scared me to death. I thought this thing was going to drag me off to hell. I really did. And I screamed... In utter desperation, God, please help me. And I haven't had a drink since then. You know that that was that was the last drink of alcohol I had was prior to prior to that experience. Now I believe God hears these prayers. 
I believe that, that there's a connection between our ability to move away and separate from something. I believe that there's a connection to our desperation and our humility and our honesty and accessing the power that allows us to do so. Does that make any sense? Now, I think in in the 12 and 12, Bill is kind of asking us to look at our character defects like we would look at our alcohol. Yes, God separated from us, us from alcohol, but can He separate us from some of these grosser handicaps? I believe is is kind of what it says in in, in that book, and I believe that we need to look at separating from these character defects with the same kind of humility. We can't go into this thinking that we can do it. You know, it's it's my job. I'm just gonna be. I'm just gonna do a better job. That's not humble. That's not from humility. Humility would basically be admitting our defeat. If if we if we could have done better with these things, wouldn't we have? You know, we're not stupid. We we don't lack intelligence. We lack power. So we're going to God, asking God for the power. You know, help me, help me with this stuff because I just can't seem, I can't seem to do it on my own. I can't seem to become a better person. I can't seem to grasp this spiritual living the way I should. I keep retreating back into selfishness and self-centeredness. Help me. Now, there are many people in here who are parents, right? Everybody, everybody in here kind of understands what, what, it, what it's like to be a parent. If you don't, you understand what it's like to be a kid. Think for a minute. Let's say, let's say you had a young, a young son about eight years old. And that young son came up to you and said something like this, Dad or Mom, listen, I know I haven't been a very good kid. I know that I could have done a better job, uh, you know, I should have done a better job with a lot of things. I know that I'm a little selfish and, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't do enough of the things that I need to do. Would you help me to be a better kid? Could I come to you for guidance and direction on what I should be doing and how I should be doing it? Can I rely upon you to help me become a better kid? What wouldn't you do for a child that would come up to you and say something like that? You know, it's probably unheard of, <laughs> something like that happening. But what, what, what would you not do for your child if they came to you in that, with that kind of humility? Really, honestly wanting to just be a better kid. I think that's what it's like when we go to God with this stuff. God, help us be a better, better person. When you look at the prayer for step seven, it's a selfless prayer. We're asking that God remove the defects of character that stand in the way of our usefulness to God and to our fellows. Not the things that bother us. It's a very selfless prayer. And I believe this stuff happens. My first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was terrified. I had social anxiety phobia like you wouldn't even believe. I sat in the meetings hoping nobody would call on me. Scared to absolute death of raising my hand and sharing. And I actually started forcing myself to go to meetings where they went around the room. Because I knew I I had to learn to share. 
I knew that that was necessary, so I put myself in meetings where they would call on me. Because, and then when I finally started raising my hand to share, it was something. It was like this. Oh my Chris! Oh God! I mean, you know, my self-esteem was just so shot. I was just so. I had such anxiety about about talking in front of more than one or two people. Now that all that almost got removed right away, moving through this step work, because it blocked me off from God and my fellow man. How am I going to be any good at all if I can't even talk? So that's one of the character defects that got removed. But there were other character defects that I wanted to be removed. And I was praying for them to be removed. But maybe maybe I wasn't willing, or maybe it wasn't quite time. You know, I don't think any of us become perfect in Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of glad of that. Because I don't know about you, but I don't really like perfect people. You ever met somebody that's perfect? It's horrible. You know? I mean, seriously, a lot of times it's our imperfections that make us lovable. So, the defects of character that get removed are not always the ones that we want removed when we want them removed. We still have to participate in this process and let God decide you know, what's going to change and, and what isn't. And what we have to do is we have to stay in the right spiritual atmosphere for these changes, these defects of character to be removed. And the best possible spiritual atmosphere to be in for the removal of your character defects is to become willing to make direct amends to the people and institutions where your character defects have caused harm. And then actually go out and make direct amends to the people and institutions that your character defects have harmed. Now, you know, this isn't something that I was really looking forward to, you know, when I first came into AA and saw the steps up on the wall. I'm like, I'm like, you know, make direct amends to all those people. You have got to be kidding me. How is that relevant? You know, um, it's relevant in a very, very uh, important and powerful way. I want to tell the story of... Uh, a guy I sponsor, and I got a call from him today. I don't hear from him much anymore, uh, but he's still doing great. He's working with other alcoholics. He's, the call was not about him. It was about you know this guy that I'm working with. How should I handle this? You know, he's just a, just a great great AA. He's also he's also an NA member, and you know he's also a really strong church member. And his whole life is about you know helping people. And when I was first working with him. Um, I'm actually uh, I'm actually coming out of a store. We went into a store before a meeting, and I saw him pocket something, you know. And when we get outside, I'm like I'm like, what? Are, you 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 stole something. You put something in your pocket. And he's like, no. I'm like, you took you took something. You, you took something from from the Seven Eleven and put it in your pocket. What'd you do? He goes he goes, oh, that's just that was the stuff in the front. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean it's the stuff in the front? He goes, oh yeah, you know, they put it there. They got budgets. They know you're going to take it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, Dad, no, 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 no. You stole from it. He goes, oh, I've been doing that my whole life. I'm like, I'm like, I want you to go home and I want you to think about what you were doing. 
And he comes back. He comes back. He's listening. He's a good AA. He's working through the steps with me. And he comes to the conclusion that yes, it was stealing. You know, it was a mild form of stealing, but it was stealing. <laughs> and uh, and because he was willing to go to any lengths, he became willing to go and make amends to to all of these stores that he had stolen from. So we got a list together of all the stores, and he he made a value judgment. He's listen. This guy's making a lot of money. It's like the biggest mason in New Jersey, you know. So he's making a lot of money. So we put together how much he probably stole from all these places, and he went around and he started paying these places back. You know, I've been stealing for 20 years, you know, off your front counter. Here's some money. You know, and he went around and he made direct amends to all these places. Now let me ask, let me ask you a question. Do you think he still steals when he goes into 7-Elevens? No way! This experience has changed him. The best possible spiritual atmosphere that you can be in for the removal of a character defect is to become willing to make amends where that defect has caused harm and actually go out and make amends where that defect of character has caused harm. This shows God you know, a level of humility that just by saying, God, you know, keep me out of the jackpot, does not. You know, you're willing to you're willing to take action, and it's that action that enables you to recreate your life. All right, let's start reading. Let's read a little bit about step eight here. Now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. There's a transitional sentence or so in between every step, and it's always pushing us forward. It's always next we launched, or or you know you know now, or or you know uh, right here it, sa- it says we need more action, or because faith without works is dead. In other words, just thinking about this stuff, we will die. We need to actually take action on this stuff. Uh, let's look at steps eight and nine. We have listed all persons we have harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. Um, a lot of times back in the day, uh, where, when I was getting sober, sponsors or people that you did fist steps with told you to burn the fist step when you were done with it. Okay, as soon as you do the fist step, you know, burn it and the ashes can go up to God. Well, you're kind of screwed when you get to step eight if you burned your inventory. Because you're using, you're using a lot of the material off of it to put together your eight-step list. Um, where, do, where does it come from? It comes from column four in the resentment inventory. Where were you selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, or frightened? It comes from uh, it comes from the fear inventory of basically who did you harm by having the fear? You need to look at all your fears to see who who was in the line of fire, who suffered because you had those fears, and then in the harms to others, the sex inventory. Answering those nine questions: Who did we hurt? You know, how did we hurt them? Uh, we can we can take all of that information and turn it into an A-step list. We subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We at least attempt to repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which is accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. 
If we haven't the will to do this, if we still have a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of anxiety about going back to old bosses, you know, old boyfriends or girlfriends, going back to you know, uh, ex-wives or ex-husbands, or going going back to friends that we screwed over, or places that we stole from, or robbed from, or whatever. If we still have trepidation about that, uh, if we haven't the will to do that, we ask until it comes. So if you're not willing to make complete amends to them all, you're supposed to start a prayer regimen. You're supposed to every single day, probably twice a day, ask God to become willing to make amends for these defects of character. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any links for victory over alcohol. And sometimes these links are needed. Um, Probably there are still some misgivings. As we look over the list of business acquaintances and friends we have hurt, we may feel diffident. We, we, we may feel uncomfortable about going to some of them on a spiritual basis. Let us be reassured. To some people we need not and probably should not emphasize the spiritual free feature on our first approach. We might prejudice them at the moment we are trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a of maximum service to God and the people about us. Remember, we're trying to move away from a foundation built on selfishness and self-centeredness to a foundation built on love and service. That's the only that's the only way for us to survive this unbelievably aggressive illness known as alcoholism that kills 90% of the people who have it by drinking themselves to death. Okay, This is a serious illness. And the only aggressive enough treatment is the steps. And that means actually going out and making amends. One of the things that I ask people who aren't really willing to do these amends are, is it possible if you don't do these amends, alcohol can go back in your body? Is it possible? Sometimes I need to ask myself that. Sometimes it needs to be as black and white as this. Do the amends die an alcoholic death? One or the other. Which one do I which one do I want to do? You know, sometimes doing the amends is is is, 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 is sometimes doing the amends is nothing compared to putting alcohol back in my body and seeing demons come out of the ceiling to eat my face. I'll go and I'll do the amends. But a lot of times we just kind of shy away from this stuff. It is seldom wise to approach an individual who still smarts from our injustice to him and announce that we have gone religious. In the early days of AA, when this book was written, all of the members were in the Oxford group, or just leaving the Oxford group. The Oxford group was a religious organization. It was very, very much a Christian organization. So a lot of the early examples of amends were basically people going and saying, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, I've had a conversion experience. I'm now a Christian, and I'm trying to change my life. Bill is kind of saying that maybe that's not... Maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe we need to be basically saying that we were wrong and we want to change our life and leave the religious stuff out of it. Uh, I think a lot of times people will be more apt to respect our approach if we're just trying to set right the wrong rather than we've had some 
conversion experience, and, you know, and we want to change. A lot of times they'll think we're a crackpot. But if we go back and we actually let them know that we need to amend the way we have been living, we need to make uh, restitution, we need to try to set right the wrong, uh, because that's very important to us now because we want to live in a different way, a lot of times people will respect this. It says in this book that nine times out of ten, the unusual, you know, the unexpected will happen. We'll be, uh, we'll be shown a very, very generous response. And I know that that's been my experience too. So if we go there on a religious basis, it says in the prize ring, this would be called leading with the chin. Why lay ourselves open to being branded fanatics or religious bores? We may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message. Now, I understand that sentence now from experience. I've made some amends that have later translated into inability to help. I'll I'll, I'll tell the story of one of them right now. I had to make direct amends to a niece. Uh, This is... uh, this was somebody who would experience me drinking whenever she would visit with her mother over Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever. Uh, you know, Chris would be drunk out of his mind. And there was something about her I didn't like. She reminded me of myself, is really what it was. You know what I mean? And she had character defects that were like mine. And, and you know, there's nothing worse than having a mirror shoved up in your face. So I, w- I would say things to this, to, the, to my niece, that an uncle just shouldn't say I had an attitude toward her which was really unfair so as I'm as I'm doing my four step uh, as I'm putting my eight step list together it becomes very apparent I need to make direct amends to my niece okay I make direct amends one day and basically what I do is I list out everything I'm clear on that I was wrong about the things that I did to her that were wrong and she just couldn't believe it. She couldn't even talk. She's like, uh, you know, no one has ever done this to, to me before. I, I don't even know what to say. She really was blown away because, you know, I had, a, I had a sense of humility about all this. Now, about a month or two goes by, and all of a sudden I get a phone call. And guess who it is? It's my niece. She's in a psychiatric hospital after trying to take her own life with a drug overdose. And who did she call? Did she call her mother? No. Did she call her father? No. She called me because she knew I would understand. That never would have happened if I didn't make amends to her. And basically what happened was, you know, I told her, you, you, need, to seek, you need to seek professional help. And she had a very abusive father, a real sick father that she grew up with. He would try to scare her by by doing this. If you don't behave, I'm going to take you to the head shrinkers! And scared her to death by thinking that these these psychiatrists were going to just torture her, you know. And so she, so she she you know she was balking at this, and I was able to say, no, no, no. Listen, you know, I've had counseling myself. Uh, you, you know, don't worry about it. You're you're actually going to probably enjoy it if you get a counselor that you can relate to. And she started counseling, and she was in counseling for years, and now she's she's doing great. She moved away from all of those things that were dragging her down. And that probably wouldn't have happened if I didn't make direct amends to her. So, you know, when it says when it says in here 
that we may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message, we always need to remember to try to do these amends right and leave the leave the line of communication open. Because uh, a number of times when I've done amends, those people that I did amends to called me up later for help. Whether it was for themselves or someone they knew, they understood that there was somebody out there who was in the process of recovering from alcoholism who had an answer. And I became... I became helpful. Uh, I became helpful. So you never know where these amends are going to go. Uh, our man is sure to be impressed with a sincere desire to set right the wrong. He's going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than our talk of spiritual discoveries. So a lot of times what we need to do is we need to keep this focused on setting right the wrong. Uh, and, and not getting involved in, uh, in a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the other stuff. We don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God. When it will serve any good purpose, we are willing to announce our convictions with tact and common sense. The question of how... Oh, okay, so uh, if somebody asks you, well, you know, what's going on? You, you can say, I'm... You know, I'm trying to live a spiritual life. And if they start asking you questions, you can get deeper and deeper into it as it's appropriate. As it's appropriate for each person uh, that you're talking to with tact and common sense. Uh, today I have, I have no problem telling people that I, I have certain disciplines, certain prayer and meditative disciplines that, uh, where I try, to, uh, I try to capture the will of God, whatever that might be, whether you know, I try to figure out what God's will would be for me each day, and then ask for the strength and direction to carry that out. That's how I try to live my life today. I'm not afraid to tell anybody that, but I'm not, I'm not just going to go up to my boss you know, and say, oh, you know what I do? You know, they're, they're going to they're gonna probably promote somebody else if I do that, you know? So you need to use tact and common sense. Now, there's a whole bunch of different type of amends. Here's, we're going to start with how to approach the man we hate, okay? Looking back on our resentment inventories, there's going to be a number of people on our resentment inventories that we need to to approach with amends. And here's what it says about that. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be that he has done us more harm than we have done him, and though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. How how about this? I think we all have one of these. Usually when I sit somebody down and they come over and they're starting to put together an eight-step list, what usually happens is there's people that they point out to me that I don't care what you say, I am never going to make amends to this son of a bitch. (laughs) I don't even know why I put him on the list. I put him on the list just to be thorough. But I don't want to be giving you the impression that I'm ever going to make amends to this son of a bitch. A lot of times we we have these, all right. A lot of times we have these. I, I want I want to tell us I want to tell a story. This is a this is my favorite spot. See, I do big book workshops all over the planet with this guy. Okay. He had one of these. And when he's going through the steps with me, he did that. He pointed this out. He goes, you know what this guy did? This guy sexually molested my underage daughter. If you think 
I'm going to be making amends to him. You're wrong. I said, I said, okay, okay. Let's do the amends you're willing to do now. He had about 60 amends. He does 59 of them. And he calls me up and he goes, God damn it. He goes, I got this one amends left. I got to come over. I got to talk to you about this. I got to talk to you about this. And he comes over to my house. He goes, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I got to do this. <coughs> he saw that by doing 59 amends, he saw what happened in his life. And he also knew that hanging on to that one was going to corrode his spiritual condition. So what he did, what we sat down and we said, look, look, this guy's a jerk. You had him prosecuted. You actually showed up at his house and beat him senseless in front of his family. Okay, this was a family, a family member, an in-law family member. He went over, he beat him to death, near to death, and he prosecuted him and everything. I mean, this was a this was a big scene years ago in his life. So I go, look, you know, what he did was wrong. Let's look at this. Let's look at this closely. What exactly are you going to be making amends for? You don't want the guy back in your life, uh, you know. I, I mean, you definitely don't. You don't want to have him back at the Christmas parties. I understand that, you know. But you need you need to heal. You need to heal. So what he did was he put together a he put together an approach, and then he put together a specific amends. And he met with this guy at a neutral location at like a Denny's or something. And the guy came with all his paperwork. He wanted to show how he really wasn't guilty or anything. And and my buddy said. No, no, no. I'm, you know, I'm not. You know, I'm not here. Not here to discuss anything about you. I'm here to discuss about me. What I did, I did with hatred in my heart, and I was wrong. I was wrong for having that hatred in my heart. I can't live like that anymore. I just want you to know. I just want you to know that I don't hate you anymore. And this basically was his amends. Uh, what he what, when he beat him up, he did it with hatred in his heart. When he had him prosecuted, he did it with hatred in his heart. He had to make amends for that, and he walked away from this Denny's, the freest man I've ever seen in recovery. This guy has been bulletproof. He is the go-to guy in North Jersey as far as a sponsor is concerned. He takes the time to get you through the steps, and the people that walk away from him after going through the steps, every one of them stays sober. Every one of them has a quality of life that's out. This guy is like the Buddha of sponsors. And he got that strength, he got that spiritual strength by doing this really hard work, like going and making an amends to somebody who had really harmed one of his children. You know, it doesn't make any sense until you actually do this stuff. And then you find freedom like you cannot believe. Why in the world would he want to be attached to this guy, whether it's through hatred or resentment, why would he want to be attached to this guy the rest of his life? By actually making amends for his part, he finds freedom from the, from the guy. He doesn't have to think about the guy anymore. The guy is a non-event in his life from now on. And he doesn't have that poison pill in the back of his mind just causing that corrosion to your spiritual condition. You know, uh, that I think is what this is about. This step is about freedom. How free do you want to be? 
is the question we need to ask ourselves when it comes to this stuff. Nevertheless, with the person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. What that means is we just go and we do it. We don't want to do it. We're probably scared about doing it. We've got a lot of, lot of uh, anxiety. We take the bit in our teeth and we just go do it. And a lot of times, a lot of times I have a special prayer that I say before these amends because I don't know about anybody else, but amends really affect me emotionally. I'm always worried about doing them. So I'll do like a little meditation, like God in, fear out. God in, fear out. I'll do that for about five minutes and then I'll get up, I'll get out of the car, I'll take the bit in my teeth and I'll go knock on the door. And I'll just, I'll just do it. And I'll, I know that I've got God on my side. Yes, it's scary. Yes, a lot of times we, you know, we've got all kinds of anxiety. But this is about freedom. This is about recovery from alcoholism. This is about survival. And this is about having an incredible quality to, uh, of, in our life. Without having that, that, that corroding thread of, resist, uh, of resentment and fear. We're trying to move away from that. It says here it is harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. Yeah, we can do the friend amends. You know, we, we forgot to pay somebody back $20 or stuff. Ah, yeah, here's your $20. Oh, I forgot all about that. You know, those are easy. Going to the person who, who you know, who harmed our children, I mean, that is hard. But we find it much more beneficial to us to do those type of amends. We go to Him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. That's an instruction. Our former ill feeling expressing our regret. We're trying to live life on a different basis now. We're trying to live it without hate, without resentment. We understand that resentment kills us. We understand that anger is a dubious luxury of people who can't afford it, and alcoholics are not people who can afford anger and resentment. So we need to take action to get rid of them. A lot of times just you know, praying for the bastard is not enough. We've got to go and we've got to face these individuals. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop tonight uh, with, with a story. There was, there was a guy who I became very, very friendly with. My, my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is basically discovering some Joe and Charlie tapes back around 1991-92. Slowly these tapes changed the way I dealt with Alcoholics Anonymous because I heard so much truth and, 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 and you know, so much experience coming from these tapes. It changed the way I approached Alcoholics Anonymous. I started to approach Alcoholics Anonymous like it was a program of recovery instead of a fellowship of sobriety. Now, what happened was uh, I needed to make an amends. I had trashed a house in college. Really, really drunk one night. The cops were called, and you know we got thrown out of this house. And I was really pissed that we got thrown out of this house. So I had a house trashing party the next night. You know they gave us like a week to get out. So I'm having a house. We tra- we ripped the doors off of this house and put a big bonfire in the backyard. You know we 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 broke everything, punched holes in the walls, trashed this house. I got up on the roof and kicked the chimney over. You know, I mean, we trash this house, and uh, and and you know, I'm I'm basically, uh, you know, I'm I'm basically uh, 
uh, remembering all this. And I've got, to, I've got to put this on an eight-step list. And what happened was I could not find this family. They were an elderly couple that did not have any children. And I could, I could, you know, they had died by the time it was time for me to make amends. I, I just couldn't find them. I hired the private investigators. I did the online searches. They were nowhere to be found. I called up 70 families with their last name in that state. And I, I, I could not find anybody that even knew who they were. But I had to get that money back out into the universe. You know, I had to set the scale right. So I decided what I was going to do was I was going to make copies of these Joe and Charlie tapes. And I made about 200 copies of this Joe and Charlie workshop, which was eight tapes for, for the whole workshop. And I started to pass them around. Now, I passed him around to this one guy who, you know, he responded. Most people couldn't have cared less about this stuff. But this one guy really responded to it. He, he and I became fast friends, and we started to do big book workshops together. And somewhere along the line, he started to dislike me. Uh, I'm sure I played a part in it. I'm sure I did. I've never been clear on exactly where that was. But, uh, but he started to dislike me and he started to talk behind my back. He started to tell people to stay away from me because, uh, you know, I was going to get drunk and, and, and all this stuff. And then, and then these people would come to me and say, Chris, you know, this guy's saying you're going to get drunk. And I would go up to him and I'd go, well, why are you telling these people I'm going to get drunk? Why don't you talk to me? If, if, if you see a problem, you know, why aren't you talking to me? Oh, I'm not telling anybody anything. And, you know, the guy just ended up being kind of, kind of psychotic. Well, well, you know, it got worse and worse and worse. And, and, and fi- finally, I had done a fist step with this guy. And he started, he started telling everybody all this stuff that was on my fist step and that I was going to get drunk because this is stuff that he heard on my fist step. And one, and one day, one day, my ex-wife uh, was getting her hair cut and the barber, the, the hairdresser, started talking about these things that had happened with me that I shared on my fist step. And she's like, and it, it concerned other women, you know. And, and so, so I, you know, she comes back and she yells at me. So I call up the hairdresser. I go, I go, what the, where the hell did you hear that? Oh, so and so told me. So, so now he's now he's like going around sharing my fist step stuff. Now I get pissed. Okay, I get pissed. I have a justified resentment. This is justified because he's attacking me for no reason in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, what happened was I gathered my troops and I, you know, I brought, you know, I started talking to everybody about this guy. You wouldn't believe what he's doing to me. And, you know, I start, I started to talk to his sponsors. And say, almost like we're forming teams. You know, you know who's who's right, and you know, and I'm winning. I, you know, at least I think. Now the problem is, the problem is, is I'm dying inside because of this resentment. I am dying inside, and I'm Mr. Big Book. I'm the guy that goes around and tells everybody how to work the steps and I'm dying of a resentment you know made me look bad so what happened was I got to a point where I knew I had to face this I had to face this so I call him up I set up the meeting and it ended up being like a double a double amends but I was able to basically share with this guy that I was wrong and I took this very personally. You know, I, I talked bad behind your back. I, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this, and I shared that with him. And this was somebody I couldn't stand. Every night I was thinking about how I could murder this guy. Now, now after I made these amends with him, it became a non-event. 
I found complete freedom from this resentment. Now, I may have only had 5% of this issue. 5% of the wrong might have been mine, and 95 might have been his. But I have to take 100% of my 5% to get free of it. And that's basically, that's basically what I did. And, uh, and, I, and I found through that experience that it's harder to go to the person you hate, but it's much more beneficial. I found that I could find freedom from, 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 this, from this, this hatred I have toward people. I found a way out. And praying for the bastard wasn't cutting it. I had to actually face this man. And take responsibility for my part. This stuff, this stuff works, folks. Uh, you know, uh, do not shortchange yourself. Do not shortchange yourself and and be an Alcoholics Anonymous and not get not get the meat of the whole thing. Please, that's all I got for tonight. Thanks. It is uh, really good, uh, really good to be here tonight. Uh, I was. I was traveling over last weekend. Uh, I got a chance to um, go up to Cape Cod where they had uh, the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. Um, A lot of the top addiction treatment specialist people show up at this and rub elbows. And then there's all these different, uh, different courses that you can take to get CEUs if you're a professional. A lot of different presentations. And more and more, the, the reason I'm bringing this up, more and more a lot of the presentations revolve around the lessons that have been learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. In other words, these psychiatrists and these psychologists have topics called of bottles, uh, booze, and big books would be like one presentation. Another would be the efficacy of the 12 steps in addiction treatment. And another one would be, you know, what, the, what us doctors should know about the big book that works. And, you know, there are topic after topic that these top high-level addictionologists are, are uh, presenting at this Cape Cod Symposium uh, on Addictive Disorders. And one, a couple of, the, couple of the presentations this year were very interesting because what they were doing was they were looking at the actual step process and how, um, uh, how it affects the brain, how it affects the areas of the brain that relate to addictive illness. And, that, you know, they, I'll just give you one example. Um, now, I'm not a big proponent of 90 and 90 because I don't find it in the big book, but it's not a bad thing to do. I'm just, I, just, I just don't like people saying you have to do it because then they put unreasonable expectations sometimes on an individual who may not be able to make 90 meetings in 90 days. But irregardless of that, you know, my opinion on that, uh, they, they're seeing that after 90 days of doing something specifically, it turns into... It basically turns into a habit. So a lot of the suggestions, a lot of the processes in Alcoholics Anonymous that that have been around for 75 years, these scientists are defining now with the most modern of of scientific uh, uh, theory and application. So what they're discovering is things that we've known for a whole lot of a whole lot of years, and that is is that this step process works for addiction. It's observable. It's 
it's now becoming measurable as science moves forward, and more and more of these professionals are, are, are tending to embrace this spirituality that's very, very difficult to quantify or qualify. So I just thought I would, I would throw that out there because, uh, you know, th- this stuff, this stuff that we talk about here every week, this wor- this stuff works. This is important material, um, and and more and more people are finding it uh, finding it efficacious would be the term that the professionals use. Efficacious meaning it's very effective. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna read from a couple of places in the twelve and twelve, which I normally don't do. But there's two there's two short uh, statements in here that I think are very very apropos for what what what's happening here on uh, Tuesday nights every week. AA's twelve steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. Now talk about promises. Talk talk about uh, a statement of hope. They're saying that these these principles that are spiritual in their nature, these 12 steps, if we if we try to practice them as a way of life, as our operational methodology, they can expel the obsession to drink. You will be safe and protected against alcohol. The pro- alcohol problem will be removed while you are in the midst of practicing these principles as a way of life. And that's really what we're looking for when we come into AA. But on top of that, it's going to enable us to become happily and usefully whole. Things that we really want in our lives. I mean, who doesn't want to be happy? And who doesn't want to be whole and useful? Uh, every one of us does. But, but the more we drink, the further we become, uh, the further we move away from there. The more, we come, the more we practice these spiritual principles of the 12 steps, the more we, uh, we head in the right direction. And we start to really see what life is all about. Now, there's a, there's a great warning. in uh, Why it's buried in Tradition 9, I have no idea. But this is on page 174, and it's in the 12 and 12, and it's in Tradition 9. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. This is one of the most powerful statements I think Bill Wilson has ever written in his life. Unless each AA member follows to the best of his ability our suggested twelve steps to recovery, he almost certainly signs his own death warrant. His drunkenness and disillusion are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They result from his personal disobedience to spiritual principles. Alright. If you have relapsed, you're going to have an idea of why you relapsed. You're going to have a reason. You're going to have an excuse. You're going to have an explanation. But basically, the only reason that is really valid for a relapse once you've come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you've seen the steps up on the wall, the only reason that's of any value is you you disobey spiritual principles. That's why you relapse in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't fully embrace this program. You know, uh, some people cannot or will not give themselves to this simple program. That's how you relapse, by not giving yourself to this simple program. 
Now, um, the dangerous thing today in Alcoholics Anonymous is many groups, uh, many groups have 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 moved away from uh, the teaching and the practice of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they've become more like the group therapy that you see in treatment centers. You know, the, the, the discussion meetings can resemble a whole lot the uh, the group therapy that you see in treatment centers and I'm not a, I'm not a, you know I'm not uh, criticizing discussion meetings I think discussion meetings are very appropriate um, but what happened at least up in the Northeast is uh, probably nine out of ten meetings in the Northeast are discussion meetings and more often than not when you don't have a literature base to a meeting. It can go way to left field. Has anybody in here been in a meeting where if you walked in in the middle of it, you wouldn't have even recognized it as an AA meeting? Okay. Let the record show all 400 people here tonight uh, raise their hand. This is being recorded. Um, has anybody in here ever said, oh my God, you know, will they please shut up? Please tell somebody who cares about that stuff, you know? The same hands uh, went up, folks. Okay, now, now again, uh, discussion meetings are valid and appropriate. I'm a fan, though, of literature-based meetings because it's easier to bring them back on topic if you're using literature as, as a basis for a meeting, for topics in a meeting. I think the craziest thing we do in a meeting filled with people who haven't gone through the steps is ask, hey, does anybody have a problem? Well, yes, everybody's got a problem. If you haven't gotten through the steps, you've got big problems. It doesn't help to talk about them. It helps to talk about the solution to them, you know. Or does anybody have a to topic? Yeah, yeah. My aunt Fanny did something or other, you know. I mean, this is this is these meetings are appropriate. They can be like beginners meetings where people are learning how to share and learning like what's appropriate in Alcoholics Anonymous. But to have nine of your meetings discussion meetings out of ten, that's really pushing it. And you know, I I think that I think that you can you. Can can go so far to the left field that you can forget that the 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature if when practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and enable us to become happily and usefully whole. And sometimes we forget that unless an AA member practices to the best of their ability these suggested 12 steps, they almost certainly sign their death warrant. You know, so we need to remember this as Alcoholics Anonymous members in good standing. We need to remember this. Well, the steps don't take long to go through, and then you can then you can enjoy yourself in the fellowship. You can do service work. You know, you can attend meetings. It really doesn't take all that much time to get through the steps. But if we forget the steps, what we're going to do is we're going to ensure that whoever we're working with or whoever is in our meetings is, is going to relapse or is just going to walk out of AA. Uh, and just, there's just not going to be enough in there for them. Now, uh, last week we started, work, we started uh, to talk about step nine. We got a little bit of a start into step nine on page 77 for anybody that wants to follow along. 
we were talking about how to approach the man we hate. You know, this is this is a, this is a, was a big surprise to me that I was going to have to go back to the to these horses patuts who I just hated. You know, I, I was walking around with hatred for probably about twenty or thirty different people. It was a surprise to me to find out that you you actually. Uh, most times, most times, sometimes it's inappropriate, but for most of the time, you are going to need to make direct amends to the people that you are really pissed off at. Why? Because resentment is the number one killer. It kills more alcoholics than alcohol does. That's why. It's an eat, you know, it, it corrodes your spiritual condition. It sucks the life out of your quality of life. And and it's just it's just it's a it's a relapse waiting to happen if you hang on to these resentments so the best possible way uh to handle a resentment that just won't go away is to find out what your part is in this resentment now uh, you know i i had a spiritual mentor for a long time uh he's since passed but he used to say even if the even if it's only five percent of the problem is yours, you need to take a hundred percent responsibility for that five percent. So if somebody is twenty times more at fault than you are when you look at it on paper, you need to take responsibility for your five percent, your one out of twenty. Why do we have to do this? To be free. To be free of that emotion, the emotional bondage to resentment. It ruins our quality of life. The question you have to ask is, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. It's really their fault. Maybe you're right. Well, would you rather be right or would you rather survive? Would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? You know, these are questions that we need to ask ourselves because we're so stubborn. We want to hold on to this, you know. Uh, another guy I knew, you know, had a, a resentment against his neighbor. He just hated this guy for 20 years. He finally went out and made amends to the guy, and they ended up becoming best friends. You, you know, so often, so often our perspective, our perception on life is just wrong. We're seeing things the wrong way. We're perceiving that we're under attack, you know, from the universe or from specific people. And when in reality, they're not doing it to us. They're just doing it. And we're in the way. And we're taking it personal. And we're suffering for it because we're taking it personal. You know, and when we start to see these things in step four, we start to see that there might be a way out of this. How about not having a problem with anything? Anybody on this planet? How about that? What would that feel like? What kind of freedom would that be? To just not have any hate in your heart. And I think it's necessary for the alcoholic to at least try to get to that point. Because resentments are the number one offender. They kill more alcoholics than anything else. And if you find somebody that, that, uh, that disobeys spiritual principles... Like it said in the 12 and 12, it's usually somebody that has resentments, unresolved resentments. They're not willing to let go of them. And that's disobedience to these spiritual principles, not hanging on to those resentments. Now, we've looked at how do we, how do we approach the man we hate. And we talked a little bit about that. I'm going to pick it up at the bottom paragraph on 77. Uh, it talked about... Uh, 
we take a bit in our teeth and we just go to the person and we, uh, we go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. Like this is basically what they're telling us to do with the man we hate. Under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. Simply we tell him that we will never get over our drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. We are, we are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. Let's look at this. If, if we don't sweep off our side of the street, if we don't take 100% responsibility for our part, nothing worthwhile can be accomplished. You think they mean that? Do you think they mean if we don't do our amends, nothing worthwhile in Alcoholics Anonymous can be accomplished? What if that's true? His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the results. In nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. This has been my experience. When you're... If you're anything like me and you're facing some tough amends, especially the man you hate, you know, you're thinking this is going to go bad. You know, I'm going to feel small. I'm going to look stupid. I might end. You know, he's going to call the cops. You know, I mean, what I do is I predict dire consequences of this particular amends. And nine out of ten cases, I get a generous response. It goes way better than I could have imagined. And I think it's the alcoholic personality. Because today, if I'm playing, you know, I had to do an amends the other day. And the other day, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, the last 372 times I've done this, it's gone great. But this time, I know it's going to be bad. You, you know, it's like that's just the way the alcoholic thinks. Uh, that's why he says we take the bit in our teeth. Don't worry about what the consequences are going to be. Don't worry about what the outcome is. That's none of your business. What's your business is taking the action, doing the amends. I think God's in charge of the results. You know, we're so results-oriented. We're, we're so, we're, we've come from a very controlling place. And we want to know everything before we do anything. And sometimes sometimes these, uh, these, uh, these spiritual exercises are just that. They're spiritual exercises. We need to do this with faith. We need to do this with faith and with courage. Um, sometimes the man we are calling upon admits his own fault. That's almost always happened. So feuds of your standing will melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemies sometimes praise what we are doing and wish us well. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about people going back to former employers and that leading to some amazing financial thing, whether it's a job or a contract or whatever. You know, you think going back, you think going back to your employer and admitting that you were embezzling from the slush fund or something, you figure you're going to go to jail. And you, but usually what happens is the person person is so impressed that you're being honest that, you know, they remember you, you know, and down the road you get a phone call because somebody that's that honest is trustworthy and I want him in my new endeavor, you know. And I can't tell you how many times that's, that's happened. Um, occasionally they will offer assistance. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We have made our demonstration, done our part, it's water over the dam. 
I've been thrown out of the office. Like I say, nine times out of ten, it's a generous response. Every once in a while, it's not going to be. Okay, somebody is still going to be pissed off at you, and that and that's okay too. Uh, I had a boss. He was he was literally my boss in my last two years of drinking. <laughs> you know what he what he saw. I, I remember this one time. It's a Christmas party, okay, and he's got all his clients there, and we're in the shop. And it's he was a beer drinker, but every once in a while, if it was Christmas or something, he put out some hard liquor. And he came up to me and he said, "Chris, now you promised me." You're just going to drink a few beers. You stay away from the hard stuff. <laughs> sure, Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what happened is, is he's playing craps. There's a crap table. Everybody's having fun. Christmas trees. And I see a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and I just grab it. And I do one of these. Goo, 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 goo. You know, look around. Goo, 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 goo. I drink about half of this quart of whiskey. And, and now I'm hammered. I went from a little bit buzzed on a couple of beers to hammered. And I, and I go outside. And, and this is, I was in a electrical uh, contractor at the time and go outside and there was this big huge post light that was sitting there it was for their job the next day and then there were cases of beer like about 10 feet high and I go out and I'm really drunk and I lean up against this this light post and it's not bolted to the ground or anything so I lean against it and I fall with the light post and the cases of beer come down on me and I'm literally underneath these cases of beer you can see a couple of hands and a couple of legs like struggling then my boss is like Oh, damn it! You know, and he comes in, like, yelling at me. I mean, it's just time after time after time, I do, I'm, doing, I'm doing stupid things with this guy. Blowing things up, you know what I mean? You know, just causing him all kinds, all kinds of, all kinds of trouble. Oh, man. So, I've got to, I've got to make amends to this guy. So... I stop over his shop. I don't got any time with you. You know, throws me out. About two or three months later, same thing. Stop over the shop. What are you doing here? Throws me out again. So, all right, all right. about six months later, I'm figuring this water over the dam. You know, I made my demonstration. I tried to go see this guy. I, try, I tried to make amends. But what happened was uh, I caught him at the barber shop. I walk in. I'm going to get my hair cut. And there he is over in the corner. He's going to get his hair cut, too. So I got him trapped. So I go over and I sit down with him. And, you know, I make amends. I, you, know, you know, I say, Frank, you know, here's what, I'm, here's what I need to talk to you about. And, you know, I made, I made direct amends to him. I, I, told him. I told him what was going on with me. You know uh, how out of control I was. I, I, you know, I gave him the whole spiel, and and uh, he, you know, he was cool about it. Uh, about a year later, you know, I'm I'm doing really large scale uh, project management and facilities work, and uh, I needed an electrician. I called him up, and he he became he, be, he we were doing contracts together. You know, I mean, and this was the guy that threw me out of the office. These things are very, very powerful when when you do these. Um, uh, You have no idea what the outcome can be. You have no idea what what the chain of circumstances of your uh, amends is going to cause in the future for the healing of the world. So often, when you make direct amends and you basically say what it says to do in here, you know, I'll never get over drinking unless I try to set right the wrongs and, you know, set everything, you know, try to, try to you know, make up for the things I've done in the past. People remember that. 
And you're going to get a call. You're going to get a call from some of these people saying, you know, my son is in trouble. Or, you know, I've got a neighbor. Or, listen, I've been drinking too much. Can I talk to you about it? What we do is we become part of the healing instead of part of the problem when we start moving into this step. And, again, remember, failure failure to adhere to some of these spiritual principles is how we get drunk. You know, we don't get drunk because we change our mind. So often, so often we'll come back into AA after being in AA for five years, and you get drunk. You know, you know, you raise your hand. Well, you know, I decided the other night to go out to the bar. No, you didn't decide to go out to the bar. Nobody goes to AA for five years and then decides to get drunk. That's completely insane. What happened was you failed to you failed to adhere to spiritual principles and you lost the power that was keeping you separated from booze. You weren't there. your ego wants you to think you were there buying that drink. You weren't there. You weren't there because you were powerless. Your ego wants to think you you changed your mind. Yeah, well, you know, I was in AA for about five years, and life was really going good. I was back, I was back in the big bed, you know, and I was getting myself, I was getting myself out of debt, and I decided I would just drive down to the to the to the bar and you know just blow my whole entire paycheck and you know wake up uh, upside down with vomit in my hair, you know, not knowing what state I was in, you know, because I just kind of decided to do that. <laughs> You know, no, we don't do that. We're powerless if we're not practicing these principles. These principles offer us power. They call it the power of God. When we practice these principles, this power works through us and can keep us safe and protected. If we think we're doing this stuff, we're going to be in trouble. You know, I don't know about all this uh, step stuff and all this other stuff and everything. I I just don't drink. No, you just don't get it. All right? You're either not an alcoholic or you're a drunk waiting to happen, if that's what you're doing, you know? Because every bit of the Alcoholics Anonymous literature uh, stands against that kind of a theory, that you just don't drink. Um... Uh, occasionally they will offer assistance Uh, if someone does throw us out of his office we've made our demonstration done our part it's water over the dam alright let's look at money we owe okay this is this is kind of tricky because I don't know too many alcoholics that come into AA that don't owe money. Uh, we we owe little bits of money all over the place. Usually, usually we we didn't have we didn't have it together enough to like owe a lot. But one of the guys that I worked with, one of the guys that I worked with, here's his story. This guy was beautiful. He was stoned and drunk every day of his life. He was a philosophy major, and during the boom years of the late '80s and early '90s on Wall. Street. He became a stock analyst. How did he become a stock analyst? Just because just because this guy was leaving the company and wanted to really screw the company, so he put this this like hippie pot smoking stock analyst and he hired him. And all of a sudden, this guy's in. Now he used to he used to just figure out you know which companies they 
this firm should invest in, and he started to hit. I mean, he started to really do well. He became the top analyst in this company. Every single company he picked made a fortune for these people. He was picking a lot of Canadian companies that were making auto parts for our auto industry, and, and they were... Everything was going really well. He had limousines picking him up in, in Basking Ridge, like about an hour outside the city, and bringing him to work every day so he could smoke pot on the way in. Now, what happened was he got a resentment because his bonus wasn't big enough. He was getting $400,000 a year bonuses, this guy. Okay, can you imagine? He's stoned out of his mind. And, uh, uh, you know, this Wall Street just doesn't do things like this anymore. It really doesn't. But for a while, there was just wheelbarrows of cash just going back and forth everywhere. And, you know, you you didn't even have to be smart to grab yourself one. Anyway, what happened was he got a resentment, you know. They, they, didn't, they didn't put his name on the bathroom door or something. And so he leaves, and he's going to bring a bunch of investors with him. So he talks to all these people that were investing in his firm. He goes, you know, I'm the guy that picked all the good stuff. I'm going to start my own firm. So he starts his own firm, his own investment company, and he signs a personal note to every single one of the investors. Now, what that means is, is if there's a loss instead of a gain, he personally guarantees to cover it. So he start, he's still really stoned. He's out there. He's going crazy. He's like he's like saying, "Let's you know, give me." Everybody's giving him millions of dollars. These people are giving this guy millions of dollars because he was really on for a while. But now he starts to tank. Now every single thing he picks is a dog, and it starts to lose money. And he and he throws a ton of money into a couple of companies that go bankrupt, which means these investors that put like four million dollars into stock of company A that goes bankrupt loses that $4 million. And this guy signed it personally. So when he came in and he started to work the steps with me and we got to the step, he started laughing. He goes, he goes, uh, uh, you know, I'm on unemployment now. Uh, I owe like $7 million. How am I supposed to pay, pay these people back? And I said, well, let's just, let's just see what this says. Most alcoholics owe money. We do not dodge our creditors. Telling them what we are trying to do, we make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyhow, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory that it may cause financial harm. So many people misunderstand anonymity. They think anonymity means secrecy. They think that as soon as you get sober, you, you've got to go underground and not tell anybody, you know, that you're an alcoholic, you know. You know where, where, where does dad go every night? Oh, he goes to, to the Rotary Club, you know. I, I Literally, I had a sponsee, I had a sponsee whose father was 20 years sober, and he didn't know his father was in AA. I mean, it, that's, that's, how, that's how stupid this guy was. I mean, you know... Anonymity, anonymity, anonymous, it's anonymous. Everything's anonymous. No, it's not anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and film. How, how many times are we on TV? Okay? Now, you can personally you can personally take anonymity as far as you want, but you don't have to. Okay? We can tell people we're alcoholic when we're making amends. As a matter of fact, it might even be helpful. It might not, 
but it might be helpful. We, used to, we have to use good judgment, tact, and common sense. Approached this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know that we are sorry. That's what this guy did. He went back to these people and he said, you know, I know I owe you $4 million. Uh, I'm taking responsibility for it. I am. I can give you $10 a week. <laughs> you know? You know? Get the hell out of here. They, most of them threw him out. But, but he stayed sober. You know what I mean? He stayed sober. If he would just like hide the rest of his life, he probably wouldn't have been able to stay sober. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors, no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink if we're afraid to face them. Here's another guy that I, I worked with for a while. I worked with him for ten years, and so finally, you know, I, he and I just we he had to go, and and he's been through every sponsor on the East Coast. This guy, you, you ever know those people? They jump from sponsor to sponsor. As soon as it gets a little bit hot, you know, uh, things are getting hot. He wants me to actually do something. Uh, I think I'll get another sponsor. Now this this individual uh, was a painter, and. From 1972 on, he never paid income tax. Everything was a cash maneuver. Everything. No income tax. Well, he starts going through the steps with me, and I say, well, you know, you, you, you're going to have to deal with this. And it's better to go to the IRS and say, okay, here's what I did. Let's, let's look at what we can do here. It's better to do that than let them catch you. So he was unwilling to do that. He looked at how monstrous the number would be. He probably owed five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, and if they put interest on that, you know, forget it. So he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it, and has not done it. This individual hasn't seen ninety days, and he's been trying for twenty years. Okay. We get drunk because we fail to adhere to spiritual principles. Making an amends and trying to set, set this right, making the best deal you can at any given time, is a spiritual principle. Um, all right, criminal offenses. Uh, how many people in here have done criminal offenses? <laughs> Do some crimes, and the rest of you lying good for nothing. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps we have committed a criminal offense, which might land us in jail if it were known to the authorities. Oh, my God. It might land us in jail if it was known to the authorities. We may be short in our accounts and un unable to make good. We have already admitted this in confidence to another person, but we are sure we would be imprisoned or lose our job if it were known. Maybe it's only a petty offense such as padding the expense account. Most of us have done that sort of thing. Maybe we are divorced and have remarried but haven't kept up the alimony to number one. She's indignant about it and has a warrant out for our arrest. That's a common form of trouble, too. Any alcoholics in here get divorced? Any, divor any people that have gone through a divorce? That's, that's pretty good. Up north, it's a, it's a much higher percentage. The more heathen up, up there... Um, although these reparations take innumerable forms, there are some general principles which we find guiding. 
reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience. Remember, that was part of step three, making a decision to go to any lengths. So if you're working through the book with a sponsee and they start balking, you can say, hey, you know, you you said you were willing to go to any lengths, and, and I showed you what any lengths looked like. I had you read this book. What are you balking for? You know? Put on your grown-up pants and get out there and start making some amends. We ask that we be given the strength and direction to do the right thing no matter what the personal consequences may be. That's a prayer directive. We ask that we be given the strength and direction to do the right thing no matter what the personal consequences may be. You know, I've heard, I heard one time in a meeting, and I just couldn't believe it. This guy raises his hand, he goes, you know, I got to step nine, and I was talking to my sponsor about it, and my sponsor said, you know, if, if, if it harms others, and I'm another, you know, I don't need to do this, this, that. <laughs> one thing I am absolutely sure of in Alcoholics Anonymous, folks, is that we ain't others. You know what I mean? If it hurts us too bad, we have to be willing to do this or we may drink again. And for us to drink is to die. Sometimes the hairiest amends out there is like kissing a baby's butt compared to to putting alcohol back in our body. You know what I mean? Do the amends, drink a quart of whiskey. I, I mean, what's easier? I don't know about I don't know about you, but it, but I, I I don't want to go back I don't want to go back to that whiskey and that vodka. That took me to places I never want to revisit. It says here we may lose our position or reputation or face jail, but we are willing. We have to be. We must not shrink in anything. Now I've seen heroic amends done. Uh, you know, I always insist the people that I'm working with do every single one that, they're, that, they, that they absolutely can do. I don't care. I don't want to hear it, you know, unless it really is going to cause somebody else harm or there's no possible way to do it. They're getting on a plane. They're getting on a boat. They're getting a taxi. They're taking a rickshaw. Whatever they need to do to go face, face these people, they're going to do it. But I've only seen a handful of times people go to prison after they made amends. Now, one of them was this guy. He's a friend of mine from California. He was in New Jersey for a while, uh, and he was going through the steps. And he came to me and another guy, and he said, Look, I got some outstandings in uh, Colorado. I got multiple warrants in Colorado, and they're not good. Uh, and we're like, okay, well, what do you want to do about it? And he goes, well, I don't want to be looking over my shoulder the rest of my life. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the type of person who has to stay underground all the time. And I'm worried about putting my social security number on something. I, I can't do that. So I'm going to go do the amends. And so we had him talk to a lawyer. The lawyer said, yeah, you're probably going to do some time. And he went. And he went, and he turned himself in. That's a good thing. If they catch you, that's a bad thing. He went and he turned himself in, and he did about eight months, you know, for like five or six, you know, felony warrants. He did about eight months, got the hell out of Colorado, and now he's surfing in Hawaii with, with uh, you know, a brand new wife, and he's living it up. He's, he's just living it up. He's an, an AA member in good standing, you know what I mean? And it's behind him now. You know, so a lot of us are going to have these things. A lot of us are going to have these things. I went, I went back and made 
direct amends to about a half a dozen places where I caused, where I, where I did crimes that, that harmed them. And every single time it was, a, it was a positive thing. It wasn't like I'm calling the police. A lot of times it was like 30 years ago, you know what I mean? But, uh, but I think that we need to do this. How free do you want to be is what you need to keep asking yourself. How free do you want to be? Uh, usually, however, other people are involved. Therefore, we do not be the hasty and foolish martyr who would needlessly sacrifice others to save himself from the alcoholic pit. Uh, a man we know had remarried because of resentment and drinking. He had not paid alimony to his first wife. She was furious. She went to court and got an order for his arrest. He had commenced our way of life, had secured a position, and was getting his head above water. It would have been impressive heroics if he had walked up to the judge and said, Here I am. We thought he ought to be willing to do that, if necessary, but if he were in jail, he could provide nothing for either family. We suggested he read his first first wife admitting his faults and asking forgiveness. He did, and also sent a small amount of money. He told her that he would try what he would try to do in the future. He said he was perfectly willing to go to jail if she insisted. Of course, she did not, and the whole situation has since been adjusted. When other people are involved, uh, there are amends when other people are involved. Amends are not to be done hastily. What I always recommend is I recommend that you get spiritual counsel with someone with experience. If someone, if your sponsor hasn't done amends, if, if your sponsor's like the majority of people in AA who have, who's made, who have made cursory amends to their family and let, and let the whole rest of the world you know, go, that's not the person you want to be uh, going through this part of the steps with. You're going to want to go through the steps with someone who has some experience. And a lot of times, those people with experience, if they don't have specific specific experience, they will point you to somebody that does. In other words, I have never had to make amends to the IRS. If somebody comes to me and there's an IRS, there's an IRS amends, I will point them to one of my friends who's done so, or I will point them to an attorney that handles IRS claims, because I don't know everything. You know, but if I have experience, I will share it with an individual. Uh, you you do not want somebody editing your spiritual program. You do not want somebody that'll say, you know, I don't really think you need to go out and you know that's a whole big to do. I don't know that you really need to do that. You don't want to be going through the steps with somebody like that. They're shortchanging you. They're they're giving you their own experience. They've never done it, so that's what they're they're thinking that you don't need to either. But the fact of the matter is, is you may have to. You may be a real alcoholic and you may get drunk if you don't do this. So uh, so anyway, uh, I'll tell you a story about when others were involved. I think I, I think I shared, I'm not sure if I shared here or somewhere else, the, t- the time that I, I trashed the house down in, uh, down in Florida. Uh, well, what happened was there were two other roommates uh, that, uh, that were involved with this. And, uh, you know, one of them was dead from cirrhosis of the liver. You know, big surprise. He was living with me. Uh, the other individual was still around. He was, uh, he, was, uh, he was a heavy drinker. He was somebody who drank drink for drink with me but when the time came that you know uh, advice from a doctor you know uh, a new relationship uh, he basically stopped and uh, moderated the rest of his life um, he was involved with this and I told him look I've got to track these people down and I've got to make direct amends you know um, but I need to talk to you first he goes hey knock yourself out just don't tell him where I live you know so alright alright so so 
you know, when somebody else is involved, you know, if it's a felony, like a break-in, breaking and entering felony, you know, and, and you know, there, there's accomplices, you have people with you, you got to be careful. You can't, you can't implicate anybody else. That's not what we're about. We're not about causing harm to anybody else. We're about taking responsibility for the harm we've caused. Um, before taking drastic action which might implicate other people, we secure their consent. If we have obtained permission, have consulted with others, ask God to help, and the drastic step is indicated, we must not shrink. We, we must take the bit in our teeth and we must do it. This brings to mind a story about, uh, about one of our friends. While drinking, he accepted a sum of money from a bitterly hated business rival, giving him no receipt for it. He subsequently denied having received the money and used the incident as a basis for discrediting the man. Now, this is awful. This is like a business uh, competitor. And what you've done is you've borrowed a bunch of money from them. And then when they want it back, you spread all over town that this person is trying to embezzle you. That you don't really owe this person this money. So now you're making them look dishonest. So you're really ruining this person. You've got his money, and now you're ruining his business. He thus used his own wrongdoing as a means of destroying the reputation of another. In fact, his rival was ruined. That's a tough one. Listen to how he did this. He felt that he had done a wrong he could not possibly make right. If he opened that old affair, he was afraid it would destroy the reputation of his partner, disgrace his family, and take away his means of livelihood. What right had he to involve those dependent upon him? How could he possibly make a public statement exonerating his rival? After consulting with his wife and partner, he came to the conclusion that it was better to take those risks than to stand before his creator guilty of such ruinous slander. I love how that's put. He saw that he had to place the outcome in God's hands or he would soon start drinking again and all would be lost anyhow. Now this is somebody who gets it. He gets it. He understands he's going to be drinking if he doesn't do this amends. Some of us are not that clear because we have not gone through this work with someone that's experienced. He attended church for the first time in many years, and after the sermon, he quietly got up and made an explanation. Remember, how he hurt this person was by spreading ruinous slander around the town. So by going to the guy and apologizing, that's not really going to cut it. So what he does is he goes to a church where a lot of the townspeople are, and he makes an explanation. He basically explains what he did to this guy and how he was wrong. His action met widespread approval, and today he is one of the most trusted citizens in his town. Since it's part of the part of the, the you know nine out of ten times the unexpected happens, something like that actually made him more trusted. You know, I bet I bet you he was I bet you he was scared to death walking up to that altar. This happened. This all happened years ago. The chances are okay. Here's domestic troubles. You know, we might have stepped out on the missus. You know, or uh, you know, we might have we might have had that secret and exciting relationship with somebody that you know we really want to kind of keep quiet. Perhaps we are mixed up with women in a fashion we wouldn't care to have advertised. Um, we doubt if this is, in this respect, alcoholics are fundamentally wor- much worse than other people. But drinking does complicate sex relations in the home. 
After a few years with an alcoholic, a wife gets worn out, resentful, or uncommunicative. You know, where it says wife, you know, this is a very... It's a sexist book, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Back in the day, it, there was a, you know, uh, it, was, it was it was very patriarchal, and they really didn't see women as alcoholics like they saw the men as alcoholics. So rather than get mad if you're a woman, rather than get mad at, the, at this obvious, you know, chauvinistic uh, dialogue, just change it to if it says wife, change it to husband. You know, uh, personalize it. After uh, after a few years with an alcoholic, a husband gets worn out, resentful and uncommunicative. You know, it's it's universal. How could he be anything else? You know, do it like that. The husband begin, begins to feel lonely, sorry for himself. He commences to look around in the nightclubs or their equivalent for something besides liquor. What could Bill possibly mean? <laughs> Perhaps he is having a secret and exciting affair with the girl who understands. <laughs> In fairness, we must say that she may understand. <laughs> but what are we going to do about a thing like that? A man so involved often feels very remorseful at times, especially if he is married to a loyal and courageous girl who has literally gone through hell for him. Or, or married to a loyal and courageous man who has literally gone through hell for her. Whatever the situation, we usually have to do something about it. Now, this is, you need to be very, very careful about this. Uh, this is one of the areas where it makes very, very clear, unless it will harm other people. Now, I had a guy that I was working with, and before he would come over my house and I could go through his eighth step list, he ran off and he, and, he, and he made direct amends to his wife about the three affairs he had had in the last 15 years. She freaked. The unexpected did happen. She beat the living crap out of this guy. Okay? I mean, kicked his face in. He was, he was hospitalized on multiple occasions. As soon as he'd start to heal, she'd, she'd lump him up again. She, she dragged out of him the names of the women and contacted their husbands. She was a lawyer, so she started lawsuits against these women for for having unprotected sex with her husband and placing her in danger. It was a mess. Okay? It was a mess. The guy, you know, there's... This book is not saying we need to do that kind of stuff. It's saying quite the opposite. Let's let's look and see what it says. If we are sure our wife does not know, should we tell her? Not always, we think. You know, honey, you know those five babysitters that we've had in the last two or three years? I've slept with all of them. Oh, boy, I feel better getting that off my chest. You know what I mean? Phew. That's not what we're... We're not supposed to sweep off our side of the street and put all the garbage on somebody else's. If it's going to serve no purpose, if it's only going to cause harm to the other person, we got to shut up about it. That's what we're supposed to do. If she knows in a general way that we've been wild, should we tell her in detail? Undoubtedly, we should admit our fault. She may insist on knowing all the particulars. She will want to know who the woman is and where she is. We feel we ought to say to her that we have no right to involve another person. You know, you know, 
Take your lumps. You have no right to, to involve another person. We are sorry for what we have done. God willing, it shall not be repeated. More than that, we cannot do. We have no right to go further. Though there may be justifiable exceptions, and though we wish to lay down no rule of any sort, we have often found this the best course to take. Our design for living is not a one-way street. It is good for the wife as it is for the husband. If we can forget, so can she. It is better, however, that one does not needlessly name a person upon whom she can vent jealousy. It's like the fourth time he said that. Okay, we need to remember this is about us taking responsibility. We need to keep other people out of it. Perhaps there are some cases where the utmost frankness is demanded. No outsider can appraise such an intimate situation. It may be that both will decide that the way of good sense and loving kindness is to let bygones be bygones. Each might pray about it, having the other's, other one's happiness uppermost in mind. You know, back in the day, the families prayed together. That was the Oxford group way. You did morning meditation with the entire family. You did evening review. You did multiple prayer sessions with the family every day. So it says that each might pray about it, husband and wife, having the other one's happiness uppermost in mind. Keep it always in sight that we are dealing with that most terrible human emotion, jealousy. Good generalship may decide that the problem be attacked on the flank rather than risk a face-to-face combat. Well, what does that mean? That means that we just need to use tact and common sense. Okay. Yes, I've been I've been wild. You know, I've I've uh, you know I've, I've I've disrespected the marriage. You know, I'm I'm working toward really really straightening out. You know, I'm going to be spending more time at home. I'm going to be spending more time with you. Um, I'm not I'm not drinking anymore. God willing, things are going to get better. And let's let's just hang in there. You know. If we have no such complication, there's plenty we should do at home. I think when you start to bring the AA principles into your home, you are starting to recover. Anybody in here know somebody who's like an AA angel and an at-home devil? You know, you call them up, you call them up, and you go, Hello? Oh, hi. Going to the Serenity Club tonight? You know? Oh. One time, listen, I know what this was like from personal experience. I remember this one time. I'm going to a meeting. God damn it, I'm going to a meeting. And there's somebody, it's a 45-mile-an-hour zone, and somebody's doing 30. Somebody's on this motorcycle doing like 30. This idiot shouldn't even be on a motorcycle. He's way too old. He's going too slow. He's in my way. Doesn't he know that I have places I've got to be? And so I'm tailgating him. I'm four inches off of his back wheel. Okay? And sure enough, he pulls right into the meeting. And it's and it's Ross, the home group member, you know, and and I tailgated him for four miles to because I needed to get to the meeting to share about serenity, you know. When we're practicing these principles out there in the world, that's when we start. That's when we start to recover. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is keep stay sober. I love this. The only thing I need... I'm making amends to everybody because I'm staying sober. No, you're a horse's ass, is what you are. 
Certainly he must keep sober, for there will be no home if he doesn't, but he is yet a long way from making good to the wife and parents, for whom, uh, whom for years he so shockingly treated. Passing all understanding is the patience mothers and wives have had with alcoholics. Had this not been so, many of us would have no homes today and perhaps would be dead. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. Is anybody anybody relating to this? This is the way we were. And we, we, and we were expecting people to judge us by our intentions. We really mean well. And meanwhile, the house is burned down for the second time. I burned my mother's house down twice while I was living there. I remember standing out the backyard watching the firemen throw all the furniture out of the second story windows that was smoldering. And I had my head up against the tree. I just couldn't believe this. I'd, I'd left my cigarette in the ashtray, you know, drinking. And it, 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 the wind had blown it off the ashtray into an open drawer filled with papers. So it started the whole desk on fire. The whole, the whole second floor was involved. And I, I'm downstairs mixing a drink, you know. And so I'm outside. I got my head up against the tree and this neighbor comes up you know a, a neighbor a good neighbor oh Chris you know this is terrible can I do anything to help you I pull a 10 out of my pocket and I said yeah give me a fifth of bourbon you know go up, go up down and buy me a fifth of bourbon he was looking at me like I was out of my mind but how am I gonna how am I gonna handle my house burning down without a fifth of bourbon? You know? We feel a man is unthinking when he says sobriety is enough. He's like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife he remarked, Don't see anything the matter here, Ma. It grand the wind stopped blowing. Don't see anything the matter here, Ma. It ain't grand I'm not drinking anymore. No, it's it, you're more of a jerk now, you know, than you were when you were drinking. At least you were passed out by nine o'clock. I gotta like look at you awake now until midnight. No, it's not. It's not better. You know, we need to go through these steps for things to get better. There's nothing worse than a dry alcoholic staring across the dinner table at you. You know, divorce is much higher once we get sober than when we were drinking. Look at the statistics. Once people get into AA, in the first two years, there's like a 50% chance you're going to get divorced. That's because we're not we're not doing our job in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're we're you know ain't it great the wind stopped blowing and you know oh we're getting divorced. So we go to the we go to the, the close-minded discussion meeting and talk about our divorce for three years. Every day we update everybody on every minutia of the goddamn divorce. You know what I mean? When if you would have done the steps, you wouldn't be getting divorced. You know. But I don't judge. <laughs> Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. 
Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. Alcoholism is a family illness. We're alcoholics. The rest of the family is sick because of the manifestation of our alcoholism. You know, they're stuttering, and you know, there's all kinds of stuff that happens when you grow up a, 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 a child of an alcoholic. So we clean house with the family each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. This is one of our, uh, our, uh, our uh, meditations. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not to urge them. This is back in the day when everybody went through the steps. All family went through the steps. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. You know, what you're doing shouts so loudly I can't hear your words. When we're walking the walk. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone. There may be some wrongs we can never fully write. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. I do letters with the deceased. You know, I do graveside amends. And there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. And we're not going to somebody so that we can be a, a, a floor mat for them. We're trying to set right or wrong. And we can do it with dignity. As God's people, we stand on our, our own feet. We don't crawl before anyone. How many times have you heard the, the promises read? The promises of AA. Okay, we've gone through a lot of material in the last like nine weeks or so that we've, we've been going through this book. And there's a lot of things that they've they've asked us to do. It says if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. What are they talking about there? They're talking about the amends. If we're halfway through the amends, these ninth step promises will materialize. I didn't realize that the promises were the ninth step promises for years. I thought they were the AA promises. And I was wondering why the hell they weren't happening to me. You guys are shortchanging me. I'm going to seven, eight, nine meetings a week, and I ain't seen them promises. That's because meeting attendance is not a defense against alcoholism. Uh, You know, you don't recover from alcoholism by going to meetings. You recover from it by adhering to spiritual principles. Anyway, we are going to pick this up next week um, on the Ninth Step Promises. I want to thank everybody for being here. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Salem, I am uh, I'm really having a good time doing this workshop. Um, next week is, is going to be uh, the last opportunity I have uh, to, to be up here. Um, Ronnie has volunteered to finish up the book for us, uh, the, the final four chapters. Right, Ronnie? Roddy's going, what? (laughs) But uh, I'm hoping to get us at least halfway through uh, the chapter working with others next week. Um, A very, very important chapter. It's a chapter probably that uh, a lot of people, um, a lot of AA members uh, really, really don't apply uh, in their work with other alcoholics. And I think if we did, we'd have a higher quality of Alcoholics Anonymous member. We may not have as many people in the meetings, but we'd have a lot more people that were really
really uh, really in, in recovery. So, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that a little next week. Um, where we are this week is we, we're finishing up <clears throat> Step 9. We're talking about the Step 9 promises. Now, I'd like to just go back to page, uh, to page 52 a little, uh, just a little bit here. I'm going to read the bedevilments on page 52. We were having trouble with our personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional nature. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Okay, those are the bedevilments. Now, think about those bedevilments when we go through the ninth step promises. And remember, we hear these promises at so many AA meetings, but they're taken out of context. Uh, When I first heard these promises, I thought they were the AA promises, and if I went to enough meetings, I would get these promises. And that's really not what happened. Uh, uh, you know, I went to a lot of meetings, and I was restless, irritable, and discontented, uh, whether I was going to meetings or not. Um, uh, these, these, these particular promises materialize if we work for them. If we are painstaking about this point, uh, phase of our development, what does that mean? If we're painstaking about making amends, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Halfway through what? Halfway through our amends list. We are, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. These are the antidote to the bedevilments. Uh, going from page 64, uh, I'm sorry, going from page 52 to page 84, we get a whole transformation in how we, uh, how we uh, behave, how we think, and how we feel. Uh, it's a whole change in our attitude and outlook. And these promises materialize if we work for them. These promises are really, uh, are, are really moving us into the spiritual awakening. Think about a spiritual awakening for a minute. Uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these 12 steps, what would be a spiritual awakening? Wouldn't that be the awakening of your spirit? Well, wouldn't that mean that you've, been, you've had a, a spirit that's been asleep? If your spirit is going to awaken with these steps, wouldn't that mean that you've had a spirit that's been asleep? I believe it would. I believe that so often we are, we are asleep to our real nature, to, to, our, to our, our real, uh, a real understanding of our place in the universe and uh, you know, our position as, as children of God. I think we're asleep to that and we're walking around acting like we're awake. And this, this spiritual awakening is just that. We, we become awake to the things that we 
you know, we need to understand about ourselves. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we shift our perceptions and our perspectives uh, uh, toward, toward much more uh, healthy attitudes and, and outlooks. Uh, that really is uh, what the spiritual awakening is. And it only happens, the spiritual awakening, as the result of the 12 steps. That spiritual awakening only happens when you, when you actually take these steps. You can't have a spiritual awakening as the result of steps you've never taken. So, at the, at halfway through the ninth step, into, into the, the real heart of the ninth step, we're starting to change. You know, if you look at some of these promises, they're unbelievable. Self-seeking will slip away. Well, we understood that selfishness and self-centeredness was the root of all of our problems. So self-seeking will slip away. Uh, fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We saw when we were doing our four-step <clears throat> that we had so much fear that it was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It caused, it caused chains of circumstances that placed us in positions where, where we, we felt like the whole world was doing us wrong. And really, it was our own fault. The, the problems were not coming uh, at us. They were coming from us. And we start to see that. Um, self-pity will disappear a sense of uselessness will disappear we will know peace we will understand the word serenity these are all things that were outside of our grasp when we were being driven by bondage to self we were being driven by our character defects we were running around the planet just, just shooting ourselves in the foot every chance we got and now, you know, we, can, we find that, that ex- even that experience of running around the planet shooting ourselves in the foot all the time, we can even see that that, <clears throat> that experience will be able to benefit others. So the worst things that happen to us in our lives, the, the absolute low points uh, of our whole lives, we can actually use that experience to be able to relate to a newcomer to be able to relate to another alcoholic and we'll be able to say I know how you feel I've been there you don't have to live like this anymore there's a way out upon which we can all agree and we can all join in brotherly and harmonious action you know the 12 step process and we can recover from this illness alcoholism and we can have a really really great life and we'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves that is an amazing promise. I don't know about anybody else in here, but, but my vision of what God was doing to me when I, back when I was drinking, I, th- you know, I thought, I thought all, the, all my problems were because God was really pissed off at me. You know? Today, I know, today I know that the power that helps, that helps uh, completely transform my life and gives me the power to... to uh, to move away from my character defects that gives me the power to stay separated from alcohol uh, that power is the power of God and I feel uh, I feel it working in my life I'm aware of the, the consciousness of the presence of God is something that goes with me everywhere I go and that's an amazing promise that means you're never going to be alone again the alcoholic is a person who can be who can feel alone in the middle of a, a, a club, you know, in the middle of a dance club. We can feel alone. 
Uh, and that the consciousness of the presence of God is going to go with us, and we're just we're not going to be alone anymore. We're going to be able to move forward. We're going to be able to step out and do our job. You know, whether it be out as an Alcoholics Anonymous member, as a family member, as an employee, as an employer, as a, as a citizen of the community, we're going to be able to step out and we're going to be able to do our job because we're not crippled with fear. And we're not in bondage to self. And this is, this is amazing. The recovery process is truly amazing. The craziest thing in Alcoholics Anonymous is, is, is the amount of people who don't take these steps, who don't, don't get involved in the recovery process. And they, they, stay in the, they stay in that purgatory of sobriety, you know, never really getting, never really getting better, when, when, when what's available is just absolutely amazing. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Every promise in this book, and there's maybe 200 of them, always materializes if we work for them. But that's the key. We need to work for them. You know, uh, um, I believe God's got a job to do and we've got a job to do. We need to participate in the recovery process. We We need to do some work. We're not going to be saved by faith alone as an alcoholic. Faith without works is dead. The early AAs found that out. So what we need to do is we need to participate. There's a great line in the 12 and 12. I think I've shared that here before. It says, God is not going to render us white as snow without our cooperation. So then how shall we cooperate would be the, the right question to ask. And the answer to that would be to participate in this recovery process. Alright, this thought brings us to step 10. Step 10 suggests we continue to take personal inventory. Step 4. We continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. That would be step 9. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So as we are going through our amends, we are supposed to be involved in step 10. We have entered the world of the Spirit. What does that mean to you? Remember, spiritual terms in this book, what we're, what we're directed to do is ask ourselves, what do these spiritual terms mean to us coming from our experience? And I believe the world of the Spirit, and this is just for me, and, and I, you know, I, I, I hold on to the right to change my opinion at any time because hopefully I'm growing in understanding and effectiveness. And I might have a completely different idea about this, but I believe the world of the Spirit is one, uh, is one where we are aware of the consciousness of the presence of God, where we basically, are, we basically seek direction uh, from, from God, and that intuition becomes working knowledge. Intuition is to know without conscious thought. That intuition becomes a God sense. And a lot of times we are guided and we are directed. And this is really the world of the spirit. The world of self we know really well. You know, going back and forth to the liquor store, back and forth to the cop man, back and forth to the bar. We know what, we know what that is like. The world of the spirit is a whole different animal. You know, um, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. 
Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Remember, those, those are basically four-step things. We've, we've seen those as character defects. And this is asking us, continue to watch. Now, there's, there are certain spiritual exercises that I like to do myself. I, li- I like to task myself with certain exercises. And there was a period of time where every single day I made it my main obligation to watch for selfishness, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. To watch for these things. To see them in my behavior and my attitude. And when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. That's a prayer directive. So as we go through the day, we're watching for our character defects to raise their ugly head. And then when they do, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Uh, immediately, we, we talk to somebody immediately. Um, a lot of times, it's good for us to have some phone numbers of some people that are, go, that, uh, are in the fellowship of the Spirit with us. What I mean by that is people who have step experience, who are going through the steps or have been through the steps. You want a couple of phone numbers on your speed dial that are for your immediately's. If you need to talk about something to, for, to somebody, maybe you can't get your sponsor. You know, who, you just you need to talk. You need to talk to somebody. So you might have a couple of buddies that you've made arrangements that you know you're going to be each other's immediately. You know, if I call you up, answer the phone. I might need to talk to you about something. And we need to make make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Why do we need to make amends quickly? I'll tell you from my own personal experience. Um, you, the longer the longer I'm sober, the longer I'm in uh, in this place called recovered, uh, the weaker I get for my tolerance for doing things wrong. My first year in Alcoholics Anonymous, I you know I was still robbing, raping, and pillaging. I you know I was still all over the place, just just acting out, okay. And it was like you know it was like that's the way it was. Today, if if I if I lie to somebody today, if I do something wrong, or you know if I'm dishonest, or I'm going around somebody, or be, I'm being selfish, it, it it just comes right up in my face. Uh, I'm very sensitive to this now. Where like in my first year, it was you know. It was par for the course. Now I'm living, I'm trying to live a different life. So I'm very, very sensitive to these things. So when I do something wrong, if I don't make amends quickly, it just erodes my emotional condition. It erodes my spirit. And I've learned that that's not good. That's not good for me. It's not good for my effectiveness for others. It places me closer to a drink rather than further away from it. And I, you know, I just need to I need to stay current on uh, on these things. So step ten really is a way of staying current. Step ten is a reactive step. It's a it's an as you move through the day step. It, these are these. It, it's basically laying out the the tools from steps one through nine and ten and eleven. And it's telling you that in a reactive way, you pick up these tools and you use them because this is the way we need to live. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Step 10 is telling us we need to use these tools that we've learned and we need to live it in a day-to-day basis so that we can stay comfortable emotionally and spiritually, so that we clean up the past, so that we're not carrying around a bunch of garbage with us. 
Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help, and that's step 12. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Now, here are, some, here are some step 10 promises. These are really amazing promises. You do not, very rarely does this discussion meeting use as a topic the 10-step promises because they're controversial. Why are they controversial? They're controversial because there's not a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who really have experience with the first nine steps, the first 10 steps. They haven't really taken them. So they don't have experience with these promises. These promises haven't materialized. So if you use this topic in, in a discussion meeting, a lot of people will have, you know, they'll flip out about it. Because it's basically saying your problems with alcohol are, is, is over, okay? And, you know, a, a lot of people don't want to hear that. They, they want to think that we don't drink a day at a time. And, you know, the longer I'm, I'm, I'm away from a drink, the closer I am to my next one. And, you know... All this other stuff that you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous that goes contrary to the promises and to, to the directions in this book. But let's look at these promises and let's, for a minute, uh, assume that they could possibly come true if we did the work in the first ten steps. We have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. How about that? You've ceased fighting anything or anyone. That's an amazing promise right there. I don't know about I don't know about anybody else in here, but I, for the longest time I had fights going on. I had fights going on at work. I had fights going on with neighbors. I had fights going on with the garage mechanic. I had, I had fights going on with family members. I, you know, I had fights going on. You know, I was always I was always in collision with other people. There was turbulence in my life on all kinds of levels, and and you know, you did not get in my face because I would freak out. And in the tenth step, it's basically saying we don't we don't fight anymore. That doesn't mean that we don't stand up for principles we believe in. It just means that we don't fight. You know, we don't engage in that unhealthy emotional activity called fighting. For by this time, sanity will have returned. This is the first place in the book where it says that sanity has returned. In the second step, it says, you know, that, that uh, we will be, will regain sanity. But in step 10, it says we, it has returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. You know, I used to hear all the time in, in the, you know, in the 90s, in the AA groups I was going to, you'd hear somebody with 15 years say, oh, you know, I, I went to a wedding the other day and there was, there was alcohol all over the place and I just, I had to get the hell out of there. And, I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Wow. You know what a programless, you know, person that is. I mean, we are we're not we're not we're not in Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't go through these steps to to hide. We don't go through these steps to to be prisoners and not to be able to live life. These steps offer us freedom, freedom from the bondage itself, freedom from that obsession of the mind that's, that causes us to pick back up liquor. I'm around liquor all the time. You know, I am around liquor all the time. We, you know, where we go out to eat, you know, if we go to a party, if there's, if there's you know, uh, family affairs, there's always wine or beer or something. You know, listen, if, if, uh, if access to booze was what, was going to be my problem and going to cause me to drink, I'd have been drunk a whole long, a long time ago. Because there's always a bar right across the street. 
You know, it's not the access that's our problem. It's 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 the mind. <clears throat> we react sanely and normally, and we find that this has happened automatically. Sanely and reacting sanely and normally to alcohol would be no thanks. <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't want it. And if they keep pressing you and keep pressing you, no, come on, have a drink, have a drink. You know, uh, you know, I've I've gone so far as is to say sometimes. Well, you know, the last time I last time I had a drink, I tried to kill my family. You know, and listen, I don't like you anywhere near as much as I like my family. You still want me to have that drink? You you gonna you gonna pay the bill when the smoke clears? You know, if if I take that drink? <clears throat> okay, okay. I won't bother you anymore. I bet you won't. <laughs> We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. What does that mean? We've been busting our ass with these steps, haven't we? I mean, we've been running around making amends and doing fist steps and going to meetings. What do you mean no effort on our part? I think what they're talking about here is what we're trying to do is we're, we're, trying, we're trying to work a spiritual program. We're trying to live spiritually. We didn't go head on against the booze. The problem was removed. And that happens with our character defects a lot. You know, trying to be, uh, you know, trying to be unselfish. If you just try to be unselfish, you'll never get it done. <clears throat> but if you do all of this step work, all of a sudden you'll find that, that selfishness and self-centeredness has left you. You know, the problems get removed. We don't work on them head on. They get removed. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Use that as a, as a, a, a topic for discussion at the next, uh, next uh, discussion meeting you go to. I'm, I'm safe and protected from alcohol. You know, see what happens. Oh, man. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. My alcohol problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocking nor are we afraid. This is our experience. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So that's the that's the uh, that's the task at hand. We need to keep in fit spiritual condition. We need to participate in spiritual living. We need to take these steps. We need to become disciplined in ten and eleven. Uh, we need to work with other alcoholics and we need to pay attention to the directions in this book. That's what we need to do. If we do that, we'll stay in fit spiritual condition, and we will be able to to, to remain uh, to remain sober. <clears throat> it's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. Okay, what is resting on your laurels? Resting on your laurels is basically uh, expecting yesterday's accomplishments to keep you okay today. Listen, you, you, you know, last week's food won't keep you alive this week. It's the same thing with the spiritual life. We can't rest on our laurels. Every single day is a day that we need to be practicing spiritual living. We need to be making an attempt to do the best we can every single week. That's our job. Um, If we do rest on our laurels, we're headed for trouble. For alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. 
The daily reprieve that we get is based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So again, it's telling us for the fifth or sixth time here that we need to be diligent about uh, these instructions. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. That's another prayer directive. These these are thoughts which must go with us constantly. So it just said there that not my will, but thy will be done is something that needs to kind of be part of our thinking. It needs to be with us. It's saying in here constantly. So we need to be remembering that our job is to participate. You know, it's really God's job uh, to provide uh, uh, the conclusions to all this, the results to all this. We need to start letting go of the results and paying more attention to the process. And that's, that's really a great way for your life to get a lot better. Um, we can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It's the proper use of the will. <clears throat> it told us earlier in this book that willpower is of no avail against alcohol. You cannot will yourself away from the next drink. If you can, you're not alcoholic. They made that very, very clear in this book. It says basically, we hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Well, the alcoholic is the person who cannot use willpower against a drink. It might work 99 times out of 100. But then that hundredth time, you know, you tried to stay away from booze and you couldn't. You ended up at the bar or you ended up at the liquor store or you picked up that drink or you picked up that drug. So... We can't use willpower against alcohol directly. But what we can do is we can use our willpower to become disciplined living a spiritual life. Much has already been said about receiving strength and uh, inspiration and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent we become God-conscious. This really is amazing language. It really is. We've become God-conscious. Some people would think that's a very, very arrogant thing to claim. But how can we claim anything else after we've experienced all of the promises from these steps? What else can it be? What else can it be? We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense, but we must go further, and that means more action. All right, what is that vital sixth sense? Again, I think it's the realm of intuition. I think it's, uh, I think it's that sixth sense is what helps us to understand what might be the will of God for us, rather than the, the will of Chris. The will of Chris was a problem. Uh, I, there was never enough for, for, for me to, to be satisfied of anything. <clears throat> but we must go further, and that mean, means more action. Every single time we're, in the, we're, we're at that point between steps, it urges us on in a way that's urgent. There's a sense of urgency about moving from one step to the other. Um, there was a group up, up in my area uh, in, in the early 90s who practiced as a group and as a sponsorship ethic that you go through one step a year. Now, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm, I, you know I'm glad I, that wasn't my home group, you know, and boy, they hated it when I spoke there, i got to tell you. Um, 
if if I if I went through one step one step a year, you know, I I would have only started working with others in year twelve. And I got to tell you, most most of my really great experiences working with others were in between year five and ten. I mean, that's where most of my really good friends have come from. You, you know what I mean? I, I mean, I've got an extraordinary life because of uh, the relationships that were built. You know, in my first ten years, and I wouldn't, I would have, I would have been shortchanged on that if I was to do one step a year. <clears throat> so the book doesn't tell us to wait a year. The book says more action. We need more action. You know, immediately, now, next. I mean, these are all words that this book uses. So, <clears throat> step eleven. Step eleven suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. <clears throat> So what do we need to do? We need to have the proper attitude and we need to work at prayer. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. Now, step 11 is broken down into three parts, I believe. When we retire at night, upon awakening, and as we move through the day. Each of those are kind of different disciplines. And... You know, to truly say we work a program, to truly uh, thoroughly follow the path, you know, so we can be one of the rare, you know, one of the people who who don't doesn't fail. Um, I think we need to understand how to do this. Now, the great thing about Step 11 and the great thing about the spiritual process is it's never-ending. I mean, you can take this stuff and you can run with it. I can't tell you how many, how many people that I'm friends with who've become Zen masters and, you know, uh, they've, gone, they've gone to, back to seminary, you know, they're, they're becoming priests. I mean, they, they really ran with this spiritual stuff. They really ran with the prayer and the meditation. What they're giving us in these exercises is basically prayer and meditation 101. Now, we may have disciplines because many of us come from vital uh, religious practice. We may have disciplines. But what I, would, what I would suggest is, if you're an alcoholic, to do this and, you know, as well as, not instead of. You know, to do your regular stuff as well as, not instead of. This is important for us to be able to do, uh, to do this if we're alcoholic. Because it's going it, to, you know, we need to thoroughly follow the path. So let's look at what we do when we retire at night. We constructively review our day. Constructively review our day. Like we're like we're trying to look it over to see, you know, how can we have, how can we do it better next time? Not beating ourselves up. You know, we are so good at beating ourselves up. I can't believe I said that to the boss. I can't believe it. You know, I mean, we're we're always you know killing ourselves. Uh, this is supposed to be a constructive exercise. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? These are four step stuff. We ask ourselves: Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? These are questions we're supposed to ask at night. What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? 
But we, we must be careful not to drift into worry or remorse, morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. That's, that's the one we retire upon uh, at night exercise. Very simple. Just a handful of questions that we need to ask. And then a prayer directive. You know, asking God's forgiveness and, uh, and then uh, asking to see what corrective measures should be taken. Is there some amends that I need to make? Are there some character defects I need to begin to let go of? And, you know, and, and, uh, you know is, there, is there a different way to handle some of the relationship uh, stuff that went on today? Because we're, try, we're trying to get better at this thing called life. We, we really are. We're trying, we're, trying to, we're trying to live along spiritual lines. Now, here's the, here's the upon awakening uh, exercise. Upon awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. So you think about what, what's going to go on today. All right, I've got to go into work. You know, I've got a report due. You know, there's a meeting at 3 o'clock with, you know, the sales team. You know, I've got to get home. Uh, you know, there, there's, my kid's got a, a basketball game tonight I have to go. You know, you, you, you try to see the whole day. Um, but before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. This is a prayer directive. You need to put this, maybe not these exact words, but you need to put this, these thoughts into your morning prayers. Um, you ask God to direct your thinking. You ask that your thinking be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. You know, the great thing about prayer is, you know, there's always an answer to a prayer. A lot of times it's not what we expect. A lot of times it's not what we want. A lot of times it's not on our timetable. But there's always an answer to these prayers. For the last 19 years, I've been asking this in my my Upon Awakening. Uh, and, And looking at my life, my life is remarkably different than the way it was 19 years ago. I'm not even the type of person I would have liked 19 years ago. You know what I mean? If I saw somebody like me up there talking, you know, you know, back when I had a year, I'd, who, what horse's ass is this guy? I'm not even. I don't even recognize. I don't even resemble the type of person that I was in year one. And that's all to the good. It really is because I'm more effective. I'm more effective. I'm not. I'm not stumbling around, you know, blind to, to everything, you know, thinking I know better than everybody. Um, so this stuff works. These prayers work, especially the repetition of them. You change. You can change. The big human dilemma today is so many people can't change. You know how many self-help books are out there? And they're all about, you know, convincing you that you can change for the better. How many people in here actually really benefited from a self-help book? Couple of hands, okay? Couple of hands. I, you know, I read self-help books till the cows came home. All right, the joy of resentment. You know, I mean, you know, winning friends. Uh, you know, and influencing others uh, through terror. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you you na- you name the self-help book, Think and Grow Rich. You know, I mean, I, you know, I read every one of those books, and and they're all great books, and they all work for like 
non-alcoholics most of the time. But what would happen is when they tasked me with something, when they said, okay, put the book down now, pull out a piece of paper and write this down, I never would. Or the next time this happens, do this, I never would. I was trying to get better, in, you know, I was trying to live a better life through intellectually learning how. But it's behavior modification, it's not intellectual. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with insurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Uh, you know, our, our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Um, indecision is going to be part of our lives. Here we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. <clears throat> you know, try that next time you're confused and you don't know what to do. Don't just do something. Stand there. And ask God for an intuitive thought or, or decision and then relax and take it easy. Because it says we don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. So instead of freaking out and bearing down on something like we've done in the past, Let's just step back and let's, let's, let's see if we can get that intuitive process going on, uh, which, which really I believe the intuition is, is close to the direction I can get from God that, that there is, that intuitive thought uh, or that intuitive action. Uh, I see that working in my life, especially with working, working with others. Uh, I, I, for many years, and I still do, I did a lot of wet drunk work. Uh, I did a lot of 12-step calls. I did a lot of sponsoring people that were new. And I was not smart enough to handle those situations. And yet, you know, I had done a lot of prayer work beforehand, and all of a sudden I just kind of intuitively knew how to handle those situations with those other alcoholics. Does anybody in here understand what I mean? Like, yeah, when you're, when you're in there working with somebody, you're not that smart. So there's got to be a power coming from somewhere else that's leading you and guiding you. Because you're just, you're just not that good. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I've felt that. I know, I know what that's like. What used to be a hunter and occasional inspiration gradually becomes the working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having, having just made conscious contact with God, it is probable that we're going to not be going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. We come to rely upon being inspired by the right thought, the right action. And we continue to ask God for that and for the power to carry out some of these thoughts. And this comes. This is, this is what they talk about in this book. Being aware of the consciousness of the presence of God is something that goes with us. It's, it's, it's an amazing revelation. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. That we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We especially ask for freedom from self-will and are careful to make uh, no requests, uh, make, uh, 
no request for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that. It doesn't work. You can easily see why. So this, is a, this whole paragraph is a prayer directive. It's, it's aiming us toward the right types of prayer. An unselfish prayer. It's not like, oh God, can I have that Hemi Challenger? You know, or oh God, can I, you know, can I get that big promotion? Uh, it's more about, can I become more effective helping your children? That's, that's what it's really about. If our circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. This was an Oxford group practice. Uh, the whole family prayed together. They did. Um, and again, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a shame that uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's, it's, it's rarer. It's, it's the exception and not really the rule. When, uh, when the alcoholic is doing their prayer and meditation in the morning, it's usually a solitary thing. But I'll tell you what, uh, you know, if you have a family that's uh, amenable to it, a wife or a husband or children, give it a try. Uh, do some of this prayer and meditation together in the morning and just, just see how it works. See how it works out. Uh, I know some families that do this, and they get they, you know they they rely on it. They they actually they absolutely love it. If we belong to a religious denomination which requires definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. Notice that it says also, not instead of, you know, as well as. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. I've been doing that for about 19 years now. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they have to offer. You know, those are, those are directives. Um, I read a lot of spiritual books. Um, you know, um, in the 70s and 80s, I read a lot of science fiction. When, in my first, you know, five years in AA, I, I read a lot of crazy things. And slowly, it just, slowly my, my library started to shift toward more, more and more spiritual books. And lately, lately, probably in the last ten years or so, I've gotten heavily into, uh, in, into uh, Christian texts. A lot of real historical uh, work, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of critical uh, work, uh, you know, a lot of theology, a lot of church history. I just I find it fascinating, and I find and I find it comforting, and that's really where you know where uh, where I find my comfort in the in the Christian traditions. But I've also studied um, I've also studied Buddhism. Pretty heavily, I've also studied Judaism. Uh, I've studied some uh, some Muslim stuff. I've studied some Hindu stuff. I've, I've studied some uh, you know traditional American uh, Indian uh, um, philosophy and spirituality. And I find a lot of interconnectedness with all of it. Um, I find that a lot of the spiritual masters, you know, were basically saying the same thing: forgive and love. You know, it's, it's the same type of uh, of message. And I find that when my attention is drawn to those texts, you know, on a daily basis, as part of my reading, I find comfort in that. You know, I'm, I don't know that I'm do, I'm not necessarily doing this stuff out of a sense of virtue. I'm basically doing this stuff because it makes me feel better. You know, like. 
like everything I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I didn't do any of this stuff to become a better AA member. I, I, did, I did it to not feel like, like, like you know, such a scumbag. So, uh, so again, let's look at where where religious people uh, are right. That was a big shift for me because you know I wasn't a big fan of of uh, of uh, you know the religious people that were pointing their finger at me. You know I wasn't a big fan of that. And I've had a great shift now. Some of my favorite authors, some of the authors that really moved me, are Catholic authors. I mean, if you would have told me that 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't have believed you. But people like Richard Rohr and Thomas Keating, you know, and, and they're they're my favorite guys to read. They're they're they've got wonderful spirituality, and it translates into the 21st century in a way that I can understand it, and I can you know sometimes even put it into practical application. Uh, sometimes that's that's the hard part for me. As we go to the day. Here's, here's the part as we go through the day. So we've, we've done uh, when we retire at night and we've done upon awakening. Now let's look at as we go through the day. I like to tie this part of step 11 into step 10. Because remember, step 10 is the reactive step. Step 10 is when it asks us to pull out, the, the, out of our spiritual kit of tools the tool that fits each situation as we move through the day. So let's look at this. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. How about we just try this this week, folks, as, a, as an exercise. How about when we're, when we're agitated or when we're doubtful, do we pause and ask, and ask God for the right thought or action? Let's just try that and, and see how it goes. It'll be an interesting experiment. <coughs> We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. We humbly say to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. That's the second time it tells us to do this. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. I don't know about you, but I, you know those are things I don't want cropping up in my life all the time. I, I don't want fear and anger and worry and excitement, self-pity, and especially foolish decisions. I, I want to avoid those like the plague. And this is basically saying if we practice this, if we practice these principles, we're going we're gonna to be in a better place. We're just going to be in a more effective place. We're going to be happier. We're, you know, we're, we're going to be more productive. We're going to spend less time trying to patch up, you know, explosions that we've caused in our lives. We become much more efficient. You know, these are some of the step 11 promises. We do not tire so easily, for we're not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. The same energy we used running around like maniacs, you know, trying to put out fires, that same energy we can use to live a spiritual life, and it'll add to the productivity in our lives. And we're not going to be as tired. I've I, I got to tell you, here, here was me in my first two or three years of AA. And I'm serious about this. <clears throat> I had to be at work at 8 o'clock. I'd wake up about, you know, Quarter after seven, you know, I'd throw on my clothes, I'd get out in the car, I'd go to work, I'd come home from work about 4.15, and I'd have to take a nap. I mean, I was shot. I'd take a nap, and I'd wake up before the AA meeting. 
I'd wake up, I'd go off to the AA meeting, you know, maybe after the AA meeting I'd go to the diner, eat a hamburger, go home and go to sleep. That's all I could handle. I couldn't handle anything else in my life. You've got to see some of my days now. Some of the stuff I, cr- I put, into, put into life. I was up at the, the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders a couple of weeks ago. And I was working from 7 in the morning till like 11 at night. I mean, stressful, you know, doing interviews in, in front of a camera. You know, heavy-duty people. You know, trying to keep everything arranged. There's d- different people showing up at different times. I've, I've got to go out and glad-hand everybody and be Mr. PR and Mr. Sales. I mean, you know, this is, this is stuff. I wouldn't have been able to handle five minutes of, you know, back in the early '90s, and and you know it was it was not that not that difficult. You know what can you pack into the stream of life? You know what happens when you start to get heavily involved in this recovery stuff is you start to wish that there was a 48-hour day. You really do because there's just so much good stuff you'd like to do. The day is just not long enough. Back when I was drinking, I couldn't wait. For, I couldn't wait to pass out. I just wanted out. You know what I mean? You know, give me the hundred proof stuff because I want to go downtown now. You know, and I just wanted out. You know, today I want longer days. I mean, there's just some amazing stuff going on in my life. I can't. Even, if I told you just today what was going on in my life and, and who you know who I was networking with and what was going on. I, I could spend two hours telling you what was going on in my day to day. My you know in my life today. And it you know, it's amazing stuff. And you know, I can't take credit for this. Uh I the only thing I can the only thing I can say that really caused this in my own life was my adherence to some of these principles. You know, my effort at living life along spiritual lines. And again, I, you know, I did not do that to be virtuous. I did it to get out of the jackpot. And uh, you know, the great thing about uh, about the recovery process from alcoholism is look at it like this alcoholism is a chronically progressive fatal disease right? any, any scientist worth their weight in salt today is saying yes this is a disease it's chronic it's progressive and it's fatal um, the recovery process from this particular illness brings about a way of life that's absolutely remarkable. You know a new freedom and a new happiness. Now, you know, to, to, to recover from cholera, you know, to go into and, to, and take like a, take like a, a re, do a recovery process from cholera, you don't get a new, a new freedom and a new happiness. You don't wish to regret the past uh, nor wish to shut the door on it. I mean, you don't get all these promises. You know, you, you, know, you, you don't from those, uh, from those other treatments for diseases. The bad news is alcoholism uh, has an unorthodox treatment method. It's, it's in the 12 steps. It's unorthodox. The good news is the 12 steps bring you to a way of life that's truly remarkable and truly amazing and truly wonderful to live. Um, it works. It really does. 
We alcoholics are undisciplined, so we let God discipline us in the simple way we've just outlined in step 11. That's how we discipline ourselves. We discipline ourselves by doing what it's asking us to do in, in step uh, 11. For anybody that hasn't done uh, step 11, you know, upon awakening, when, we reti- when you retire at night and as you move through the day, for anybody that's not done that, I so highly recommend you just saying, okay, I'm going to try it that way for a week, just to see what happens in my life. I want to see how this stuff really does work. And I would challenge anybody in here who doesn't do it to just try it for a week and see how it works. I did that 19 years ago, and I would no, I would no more leave the house in the morning before my, before my prayer and meditation. I would no more leave the house in the morning than I would walk outside without my pants on. It's just something that I, you know, I would feel completely unequipped to handle the day without asking, asking God to come in and be part of that day. So, give it a try. Uh, but this is not all. There's action and more action. Here we're in between step uh, 11 and 12, and it's telling us again there's more action. Faith without work, works is dead. The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. And, um, you know, um, we will talk about uh, step 12. We'll get involved in step 12. We're probably not going to make it all, all the way through the chapter, but we'll get involved in step 12 uh, next week. Uh, next week will be uh, the last week that I'll, I'll, be able to, um, I'll be able to do this workshop. Um, we've got some, uh, some business we need to take care of back up in New Jersey so we can come down here and really, really land for good. So we're going to go up and we're going to take care of that. And uh, um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to next week. Uh, thanks a lot for being here. Tonight. It's Chris and I am an alcoholic. I'm looking forward to tonight. We're uh, we're on the chapter more about alcoholism. I'm sorry, there is a solution, chapter two, and the last the last three weeks we've we've basically been covering uh, some. Uh, some information, some uh, historical information, uh, a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, some of the things that happened early on and you know why the book was written, uh, what, what the fellowship looked like back in the early days. And we've been uh, pretty much, though, staying with, uh, with step one. And it's going to be that way for a couple more weeks. There is a whole lot of information in this book uh, on step one. Um, it belabors the concepts that, uh, that Bill wants us to understand, that the first 100 alcoholics wants us to understand. It goes over example after example after example of what alcoholism looks like, how it shows up, how it presents, what are, what are some of the, what, you know, uh, there's descriptions of what alcoholics look like. Uh, there's the different, uh, uh, the different ways that we drink uh, and why we're different than other people. Uh, so I'm going to start on the chapter chapter two. There is a solution, but before I do that, I want to quickly jump to uh, a couple of sentences in the chapter uh, uh, We Agnostics, and there's a reason for that. This is page 44. I'm just going to read a couple of sentences in the uh, in the top of We Agnostics, then I'm going to jump back to There is a Solution. Uh, 
In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. So that's the reason for the chapter more about alcoholism and there is a solution. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. That's something Bill wanted to make clear, the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic. It's not something that you hear a lot about in discussion meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. A lot of times they just assume you're alcoholic if you walk through the door. But in these chapters, they take their painstaking about covering the material that each of us needs to be able to identify ourselves as alcoholics, or if we're if we're working with somebody or taking somebody through the steps, the information that we need to identify them as as alcoholics. And then it says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. Now that's a summation of everything that we're going to go through in the chapter, There is a Solution, and uh, the chapter more about alcoholism. But I wanted to read that so that maybe when, maybe when we're looking at these chapters, we're looking at them a little bit differently than we have in the past. We're looking at them as identifiers. Uh, The information that we need to fully concede to our innermost selves that we're alcoholic and we're powerless over alcohol and without help, it's going to be too much for us. Um, You can't get too much personal truth about the first step. But you can get too little. I think the people that don't have a sense of urgency when they come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they just kind of sit around and hope to get it through osmosis and, and, and not get busy and then end up relapsing, I think, that it, I think that they're either unclear on the first step or, or else, you know, or else they're one, of, they're, they're one of those people that cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, like Bill says in How It Works. But what I don't want is I don't want somebody who's truly desperate to get over alcohol, uh, get, get over their alcohol problem, to recover from alcoholism. I don't want somebody who's desperate and willing to not be presented with the correct information. A lot of times the correct information is not, you know, go do a 90 and 90 or whatever. That's, that's not what they did back in the early days to recover from alcoholism. Is a 90 and 90 a good idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. I like the people who do a 90 and 90 like this, 90 different meetings in 90 days. Okay, so that you really get a cross-section of what's going on in your area. But back in the day, they didn't have, they didn't have, they had two meetings in the United States. So how could they really do uh, a 90 and 90? So they got busy, they got busy with the steps. But let's get, let's get started with the chapter, um, There is a Solution. I'm going to jump around. You don't necessarily have to follow me in the book. If you just listen, uh, you know, and then go over this chapter uh, when you get home or, you know, the next time you, you want to study the book, that'll, that'll be fine. There is a solution. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. That's a great statement. Remember Bill's story 
precedes this chapter. And it really, really shows a hopeless alcoholic. He was desperate to separate from alcohol for many, many years before he was able to. And that really is what, uh, what a hopeless alcoholic is. Someone who really wants to stop, but finds they can't. And it's also the most misunderstood person on the planet. You know, somebody who, who swears to you that, you know, I, I, I never want to drink again, and then tomorrow they're drunk. If you don't understand alcoholism and you don't understand powerlessness, you, you think they're a lunatic. You know, you think they've lost their mind or they're being dishonest with you or whatever. It, but that's how, that's how um, alcoholism presents. It presents in an utter inability to stay separated from alcohol, no matter how much you want to, no matter what the consequences are uh, of you drinking. And we're going we're gonna to see this in, this in this chapter. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out upon which we can absolutely agree, upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. The tremendous fact is that we have discovered a common solution. In the day, when prior to putting this book together, there were a number of spiritual exercises that these, these men actually took. There was a way of living spiritually that they engaged in. And the people that did that recovered. And the people that didn't, you know, maybe they were... At best, they, were, they would stay sober for periods of time. At worst, they, they pretty quickly died. Uh, because these really were low-bottom alcoholics. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe it in illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. Now, to stay out of controversy, when I talk about alcoholism, I do call it an illness. I happen to believe 100% that alcoholism is a disease, and that's only happened recently. Uh, And I, I became convinced that alcoholism is a disease because of an argument a medical addiction doctor put forth in a movie called Pleasure Unwoven. I highly recommend this movie for anybody who likes, you know, the nuts and bolts of you know, the medical view on alcoholism or addiction. And basically, this is the argument that he has. Uh, people who say alcoholism is a problem of choice use the argument that if you put a gun to somebody's head at a bar and tell them if you're going to take if you take a drink I'll blow you away they're they're most likely even if they're alcoholic they're most likely not going to take a drink so they're saying see it's a matter of choice they can choose not to drink but that but that argument doesn't really hold water because with the gun at your head and the glass of whiskey in front of you and you not drinking it, the suffering of alcoholism doesn't stop. That craving for alcohol doesn't stop. That's part of an addictive illness. And, and how they explain it today in medical science for the layman, because there's all kinds of brain chemistry functions that have been studied, but basically what it is, is it's, it's like the reptilian part of your brain. It's the instinctual part of your brain. It gets ideas, and those ideas are usually based on survival. 
You know, like don't cross the street while cars are coming. These are like these are like thoughts that we that we have that are for self preservation. Well, what happens is the thought to go across the street and go to the bar and buy whiskey is one thought in there and then you've got other thoughts that are like wow the last time I drank whiskey I ended up in a detox and 28 day program and I lost my family and my job you know maybe I better not drink you know that's a thought that's in there too or the thought that if I if I start drinking whiskey you know my parole officer is going to give me I'm going to get a dirty urine you know I'm going back to prison I better not drink you know that thought could be in there too well, what happens is part of the addiction uh, brain chemical cycle is the thought that a drink would make you feel better goes to the top of the line. And it may not be the smartest thought you have, but it goes to the top of the line. And at the top of the line, that's what you act on. Has anybody in here ever sworn off booze and then found themselves at the liquor store or at the bar? You know, absolutely. Now, now, if you really thought about it, wouldn't you have come to the conclusion that going to the liquor store or going to the bar was a bad idea? We're not stupid people. We just don't have access to that sound reasoning where it concerns alcohol because part of the addiction cycle is the leapfrogging of the thought process that a drink would make us feel better. And, you know, Bill and the boys who put this book together saw this and described it. This is still the best clinical description of alcoholism you'll ever find in this book. They basically saw what we're figuring out and being able to prove with science today. They figured this out 75 years ago. And we're only just being able to prove it with some of the, some of the studies today. Uh, if a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness. For with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferer. Now isn't that true? Let, let's, say, let's say for a minute, you know, for argument's sake, alcoholism is 100% a disease. Okay? It can be classified with heart disease or cancer or any of them. We don't treat alcoholics like they have a disease, though. Society doesn't... We, we look on it like it's, a, like it's a problem, like it's a moral failing. So many people still do. As sponsors, as treatment providers for addiction, we, we, we continue this, this stigma and this discrimination against people. Because they drink. If they drink... You, you know, you loser, you drank. You know, you got to stick with the winners. The losers are the guys that are drinking. That's 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 discrimination against somebody with addictive illness. Okay, because you know, if someone is powerless, how can we blame them for drinking? You know, would you blame somebody whose cancer came back? Your cancer came back. You know, and we were helping you, and we were supporting you. You know, I mean, would you do that? No, 
of course not. So we all have these these these, these embedded perspectives on on alcoholics, and, and you know we even have this unreasoning prejudice as far as alcoholism is concerned. When really, if we really and truly believed it was a disease, we would insist that the insurance companies pay for it. We would we would insist that no one could be discriminated against. But you know we stay out of that fight because somewhere in the back of our minds we do kind of think it's a matter of choice we do kind of think it's a matter of you know how 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 moral a, somebody is you know how they're out you know i'm not drinking today cuz i'm doing a better job morally than somebody you know it's 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 not the right way to look at it uh, alcoholism brings uh, misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. Now, they're talking about how we can help as recovered alcoholics. It says here, but the ex problem drinker who has found this solution, what solution? The 12 steps who is properly armed with facts about himself, what facts? Well, the facts about the problem, which is step one, and the solution, which is steps two through twelve. We need to be properly armed with those facts about ourselves that come from our own experience. In other words, if we're going to be of real help to someone, we need to have gone through the steps, we need to have an awakened spirit as a result of those twelve steps, to be able to be of maximum benefit to these other alcoholics. Because we need to be armed with the facts about ourselves. Uh, and you know we have to have an experience of recovery. It says we can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. It's hard enough to convince somebody that they need to go through the 12 steps... It's hard enough if you've got the experience and you can say to them and convince them that, that, that you know what it's like. You know what they're feeling right now. You've had similar experiences. You've blown your life up as you know, you've blown your life up too at times. You, you know, you've you've gotten the DUIs. You you know, you you've tried to get away from booze and you couldn't. You you've had you've 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 had misunderstandings and doubts about what the heck is going on in your own drinking life. Also, you can help convince somebody that you know how know what they feel like, know where they are because you've been there yourself. And if you can do that, then it's even then it's hard enough to convince somebody of the to, to engage in the recovery process but if they don't believe you know what you're talking about there's very little chance you'd ever be able to convince them to do the things they need to do to recover the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty that he obviously knows what he's talking about that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. No dues to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. Now, two things. They're talking about what, what they're going to cover in the chapter Working with Others. The chapter Working with Others covers the approach. On the first visit, 
on the second visit, how you approach a prospect, all that information is in the chapter working with others. But they're giving us a little bit of a clue about what what we're going to need to what we're going to need to do after our own personal recovery. None of us makes a sole vocation in this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. We feel that the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. That's a powerful sentence. Alcoholics Anonymous is not about sobriety alone. Is sobriety a good idea? You know, I'd recommend it. You, you know, uh, if you're alcoholic, uh, probably probably sobriety is going to be infinitely superior than, than drunkenness. But that's only a beginning. This isn't about sobriety. It's about recovery. It's about increasing your quality of life. It's about uh, becoming more effective with personal relationships. It's about getting to a point where you're not in pain because of your emotional nature. You're not suffering from depression and anxiety and guilt and remorse and shame and self-centered fear and all that stuff. You've gotten to a point where uh, where you've recovered. And uh, being recovered also has to do with being emotionally healthy most of the time. So that's really what we have to offer here. We have to offer a whole lot more than mere sobriety. When I came into AA, I would have been happy just to be able to stay away from booze because I was shooting myself in the foot. I don't know about anybody else, but I was getting DUIs like you wouldn't believe. I'll share I'll share a couple of DUI stories with you and just keep in mind that I'm not a stupid guy, you know? And, I, and make sure you're thinking about that when I'm, when I'm explaining these stories. I'm in this bar one night, and Andrea actually was with, there with me. This is 1975, okay? I'm in this bar, Pittstown, New Jersey. They're playing country music, and, and there's, you know, there's square dancing. We're just, we're just having a hootenanny, you know? And, I, and I, the, one of the last things I remember is chugging pitchers of beer. Okay. Now that is not social drinking. Okay. <laughs> Anybody in here, if, if you have experience chugging pitchers of beer, you know, that's a little bit abnormal. But I was chugging pitchers of beer, uh, allowed myself to become overserved, as was uh, as was normal for me. And what happened was, uh, my, you know, my ride home disappeared, so I had to brave the roads myself. So um, so I'm driving. I made it about a mile and a half away from uh, away from the uh, uh, the bar, and I hit some black ice, and the car slid slid around backwards and smashed into a bridge abutment, going backwards about 40 miles an hour. I was thrown out the back window. I, I remember looking up, and my legs were still in the car, but I was laying on the trunk of the car, looking up and seeing the stars. Now. You know, I, sh- I shook myself off. I, you know, I got up, and the car was still running, believe it or not. But it, it had, you know, it had three flat tires. There wasn't a window left in it. It was bent like a boomerang. You know, the lights were facing like this. But what do you do? I, I am in the right room. You know why I 
say that because that is the right answer. You know? I'm going home. You know? so, so I start driving this thing, okay? And it's got three flashlights. I'm going, whack it up, we'll get a van, whack it up, we'll get a van. And I remember driving by a cop taking radar. Okay? He's like, he didn't even pull me over, he walked me over. Okay? I'm so, so, so. And he reaches in the window and he starts shaking me. Where'd you have that accident? I'm like, what accident, officer? There's glass flying out of my hair. Uh, DUI number one, 1975. You know, cops were cops were always hassling me. And he goes, he goes, where are you going? Uh, I go, Basking Ridge. He goes, that's 43 miles. You don't have any tires. I'm like, leave me alone. You know, I know what I'm doing. Oh, God. I'm going to fast forward all the way to my last DUI. Okay, this, this one happened in like 19, I think it was 1984, 1983. Uh, I'm back, I'm back, I'm living back with mom. Okay, because, because, you know, where, where do you go when you're like a macho guy and the cops are after you? you? You lost one more job, you know, and the wife and the kids are gone. And, you know, the bill collectors are after you. And there's people who want to break your legs. And you say to yourself, I, I wonder if mom needs any help around the house. You know? So, so I'm living back, I'm living back in New Jersey, and, you know, with mom and, and, and some, and some poor old roommate, uh, you know, who didn't know how bad I was at that time, decided to call me up. He was in town. Hey, let's let's go out drinking. So we go out drinking, and I remember bits and pieces. You, you remember? You remember? Uh, 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 what, what are they called? Uh, hazy recollections. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Where you, you remember little bits, and you you know you can kind of put a little bit of the night together. Well, I remember being in this bar called uh, Gasoline Alley. And I am way drunk, okay? I go up to, I go up to the bartender and I go, Bartender, if I were you I wouldn't even serve me. And he goes, Well, why are you saying that? I go, Because I'm drunk out of my mind And he goes, Well, for being so honest, what do you have? It's on the house, okay? So, so I go I'll have a triple bourbon, okay? And he made three things. Of, there's this much room in the glass for, for Coke, for bourbon and Coke, right? And he takes the spritzer and he holds it over the glass and I go... And he goes, like this, you know. And, and I start drinking. I start drinking. I'm about halfway through this drink, and I'm looking around. And I see, a, I see a table of very attractive women sitting there talking and having a drink. And I think to myself, they would benefit greatly, I, you know, from my presence. You know, I, I could really lighten up, you know, their life a little bit here. So, so I start heading across the room toward this table of women. And I get about halfway there and they look over and they see me coming and it's like they're like oh, you know, they're horrified and, and I get I get almost to the table and I trip and, and I land on their table and I knock all their drinks into their lap and everything and so, so my buddies are grabbing me they're taking me out to the car I end up I end up back over this guy's house I end up back over this guy's house, and I don't remember much, but I think I got in an argument with him, and, you know, it was his parents' house, and I had a problem with how his parents were living in their own house or something, you know. 
know, they said something to me. You know how that is. What'd you say? You know, and uh, and I had to leave. I had to leave really quick. So again, I'm overserved and I'm driving. Now, supposedly, I crossed the double yellow. Okay, you know how cops are. Supposedly. Now, he comes up, he pulls me over, I pull over, comes up, he knocks on the window, you know, I roll the window, and uh, he goes, license, registration, insurance card. So, they're in the glove compartment, you know, it's my mother's car. They're in the glove compartment. So, I'm reaching over, and I'm going through, I'm going through the glove compartment, looking for him, and I'm going through, and I'm going through, and I'm going through, and finally, the hell with this, I grab the entire contents of the glove compartment, just hand it to the cop, okay? There's maps and packages of tissues and hairbrushes and, you know, pens and, and out of the car. You know, oh God! So he did. He did some kind of field sobriety. I remember. I remember hazy recollections. Remember, I remember being in the police department later that night, uh, being filmed. Anybody in here ever have their DUI thing filmed? Oh, I see some heads turning. Uh, Have you ever seen the video of that? Is is that horrifying? I mean, you need therapy after after something like that. But anyway, here I am. I'm, I'm getting filmed. And I thought I did a really good job because I can remember nailing the ABCs. Okay, it has nothing to do with I learned them when I was five, but I na- no, I nailed them. So I hire this lawyer. You know, I get this. I wake up with the summons. I hire this lawyer. And I, I tell him, you know, I refuse the breathalyzer and everything. We're gonna fight this miscarriage of justice. I'll tell you what I know. I nailed the ABCs. And uh, so, so what happens is I hire this fifteen hundred dollar lawyer gets all suited up and we go up to the police station to view the DUI video. Okay. Now I knew I was in trouble when I went in there because the cop that handed us the VHS tape was sniggering. He was going like you know so like oh boy. And we put it in and we press play and I am horrified. I mean, if you have never seen a video of yourself tongue-chewing, knee-walking, not able to operate your own pants, zipper drunk, you are missing something, okay? Anyway, I'm like, like, and I nailed the ABCs, all right? It gets to the ABCs. Here's how I nailed them. Can I have a cigarette? And I'm like, oh my god! And there's there's actual video where they've got me walking the line. I'm hanging on to the cop. I mean, oh, it's, oh, it's just horrible. And I, my head is like sinking in shame. But but I've paid fifteen hundred dollars for this lawyer, so he's taking notes and he's got the the three piece suit. And he's very serious. And it gets to the end of this video, and the cop goes, uh, uh, Mr. Schroeder, well, you know, we're going to turn the video camera off, uh, but before we do that. We'd just like to ask you, is there anything you would like to add? Oh, no. <laughs> and I, that's exactly what I said. I said, oh, no. I look over at the camera and I go, like this, right? Oh, I'm like, oh, my God. The attorney who's been real, you know, real, so he breaks down laughing. He's like, wah! I've never seen anything so stupid in my life. Whoa! If you had any chance of eating this, whoa! You just blow it. And I'm like, oh. I guess we'll plea, you know. Uh, 
Now, now think about it. You know, I had a really bad experience in 1975. Why am I still drinking and driving in 1983? Why have I had three DUIs? Why have I totaled nine cars and drunken blackouts? Why do I still continue to do that? It doesn't make any sense because I'm not stupid. Getting my license back for a third DWI, I want to tell this story. I had to go to Wayne Motor Vehicle, all right? Getting my license back, I got drunk to go get my license back. And they didn't want to give me the paperwork because I was quite obviously drunk getting my license back for a third DUI at the motor vehicle. Now, you know, I mean, you got to... You got to think about this. This is this is how alcoholism can present by being incredibly stupid where it concerns alcohol. It doesn't mean that we're stupid people. It means where alcohol is concerned, we just can't see right from wrong. We can't see truth from false. We don't know how much trouble we're in. What's wrong with having a vodka or two before I go stand in line at the motor vehicle? You know, what's really wrong? It's a free country, isn't it? Don't they sell alcohol legally at the, at the, at the store? What's the problem? You know, that's the way I, that's the way I would think. And I thought, I thought with drinking and driving, I thought... You know, if you're going to be driving, you should you should drink. You should face traffic with confidence. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just kind of the way I thought. It's it's incorrect thinking. It's insane thinking. But it's thinking that that because we suffer from alcoholism, a lot of times that stuff makes sense to us. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense to the cop that's pulled you over, but it makes a lot of sense to us. You know, anybody in here have DUIs in their history? Anybody in here have a lot of DUIs in their history? There you go. Oh, man. All right, they're talking about this book. We've concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall bring to task our combined experience and knowledge. So the first 100, which were really about the first 80, you know, there were a lot of people going in and out at that time. It really is their combined experience and their combined knowledge. Because what happened is when these first chapters were being written, Bill, Bill was getting them written with Hank Parkhurst and Hank's secretary, you know, somewhere in Newark, New Jersey, and they, and they would turn out these chapters, and then they would send them to Akron, and then they would bring them to the New York meetings. And the meetings, the get-togethers, were all about, let's read these chapters and see, what, see if they're right, see if they make sense, see if we can make them better. And so for a good year or so, these chapters were being read at the Akron and the New York meetings, and many suggestions were being made, and many revisions. There was probably a hundred rewrites to the first four or five chapters in this book. And so it really is, the first four or five chapters really are the combined experience of the early AAs. They knew what worked. I mean, if it worked, they were there. They were sober. If it wasn't working, they were gone. Uh, Over on page 20, it says, If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may be asking, what do I have to do? 
That's the, that's the thing where we, we, we can get this wrong with alcoholism. We can get this wrong. We don't, we don't ask, what do we have to do? We ask things like, what do we need to know? Can you tell me how to figure this out? This is a problem. I've got a drinking problem. Problems are meant to be solved. How do I solve this problem? Well, the, the right questions are more important, really, than the right answers a lot of times. And what we need to be asking is, what do I need to do? Because it's about, recovery is about what you do, not about what you think or what you come to understand or what you learn. It's more about how you're, it's more about behavior modification than it is about understanding. It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. What question? The question, what do I have to do? We shall tell you what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. Now, here's the description. There's no definition of alcoholism. It's very, very hard to define alcoholism. You don't want to, you don't want to, to, to hem it in with explicit parameters because it manifests in many different ways with many different people. There are some things that are common to all of us, but not every case of alcoholism is, is presenting in the exact same way. But what, you, what, what they realize they could do is give a description. Now, how you turn these descriptions into something you can use is you turn these statements into questions and you put your own name in there. I'll give you an example of how that's done. How many times did people say to Chris, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't you? Did anybody ever say that to you? Chris, why don't you... Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? Chris can't handle his liquor. Chris, why don't you try beer and wine and lay off that hard stuff? I heard that a lot. Because they were thinking, you know, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. Why do you have a quart of vodka with you? You know? I don't even start drinking beer until 5 in the afternoon. It's like, shut up. Chris's willpower must be weak. Uh, he could stop if he wanted to. Here's a great one. She's such a sweet girl, I think Chris would want to stop for her sake. What? <laughs> I'm drinking because of her. You know? <laughs> oh. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him, but there he is all lit up again. How about the judge told him, that, you know, if you ever drink and drive again, you know, you're, no, you're, gonna, you're not going to see your license until they're jets and mobiles. You know what I mean? I've heard that one. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. Now, here's, the, here's a brilliant part of this book. Ignorance and misunderstanding. They, they really did understand alcoholism. There's a lot of treatment centers. There's a lot, there's a lot of drug programs. There's a lot, of, a lot of people out there who are supposed to understand us that really don't. We see these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different than ours. We are a distinct entity. We are bodily and mentally different than our fellows if we're alcoholic. We need to understand that. We need to embrace that. And we need to concede that. That we are different. Our reaction to alcohol is different than Aunt Fanny's and Uncle Fudd's. They can have a couple of glasses of wine. And then they start to feel it. You ever drink with people that 
start to feel it on you? Yeah. My God. That's the whole point. Of course you feel it. Why would you drink? You know, if you didn't... Here's here's some here's some here's some stuff that we need to pay attention to because remember I took us to the first paragraph of we agnostics. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And here's where it starts to show a description of a moderate drinker, a hard drinker and an alcoholic. So let's pay attention to this. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. That's usually not us. If we, get, if, we, if we find our way into Alcoholics Anonymous, it's usually not us. There are moderate drinkers that end up in here because they've gotten a DUI or a court order or whatever. But they get the hell out as soon as they can because they realize it's an overreaction to a problem that they can handle. And they can if they're a moderate drinker. They can just not do that anymore. I wish I could just not do that anymore. I kept doing it. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically or mentally. So this is somebody who's drinking a lot of booze. It's impairing them physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If, but if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate. Although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need mental, medical attention. He may even need to go to Happy Hills just to, just to break the habit. But it's just a habit. It's not, in the, it's not an alcoholism. It's, you know, a habit. Now, I had a roommate in college. His name was Jeff. And every single weekend, we would plan on going, getting into a blackout and causing trouble. We would say, let's, let's go have a blackout. I mean, we were crazy drinkers. I was a bourbon drinker, and he was a rum drinker. And we would both buy quarts of our stuff, and we would drink until we passed out on the floor. And there was a lot of times we caused a lot of trouble. We had a lot of car wrecks. We embarrassed ourselves in a number of ways. We annoyed people, and, you know, uh, people thought we were absolutely crazy. Uh, and we drank just like each other. What happened was he met a girl, and he fell in love with this girl, and this girl saw him one time drinking with me and said, Oh, no, 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 no. You are going to be doing that again if you want to be in my presence. And guess what? He moderated for the rest of his life. He'll have one or two drinks. He will never get drunk again. All right, that was a that was a heavy drinker who who with sufficient reason, you know, I'm you know, I'm going to break up with you is able to moderate. Now, but that's not that was not me. See, I was an alcoholic and he was a heavy drinker. We looked exactly alike. And we got the DUIs the exact same way. And we and we, we started the apartment on fire the same way. And 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 we would leave the we would leave the, the chicken in the toaster oven while we passed out the same way. And we you know, we would come to and there'd be smoke everywhere and there'd be a meteorite, you know, in the in the toaster oven. <laughs> we did all that stuff. But the but the difference was with sufficient reason, this guy was able to moderate. 
He just gave it up. It was more fun being with this woman than it was running around drinking with me. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. This is one part of step one. This is the physical craving. Does anybody in here relate to this? I mean, sometimes it's very difficult being completely honest with ourselves about this. Our ego wants us to say we just changed our mind. You know, like like it's Friday and we've got the paycheck and we're just going to stop off for a couple of drinks. And we change our mind and blow the whole paycheck. I think I'll blow the whole paycheck and, you know, come to somewhere in, in a field Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All right? Our, our egos want us to be in control. Nobody, you know, who among us wishes to admit complete defeat that we have absolutely no control? None of us. So we tell ourselves lies. Alcoholics. One of the things I used to hear in AA meetings all the time was, was denial's not a river in Egypt. Denial is not what alcoholics suffer from. You know what denial is? Denial is saying the 12 traditions are not up on a shade behind me. Okay, that's denial. They're not there. Those 12, decisions, 12 traditions are not there. That's denial. Delusion is me actually thinking they're not there. Actually believing they're not there. There's two different things. The alcoholic suffers from delusion, which is infinitely worse than denial. Denial is just a, a lie. Delusion is an insanity. Um, Here's the fellow who's been puzzling you, you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Here's where I put myself into it. Does Chris do absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking? You have no idea. He's a, is he a real Jekyll and Hyde? I used to answer the door with a handgun. It would be it would be Girl Scouts selling cookies. You know, I'd be drinking, or I'd be like be drinking at the bar, la da da, la da da, la da da, and I'd cross a cross a, a, a line, and somebody would say something, and I'd want to take my highball glass and smash it through their face. You know, I'd be, you, you know what I mean? I just snap, and all of a sudden I'm psychotic. I'll kill you. You know. Jekyll and Hyde, you know it. He's seldom mildly intoxicated. You know, there's a lot of people out there who just put on a buzz, you know? I knew a lot of beer drinkers, you know, they they would they would just kind of maintenance drink some beers and just have like a mellow, you know, just good, I'm I'm good. They would never get out of control, they'd never crash any cars, they'd never get into crazy fights or anything. They just kinda of kept it cool. That's not me. I, you know, I was a blackout drinker. I would start drinking and I would go into a blackout so fast it would make your head spin. I would be sober at 5 o'clock when I went to the liquor store and in a blackout by 7. And that really cut, started to cut down on my social life. <laughs> he is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgusting, even dangerously antisocial. Did Chris get disgusting and dangerously antisocial? You know it. There wasn't anybody left in my life in the last two years of my drinking. Anybody that had any sense at all was like, it is not good 
being in this guy's presence. He may be funny, he may be a lot, he may be a blast to be with, but he crosses this line, he turns into like Charles Manson. You know, I'm not going to be in his presence anymore. And so I became an isolation drinker. I was, I was drinking on my own, basically trying to seek oblivion. <clears throat> Um, he has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment. Like when he's getting his license back for a third DUI. <laughs> Particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. Um, he's often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Read this description. Highlight anything in this that you relate to. You know, the more of the more of this you can say, yes, this is me. The closer you're going to get to the first step. <clears throat> As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high power sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves, so he can go to work. This is what I did. I, you know, one time I went to a doctor because what was happening was when I was getting up at, at 6.30 in the morning to go to work at 7, I'd be shattered and I'd be shaking. I'd be nervous, like like, uh, like really high strung. So I went to the doctor. I said, Doc, I'm like high strung all the time. And I wake up and I'm really nervous. And, uh, and he, he takes his hooter and he listens to my heart. And it's going, you know, because I'm going through detox. And he goes, well, sounds like you have a protracted mitral valve, and that really could cause uh, acute anxiety. There's this new drug for anxiety. I'm going to write you a prescription. <clears throat> it's called Xanax. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, what kind of milligrammages do those things come in, Doc? Because uh, I'm probably going to need the big ones. And, uh, <clears throat> within a month, I'm not eating. Now, on the label, it says no alcohol in the biggest letters you've ever seen, okay? But I'm an alcoholic. That no alcohol is like for amateurs or something, you know. <laughs> the, the disco drunks or something, I, you know. So, so am I drinking with them? You, I wasn't even counting them. I was weighing them in my hand. And I, I eat about 20 of them at one shot, and I chug like a half a bottle of vodka. Now, this will make you limber, okay? <laughs> Within like an hour, I'm, I'm drooling and... All my furniture's broken in the house, you know, from trying to go across the room. It was a mess. So, you know, high power sedative, absolutely. Both Bill and Dr. Bob had drug issues. And they had the drug issues basically because they were trying to moderate their hangovers with these drugs. And, and uh, you know, they were going into detox. <clears throat> and detox is awful scary. Either you drink your way through a detox by having a little hair of the dog, or you get some high power sedative, which uh, is not really the answer, by the way, if you're new or just coming back. <clears throat> Anyway, <laughs> perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. <clears throat> Back in the 30s, morphine was a real problem. You could go to you could go to the the drugstore and buy Aunt Millie's hay fever remedy, and it would have morphine in it. You know, there were so many over-the-counter morphine remedies back then. You have no idea. Most uh, most of the treatment centers that, that really started to pop up in the mid 1800s, half of the people they treated were morphine addicts. <clears throat> the other half was alcoholics. Some cocaine people, but the cocaine people were were weird. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
They'd, they'd feel good way too fast, you know what I mean? Like, I've been here two days, and, you know, I'm ready to handle this whole thing on my own. Anybody ever sponsor one of them? I got this. It's been two days. I got it. This is no, by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. So, you want to be identified roughly as an alcoholic, you know, take a look at some of this stuff. Now, you may not have gone down the scale this far. Remember, these were low-bottom alcoholics that they were dealing with back in the day. But there should be some things that you can relate to, <clears throat> so that you can say, "Ali, Ali, oxen free." You know, I'm all in. You know, if, if if you can't, you really may be in the wrong room. Uh, <clears throat> over on page 23, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. So they're talking about that craving when you pick up the first drink. It always asks you to take the second. And the second one always insists on taking the third. And the third always demands that you take the fourth. I mean, that's what the, that's what the physical craving is like. When we have alcohol in our system, we want more alcohol in our system. And come hell or high water, we're putting more alcohol in our system. When I started drinking, I knew I was in it. Okay, I, di- I didn't. I didn't tolerate things that would break me off from it. There was this one time when I was going over to meet my first girlfriend's parents. Okay, and I went over there, and I'm, I got to be kind of cool, you know, because because I'm 19 and she's 15, you know, and the old man's kind of like looking at me, you know. So, but they offered me a drink. They offered me a beer, so I drink the beer, and I'm done with the beer, and I'm like, uh, you got another beer? <laughs> no, that was the last one. That was the last one. I'm thinking, what, they have like two beers in the refrigerator? Why would you do that? That would be like going to the store for a half of a cigarette or something. That make no sense. So, uh, so I'm like, well, um, you, got, you got any scotch? You know? <laughs> no, we don't have any scotch. And uh, I... You know, I just remembered that my my mother has to go to the hospital. Yeah, you know, and, uh, and I'd love to stay for dinner, you know, but uh, but I started the motor running, and you got no more alcohol, you morons! I gotta go, you know. And so I made my excuses, and I and I was off and running. And you know, this is not how a non a non alcoholic could have had a beer. You know what I mean? I don't know how they do it, but they can have a beer. Therefore, the main problem the alcoholic center is mind rather than his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. You know, why did you start up again? Well, because I wanted to lose my family and my driver's license, and I was looking forward to another 28 days in Happy Hills. You know, why do you think? <laughs> I love wallet making class. You know? uh, I saw an ashtray I made. You know, I call it the resentment ashtray because I don't know about anybody else, but I had issues when I was in treatment. You know, I was always mad at somebody. Uh. <laughs> the 
tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic, the happy day is not going to arrive when they can just summon up their willpower and decide to be normal drinkers. We want that with all of our might. I was trying to chase a high I felt when I was 15 and I first started to drink. All was right with the universe. I felt I had a Seagram's 7 and 7. Okay? And the glow, it went through me and the glow was wonderful. And I felt one with the world. And I felt like I was the funniest guy and everything was cool. And I could go to that dance at the school without, you know, uh, lead legs. And I could be what I wanted to be. And I didn't have that fear. And I had that wonderful fear. Feeling. I was chasing that feeling. I didn't get that feeling the last ten years of my drinking. I usually went from being, you know, uh, being filled with self pity. You know, I'd either be crying, you know, watching a love boat rerun, or, or else I'd be really mad, you know, calling up my boss drunk and threatening his life. I'm gonna kill you. And I did that once, and I was in a blackout, and I didn't remember doing it. And I went walking into work the next day after I threatened his life. He's like, you! Yo, what are you doing here? I'm like, what? What's your problem, man? You threatened my life! Get out of here, you psychotic! The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. What does losing the power of choice in drink mean? In drink is before you drink it, and in drink is after you drink it. You only got the two problems. One of them is when you're not drinking, and the other is when you're drinking. If it weren't for those two problems, you'd probably be okay. <laughs> Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times, that's what fools a lot of us, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force of memory the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first strength. So just keep your memory green. Everything's gonna be fine. No, you won't be able. You won't be able to remember the suffering and humiliation of even a week ago. That's not going to be a defense. So if you think that just remembering how awful it was is going to keep you from drinking again, you haven't learned anything. Powerlessness is powerless. You're not going to think about how awful it was. You're going to remember that 7-7 seven and seven in high school. You're not going to remember the projectile vomiting on the top last week. You're going to remember that 7-7 seven and seven back in high school where everything was right with the world. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to, uh, to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are, hazily, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure, the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. This is absolutely true of us. Uh, no, you know this is this is what makes people just not understand what the heck is going on with us. Um, next week I'm going to start with um, there is a solution on the top of page 25, and I thank you all for uh, for listening tonight.
it's great to be here tonight. Um, Tina mentioned uh, the the smoking and that I'm a non-smoker. I want I want to share a story with you so that you know I'm not one of those uh, holier than thou non-smokers. Uh, <laughs> I was two years sober, and I had been trying to quit because here's here's how I smoked. I don't know about anybody else, but I smoked like with a vengeance. Same way I drank, I smoked. And, and I, I mean, I would suck on the cigarette so hard, I would I would smoke a cigarette in about 30 seconds, and the the red burning end on the end of the cigarette was usually an inch and a half long. You know, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to get so much in my lungs because you know I've I've, I've got. And so you you can't really smoke, you can't really enjoy smoking if you smoke like that. And so, uh, so um, in nineteen in nineteen ninety two, February of nineteen ninety two, I was able to finally separate from cigarettes after trying seven thousand times. I was able to I was able to quit, and and, uh, for fifteen years I was absolutely nicotine free. And then I'm over in Copenhagen, this is about four or five years ago, walking down the streets, and I'm looking in the windows of all these stores, and they've got Cuban cigars for sale everywhere, okay? Cuban cigar. Doesn't that sound good, like if you're a smoker, a Cuban cigar? You know, they're, they're illegal in America because they're so good, you know? And, uh, and so I decided I'm going to buy a Cuban cigar. What could go wrong? And uh, I found out what could go wrong because because about two months later I'm doing two packs of cigarettes a day again and uh, and it was another two or three year struggle separating. I found out what it is, but only after the fact. What happens uh, with with nicotine is you develop nicotine receptors. The amount you smoke or or your relationship with nicotine, you develop nicotine receptors in your brain, and they're tied in with the endorphin and serotonin systems and all the natural feel-good chemical systems in our bodies. And what happens is when you quit, those, those receptors don't go away. They just go dormant, and they're just waiting for you to activate them again. And that's what happened. Fifteen years later, I smoke a Cuban cigar, and I activate these nicotine receptors, and they're like, oh, yeah. And, uh, and in a very short period of time, I'm, I'm smoking again. So uh, that's my history with, uh, with nicotine. I think, if, I think if you can become addicted to something, I'm a candidate. Anyway, um, we are we're moving into step two tonight. Uh, I mean, we were what five weeks on step one. Again, five weeks on step one. Um, we covered the material in depth. I hope that everybody in here is is able to see what their truth is as far as their alcoholism is concerned. You know, if you're in another fellowship, hopefully you can see the truth uh, of what you're powerless over there also if you're here tonight. Um, in this first paragraph, it basically breaks down a lot of what we... A lot of what they made clear in the previous chapters... Uh, uh, is is a thumbnail in this. It says, In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. You know, uh, uh, we need to know whether we're an alcoholic or whether we have a drinking problem. For an alcohol abuser, that's different than being alcohol dependent. 
The alcoholic is alcohol, alcohol dependent. We, the, there are times when you know we just don't function well without the alcohol. Hey Chris, what page are we on? We are on page 44. This is a um, a fourth edition. So, hopefully, you've been here enough. Well, and we've gone over enough material so that you're able to see your own truth about step one in your case, whether you're an alcoholic or a non-alcoholic. Um, we do get non-alcoholics in AA, and there's really nothing nothing wrong with that. You know, I mean, if you have a drinking problem, I think it's a great idea to address that drinking problem. The people who tend to stick around year after year, though, uh, are usually the people who are, are alcoholic because they come to the conclusion that they need uh, consistent spiritual practices to be able to stay abstinent and. And to be able to heal emotionally and spiritually. So they stay in AA and they participate in other spiritual stuff. Uh, that's just normally what, what hopefully, hopefully what happens with most alcoholics. So here's where they describe it. It says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Or if when drinking you have little control of the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. You know, that's the question. You know, uh, AA loves putting together pamphlets. And there's there's a pamphlet on everything now. And I don't know, is anybody in here familiar with the 44 questions or the, the 22 questions or whatever? They, you don't need 22 questions. You don't need 44 questions. You, you need really two. Um, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Or if when drinking you have little or, or, or no control of the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. Those really are the questions. I heard a guy say one time that he made up his own questions. Some of the questions were like this. Uh, did you ever have a problem operating your own pants zipper? Um, did you ever get arrested while in jail? Uh, did, you ever, did you ever sunburn the roof of your mouth? Did you, did you ever come... I mean, he, just, he goes on and on and on with these. It's, it's, uh, it's, ab- it's absolutely beautiful. Did you ever run yourself over with your own car? Was one of them. You know, if you have, then you may be alcoholic. That's an important warning sign. Uh, so so if, if you can't quit entirely, even though you really want to, and believe me, you're not changing your mind every time, okay? If you make an honest decision to quit, you know, hopefully you're able to do that. If you're not, that's a, that's a sign of alcoholism. And also, when you start drinking, you have little, little or no control of the amount you take. That's also the other sign of alcoholism. And if you have both of those, you're full-blown. You, you, are, you are a textbook example of a, a walking Alcoholics Anonymous member. You know, you, you're, you're, uh, you're a textbook case, so you're going to need a textbook recovery. One of the things that so many of us just need so desperately is to be different than everybody else. Like my case is just a little different. Yeah, I drink alcoholically, and I've had all these DUIs, and you know, you know, I'm on my fifth family, and you know, you know, I, I, but you know, but it's you know, I'm not really alcoholic. I know it looks that way, but I, you know, I've got different problems than that, and and you know, we need that. We so desperately need to 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 be different. It's really good if you can just 
if you can just admit to this and say, all right, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I'm in the right place, let's, let's get about the business of recovery. Uh, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, now, now take it from me. There's a scale in alcoholism, okay? No matter how far down the scale you've gone, it says in the promises. There's also another line in the book that says, your ability to quit drinking on a non-spiritual basis will depend on the amount of control you've lost in drink. The amount of control you lose in drink is the scale in alcoholism. It's not how much you drank or how much trouble you got in or how many years you drank. It's how much control have you lost in drink. You know, you remember, you always, you always get drunk when you're sober. You know what I mean? You you always take the first drink sober. Uh, so so this is this is very very important stuff to uh, to be able to to uh, to identify with. Now uh, I I work uh, in and around many professionals, really really good professionals in addictive illness treatment, alcoholism treatment, and. You know, they, they, they struggle. They struggle because they can't give you the magic bullet that's going to enable you to just stay sober the rest of your life. They'd love to, but it's just too difficult. What they can sometimes do is break down the resistance that we have from fully accepting our condition and then fully uh, engaging in the recovery process. That's really what a good treatment modality will, will do. It'll educate you and it'll, it'll help to convince you that you're, you're in trouble and you need to pay attention to this chronic illness. Now, the, the solution is spiritual. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous works. When when you work it, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed the path. You know, that, that pretty much says it all. For people whose main problem is they can't stay separated from alcohol, when they engage in the 12-step recovery process, the power to stay separated and abstinent materializes. It, it, it materializes, and all of a sudden that power is there. Now, the only way to describe this is spiritual, because it's really not psychological. The, the difference between a spiritual and a psychological process is this. If, if you were to get sober from a psychological process, you would learn how to change your thinking so that your behavior would change. Because that's kind of what you do in, in, in psychology. You learn all kinds of stuff about, you know, your issues. You know what I mean? Everybody's got issues, so you, you, you go back into your childhood and you, you find out where the issues started and all this. And you're going to learn a whole lot about what's going on. But it's not our understanding, it's not our belief systems that keep us sober. So we don't get sober from psychological help. We get sober from spiritual help. And the reason it's called spiritual, I believe, is because it's in our actions. It's, we learn to change our actions sometimes before we learn to change our belief systems. 
When you come into AA and you get yourself a sponsor, one of the first things they usually do is, kid, you're cleaning up the ashtrays and you're washing the coffee pot, you know. Oh, you know. And the first thing they try to do is they try to change your behavior. You know, there's a lot of sponsors that don't really care very much what you think. You know what I mean? Like my sponsor once said to me, Chris, if I cared what you thought, I'd, I'd, I'd go over to your house and knock on the door and ask your mother if you're free. You know what I mean? You're living with mom, okay? Why would I care what you think? You're 33. You, you know what I mean? So he, he wasn't real interested in what I thought about. Well, look, well, let me give you my opinion on that. Yeah. Don't bother, okay? I'm really uninterested in your opinion. What he was interested in is where I was going to be that night. What meeting I was going to go to. You know, was I going to be helpful? Could I help with the, the recovery picnic on the weekend? You know, he was, he was involved in changing my behavior. And I believe we have to do that before our thinking and our belief systems change in many, many cases. Uh, here's a great one. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live life on, on, on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. Okay, we just told you you are totally hosed. In the chapters, in the in the chapters covering step one, we painted a picture. You're, you're, you know, it's Custer's last stand, and there's more Indians coming. Okay, if you have an obsession of the mind that's going to force you to pick up booze, you know, even when you don't want to, and you have a body that's going to crave it once it's in there until you're 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 just passed out drunk, that's a death sentence. It's a slow death sentence sometimes, but it's a death sentence. So they painted a very, very bad picture. But there is a solution. There is a way out. But to be doomed to an alcoholic death or live life along spiritual lines doesn't, doesn't always make that easy to accept. You know... Um, you start looking at the steps. Turn my will. You know, make a decision to turn my will over to God to go back and pay back all the money. What does that alcoholic death look like again? You know, you know what I mean. I'm really good friends with somebody who went in and the doctor said, "Man, you, your liver. You're you're only 22 years old. Your liver is three times the size it should be. You know, you're going cirrhosis. You, you're, you're not going to live very long if you keep drinking the way you're drinking." And he said, well, Doc, uh, how many years? The Doc said, I don't know. Five, maybe ten? Right on, he goes. Okay, He goes to the bar that night. He goes, I got ten years. You know, pour me a drink. I mean, this is, this is the way we think. We're nuts. <laughs> uh. So the spiritual basis is not always easy, easy to face. Uh, at first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope that we were not true alcoholics. I think, I think a lot of us go through this. Yes, what a lot of you people are saying is true, but I don't think I have to do a fourth and a fifth step. I don't think I have to go to meetings you know, consistently. I don't think I have to get a home group or pay the money back or sit around praying and meditating or you know, working with other people. Well, you know, I don't really think that I need to do that. I'm just going to go to meetings. That's probably going to be fine for me. You know, that's, that's hoping against hope that you're not a true alcoholic. That's what that is. 
But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. Um, If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us no matter how much we tried. Okay, uh, codes and philosophies. We may understand how to live spiritually. Okay, we we may be very very religious people. I I sponsor a, a handful of men of the cloth. Okay, I do, and they come to me. These are people who preach in front of huge congregations, and they come to me to take the exercises to, to, so I can show them the exercises that are going to get them closer to God, the faith that works. You can have a, you can have faith, but it can be a faith that doesn't work. Uh, you know, one of the things that I saw early on uh, uh, in, in my area in AA that was very, very uh, disconcerting to me was there, there were sometimes uh, religious contingents that would come into the beginner's meetings and try to pull the alcoholics out, saying, really all you need is Jesus come to our church. And almost invariably these people did not get sober. It's not about that 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 particular church didn't have a really strong faith system, that they really didn't know what they were doing. They did know what they were doing. But as an alcoholic, we need a faith that works. And that means there's got to be certain aspects of the step process in our faith system. That's why things like Celebrate Recovery and a number of other uh, organizations that are really you know, inside the religious institutions aren't doing really well because they're incorporating some of the things that work in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Remember, power is our problem. If we're admitting in step one that we're powerless... It would make sense then that we need power. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. We could not recreate our life, and we could not stay abstinent from booze. And we could not control it once we started to drink. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we're going to talk about God. Now, you know... This is a a hump that you kind of got to get over. I... So many people, when they come into Alcoholics Anonymous, have unreasoning prejudice against spiritual concepts and especially against organized religion. I mean, it, 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 you know, more than half of the fellowship uh, will will have those type of prejudices. They'll have they'll be certain about certain things about religious people or religious institutions or the God thing and they'll be certain that they understand it but they they really won't. So what has to happen is there's got to be a convincing argument that you need to be open-minded about this. And the best argument is 
is if you're not open-minded about this, you're going to die of alcoholism because you're not going to find the needed power. The good news is, is there's a whole lot of latitude about what God, the God of your understanding can look like to you. The relationship that you can have. There's a lot of wide open space in there. But the fact of the matter is, is if you don't develop some kind of a relationship with God, the Spirit, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, you're going to be in big trouble because uh, because the power is going to be elusive. If you're going to continue to just do it yourself, uh, all successful addiction treatment processes of the last 200 years, all of them uh, had a spiritual part, if not a direct direct linkage right to right to God or Christianity. A lot of people don't, don't, don't understand this, but probably the most successful treatment for alcoholism, if you add up all the statistics, believe it or not, is the Salvation Army. They have been treating alcoholics through spiritual practices since 1880 or something like that. You know, And a lot of people have gotten sober through there. If you look at where and how people get sober, you're going to find that the people that get and stay sober, there's a spiritual piece. There's, there's some type of getting a person into a comfortable relationship with God. It's, you know, why is that necessary? Uh, you, you know, sometimes knowing why in Alcoholics Anonymous is the booby prize. You, you know what I mean? Uh, if it works, you have to look at what works. Uh, you know, I know as soon as I really made a decision to do this AA stuff, seriously made a decision to do this AA stuff, and then started to do it, that I was okay. You know, I was okay. From that moment forward, I was able to stay separated from alcohol. Um... We've shared honest doubt and prejudice. Some of us have been anti, violently anti-religious. I, you know, I was spinning dry in the late '80s. You know, trying to figure out how to get sober. I was going to treatment and outpatient, all this stuff. And that was right about the time that Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were selling, you know, twenty-five thousand heavenly condos when there was only ten. And uh, and Jimmy Swagger was you know calling everybody a sinner, and then he got caught in the Texas motel with the prostitutes. And I remember saying, "That's God's front three. You know, I knew it. I knew it. Hypocrites. You know." And uh, and I was caught up in all this stuff. All right. Now. It says in here, it says in here that you have to abandon that type of prejudice. We beg of you to lay aside prejudice against spiritual or religious practices or uh, institutions. It begs you to lay aside prejudice. And I had to. And, you know, when I was able to lay aside that prejudice, I wasn't viewing... You know, I wasn't viewing people of God uh, that way anymore. You know, I was seeing it differently. I was seeing that you can access a power and a courage that you don't have if you think you're alone out there in the universe. 
that you're you're uh, you're attaching yourself to uh, a faith system that not only is going to work for you to be able to overcome alcoholism, but it's going to work to add quality to every single aspect of your life. You're going to become the type of person you've always wanted to be. You're going to be the person that's there for other people. You're going to be the family member that everybody comes to for advice. You're you're going to you're going to be effective in your personal relationships. You're going to be promotable at work, maybe for the first time in your life. You know, a lot of things happen when you access this power that they say is a direct power of God. A lot of things happen. Here it says, we found, we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. Folks, the last 18 years, I have read more spiritual books than you can, you can shake a stick at. I mean, you can, you can ask Andrea. The li- my, my library is 90% spiritual books. Most of them have God in the title. If they don't have God in the title, they have Jesus or, or, or Buddha or, you know, or somebody like that in the title. And, I, you know, I read these things because I get a lot of comfort from them. But I'm also curious. I'm, I'm also trying to fit a lot of puzzle pieces together about this God thing and the spirituality. I kind of want to know. And I've, I've got to tell you, you know, there's still way more I don't know than I do know. But the important things I do know. One of them is, is if I continue to seek this understanding and this relationship with God, I believe it's pleasing to God, and I believe it's comforting to me, so I should continue to do it. I don't come up with any definitive answers with this, with this stuff. Uh, and I believe that the people that come at you saying they've got all the definitive answers uh, are, are usually, in my, in my experience, to be avoided. Uh, <laughs> But I find through seeking this connection, seeking, uh, seeking this oneness with my Creator, is what is what keeps me keeps me doing good, you know. So I continue to do it, and I pay attention, and I listen, and I try to learn. Uh, but I've but I've also been able to figure out that there are certain practices that we there's certain practices that we have to do. You know, um, and the people that I've respected the most, I've had some great teachers in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had some great teachers. You know, one of the guys who was my teacher, get this, he was, he was an experiential uh, spiritualist. He spent five years with the Dalai Lama's principal tutor in Dhamsala, India. He spent five years with an, an American Indian, a native uh, American Indian uh, wise man, he spent five years with a Zen master in California. He was one of the top Zen masters on the planet. And he spent five years with Thomas Merton's principal, uh, 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 principal protege. Thomas Merton was the Christian spiritualist. And then he started to, to, to work with me. 
And this was one of this this guy was so at peace with himself and he understood things on such a level that, that there were some amazing things that would go on with this guy. I mean he knew things that he shouldn't know. And he saw things that he shouldn't see. He was he was really, really in tune with the power. You know, and uh, uh, and he taught me. Uh, he taught me so much. He taught me to question my beliefs, to question my belief systems, to keep me open-minded. He would continually question me about my belief systems. And one of the things that he did when he took me through the steps was he beat me up so bad in steps one, two, and three that when I walked out of steps one, two, and three, I understood at an absolute molecular level that I couldn't even take a breath without God's help, let alone stay sober. You know, and uh, and and it was a, an amazing, remarkable uh, experience. Do we all have to go to Dharamsala, India? You know, and sit up on a mountain with 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 the wise men? You know, no. You know, it's very simple. The the things that we need to do to grow spiritually are very very simple. Um, but sometimes there's an attraction to go a little bit deeper, and some people some people do, and and that's fine too, as long as they don't lose sight of the practices that keep you connected. Uh, it's very easy to get so heavenly you're no earthly good. You know what I mean? And you you have to make sure you have to make sure that that doesn't happen. <laughs> Much to our relief, we discover we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect contact with Him. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe, underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction. Provided we took other simple steps. So again, you don't stop at step two. You need to continue to work the program to get in touch with. Um, We found that God does not make too hard terms for those who seek Him. The hoop that you have to jump through is bigger than you think, the sponsor will say to the sponsee. That's, That's in the step book. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. And again, as long as you're open-minded, you're honest with yourself to a certain degree, um, uh, you're willing to do certain things, you are going to have a spiritual awakening. You can be a complete atheist or a complete agnostic and do this work, sometimes acting as if there's a God. And if you do this work, you will have a spiritual awakening and you will get connected to God. Why do you think so many churches on this planet invite us into their basements to have AA meetings? They know what we're about. They know what's going on in those AA meetings. Sometimes it's the first time somebody is going to get connected to God in their life. And there's just not a chance they're going to walk through the big doors upstairs. So we are supported by churches almost universally. Because they understand that we're about the business of connecting people to God. Um, Do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. So spiritual terms. Don't let somebody read your big book. Don't let somebody tell you what type of spirituality you need to have. 
Always be open-minded, be willing to learn, and be asking yourself, what exactly does this stuff mean to you? For you to have a faith system that's really, really strong and really internalized, it needs to be yours. You can't just take somebody else's and plug it into your life. You need to be fully committed. You need to, you need to be fully invested in this spiritual life that you're living, in the spiritual practices that you're doing, in your relationship with God as you understand them. For it to be meaningful, it needs to be personalized, and it needs to be yours. We needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? Let's all answer this if we can. I'm going to I'm going to ask this question and every everyone who wishes to join me please answer. Chris, do you now believe or, or are you even willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself? Yes. As soon as a man can say that he does believe, or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully and effective spiritual structure can be built. This is one of uh, Bill Wilson's uh, construction references. They get, they get more and more interesting as we move forward. Um, one of the things that is interesting to... Uh, Interesting to study in in AA history is you know how did they come up with this? How did they come up with a spiritual solution? Well, the spiritual solution really for Alcoholics Anonymous came out of the Oxer Group. Uh, both Dr. Bob was uh, was going to Oxer Group meetings with his wife Anne in Akron, Ohio, before he met Bill, and Bill was going to Oxer Group meetings uh, at the Cavalry uh, Cavalry Mission uh, in New York City prior to meeting Bob, and they both somehow intuitively understood that there's got to be a spiritual solution to this because they, they, you know, they just had run out of options. They'd run out. Of, they'd both been to, to 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 treatment, you know, for whatever it was. They both they both tried to separate from alcohol many many times and found that they couldn't. So they were both ended up in this Oxford group now. Now, what has happened over the, the, the course of the past, you know, how many ever, hundred years, is the only time uh, a hopeless alcoholic had ever been able to be restored to, uh, to sanity and to abstinence was when they had a religious conversion experience. This would happen in the Salvation Army. There, there was, in the 1880s and 1890s, there were treatment centers all over this country. You know, some of them, some of them were pretty amazing. A lot of them were were uh, uh, were religiously affiliated. Some of them weren't, but but most of them were. And what would happen was when somebody really plugged in and really started to do a whole lot of stuff, whether it was religious or spiritual, they were able to stay separated from alcohol. You know, so. Uh, AA didn't discover this. What, what they did was they, they plugged into it and they refined it. So, uh, so what they did was they took what worked out of all of these processes and they built them into the steps and the principles and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's really where we came from. 
Because the medical, unfortunately, the medical establishment couldn't help us back then. Neither could the psychiatric. Like today, they'll give it a good shot. You know, they'll really, really try. And a lot of times they'll help us with problems other than alcohol. They'll help us with perspective. They'll help us with health issues. But it's a bigger problem. It's a more aggressive problem than, than really can be handled by a couple of visits to the doctor's office or a couple of pills or a, a couple of a couple of sessions on the couch. Uh, it's, a, it's a more aggressive problem. So, so the early AAs discovered these principles and discovered that you needed to uh, develop a relationship with God through the Asher group. Um, now there's some warnings in here besides the seeming inability to accept much on faith we, we often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy sensitiveness and unreasoning prejudice I don't know about anybody else but those were, those were my war cries um, many of us have been so touchy that even casual re- reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism is anybody in here when they were new were they touchy you remember being touchy? You know, he's thinking at me. You know, he's th- he's, I know what he's thinking. You know, what did you say? What did you mean by that? What you just said? I mean, we were we were touchy, uh, unreasoning, prejudiced. You know, I was so crazy. I, my first friend in, in Alcoholics Anonymous was a guy named Radio Shack Mike. And uh, he was just crazy enough to want to be my friend. I mean, I, I, was, I was the kind of guy who people didn't say hi to. There, there were people who, you know, hugged everybody and shook everybody's hand that stayed away from me. I just, I, I was like, I describe myself like, uh, like a garage door spring. You know what I mean? Like with 200 pounds of repressed stuff just ready to snap off the hook, you know? And, and that's, that's, the, that's the way I was. And he, he hooked up, uh, you know, and, and we hooked up together and we started going to meetings. And I remember leaving the meeting, and this poor guy, the whole way home, all I would do is criticize what people had shared. <laughs> Can you believe that, Harry? What a hypocrite. Can you believe it? He's in there talking about how grateful he is. Well, I'm going to slash his tires the next Tuesday. I will see how grateful he is then. And and this poor Mike guy would just sit there like this because I I would have to do my 15-minute tirade on all the jerks in that meeting. You know? I I mean, you can't live like that. You You can't be effective in a life. When when you're when you're like that, you know, so so much so much we have to change so much. Uh, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a reasonableness. Now, I don't know. I don't know. Anybody in here familiar with the warranties? In uh, I believe they're in uh, concept for World Service Number Twelve. <clears throat> One of the warranties is uh, <clears throat> AA can have no punitive action against a group or member. What does punitive mean? Punitive means punishing. 
We in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of our principles is not to punish an Alcoholics Anonymous member or an Alcoholics Anonymous group for doing something wrong. Now, we can sometimes ask people to leave if they're dangerously antisocial. You know, that'll happen. But, but, but we're, not about, we're not the judge, jury, executioners. Okay, you know who is? Alcohol. Alcohol is what will beat us into reasonableness. Alcohol is what will punish us for our refusal to be open-minded on spiritual matters. That's what will... That's the punitive action of AA. And it's not inside the rooms, it's outside in the bars and the liquor stores. Okay. We beg of you to lay aside prejudice, even against organized religion. We have learned that whatever the human frailties of various faiths may be, those faiths have given purpose and direction to millions. People of faith have a logical idea of what life is all about. You know, I am a fan of religion today. Now, i got to tell you, when I was brand new, I wouldn't have liked me. Does that make any sense? I'm not the type of person today that I would have liked when I first walked in to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was mad at everybody, and I had an opinion about everything. And I've got to tell you, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of anything that is a positive influence in the world today. There's enough negative influences. I need to be a fan of anything that's, that's positive. The same thing in, in, uh, in my professional work. I have to I have to be open and inclusive, not exclusive. There are a lot of other uh, recovery programs and processes out there, and I can't be uh, I can't have unreasoning prejudice against them. Not every tool works for every person. I'll give you an example. Okay, does anybody in here know what harm reduction is? You know, methadone maintenance. I mean, you know, we've all heard about this. Now, now, for a long time, I was vehemently against all that stuff. Okay, you need to come in here and become willing. Okay, and that's just the way I believe. I believe that. Well, you got to hit bottom, and you got to come in here and be, be willing. Let me tell you, there are people out there that would rather die than go to a 12-step meeting. They would rather die than go to a 12-step Should we let them die? Or should there be another option? I believe that there should be other options. I believe that there should be harm reduction options. You know, I do. Are they ideal? I don't think anybody would argue that they are. You know, as far as addictive illness is concerned, abstinence and recovery, that's it. That's the, that's the best you're going to get. But there are people who cannot or will not give themselves to this simple spiritual program. And we shouldn't unilaterally turn our backs on them. If, if we can be of help. We're supposed to be at the place where we're a maximum service to God and our fellow man. Now, listen, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, this is my family. This is, this is where it all happened uh, for me. And this is, this is where I spend a lot of my, uh, lot of my attention. Uh, but we need to be open-minded. Because 
the more open-minded we are, the more helpful we can be. And i got to tell you, AA is more about being helpful than it is about getting help. AA teaches you how to be helpful. That's really the whole plan. The whole 12 steps are about teaching you how to sponsor. Not about how to be sponsored, you know, and how to get it. But about how to get it quickly and then give it away the rest of your life. You know, that's really what this this program is about. So, uh, you know, my mind has been opened over the years. If if what I'm saying makes any sense at all... um, you know, I'm I'm much more liberal in, in a lot of my thinking than I than I was, uh, you know, uh, when I first came in. Now, here's what the first 100 discovered. On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. The first 100, every one of them has gained access to, and believes in a power greater than himself. This power has, in each case, accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. Here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed. They flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power, and to do certain simple things, the steps and principles, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. Now that's a, that's a nice little snapshot of the spiritual awakening. You want to jump to step 12? If you're if you're if if you're one of those uh, people that like to read the ending of a book before you waste your time reading it, you know, you jump you jump to step twelve. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, that's the whole point of this this fellowship to encourage you to do that because this is a twelve step program with a support fellowship. Um, there's been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. But don't make any changes in the first year. I love that. Uh, In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources. And isn't that where we were before we came into AA? I mean, who comes into AA because there's nothing on TV that night? I don't know about you. I didn't say, oh, geez, you know, life is getting a little little gray around the edges. I think I'll journey up with the mayonnaise. That's not how I felt. You know how I felt? Here's how I felt. Alcoholics Anonymous! Oh no! It's come to this! A happening guy like me joining up with the lamos! Every single night I'll be in a church basement talking about God! Will somebody just put me out of my misery and kill me now? That's how, you know, that's how I came in here. I don't know about anybody else. I, I was an oh boy, a new social group to join up with. No way. So in the face of collapse and despair, in the face of total failure of my human resources, I found a new power, peace, and happiness and, sense of, and a sense of direction. I don't know about anybody else, but that's what I've found. A power, a peace, a happiness, and a sense of direction. And those are good things to have. You know, you can't have those when you're out there tearing around the universe, you know, smoking crack 
crack and shooting heroin and drinking whiskey and, you know, sleeping in your car. Any car sleepers in here? There you go. Yeah. Oh. This happens after. After you wholeheartedly meet a few simple requirements. That's what they're calling the steps. A few simple requirements. Are there any musts in AA? There's no musts if you want to sit in a chair in AA. Are there musts as far as your recovery process? You're damn right there are. There are a lot of musts. There are a lot of requirements for recovery. You know, and if you don't meet these requirements, the sad thing is, you may think you're recovered, and, and because, you, because recovery is experiential, you may think you're okay and not be. You know, because how do you know what you don't know? How do you know what you don't know? So, by taking these steps, you will get a spiritual awakening. By not taking them, you won't. You know? So, these requirements need to be paid attention to. Once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Leaving aside the drink question. Okay, forget, forget drinking. Let's just look at our lives sober. You know, sober. Let's just look at our lives. Why was living so unsatisfactory sober? Why did, we, why did we bolt to the liquor store? Why did we head for the bar, you know, after work? I mean, because life was unsatisfactory for us. We needed the booze. They show how, how the change came over them. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. Let's look at that sentence. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives. So the most important fact of your life will be the consciousness of the presence of God. Understanding intuitively and consciously that God is with you is the most important fact of the recovered person's life. They present a powerful reason why one should have faith. I'll tell you, my favorite reason for having faith is that it, 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 it adds power to your life. You can do things when you have faith. You can do things that you're just too uncomfortable doing without it. You know, you won't you won't admit that you're you, you're you know you're a coward, but you'll you'll say you'll you'll understand that there's some anxiety. You know what I mean? I've got anxiety. I don't like going into stores with big fluorescent lights. You know. <laughs> When we saw others solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. One of the things I had to do was I had a conception of God that was kind of I was kind of railroaded into in a, in a very early uh, Sunday school type of environment. And listen, it's not the transmitter usually. I'm sure they were wonderful people, and there was wonderful stuff that they were teaching in Sunday school. But I didn't hear it that way. 
I didn't see it that way. My perception was wrong because I was coming from a very, very selfish and self-centered worldview. And the conception I had was there was a guy up in the clouds with a big long beard and a big list. And every single time I did something wrong, it went down on that list and I was going to have hell to pay on Judgment Day. Okay, hell to pay. This was not a loving deity. This was Judge Wapner. You know what I mean? Now, that didn't work for me. Okay, that that didn't work for me. And and besides, whenever we have conceptions like that and we box God into a certain thing, we're doing God a disservice because God God is like all encompassing. And who are we to like draw a box around what God should be or where where He should be? You know that's very arrogant. So a lot of the changes in my perception was I had to go from believing in a God that was a noun to believing in a God that was a verb. It talks in here about the power of God, the love of God, the compassion of God. Okay, I had to go from noun to verb. And that's just me. Each of us has our own journey to go through when we're, when we're coming to terms with a relationship with our Creator. And as long as it makes sense to us, as long as we can internalize it, um, that's what's really important. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else He is nothing. God either is or He isn't. What is our choice to be? Now, so many of us want to compartmentalize God. You know, God is over here. You know, my sex life is over here. You know, my work relationship is over here. God is either part of all of it or He's not part of any of it. You know what I mean? What is our choice to be? What is our choice to be? And, you know, sometimes living along spiritual lines <laughs> or dying alcoholic death are not all, always easy alternatives to face. Uh, deep down, in every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and the miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. Um, We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. We can only clear the ground a bit if our, te- if our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. And that is, uh, that's basically step two from We Agnostics. Uh, thanks a lot for coming out tonight. It is great to be here tonight, and you know I'm a little I'm a little sad. This is a.
the last night um, I'm going to be here. I, you know, I felt really comfortable in this group. Uh, I want to thank everybody uh, for coming. Um, it's always a, a privilege and an honor to be able to to do this kind of a thing, and it, it helps me as much as uh, as it helps anybody. Um, tonight. Uh, we're going to be going over step 12, uh, the chapter working with others. And uh, I'll, I'll put a warning in there uh, from the very start. This is a very challenging chapter. It, there's a call to action in this chapter that, uh, that you can pick up on loud and clear when you, when you move through this chapter. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous has changed a lot over the years. And working with others, uh, the chapter has stayed the same, but, uh, but sometimes how we approach working with others has changed. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the fellowship stuff has moved in to replace a lot of the program stuff. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about um, I'll tell you about a riot I started at the New Jersey convention uh, about ten years ago. Okay, I, I mean it was it was pretty bad. Um, they asked me to finish up the Alcathon, and here's the instructions I got. My instructions were to share for 20 minutes and then open the meeting up to discussion. And my topic was to be the 12th step. So I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? Uh, you know, I, I, thought, I take these things seriously, so I did some preparation. And how I, how I did it was this. I shared for 10 minutes on the first 11 steps and then explained how they prepared me to do the 12th step. And then I explained how I took other people through the steps in the 12th step. Now, there was a, an old-timer there that took exception to what I had to say because he was there with his sponsees. And I guess, you know, whatever I was sharing, you know, brought up, you know, brought up some uh, antagonism in this individual because that's not what he was doing, what I was talking about. And, uh, you know, rather than be open-minded on it all, you know, he chose to, uh, to attack me. And uh, so he started sharing, and he shared for about five minutes, and it was kind of like this. You know, I'm listening to you. You sound like some crazy counselor, so I don't know what the hell you're talking about, all these steps and how you're doing all this, and you're bringing somebody over to your house, and you're doing your inventory, and a man's all this crap. Let me tell you something. I got 20 years, and this is how we do it. This is how I learned how to do it. You get the person, and you throw them in the car, and you take them to a meeting. And you love them until they love themselves. I don't know what all these other step crap is about. Now, uh, you know... His problem was I was I was leading the meeting and I had rebuttal rights. You know what I'm saying? So you know I let him go on and on and on. And, you know I thanked him for sharing and I, I basically said something like this. You know I really appreciated your opinion on uh, you know how you work with others, but uh, there is a chapter in the in the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous that, that lays out some serious guidelines for how we are to work with others, and I'm pretty pretty familiar familiar with that chapter. I've probably been through it 50 times, and I can't recall anywhere in there where it says, throw somebody in a car, take them to a meeting, and love them until they love themselves. And he freaked. 
freaked, okay? This guy freaked because I guess I made him feel small or something. And he got up and he started throwing chairs and kicking over tables. I've never seen this happen before, but the, the leader of the meeting stopped the meeting. Meeting's over, meeting's over. People are blowing for the exits. I mean, it really, you know, what a, what a way to end uh, the Alcathon for the New Jersey, you know, 2000 convention or whatever it was. But, but you know, I, I, I mean... I, I mean, you know, there was such a disparity between this individual's experience and what is in this book. And, it, you know, it's, it really is a critique on practices at, that, that we engage in in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, why am I really passionate about this book and why am I really passionate about these steps? I, I'm going to tell you absolutely honestly the truth. I am, I am passionate about this stuff because I have seen this stuff work when I have seen throwing somebody in a car and taking to a meeting not work. Do you understand what I'm saying? Meeting makers do not make it. If you if you make meetings and you work steps, you got a whole lot bigger chance of making it. It's about improving someone's odds of survival. That's what that's what this book is about, and that's why I'm passionate about it. It improves sur- survivability rates with alcoholics if they do this work. Now, there are people in AA meetings that do not have to do the 12 steps. And you know what? That is absolutely fine with me. They have not gone down the scale as far as some of us have. But there is, there is the type of alcoholic that they describe in this book as a hopeless alcoholic or a real alcoholic. That's the terminology they use. And those individuals are not going to be able to hitch up their bootstraps and just not drink. And what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous today way too much is those individuals are not engaged in a recovery process and they relapse their way right out of here and a lot of times they die. And you know what? That's our fault more than it's their fault if we're not offering them an opportunity to engage in a recovery program. Now, I'll say this again. There is the type of alcoholic they describe in this book as a real alcoholic or a hopeless alcoholic who ain't going to just be able to just go to meetings and not drink. You know, and it's not about it's not about disappointing you as a sponsor, you know, and, and you're looking bad because these guys are drinking. It's about you as a sponsor are not effectively carrying the message of recovery to those individuals. Now this is not a popular message. It does not make me the most popular person in the world to say this stuff. You know, a lot of times uh, you know, this is a good group. You guys are good sports about all this, but I'll share something like this at certain meetings and people will get up and walk out. It's not their experience and they take exception to it because they've been doing it differently for a long period of time. Part of recovery is remaining open-minded and remaining teachable. If you have people who are relapsing on you, try what it says in the chapter working with others. What do you have to lose? And it may mean the difference between that individual's living and that individual's dying. So often we don't want to take responsibility. If, if someone asks you to sponsor them or to take you through the steps, take that seriously. Take that seriously. Now, they're not always going to be willing to do it. A lot of times they're going to have a, a whole lot of enthusiasm to ask you and not a lot of follow-through to actually do it. That's on them. 
But you being available to offer this recovery process is your job. And if you're not doing it, you could it's contributory manslaughter folks that's that's what it is because it's in our book and we need to pay we need to pay attention to it too many people are dying in alcoholics anonymous today because we're expecting them to just not drink and go to meetings when they can't the whole message of this book is there is a classification of an alcoholic who no amount of mental defense can prevent them from taking the first drink. Only a spiritual awakening is going to be sufficient for them to remain separated from alcohol. And the chapter, Working with Others, teaches us how to offer that spiritual awakening. And i got to tell you, you want the easier, softer way? Let's say we've gotten lazy in A. Let's just say that. I'm saying it's easier to take somebody through the steps than to field phone calls every night for ten years. Try to manage unmanageable drama with them, you know? Oh, you wouldn't believe what I did today. Well, no, I actually do believe what you did today. You know what I mean? You've got so many holes in your shoes from shooting yourself in the foot, it ain't funny. You know? It is way easier to get somebody through the steps than it is to try to help them manage something that's unmanageable, which is their life. You know, we're not supposed to necessarily be the managers of people's lives. We're supposed to... Has anybody ever seen uh, the, the Sistine Chapel with the Leo, Leonardo da Vinci uh, did the painting of? And there's Adam pointing his finger, and there's God pointing his you know, touching Adam's finger. What we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be that hand pointing to God. Just like it is on the Sistine Chapel. We are not supposed to be their managers. We're not supposed to be their life coaches. We're not supposed to be their marriage counselors. We're just supposed to offer them a recovery process. And that's a lot easier than the other alternative. So I would, I would, I would suggest, uh, if you have not tried sponsoring this way, to try it. My best friends in my life are the crew of guys who went through the steps with me in the 90s. These are guys who will take a bullet for me. If I call them up right now, I say, I need you in North Carolina, you know, they, they pack up and they go. These, these, are, these, are, uh, these are my best friends in the world. And we're in the fellowship of the Spirit together. There's the, there's the Spirit of the fellowship, which is in every AA meeting. And then there's the fellowship of the Spirit. And that's the people who join in brotherly and harmonious action after having been relieved of the body bondage of self and, uh, and, and got, gained some freedom from alcoholism from, the, from the, uh, the destructive aspects of alcoholism so um, let's take a look at the chapter working with others <clears throat> practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics if you're convinced you've got a progressively fatal illness that over any considerable period of time it's going to get worse, not better, you would pay attention to a statement like that. This is offering you immunity from the alcohol that's killing you and destroying a lot of your life. Your character defects are also contributing, but I'll tell you what, it's very difficult to work on character defects when you're drinking. You know, I you know, I never came out of a blackout with a list of things that I that I should do to be better. You know what I mean? I never came out of a blackout running up a charity drive or something, you know? The last thing on our minds when alcohol is involved is helping other people. It's all about us. So immunity from drinking is an important promise that you get 
from intensive work with other alcoholics. Now, is intensive work with other alcoholics giving them a phone number and telling them to call you if you feel like drinking? That doesn't sound like intensive work with other alcoholics to me. I think what they're talking about is getting them over to the house or a neutral ground and qualifying them with step one and then explaining how you've had a, had a spiritual awakening, going through the steps and then offering that to them. Uh, I think that's our responsibility. You know, when it says anyone uh, anywhere, uh, you know, reaches out for the hand of AA, we want the hand of AA always to be there. If we, for one reason or another, can't take these people through the steps, pass them on to someone who can. Or get your own experience and learn how to do it yourself. I am telling you, some of the greatest promises in the world come from this. There are promises in the 12th step that you only get from doing this 12 step work, and there's some of the best promises available uh, in this book. This works when other activities fail. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Um, I had a bunch of counselors when I was in treatment, and uh, one of them was a woman who identified herself as an adult child of an alcoholic. She would start, every time she started to talk, she would say, you know, my name is Mona. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. And I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. I didn't know why she was announcing herself that way. I was thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a psychotic son of a librarian. But, <laughs> but I don't start every sentence with that. You know, what, 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 is that, what does that mean? And what I found out later was this woman was a codependent. And, and she got to the point where she, where she would push up on me in group and one of the things that she asked me one time was uh, Chris are you happy mad sad or glad after I went on this tirade about something you know the coffee wasn't good or something you know and, uh, and, and I thought to myself what the hell is she talking about my feelings. I don't know what my feelings are. I just I just came out of I just came off the battlefield. Uh, you know, I am shell shocked. I don't know what the hell. Happy, glad, mad, or sad? What are you talking about? I want to kill you. You know, and uh, and now the other counselor was Charlie, the alcoholic. Okay, and he pinned me right to the wall every time we talked. I knew he was talking. About, I knew he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't trying. He was trying to shine me around with, with a bunch of psychobabble. He would just pin me to the wall and tell me what I was and what was going on and what I needed to do. And you know, we need practical, we need practical advice like that. Here's some of the 12-step promises and they're peppered throughout this chapter. Life will take on new meaning. To watch other people recover, to see them help others, and to watch loneliness vanish. To see a fellowship grow up about you. To have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. I've had fellowships grow up about me. I've been part of creating the fellowship I crave. The friendship, the closeness, the the bonding with other people that I always wanted. I was going after that in the bars, but I wasn't getting very far. You know, because I would go from being the the most magnanimous, wonderful guy to like a psychopathic, I'm going to kill you. And that, you know, that, that would disconcert people. Um, frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives 
Now, I believe this really is only a promise that's going to come true when you're working with others. Because frequent contact with newcomers was, was not what I was going after, you know, when I had about a year. Mm-hmm. I, I'd see a newcomer's hand go up and I'd go, oh, no, here we go. His mutton head is going to be sharing, you know, crap again. Listen to, oh, God, oh, God, shut up. Will you just drink, you know, and get it over with? Just shut up. I want to share. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the way it is. Uh, so until I had the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, I had no compassion for the newcomer. I was worried about me. It was a selfish program, you know? Uh. Now, a qualification uh, on this book. Remember, you know, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Remember, there were two groups when this book was written. A couple of groups were starting up, but there was two main groups, Akron and Cleveland. And Bill Wilson, the schemer, knew that if he put this book together and advertised it to doctors as a cure for alcoholism, he would become a millionaire. So he put this together for mail order sobriety and recovery. He put the instructions in here that if this was mailed to you in in Albuquerque, you could read this, you could do what it says to do, and you could recover. And that's absolutely true, except we all know today that the best way is for one alcoholic to carry this message to another. If the big book would have would have worked for me, you know, uh, one, the first time I read it, I would have started doing this stuff. But that's not what happens. I mean, how many in here have read the big book a long time before you really started serious step work? I read it like it was the Da Vinci Code. You know, oh, yeah, okay. That was you know pr- pretty poorly written. Uh, Bill Wilson was definitely a loser. You know, I mean that was my impression. You know, but this is a textbook, so they found that textbooks need to be taught. So we need to teach this material to people. Now, one of the horrible things that they used to say in North Jersey AA when I first got sober was, "There's no teachers in AA. Teachers get drunk." Well, I beg to differ. There's a wonderful quote by Bill Wilson in, uh, I believe it's in the pamphlet, Problems Other Than Alcohol, that says the, the sole purpose of an AA group is the teaching and practice of the 12 steps. That's the sole purpose of an AA group. So what we need to do is we need to band together and we need to form you know, posses or whatever we need to do for when newcomers come in, we can offer them a solution. Now, they can take it, or they can leave it, but it's a solution that we can offer. So often we want to not hurt people's feelings. As we go through this chapter, it basically tells us if they're not willing to work the steps with, steps with us, bye-bye. doesn't mean we're throwing them out of AA. It means we don't work with them because it's a waste of our time, and it's probably a waste of theirs. Our time as recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous is valuable, and if someone won't go through the steps with you, move on to someone who does. These are direct instructions in this chapter. If they just want to go to meetings and drink the coffee and share, that's fine. Let them. But don't you waste your personal working with others' time with those individuals. Don't don't sponsor them and, and sign a suicide pact with them saying, you know, I won't hold you accountable for anything if you don't hold me accountable for anything. That's a suicide pact. So, so take this, take these responsibilities uh, seriously. 
Now it says, all right, where are we going to find these drinkers? Remember, this book is in Albuquerque, and there's there's no AA groups. Perhaps you're not acquainted with any drink, drinkers who want to recover. You can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. Now, we don't do this much anymore. We wait for them to come into AA. I, I think we need to be a little bit more proactive. A lot of the guys I work with, I suggest very, very strongly that they get commitments. They get commitments at the prisons. They get commitments at the treatment centers, at the detoxes, at the mental hospitals, at the VAs, wherever they need to do that, and to try to find alcoholics willing to go through the steps. Now, a number of my guys have taken this seriously and have done incredible work. There are hundreds and hundreds of recovered alcoholics in the North Jersey area because of my guys. You know, they were saved from a hopeless condition because they were willing, they, were, they had a, a, a willingness born of desperation. They had tried a lot of other things that didn't work, and they sat down and they got busy with with some of my guys and recovered. Um, when you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about them. This paragraph talks about we need to we need to be able to understand the individual. Initially, this is a sales job. We're selling them on the idea of powerlessness, what alcoholism is, and then we're sharing our experience with the recovery process, and we're selling them on the idea that they can get well no matter what, as long as they're willing to clean house, trust God, and help others. That's what that's what we're that's what we're trying to sell to these individuals. Now, is everybody going to buy this sale pitch? No, no. In in the early days when I was in AA, I thought a twelve step call was taking somebody to a detox. I thought a twelve step call was taking somebody to a meeting or or, or to a, a rehab. You know, today I understand the twelve step call is sitting down and helping to qualify an individual, and then explain to them what the program of recovery entails, what they're going to need to do to have a psychic change, have a spiritual awakening. And this chapter is abundantly clear on that. Uh, if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. Leave him your phone number. Say, hey, if you don't want to get over drinking, fine. You don't want to work the steps with me, fine. Here's my phone number. You know, when you're willing, when you're willing to, to 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 really try this, you know, I'll be there for you. I'll I'll be there every step of the way as long as you're you're willing. Um, if there's any indication that he wants to stop, have a good person uh, talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Again, you want to know a little bit about the personality. You want to know a little bit. If you're doing a sales call, let's say you're trying to sell insurance to, uh, uh, to a large corporation, you're going to do your due diligence. You're going to learn a little bit about that corporation. You're going to learn who the major players are. You're going to try to figure out what kind of insurance they have now, how you can do better, and you're going to prepare a little bit for that sales pitch. We need to sometimes do that with our prospects also. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Sometimes it's wise to wait till he goes on a binge. Now, why would this be? Anybody in here come to the next morning with the summonses in your back pocket or the car, the side of the car is gone, uh, you know what I mean? Or, 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 or you know, you, 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 know you, you, thought, you thought you went to, to bed with Bo Derek and you woke up and it was Bo Diddley. You know, I mean, 
I, I mean, there's, there's just there's just a lot of uh, a lot of guilt and shame and remorse, and you know, you're getting thrown out of the house, you're losing your job, you know, whatever. Uh, how many how many of us have had experiences like that? You know, uh, let the record show all 400 hands went went, went up. Uh, Okay, now you're a little bit more pliable at that point. In time. Listen, if you just had the best time in your life, you, you know, you know, you, you were you were you were hanging out with with uh, with the sw- the Swedish women's ski team, you know, uh, doing cocktails uh, off their belly buttons or something. I mean, you, you're not going to want to quit. But but if you've just you know if you've just run into the rear end of a cop and you were so drunk you couldn't get out of the car you're you know you're gonna have a different attitude and a different outlook about this stuff maybe I'll, yeah yeah I mean I'm willing so sometimes it's willing it's it's better to wait for them to go on a bench than it is to try to talk them out of drinking and into recovery when they really they they really don't have interest in that I remember this one time you know I had a drinking buddy this this woman used to be my drinking buddy and when I got sober I was going to get her sober and I remember putting a putting an extension ladder up on her house she had me locked out she didn't want to hear anything about anything and I got up on the third story and I broke in her window with everybody we're going to take her to I mean how ridiculous she's probably still drinking you know what I mean the crazy AAs they broke into my you know uh, you know so you know we it's just better. It's just better to wait until there that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is on them from one more relapse, one more trip to the detox, you know, uh, one more trip to you know to, to the to the courts for another DUI or something. That's a real good time to approach somebody. Uh, don't deal with him when he is very drunk. I made this mistake one time. This guy called us up from the bar and said, I need some help. You know, so I rallied the troops and we went over there. We got to be so drunk. And when we got there, we're like, okay, we're taking a detox. He goes, detox? I just needed a ride home. <laughs> you know? And we're like, we're like, you're not going home. You're going to the detox. Well, all right. And, you know, and uh, he woke up in the detox the next day going, what the hell am I doing here? And got up and split. It was a total waste of a night. It was a total waste of a night. Uh, wait for the end of a spree or at least a lucid interval. Then let him ask his, fam- ask his family or friend to ask him if he wants to quit for good and would go to any extreme to do so. Quit for good and go to any extreme to do so. Well, I only decide not to drink one day at a time. That's not what the book is asking us. The book is asking us for a full, full-blown commitment here. Are we willing to quit for good? Are we willing to go to any extreme to do so? Now, sometimes when I share this, somebody somebody will share, you know, I never would have came into AA if they would have told me I had to quit for good. And, you know, my observation is always, well, I don't think there's a lot of people that would miss you. You know what I'm saying? Okay? If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. Not not a person who is slowly recovering. A person who has recovered. You should be described as him as one of a fellowship who as a part of their own recovery try to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. 
If He does not want to see you, never force yourself upon Him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with Him to do anything, nor should they tell Him much about you. They should wait for the end of His next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Anybody in here ever came out of a come out of a blackout and there's AA literature on the table next to you? That's always that's always fun. Um, all right. See your man alone if possible is one of the instructions. Now it does not say go on a twelve step call alone. See a man alone if possible means when you're doing the 12-step call, when you're trying to help him identify and qualify himself and then share your experience with the recovery program and see if he wants that recovery program, you know, you should not have his family sitting there. Because if his family's sitting there, they're going to be going, listen to him, listen to him. You, you, you know, I mean, you want you want to give the guy a little bit of dignity, you know, a, a little a little bit of privacy to, to really think about, think about this stuff. Now, uh, I also highly recommend, if you're going on a 12-step call with a wet drunk, to go with somebody. Um, I've had my life threatened on, on two occasions. Um, this one occasion, uh, I get this crazy phone call. It's the middle of the night, and this guy goes, Chris, Chris, I need help. I'm like, well, what's going on? He goes, Satan is talking to me. You know, that, that's an important warning sign, by the way, if you're, if you're new to working with others. Um, and I knew enough about Satan to ask him this next question. Uh, how much cocaine are you doing? You know, and, oh, four grams. You know, like, oh, okay, all right, we're on our way over. You know, I, get, I, I, I grab my guy and we go over there. I'm driving, uh, my support is in the front seat, and we throw him in the back. Now, this is a guy who was a, was a, a boxer. I mean, he, you know, he looked like Hulk Hogan. He was just huge. If he wasn't punching somebody, he was lifting weights. And he's in the back of my car, and I... I remember I go to him, uh, um, Andy, uh, you know, uh, how you doing? Is, is Satan still talking to you? You know, we're heading to Happy Hills. And, and he goes, yeah, Satan's still talking to me. He's telling me to hurt people. I'm like, uh, you know, looking at him. And I go, yeah. And he goes, especially people that are trying to help me. I'm like, oh, no. Well, made, made for a nervous ride to Happy Hills. Another time, another time happened when I was on vacation down here in North Carolina, right over in Statesville. Uh, I had an old meeting book, so I showed up to a place where there, the meetings weren't there anymore. They, they had changed. It used to be the cup of water, and now it's something else. You know, so I show up, and, and uh, there's no meeting. And, you know, people are living there. You know, so I'm in the wrong place. And somebody, and, and this guy comes up with his girlfriend, drives up with his girlfriend, and he got the same meeting book. I guess he, he's expecting a meeting, and you know, so I start talking to him on the sidewalk, and he's coming back from his 12th DUI. You guys do it right down here in North Carolina. i got to tell you, 12 DUI. He had just done like nine months in prison, and, and his codependent girlfriend was dragging him around, and you know, it was, it was beautiful. She's like, yeah, he's just got out of prison. Yeah. You know, I mean, she, was like, she was like total, total untreated Al-Anon. It was just amazing to see it. Yeah, you know, he's got a parole officer. And she's like proud of all this. And so, anyway, 
anyway, anyway, I go, look, you know, we, the, I guess the meeting's not here. Why don't we get a cup of coffee? You know, I'm going to do my 12-step number on this guy, all right? So we're sitting in Denny's having a, having a cup of coffee, and I'm hitting him with... The truth. You know, you've got to progressively fail your loneliness. You know, over any current several period of time, it gets worse and never gets better. You know, unless you arrest it with a spiritual recovery process, it's, you know, just going to get worse. You're going to keep getting DUIs. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He goes, I need to tell you something. I usually kill people that give me bad news. I'm like, waitress, check. You know? <laughs> I'll see you later. I'll see you later. Oh, boy. I'm messing with the wrong guy. All right. At first, engage in general conversation. You got, you got your prospect. It doesn't say sponsorship in this book. Sponsorship happened a little bit later, and it happened because of Dr. Bob having to sponsor people to get him into the hospital, or else the hospital didn't want him. Unless an AA member was willing to vouch for them that they would be taking them through the steps, the hospital didn't want to mess with them because they knew that they'd just relapse, and it'd be a big waste of money. So you needed to be sponsored. Now that's kind of where kind of where it came from. There's different descriptions of uh, in this book. They call somebody a prospect, and I, what what I think that means is it's somebody that you have not done your 12-step number with yet. You haven't qualified them. You haven't explained the program of recovery or, or you know, asked them if they wanted that. So they're a prospect. Once you've done that and they say, yes, I want this thing, they are then a protege. That's the terminology that this book uses. And then when they've had their own experience and they're working with others, they're a friend. You know, so there's some groups out there that have like fanatically, uh, you know, uh, uh, hierarchical, you know, dictatorial sponsors who, you know, ten years down the road they're telling you what kind of car to buy and what what kind of person to marry and you know what kind of job to have. You know, that's not what this book is talking about. This book is talking about freedom. This book is talking about freedom. And what we want is we want to walk hand in hand with the new man. You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, trudge the road to happy destiny with this individual, not as you know, as someone who oversees the minutia of their life and has authority over that, but as as peers. Because when you get to when you get through and you have a spiritual awakening, and the person you're working with has a spiritual awakening, you're you're peers. You're now reliant upon God and obedient to spiritual principles. You don't necessarily have to be obedient to people. You know, there are some mutton heads in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if anybody in here has discovered that yet. But there's some mutton heads. And, you know, if you place yourself unreservedly under their care and protection and they're guiding your life, hell, they, they drove themselves into the ditch, you know. If a blind man leads a blind man, you know, what happens? So, uh, so again, what we're trying to do is get somebody to the power, the power, that's going to be able to help them with their life. And that power eat you. No human power can relieve alcoholism. It has to be a power greater than yourself. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him about your own drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences, and encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit. But say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. Try to set the hook a little bit. You want them to say, 
well, you're not drinking now. What did you do? You know, you got them. You got them when they say that. If he's in a serious mood, dwell on the trouble liquors has, has caused you being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your ex- escapades. Uh, get him to tell you some of his. This is an identification process. And you, you, know, you, you have to pick up on the individual. This is not a cookie-cutter type of a thing. We have to be reactive, and we have to be intuitive. One of the promises is, is that... that um, um, one of the promises is that you will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle you. And that promise is no more operative anywhere else. Uh, it's no more operative than when you're working with others. I am not smart enough to get away with some of the stuff I've gotten away on my 12-step calls. I ended up saying the right thing, and it's not because I'm smart. I just I was guided. I had that intuition. You know what I mean? In the middle of the 12 step call. And I was paying attention to the other person. I don't go in there with a pitch. I go in there trying, trying to see, you know, trying to see what, you know, what would work best with this individual. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were. Uh, how you finally learned you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. This is key. Okay? It says in the chapter, We Agnostics, we hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. The alcoholic is going to be able to share about their struggles to stop. Because 99 out of 100 alcoholics out there struggled to stop and were not able to. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. Explain the mental obsession. Explain why you may absolutely want to not drink, but don't you end up drunk? Well, yeah. Haven't you sworn off booze countless times, but booze goes back in your body? Yeah. Well, then explain a little bit about the mental obsession and how, how, how uh, human willpower does not work, how sufficient desire does not work, how looking at the consequences or the problems you've had in the past is not a sufficient defense against picking up the next drink. Because if you're alcoholic, you're going to have that experience. We suggest you do this as we have done in the chapter on alcoholism. So... If you're going to be doing a 12-step call, you need to be familiar with the basics of the chapter more about alcoholism. If he's alcoholic, he will understand you at once. If he's just, if he's just a nut job, he won't. Okay, you'll be saving yourself a lot of time. He will match your own mental inconsistencies with some of his own. You know, you know that's happened to me. That's happened to me. I signed in the Bible, you know, and promised my family I would never drink again. And I, I only lasted three days. Well, well, yeah, you know, welcome, you know, brother, you know, uh, I'm with you. Now, here's a good one. If you are satisfied he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Part of the qualification process that we've almost lost sight of in Alcoholics Anonymous is qualifying the person as an alcoholic. If you're qualifying somebody and they don't have the obsession of the mind that you know they can they can stop or moderate, they're just in here for the coffee. You know, you don't need to work with them. 
If they don't have that allergy in the body, if one drink doesn't lead to the second drink that asks for the third drink that demands the fourth drink, then you don't need to work with them either. They've just got a drinking problem and they can solve that problem by not drinking. But if you're convinced they're an alcoholic, now, now, we can, now we can start to move forward. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of willpower. How when you start to drink, you get that motor going, and there's very, very little stopping it. Okay, you have to be arrested. You have to completely run out of booze. You have to pass out. You know, this is something an alcoholic is going to understand. Um, if he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him that he possibly can if he's not too alcoholic. But insist that if he's severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover himself. You know, well, I think I can control it. Well, try it for a while. You know, try controlling it for a while. This is my phone number. If you can control it, you know, rock on. You know what I mean? I wish I could control it. I'd be a partying fool. I can't, though. You know, I start off partying and end up sleeping in a bush or something. You know? Because I get the job done. You know what I mean? Anybody in here get the job done when they drink? You know what I'm talking about. His lightweights that go home. I gotta go home. Are you crazy? It's only two o'clock! Anybody in here use cocaine so you could drink like for 24 hours straight and not pass out? Let the record show a huge amount of hands went up there. Oh my God. One time I started to use heroin to try to control my alcohol consumption. It was the only thing I knew of that would take away that the physical craving for more alcohol. Is that nuts? Nuts. I thought it was a good idea. You know? I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I went to new lows. Start doing that, and then things get decadent really fast. Oh man, I ended up with a girlfriend who could remove her front tooth. You know? Oh my god. Oh. Moved her in with me and mom, you know? Wondered my, why my mother had such a problem, you know. All she'd do is sleep all day long, you know. And, oh, God. She stole a, she stole license plates off the neighbor's car, you know. To, to, oh, oh, man. It's a mess. It's a mess. You know, there's all kinds of different stuff that can happen when you get involved in that. Uh, continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. It's a fatal malady. You know, and if they threaten to kill you, you know, you can always talk to them later. Uh, get out of there. You know, on a 12-step call, this one time this guy goes, yeah, you know, I was on a 12-step call, and I was doing, you know, I was talking and talking, but it was, I was really nervous. I go, why were you nervous? He goes, because he was cleaning his handgun while I was doing the 12-step call. I go, what are you, crazy? The guy's drunk and cleaning a handgun, and you're telling him about AA? We don't do this stuff to get killed, you know? Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. The body, the physical craving, the mind, the mental obsession. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Because that's what Charlie, the alcoholism counselor, did with me. And that's what made me believe this guy was not bullshitting me. 
You know, I knew a lot of other people who ha- who had all kinds of all, all kinds of uh, advice for me. You know, and uh, you know, uh, uh, they're begging me or they're telling me, why don't, you know, why don't you just drink beer? My boss would do that. Why don't you just drink beer? Why don't I just drink beer? Because I have to drink forty bottles in the next hour. Why do I just drink beer? You know, these are these are these are uh, you know people that don't understand alcoholism. Keep his attention. Uh, explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Many people are doomed in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because they never realize their predicament because nobody's qualifying them. Nobody's doing a first step with them. Nobody's showing them what the real problem is. They're telling them that, that their problem is drinking. Their problem is is they can't separate from alcohol. Their problem is is they can't live sober. Their problem is is they've got a strange mental twist that is going to keep bringing them back to the poison that's killing them. You know that that and their life is unmanageable across the board. I mean, you know, we we can't pussyfoot around with with this stuff. Uh, doctors are rightly loath to tell the alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to them about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. You can paint them into the corner. You know, you can paint them into the corner, buddy. It's Custer's last stand, and there's more Indians coming. You know, uh, you know, like this, because there's a step two. Um, even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he's become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question, if he will. Tell him exactly what happened to you. They're talking about the spiritual experience, the spiritual awakening. Stress the spiritual feature freely. If the man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. Um, The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. I always tell him, Alcoholism is your problem. Spiritual living is your solution. And we've got a way to teach you how to live spiritually. Not live religiously, live spiritually. And spiritual principles are good. They're going to help to help you really start to put some quality back in your life. You know what I mean? You're living in a car. You know, let us teach you some spiritual principles and maybe you can get back on your feet. Um To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. This is something that you also have to drill into their head. That it's not going to be about them getting their recovery and going home and watching the new season of Lost. It's going to be about about self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. It's going to be about giving back. They're going to have to develop a service ethic if they're going to want any type of quality in their life. You look at the happiest people on this planet, and you can always ask them, what are you doing for others? What are you doing for others? And they'll be able to answer you, whether they're, whether they're working at a soup kitchen or, or you know, they're, they're, I, I mean, anybody that's really happy, that happiness comes from giving of themselves. It just does. We, we aren't happy when it's all about us. As alcoholics, we've proved that. We can't get enough toys. We can't get enough sex. We can't get enough drugs. We can't get enough booze. We can't get enough power. 
You know, we can't. It's not available. What truly brings us happiness is a spiritual condition that's followed by uh, unselfish, constructive action and self-sacrifice. Here we go. Here's where you start to do the real work. Everybody, you know, I hear all the time the work. Take somebody through the work. Take somebody through the work. I had a I had a spiritual advisor. His name was Joe Hawk, and he used to he used to challenge that that thought. He said, "Chris, what I believe is the first eleven steps prepare us to do the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. The work of Alcoholics Anonymous is in the twelfth step." And more and more I come to understand what he says and believe what he says. The first, step, the first 11 steps are about preparing us to be of maximum service to God and our fellow man. Here's what we're supposed to do. Outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, the fourth step, how you straightened out your past, how you went out and made amends, and why you were now endeavoring, endeavoring to be helpful to him. A little bit about the 12th step. Now, how do you do that with, a new, with, with somebody if you've not done an inventory or made amends? How are you going to share that experience with them? It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital role in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you are helping him. Certainly, if they don't respond and start to work the program with you, you're going to have been helped because you went and did a 12-step call. Nothing, nothing, uh, nothing assures immunity from drinking uh, more than intensive work with alcoholics. Make it plain he's under no obligation to you that you hope only that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. This really, this is really an, a sponsorship ethic that we should have. We, they, when we get somebody through the steps, they shouldn't be obligated to us. My, both of, well, my first sponsor was adamant about this. He goes, Chris, all the work I'm doing with you, you feel like you need to pay me back. I'm telling you right now, I don't want you to pay me back. I want you to, I want you to do it to, for somebody else. I don't need to be paid back. And that lesson really did stick with me. Suggest how important it is that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Oh, I thought it was a selfish program. This is telling us that we need to tell the newcomer, so we need to be doing it ourselves, that we need to place the welfare of other people ahead of our own. That's a revolutionary concept. It's more important to help people than to help ourselves. That's not how I was. I had a, I had a library of self-help books that would have contradicted that. You know, Think and Grow Rich. You know, all of these books. And they were wonderful books. But they were about how I could profit and how I could gain money, power, and sex. That's what those books were about. This is basically telling us that we need to shift our perception about what's going to be meaningful in our life and start to work for other people and put their welfare ahead of our own. And we're supposed to be teaching our sponsees to do that. Um, If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you've perhaps made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. I disturb people about the question of alcoholism all the time. 
and I cut room. I cut rooms in half. I, I probably did it tonight. <laughs> uh, this is all to the good. What happens is the first thing that happens when you get hit with some truth, if it's true for you, the first thing that happens is when you get hit, from, hit with some truth, you're pissed off at the person who told you. That's human nature. But you have to internalize it. Whatever dark thing got brought up in you to make you pissed off at the person telling you this stuff, you need to look at that dark spot in your life. And when you come to terms with that, you come to terms with some truth. That maybe this stuff is true. Maybe this stuff is my experience. Maybe I need this recovery process. So, I always believe that it's better to step on somebody's feelings than to step on their grave. I just do. And I will be very, very blunt with people. I'm not here to win friends and influence people. You know, I've got enough friends. I'm not here anymore to make people like me. That was, I was desperately attached to that in my early days in AA. I planned what I was going to share just to make sure every single person in the room would like what I shared. i got to tell you, you, you know I don't care about that anymore, I hope. You know. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He'll be more likely to follow your suggestions if you've painted him into a corner. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all the program. He may be rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning. A four-step and a fista? They told me never to admit anything even if they got me on video. Um, Do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. On your first visit, tell him about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If he shows interest, lend him your copy of the book. All of this has taken place on the first visit. It's a lot of information, you know, to, to, to push into somebody. Unless your friend wants to talk further about himself, do not wear out your welcome. Give him a chance to think it over. You've done the sales pitch. Now it's a take it or leave it. Folks, Alcoholics Anonymous today is so much more about quantity than it is about quality, it's unbelievable. You look at every decision the New York General Service makes, and it's all about increasing the size of the fellowship and the scope of the fellowship. That's not, this book is telling us we're not on a membership drive. We don't get a toaster for everybody we sign up in here. This is about the people who need it and want it who want to work with us. You'll be most successful with alcoholics if you do not exhibit any passion for crusader reform. Never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection. And again, that's the steps. Show him how they worked with you. How the steps worked with you. Offer him friendship and fellowship. Tell him that if he wants to get well, you will do anything to help. If they don't want to work through the steps with you, bye-bye. Find somebody who will. This doesn't mean that you know they're not allowed in AA or we, should, we shouldn't be friendly with them. It means that we should not be spending our precious resource, our personal time, as recovered alcoholics, working with them. What are you going to try to do? Help them, help them manage a life that's unmanageable? You want, to ma- you want to be a manager of an unmanageable venture? I did that for a long period of time. Call me when you get in trouble. And they did. You know what I mean? Oh, my God, did they? 
I wasn't helping them. I was allowing them to remain insincere. I was allowing them to remain unrecovered. And I was allowing them to think that they were safe and protected because they had a sponsor that they were working with. When in, in point of fact, they were not. They were not working with a sponsor. They had an advisor. You know, they had a, a, a counselor with no professional training. You know, if he is not interested in your solution, if he expects for you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties, or a nurse for his sprees, or, or a coach for his drama, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. <clears throat> Bye-bye. You've got my phone number. When you're willing to work with me, I'll do anything I can. But I only know one way to recover from alcoholism. And I would not be doing you any service by allowing you to run your own program. We know that doesn't work. Okay? If, if you could run your own program, you wouldn't be sleeping in a car. You know what I mean? This he may do after he gets hurt some more. If he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. So what do you got to bring with you on a 12-step call? Don't bring your prize book with the Joe and Charlie signatures and all, all your notes. Have a spare book in the trunk. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. Okay. How many times have we asked people, are you willing to go to any lengths? But we haven't offered them the dignity of understanding what any lengths looks like. How do you know what any lengths looks like? Well, you leave an individual this book. You've already done a 12-step call with them. You've talked about the steps. You've talked about the problem. You've talked about your own recovery. Read this book. And then, on the second visit, you ask them, are you ready? Are you ready to go to any lengths? You, you've read this book. You understand what any lengths looks like. Then you're going to get a yes or a no. He should not be pushed or prodded. If he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. You want to try primal scream therapy and pyramids? God bless you. You got my number. You know what I mean? Give it a shot. We have no monopoly on God. We also have no monopoly on separation from alcohol. I think what we have a monopoly on is recovery from alcoholism. Because I, I'm in the profession. I, you know, I, I deal with professionals all the time. I don't see recoveries if they're not spiritual. I see abstinence. I see sobriety. But I never see recoveries for, with alcoholics or drug addicts that come out of treatment without some form of spiritual practice behind it. I just don't. I see very cranky sobriety sometimes. I see that in meetings sometimes. You ever have those old-time cranky people in the meetings up here? <laughs> Take the cotton out of your ears and shove it in your mouth. <laughs> if you're recovered, tell your face. But I don't judge. Do not be discouraged if your project is not, prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. Again, you know, it's, you know we're, we're not going for a batting average here. You know, what we're going for is for the people who can and will work with us. I worked with literally hundreds of guys my first ten years in AA. I probably sponsored over a hundred guys. And the guys that are still with me today, who are still members in good standing in Alcoholics Anonymous, are the people who went through the steps. I don't know where the other guys are. 
They came to the conclusion that this Alcoholics Anonymous thing was an overreaction to a problem that they had misjudged, and they disappeared. You know what I mean? And all the time I spent with those people was wasted. It was wasted. It, it, it helped me to learn a little bit about sponsoring, maybe, but it really was a waste of time. I could have been working with other people. The people that went through the steps, every single one of them is still sober. I have a 100% recovery rate for the people that have gone through the steps with me. I have like a 90% failure rate for the people that haven't. That's a significant statistic in, in, in my life. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what we have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. How many times have we done that? Oh, my sponsor went out again, you know, so I went over and talked to him at work. I mean, we're chasing him. We're chasing. That's not what we're supposed to do. If we've, if we've qualified them and we've talked to them about what the recovery solution is, they know what they need to do. They know what they need to do. We need to, we need to wait for that willingness. And sometimes that willingness will come after a spree. One more trip to the court. You know, one more trip to the hospital. Sometimes we need to wait. If you leave such a person alone, he may become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. You've ruined his drinking if you've qualified him as an alcoholic. He's never going to have fun drinking again. He'll hate you. You know, because you've told him the truth about alcohol. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. This is where our time is of the essence. Our time is very, 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 uh, um, it's very, very important. Suppose you're now making your second visit to a man. He's read this volume and says he's prepared to go go through with the 12 steps of the program of recovery. They're willing to go through the 12 steps of recovery on the second visit. Having had the experience yourself, again, we can't give away anything that we don't have. You can't share your experience with a spiritual. Uh, you can't share a spiritual experience with someone uh, 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 if you haven't had one. You can give him much practical advice. Let him know you are available if he wishes to make a decision, the third step, and tell his story, the fifth step. But do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. Um, there's reverse promises over on the next page. Um, if you do this, it may mean the loss of many nights' sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruption to your business, it may mean sharing your money, your home, counseling frantic wives and re- uh, relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. Your spouse may sometimes say they are neglected. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he's violent. So all my guys take martial arts just in case they got to kick some ass. <laughs> Sometimes you'll have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. I draw the line at sedative administration. I had some bad luck with that in the past, so I stay away from that. Uh, another time you may have to send for the police. Occasionally you will need to meet these situations. They sound very, very negative, but... If, if, if this kind of work is going to ensure our immunity from alcohol, if this kind of work is going to sustain our recovery, it's important for us to do this. It is way important for us to do this. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts God and clean house. 
folks, I have so enjoyed being up here in Winston-Salem. Uh, I am gonna, I'm gonna be making North Carolina my home permanently, uh, you know, God willing. And uh, uh, you know, I, I just really look forward to this wonderful, wonderful fellowship you have down here. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh,